I know a man in Christ. Elder Sophroni, the Hesychist and Theologian. By Metropolitan of Nafpaktos Hierotheus. With a forward by Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew. Published by Birth of the Theotokos Monastery, Lavadia, Greece. To the community of the Monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England, the lowly sheep of Elder Sophroni's fold, and to the blessed place, insignificant, small, and poor, but founded upon many tears and heartfelt groaning and blood and sweat. Forward by His All Holiness, the Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew to the Greek edition. Bartholomew, by the grace of God, Archbishop of Constantinople, New Rome, and Ecumenical Patriarch. To the Holy Metropolitan, Herotheus of Nafaktos and St. Velasios, our beloved brother and concelebrant, grace be with your holiness and peace from God. The impending publication, under the title, I Know a Man in Christ, of the biography of Elder Sophronia of Blessed Memory, written by your holiness, whom we hold dear, has brought particular joy to the Mother Church and to us personally. We were a little hesitant and cautious, on the other hand, about your request that we write a preface for the book, lest our words should seem inadequate to convey the great spiritual stature of the beloved Elder and his supranatural way of life. Taking courage, however, from our great love for the Venerable Elder and responding to Your Holiness's wish, we shall set down a few humble thoughts about his life and conduct. Elder Sophroni, of blessed memory, was a man who took upon himself the ultimate responsibility that God expects from Christians by giving himself over to the hell of repentance, as he writes characteristically in his books, in order to become like Christ, who descended into his own hell of love. Consequently, the exalted theology of Elder Sophroni, which was his great glory, was not the fruit of academic study and mere intellectual involvement. It was truly the radiance of his heart, illuminated by the brightness of the uncreated divine light and purified by his utter forgetfulness of himself and his repentance to the point of self-hatred that brings salvation. The ever-memorable Elder, having become a noose-seeing God, toiled to enable everyone to share in the same self-emptying way of life, which leads to participation in the divine. Quote, I am struggling desperately to describe the most magnificent science known on earth or in heaven. It is not assimilated in a few years of academic study, but through fiery repentance and our abiding in the spirit of the commandments. End of quote. From we shall see him as he is. The Elder of Blessed Memory always stressed that our aim is fulfillment of God's will, eternal life, and knowledge of God, not moral improvement. The vision of divine light, which visited him already in his youth when he was living in the West, led him to Holy Athos, the allotted portion of our Mother Church of Constantinople, the saving refuge and place of sanctification for a host of God-loving souls. There he devoted himself to asceticism an unceasing noetic prayer under the sure guidance of our Father among the saints, Siloan the Athenite. He followed the Lord, dying with him through obedience and cutting off his own will. And he knew Christ through the Holy Spirit, as did his spiritual father. Having become completely like the Lord in his sufferings, 
He was raised up with him and received such light, such life-giving force and wisdom as can only proceed from the source of light and life. However, the unsearchable providence of God did not allow the elder to finish his life on holy Athos as was his desire. The lamp had to be put upon the lampstand to give light to everyone in the house. Thus he went to the west, where he would shine not just as a lamp, but as an exceedingly bright star, and lead to the light of divine knowledge a multitude of despairing souls who longed for the Lord. There, with the blessing and under the protection of the Mother Church, which he greatly loved and deeply revered, he truly founded a new commonwealth, a new upper room of Pentecost, where monks and simple believers of different races, languages, and traditions gathered together and gather to this day, drawing life and inspiration from the name of sweetest Jesus and participation in the shared chalice. His untiring pastoral care and the great spiritual gift of discernment with which he was adorned seamlessly united people of very different origins. The sense of unity in Christ was experienced even more intensely when the elder celebrated the bloodless sacrifice, which was a unique and deeply moving event for all those taking part. Having tasted the spirit of Christ, Elder Sophroni could not avoid encountering in the divine liturgy the ocean of miseries of this world. In celebrating the liturgy, however, he repeated the divine act of the redemption of the world, offering a sacrifice and himself being offered as propitiation for the sins of humankind for all Adam. Although he had ascended to the height of divine vision, he always retained great reverence and respect for the shepherds of the church, particularly the venerable ecumenical patriarch and the patriarch. Instead of being exalted by the abundance of the divine revelations and by the richness of spiritual gifts which God bestowed on him, he ceaselessly humbled himself because, as he writes, having in spirit beheld Christ who loved us to the end, who prayed in Gethsemane and then on Golgotha, not resisting evil, he hated himself. Faced with such a spiritual personality, with whom you were closely acquainted and the nectar of whose sweet teaching you tasted, we cannot conceal the spiritual delight with which we receive this biography. We are firmly convinced that it will be of great benefit to the faithful. On this account, we warmly congratulate your holiness, our dear friend, on the labor you have undertaken in order to bring the life and divine teachings of the elder now at rest in heaven to all those who long to follow the same path to deification. Those who read the pages of this book with the ears of their soul open will clearly hear him calling them even today to that path with the timely and timeless words, quote, journey, dear friends, with us paupers to the cross, to reproaches, contempt, poverty, suffering, and later perhaps to death. There is no other path to true eternal glorification. For his namesake we are persecuted on all sides. End of quote. Letter to David Balfour. We pray that God may richly bless all the beloved readers and make them spiritually fruitful, and that your holiness, whom we hold dear, may receive an abundant hundredfold heavenly recompense from the ever-blessed Father who loves his children through his paternal intercessions to the Lord. From Constantinople we embrace you with a holy kiss, calling down upon you personally and upon all those who assisted in the publication, 
God's Grace and Infinite Mercy. Signed, 7th June 2007, Archbishop of Constantinople, Beloved Brother in Christ, Bartholomew. Preface by the author to the Greek edition. More than 30 years have passed since the day I made the acquaintance of the ever-memorable Elder Sophroni Sakharov. I met him for the first time in 1976 at the Monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England, and from then onwards I was in frequent communication with him, the monastery, and the fathers, particularly Father Zacharias, and I also delighted in the elders' teaching. I continuously talked and wrote about the elder as the years passed, and from time to time I would promise that one day, if God accounted me worthy, I would write a book about this great contemporary father. Unfortunately, all my other concerns did not allow me to do so until now. The present book is divided into two parts. The first, entitled Spiritual Autobiography, includes chapters referring to the person and teaching of Elder Sophroni through his own writings. The second part, Everyday Life, Pastoral Ministry, describes how the elder served as a spiritual father, how he approached people, how he passed on to those who came to him seeking help, the atmosphere of Hezekiah, of stillness, in which he lived, and what he said to me during our numerous meetings. When someone has been occupied with something for 30 years, he has become familiar with the subject, and what he writes about it ought to be mature, the result of a long process, the final distillation. If, on the other hand, it is not mature, he himself is wholly responsible. This applies in the present case. I glorify the Holy Triune God in gratitude for this gift. I thank the abbot of the Holy Patriarchal and Stravopedic Monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, Archimandrite Kirill, Archimandrite Zacharias, and all the brethren, because they preserve the spiritual heritage of the great Elder Sophroni of blessed memory. The writer, too, stayed there from time to time and experienced their love. I also thank many people who helped with this publication, including Archimandrite Kalinikos Gregados, Diocesan preacher of the Holy Metropolis of Nafpaktos and St. Velasios, who wrote some of the texts on the computer and edited others, to Abbas Fotini of the Monastery of the Birth of the Theotokos, Pelagia, and her community, particularly the nun Siloani, who undertook the preparation of the book for publication. Professor E. Serbeti of the University of Athens and Dr. Vasiliki M., philologist who read the text and made relevant comments. I offer special heartfelt thanks to His All Holiness, the Archbishop of Constantinople, New Rome, and Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew, who willingly accepted my invitation and provided a fine foreword for the present book. I humbly ask his patriarchal prayers. Above all, I thank the elder of blessed memory, the aristocrat of the spiritual life who knew how to love in truth and freedom. Signed, Metropolitan Herotheus of Nafpaktos. Footnote on Abbas Fotini. Abbas Fotini passed away on the 10th of December 2007. The nun Silowani is now Abbas of the community. Translator's Note. Introduction. 
It is clear nowadays that many people, when they analyze theological and spiritual subjects, are to some extent spiritually and theologically confused. Some are remarkably sterile or moralistic in their analysis of the theological and spiritual matters. Others are imbued with the scholastic perception of things, and others again simply speak speculatively. I think that speculation, especially theological speculation when it is devoid of experience, causes great harm to the Orthodox Church. In the texts that I have written from time to time on various theological and ecclesiastical issues, I have tried to avoid such traps. We live in an era when many people look at the teaching of the Holy Fathers through rational, moralistic, and psychological analysis. I therefore regard it as a great blessing from God that he accounted me worthy to meet in the course of my life a number of great patristic and ascetic figures who revealed to me the deeper significance of Orthodox ecclesiastical life. When Father Theoclitos of Dionysio, the ever-memorable monk of the Holy Mountain, read my book, The Person in the Orthodox Tradition, he wrote to me, among other things, quote, You have been scandalously favored by God. End of quote. As was characteristically clear from the whole text of his letter, he meant that God had been good to me because I knew Orthodox theology from blessed elders and theologians, and I was able to express it even though I was living in the midst of a tangle of theological confusion. One expression of being scandalously favored by God is the fact that I was born into a family environment that was poor but possessed rich ecclesiastical experience and life. From my birth, God granted me to acquire a very valuable spiritual inheritance. Later, I had the honor of studying theology in the atmosphere of Thessaloniki, where the theological analyses of St. Gregory Palamas prevailed. Subsequently, I met great ascetics of the Holy Mountain in the contrite climate of prayer and repentance. Later, I was accounted worthy to be made a priest by the ever-memorable Metropolitan Kalinikos of Edessa, Pella, and Al Almopia, a bishop who truly loved God and the Church and who lived like an ascetic and a monk. From the beginning of my priesthood, I lived the common life in the metropolis with a bishop who was transparent in every aspect of his life and was remarkable for his intense longing, love, and ardent zeal for God, the Church, and humankind. Beyond doubt, my being scandalously favored by God includes my acquaintance with Elder Sofroni Sakharov. He was born in Russia, grew to spiritual manhood on the Holy Mountain, and lived the last part of his life in Essex, England, where he had set up a monastery and passed on his spiritual experience and maturity to his disciples, who came to him to be initiated in the deeper elements of the Orthodox tradition. I consider it a great blessing from God that I knew this man, who in reality was an earthly angel. Thus, I knew him, and I can offer this testimony. This book is an expression of my most profound gratitude to God and to Elder Sofroni. I wrote it with great longing, boundless love, and deepest contrition. The title of the book, I Know a Man in Christ, is a phrase from the Apostle Paul and refers to his own experience of revelation, which he describes in the third person singular. This phrase is used here for two reasons. The first is that Elder Sofroni, too, 
had a parallel experience with that of St. Paul, and he too could have used these words of the apostles. St. Paul is speaking about ecstasy and the ecclesiastical, not the Stoic, sense when he writes, quote, I know a man in Christ, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, end of quote, 2 Corinthians 12, 2. He goes on to write that such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Among the various interpretations, that of St. Maximus the Confessor is characteristic. He says that the first heaven is practical philosophy, purification of the heart. The second heaven is natural theoria, illumination of the noose. And the third heaven is theology, the vision of God. Next, he speaks about his rapture to more mystical sites. That is to say, from the third heaven, he was caught up to paradise, where he heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter, 2 Corinthians 12.4. This is a higher degree of theoria in which he heard ineffable, uncreated words, which cannot be fully conveyed using created words and concepts. Elder Sophroni also lived this experience of revelation, as those who read this book will ascertain. He experienced ecstasy, being caught up to the third heaven and to paradise, and he lived many experiences of the uncreated light. The words of St. Isaac the Syrian apply that few are found worthy of this great experience. He writes, quote, only one man among thousands will be found who after much vigilance has been accounted worthy to attain to pure prayer and to break through that boundary and gain experience of that mystery. Indeed, the majority of men have in no wise been deemed worthy of pure prayer, but only a very few. But as to that mystery which is after pure prayer and lies beyond it, there is scarcely to be found a single man from generation to generation who, by God's grace, has attained thereto. End of quote. The second reason for using this passage from the epistles in the title of this book is that in the person of Elder Sophroni I was deemed worthy of seeing a man in Christ. I saw, heard, and tasted words of life, the fragrance of immortality. Whenever I approached him, I felt that I was in the presence of a great figure like the Apostle Paul, St. Simeon, the new theologian, and St. Gregory Palamas, all of whom he too loved very much. Sometimes, when I was with him, I permitted my thoughts, without imagination or speculation, to penetrate his quiet form and his fiery being. I cannot describe this fact more analytically. How is it possible for someone to enter someone else's life in thought to recreate his form and his personality, and yet for this to happen without imagination and speculation. Even I am unable to explain it. I think that this approach is a matter of spiritual experience. What does the unborn baby feel when it is in its mother's womb and preparing to enter human society? What does a baby feel when it clings to its mother's breast and sucks her milk? What does one feel when one reads a patristic text by, for example, St. Isaac the Syrian, or St. Simeon the New Theologian, and one's whole being is filled with delight, to the point that one's body is paralyzed and becomes inactive, not out of laziness, but on account of an intense mobility that defies explanation. What follows is the deposition 
of a personal testimony to Elder Sophroni, or rather it is a cautious spiritual approach to the great patristic figure of Elder Sophroni. The first part of the book attempts to present the great elder mainly from his own writings, which he left us as a rich inheritance. Reading these texts at various times, I have realized that Elder Sophroni is somewhere between St. Simeon, the new theologian, and St. Gregory Palamas, having experiences and spiritual gifts similar to theirs. In his book, We Shall See Him As He Is, he recorded experiences comparable with those of St. Simeon, the new theologian, just as St. Simeon recorded his experiences in his works. At the same time, he carried on a dialogue with scholastic academic theology in his correspondence with David Balfour, published in the book Struggle to Know God, as did St. Gregory Palamas with the scholasticism of his day. Thus, in sketching the spiritual figure of Elder Sophroni in this first part of the book, I mainly use the words of those two great fathers of the Church, St. Simeon the New Theologian and St. Gregory Palamas. In the second part of the book, I have attempted to describe what I learned and experienced in the elders' presence during my visits to the monastery in Essex. First, the whole atmosphere in which he lived at that time is described, as well as the major questions that preoccupied me. This is the only way to appreciate the value of God's blessing in opening this great and marvelous treasure for me. It really was a discovery after a painful search. And because I do not wish to give a dry description and record record of the words that he spoke to me on various occasions, I have tried to place them within the total atmosphere that I encountered there during my visits. It is, in any case, not easy to isolate the words of a holy man from the surroundings in which he lives, particularly surroundings that he himself has created. It should be noted that many of the elders' words refer to issues of the spiritual life and to spiritual fathers who guide Christians. They are, however, of benefit to everyone. To be sure, I recognize that it is a great temptation for someone to present a major figure in relation to himself and his own state. It would be better to remove one's own self completely from such descriptions. I confess, however, that when I began this work, I did not wish to produce an impersonal biography and analysis. Such great and living personalities cannot be analyzed using historical data. Thus, of necessity, personal information has also been included, for which I ask the reader's sympathetic judgment and understanding. In this way, this book about Elder Sophroni took its present form, particularly in the second part. The reader, however, ought to read it in the abstract with his attention directed solely towards the great figure of Elder Sophroni, ignoring the one with whom he was speaking. I am intensely aware, and I write this in sincerity and simplicity, that this great favor from God, that I should know such men as Elder Sophroni, may perhaps be for my condemnation. I am often intensely aware of the fact that God has revealed many things to me and has given me many gifts in order that I might respond to them. I am very concerned about the passage and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Luke 12:47. I entreat those who benefit from reading this book to glorify God for revealing such great patristic figure 
figures even in our time, but also to pray that my meeting with Elder Sofroni and everything that he revealed to me may at least help me until the end of my life, that I may have a Christian ending, painless, without shame, and peaceful, and a good defense before the dread judgment seat of Christ. Written in Nafpaktos on 11th of March 2007, the Feast of St. Sophronius, Patriarch of Jerusalem, signed Metropolitan Herotheus of Nafpaktos. Part 1. Spiritual Autobiography Chapter 1. The Charismatic Elder Sophroni There is no doubt that Archimandrite Sophroni Sakharov is numbered among the great elders and fathers of the 20th century. I have sometimes called him the hesychist and theologian, because he is truly distinguished by these two great spiritual gifts. Here among Nicholas Sakharov, the great-nephew of the ever-memorable elder, his brother's grandson, and his spiritual child, presents Father Sophroni's great significance and value in a relevant book that he has written. At the beginning of his book, he writes about the worldwide impact of the elder's words, as Father Sophroni is a universal event, and one might be astonished at the universality of his appeal. As he writes, quote, His books have already been translated into more than 20 languages, covering all the continents of the world. His writings seem to inspire a response from the widest range of readership, from theologically illiterate readers to an audience with the highest level of academic interests, from a simple Russian babushka to a renowned scholar of a Western university. End of quote. And, as he explains, this is due to his having become, following the example of the Apostle Paul, all things to all men, 1 Corinthians 9.22. He goes on briefly to describe his personality. Quote, again taken from, I love, therefore I am, the theological legacy of Archimandrite Sophroni, by Nicholas Sakharov. The mere facts of Father Sophroni's Biography allude to the all-embracing universality of his figure. His lifespan covers almost the entire 20th century. Born in Russia, he later lived in the West. Coming from a bourgeois family, he started his career as an artist. Brought up as a Christian, he also experienced Oriental mysticism. Plunged into the cultural crucible of the Russian intelligentsia and having experienced the glamour of a successful artist in Paris. He abandoned the world and lived as a simple monk in a monastery, then as a hermit in utter poverty. As a priest, he continued to serve thousands of people, opening up thereby to their individual worlds." End of quote. Father Sofroni was born in Moscow on the 22nd of September, 1896. He studied at the Moscow School of Painting, Sculpture, and Architecture, and its Soviet successor from 1918 to 1921. Subsequently, he lived in Paris between 1922 and 1925, having passed briefly through Italy and Berlin. He then moved to the Holy Mountain and lived there as a monk from 1925 until 1947, initially in the Russian monastery of St. Pantolemon, and then in dread Kurulia, but also as a hermit in the cave of the Holy Trinity near the monastery of St. Paul. 
he returned to Paris and remained there from 1947 until 1959. Finally, he went to England, to the county of Essex, in 1959, where he founded the Monastery of St. John the Baptist under the spiritual jurisdiction of the Ecumenical Patriarch. He died there on the 11th of July, 1993, in extreme old age. He was 97 years old. He lived for a century and passed through many social, spiritual, and worldwide events. 1. The Theology of Elder Sophroni Many theologians and monks have remarked that Father Sophroni is the greatest patristic figure of our era. Father Theocletos of Dionysio, a monk of the Holy Mountain, told me, quote, If there is one great hesychist today who has lived Orthodox hesychism in depth, and most significantly can formulate it in writing and compare it with other traditions, it is Elder Sophroni, end of quote. He said this because, as he explained, it is not enough for someone to be a hesychist and to have seen the uncreated light. He must also have intellectual qualities and training in order to express and formulate theologically this revelatory experience and hesychism in all its subtle workings, and to distinguish it from philosophical speculation and other anthropocentric experiences. What characterizes the great fathers of the church and sets them apart from other holy here monks and monks is that they had personal experience of God, reached deification, theosis, had excellent intellectual gifts, a capacious noose, and they had also acquired the education of their day. They were therefore able, on the one hand, to record this experience, and on the other, to confront the various heretics of their era. Thus we can understand the difference between St. Athanasius the Great, who was a young deacon at the First Ecumenical Council, and St. Spiridon and St. Nicholas, who were also present at that Ecumenical Council as bishops. All three had spiritual experience of God and knew that the Word, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is uncreated and not created. But only St. Athanasius could confront the heresy of Arius, which was based on philosophical principles in discussion. Father John Romanides of Blessed Memory, who greatly respected Father Sophroni, used to say that, according to the patristic tradition, there are two energies of the soul, the noose and the reason or mind. We acquire knowledge of God through the noose, and through the mind we acquire knowledge of the perceptible world and express the experience of the noose. When these two faculties of the soul are working well, they act in parallel. Thus human beings are divided into four categories, depending on the level of their noetic faculty and also their rational faculty. In the first category belong those with little intellectual attainments who rise to the highest level of noetic perfection. In other words, simple monks with great spiritual experience. In the second category belong those with the highest intellectual attainments who fall to low or even the lowest level of noetic imperfection. Philosophers, scientists, and academic teachers come into this category. And the third category are those who reach both the highest intellectual attainments and noetic perfection. In other words, the great fathers of the church. And to the fourth category belong those 
of meager intellectual ability and attainments with a hardening of the heart, that is to say, the majority of people. In my personal opinion, and the view of many other people, Father Sofroni certainly belonged to the third category. Not only did he reach a high degree of experience of God, since he was repeatedly granted the experience of the uncreated light, but he also used his exceptionally great intellectual qualities to record the exalted experience that he had gained in his spiritual life. It should, of course, be stated that the experience of God that comes about through purification of the heart from passions and illumination of the noose, and is acquired by the grace of God and each one's personal struggle, is not the same as the intellectual and other gifts that someone has, and the general experience that he has gained in the course of his life. No one can reach deification through his intellectual gifts. These, together with his education, help him to express his experience and to deal with heretics who use philosophy to talk about God. We see this in all the experienced saints. For instance, when we read the texts of the Holy Gospels, we perceive that the evangelists had personal knowledge of Christ, but each of them, depending on his gifts and his education, expressed this experience differently. Thus, there is a difference in the mode of expression and in how events are recorded in the four evangelists. The holy evangelists Matthew and Mark describe events in a simpler way. St. Luke the evangelist is distinguished by his education and his medical knowledge, and St. John the evangelist is characterized by his exalted theology, which is also the result of his particular spiritual gifts. For that reason, it can be said that the what of the revelation is not the same as the how. The what, in other words, the content of the revelation is given by God, which is why it is described as revelation, whereas man shapes the how of the revelation by the natural qualities and charismas that God has given him. The ever-memorable Father John Romanides, following the apostolic and patristic tradition, has expressed this as follows. The God-seeing saint reaches the highest degree of revelation, which is Pentecost, and sees God without seeing, hears him without hearing, and understands him without understanding. Essentially, he was repeating what St. Simeon the New Theologian wrote, that the saints see invisibly his inexpressible beauty. They hold without touching. They comprehend incomprehensibly his imageless image, his formless form, his shape without shape, in sight without seeing, and in beauty uncompounded, ever varied, and unchanging. During the experience, the one who is deified lives uncreated words and concepts. As St. Paul writes, quote, I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up in the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. End of quote, Second Corinthians 12, 2-4. Subsequently, however, when the one who has beheld God wishes to put this experience into words for the benefit of his spiritual children, or in order to confront heretical teachings of various philosophies, philosophizing theologians, 
He conveys these ineffable words and concepts using created words, concepts, and images. We see this in the life and teaching of Father Sofroni. By the grace of God, but also thanks to his own personal disposition and thirst, he acquired rare experience and knowledge of God. In his book, We Shall See Him As He Is, which is in some way his spiritual biography, one finds many such spiritual experiences of God. Subsequently, in order to guide his spiritual children, but also in order to make a clear distinction between the spiritual experience of God-seeing theologians and the intellectual fabrications of academic and philosophizing theologians, as well as to distinguish the spiritual experience of the Orthodox Church from any other sort of Western or Eastern experience, he recorded this spiritual experience using the vocabulary that he had acquired from his studies. Thus, his books show, on the one hand, the great charisma of divine vision that God had given him, and on the other hand, how his momentous experience was formulated in words. Two of his spiritual children describe this process. Here among Nicholas Sakharov, in his book, I Love, Therefore I Am, The Theological Legacy of Archimandrite Sophroni, and Archimandrite Zacharias Zacharou, in his book, Christ, Our Way in Our Life, a presentation of the theology of Archimandrite Sophroni. We shall look briefly at both of these. A. The Theological Formation of Elder Sophroni Sakharov Father Sophroni's disciple, Hiramonk Nicholas Sakharov, describes in a pertinent and persuasive way the contemporary trends with which the elder came into contact and which influenced him in giving shape to the experience that he had acquired by the grace of God. Some of the points which played a significant role in the formation of his revelatory theology will be noted. Firstly, Father Sophroni lived in the most significant centers of his era. As has already been mentioned, Father Sophroni was born in Moscow, in the Christian environment of Russian society, which was characterized by a simple relationship with God, regular church attendance, and prayer. As an adolescent and young man, he also became acquainted with social upheavals, as he lived at the period when the First World War and the Russian Revolution broke out, with the well-known results. Later, he lived in Paris, where he was associated with the artistic culture of his era and with great thinkers, philosophers, and theologians. Subsequently, he lived on the Holy Mountain, where he met St. Siloan, who had experiences of divine vision and revelations. There, he also encountered all the forms of monastic life, from Cenobitic life to the extreme form of Hesychism. He acquired considerable experience from being a spiritual father to many monks. The Holy Mountain was decisive for his whole life and influenced him profoundly. This is clear from his books, but it is also known to all of us from long association with him. Afterwards, he returned to Paris as a mature empirical theologian, and thus he was able to discern the difference between academic and hesychistic theology. He also found himself involved in ecclesiastical controversies due to the communist regime in Russia and its consequences in the ecclesiastical sphere. Finally, he lived in England and died there, having given spiritual direction to thousands of people who came from all over the world to find help in their spiritual quest. 
Consequently, Father Sofroni lived in the main centers for philosophical, cultural, and intellectual creativity, but also for experiencing orthodox spirituality. Secondly, the theology of Father Sofroni was shaped by the nature of his inner life and his ardent quest for God, which expressed itself through unquenchable spiritual thirst. This is a rare gift. From an early age, he was influenced by the intense spiritual environment of his home, an environment of prayer and reference to God. He had himself received great gifts from God. He describes how, coming out of church, in his mother's arms, he would see two lights, the light of the sun and another light, which he later realized was the uncreated light. In his adolescence and youth, this inwardness was expressed through painting and the vivid remembrance of death that led him to Eastern mysticism. Quote, in his painting, Father Sofroni attempted to discover eternal beauty, the mystery of each visible object. For him, art was a powerful means of breaking through present reality, through time, into new horizons of being. These artistic experiences bore a quasi-mystical character. He recalls several experiences of falling out of time and of contemplation of the light of artistic inspiration. This would later allow him to draw a clear distinction between the natural light of the human intellect and the uncreated light of God." End of quote. The awareness of the difference between the finite and the infinite, between present reality and eternal truth, together with the inspiration of the All-Holy Spirit, developed in him the charisma of remembrance of death and a thirst to escape from the finite and find the eternal. This led him during his student years to Eastern mysticism. Thus his art, his thinking, and his inner state combined to drive him ins insatiably toward the abstract, that is, the pan-transcendent. Later, however, when Christ was revealed to him in the light, and especially when he lived within the uncreated light, from Holy Saturday until the Tuesday of Bright Week in 1924, he understood his grave existential fall in seeking eternal life in the supra-personal absolute. Thus he gave himself over to continuous repentance and insatiable spiritual mourning. This led him to the monastery of St. Pantaleon on the Holy Mountain, and subsequently to the desert of the Holy Mountain to dread Kurulia, where he surrendered himself to unrestrainable weeping and lamentation. In this manner he experienced the philanthropy and love of God. Thirdly, his theological vocabulary was influenced externally by the philosophical trends that he encountered in his era and the places where he lived. In the first place, in Russian society, he was familiar with all the rich heritage of the Russian culture of the 18th and 19th centuries, whose main focus was Christianity. In this context, he read with great enthusiasm the works of Gogol, Turgenev, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Pushkin. In the mid-19th century, Russia experienced an unprecedented philosophical awakening. Basically, Russian society was influenced by the whole philosophical tradition of the West, which after the Middle Ages led to the Enlightenment and later to Romanticism. More than these philosophical trends, however, it was Sergius Bulgakov, a Russian emigre in Paris, who was for a time also his spiritual father, and also Nicholas 
Berdyev, the philosopher who influenced Father Sofroni. Father Sergius Bulgakov came from a Christian background, but he passed in turn through atheism, Marxism, and idealism before returning to Christianity. He regarded Christianity idealistically, so from idealistic philosophy he finally reached the idealistic realism of the Orthodox Church. Exiled in Paris, he became a professor at the Institute of St. Sergius. Apart from knowing the writings of the Fathers of the Church, he was also familiar with the ideas of Western philosophers such as Kant, Fichte, Fuberbach, Hegel, and Schilling, as well as Sol Soloviev and Florensky. Bulgakov influenced Father Sofroni in his theology of the Trinity and self-emptying kenosis, Christology, his views on the Divine Eucharist, and his anthropology. Father Sofroni, however, with the personal experience that he possessed, raised these views to higher levels. For instance, he spoke about the self-emptying of the Word on the cross and in the resurrection, but also in the Divine Eucharist. He was therefore cautious about making use of Bulgakov's theology because of his mistaken theory of sophiology and because of the objections expressed by various theologians to his theology. Nicholas Berdyev came from an aristocratic and military background, and he was motivated by liberal tendencies. Initially, he was imbued with Marxist ideas, but he remained unsatisfied because his philosophical idealism, inspired by Kant and Fichte, was incompatible with Marx's materialistic philosophy. Next, he abandoned Marxism and approached Christianity. Ultimately, he was always a free spirit and was therefore described as the philosopher-apostle of freedom. Berdyev was essentially a synthesis of the various manifestations of Russian thought of the 19th century, incorporating the characteristic features of the Slavophiles and the Westernizers. Father Sofroni's personal contact with Berdyev undoubtedly left traces on his theology, particularly with regard to the person and the definition of man as microtheos. This influence should not, however, be overrated, as many of Berdyev's ideas about the person and man's freedom and creativity were contrary to the Orthodox ascetic tradition. Father Sofroni, of course, looked at these ideas from the perspective of asceticism, God's revelations to him, and the effective help that St. Siloan the Athenite offered him, as we shall see below. The philosophical views that he encountered in these two philosophers and thinkers could not provide Father Sofroni with the answers he was seeking, namely the experience of prayer, the correct attitude towards God, how to overcome the passions, and how to attain eternity. Precisely for this reason, he abandoned everything and went to the holy mountain. There he met St. Siloan, a God-seeing Athenite monk who did not know philosophy but knew God from his own experience and was an empirical theologian. St. Siloan set the restless spirit of Father Sophroni at ease and provided an answer to the charisma of remembrance of death that he had received. Father Sophroni encountered an empirical theologian and an experienced guide, and his attitude towards him was that of the perfect disciple. From him he received confirmation of the experience that he had already acquired in Paris, which had in increased 
even more with later divine revelations vouchsafed to him by God. His personal experience, as expressed in the phrase, stay on the brink of despair, but when you feel you are falling over, step back. Met and was borne out by the word of revelation granted to St. Siloan, keep your mind in hell and despair not. In St. Siloan, he also encountered three basic theological principles, prayer for the whole world, Christ-like humility, and love towards one's enemies. Through his personal experience of God and the guidance of St. Siloan the Athenite, Father Sophroni was later able to deal with David Balfour's questions and views, as is clear from the correspondence that has been published. This will be discussed in another chapter. He was also able to evaluate the theology of Lossky and a number of other theologians of his era who were trying to confront the challenges of the times. The difference was that Father Sofroni dealt with the various trends through the personal revelatory truth that he knew, so he spoke authoritatively, whereas the other theologians, in spite of their good intentions and their successes, always spoke from their own understanding. The academic theologians knew the writings of the fathers of the church, but without Father Sofroni's great empirical experience, they reached a different conclusion. The full extent of this difference is evident in his book, St. Siloan the Athenite, and also in his correspondence with David Balfour. It should be noted that on his return to Paris after the Holy Mountain, he came into contact with the works of the intellectuals and theologians Bulgakov, Kern, Florovsky, Berdyev, Lossky, and Glubdowski. This enabled him to discern more clearly the difference between the living empirical theology that he knew on the Holy Mountain and the intellectual output of contemporary theologians and philosophers. Consequently, his thought underwent a process of theological synthesis as he evaluated the heritage of Russian theology and philosophy through the prism of his own ascetic experience. The synthesis is obvious in the book Staritz Siloan. In particular, Father Sofroni was in personal contact with the theologian Vladimir Lossky. Nevertheless, Father Sofroni differed from him on the doctrine of the divine light, which is not divine darkness, as Lossky wrote, and also on the experience of God-forsakenness. This experience of the loss of divine grace is not due to dogmatic deviations. Such experiences are stages on the ascetic journey to deification and are essentially an expression of divine love, which is why the experience of God-forsakenness contains life-generating divine power. Fourthly, the religious trends of his era shaped the way in which Father Sophroni's theology was expressed. He was personally familiar with three such expressions of the inner life and the search for God. One, in Eastern mysticism, which he practiced for seven or eight years while he was a student in Moscow, when he was attempting to acquire knowledge of eternity beyond what he considered to be psychological expression of love contained in Christ's commandments. The second is Western mystical life, as he encountered it in David Balfour, who was enthused by the dark night of the soul of St. John of the Cross. The third is the hesychistic tradition as he met it on the holy mountain and lived it in dread Kurulia and the cave of the Holy Trinity near the monastery of St. Paul. This is the same tradition that is to be found in the Philokalia of the Niptic Saints, 
particularly in the life and teaching of St. Gregory Palamas. Fifthly, Father Sophroni's theology, which was empirical and preeminently ecclesiastical, was outside the racist framework of many theologians of his era, and for that reason it possessed a genuine form of universality and Catholicity. Even while he was still living in Moscow, when he was not familiar with the whole ecclesiastical tradition and his spiritual quest was different, he was not confined within ethnic limits, but he was open to a wide-ranging intellectual freedom. Though a Muscovite, Father Sophroni remained alien to the intellectual tendencies of the Muscovite ethos, marked by the romantic emphasis of the Slavophiles on Russianness and their philosophical principles. In particular, once he had opened himself up to the freedom of the spirit, he could no longer be enclosed within nationalistic divisions. For that reason, when he was at the Russian monastery on the Holy Mountain, and later in Paris at the Theological Institute of St. Sergius, where he encountered intense ecclesiastical divisions, he took no part in them. He did not deny the canonicity of the Russian patriarch. Rather, he regarded the Patriarchate of Moscow, which was disputed by the Russian emigres, as the Church of the Living Martyrs. However, even in this case, quote, he was far from sharing Slavophilic nostalgia and never canonized the old Russia as a theological or ideological concept. Such nationalism contradicts his concern with universal categories and personal asceticism. He gave preference to the patristic tradition, whereas many Slavophiles drew on Dostoevsky as a theological source. End of quote. Later, he placed himself under the jurisdiction of the ecumenical patriarchate with its universal dimension. The distillation of the spiritual knowledge that he had acquired was his way of life at the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England, a way of life that he passed on to his monks. He moved from Paris to England in 1959, initially under the jurisdiction of the Russian Church, but from 1965 onward under the canonical jurisdiction of the Ecumenical Patriarchate, with the blessing of the Russian Patriarch. As Hieromonk Nicholas Sakharov writes, quote, Father Sophroni attempted to restore the deepest principles of monastic life, so as to avoid distorted conceptions of the Cenobitic life and its purpose. His main concern was primarily inner asceticism. Inner perfection is more valuable than perfect outward conformity. His teaching was largely focused on cultivation of the mind and the heart. While he was far from indifferent to everyday details and mundane tasks, he tended to integrate them within the wider spectrum of his theological framework. End of quote. The typicon of services that Father Sophroni laid down which also took account of the fact that the monks came from many countries and spoke different languages, expressed his desire to develop inner monasticism, heartfelt repentance, the life of noetic prayer in the heart. The divine liturgy forms the basis of the monastery. Daily services are linked with the Jesus prayer, which is prayed in the form of common worship, invocation of the divine name, usually adding up to four hours each day. Father Sophroni experienced this tradition on the Holy Mountain, and he encountered it in the skeets there, in the life of St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, 
and in the accounts of Paisi Velichkovsky's monastery. Consequently, when we study the theology of Father Sofroni, we observe that it is marked by active dialogue between various thought worlds, such as current religious philosophy, the patristic tradition, and reflection on his personal mystical experience. This means that the elder's theology is a bridge between the modern Western world, the Russian intellectual elite in Paris with its intense intellectual search, and Athenite monasticism with its ancient patristic tradition. This was the result of his knowledge of Western theology and tradition, but above all of his knowledge of God within the uncreated light. In general, when one observes Father Sofroni's theological journey, one realizes that he began from the elements that he found in his era, which helped him at first. Subsequently, however, he possessed, progressed excuse me, to greater heights of the spiritual life and theology. From simple religious faith, he reached the point of touching eternity, and he lived it existentially. From philosophy, he advanced to the theology of revelation, using, of course, a different method. From his acquaintance with philosophers, he came to know God's seers. From impersonal Eastern mysticism, he went on to live personal hesychism. And from ecclesiastical division, he passed to the universality of the church. This is a journey connected with his inner transformation and regeneration. B. A Presentation of the Theology of Archimandrite Sophroni Another of the elder's disciples, Archimandrite Zacharias Zacharu, gives a splendid account of the whole of Elder Sophroni's theology in his book, Christ, Our Way and Our Life, A Presentation of the Theology of Archimandrite Sophroni. In particular, he analyzes systematically the essence of his experience of the vision of God. After the foreword and introduction, the book is divided into eight chapters, recording the eight basic aspects of Father Sophroni's theology, which is also the theology of the Church. These chapters will be briefly listed and described in order to show the great value of Father Sophroni's theology from another angle. The first chapter analyzes the hypostatic principle and its realization in human life. The analysis begins with the triune God, and the relations between the three hypostases, and moves to man who is in the image of the Word. Father Sophroni sees in the mutual coherence of the three hypostases an indication of the humility of the divine persons. Next, he believes that man, being created in God's image, has within him a longing and impetus towards knowledge of the true God, the prototype of his creation, and he has the potential to assume divine life. Naturally, on this path there is the risk of delusion, of seeking God in the supra-personal absolute, instead of in the person of Christ, because through Christ one acquires knowledge of the other persons. The second chapter speaks of the self-emptying, kenosis of the Word, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who became man and assumed what is perishable and mortal in human nature, but also of the self-emptying that should be lived by the Christian according to Christ's example. This consists in keeping Christ's commandments and acquiring love to the point of self-hatred. The third chapter records Father Sophroni's teaching on the greatness of man as he was made in the image of God, but also on the nothingness that is expressed 
through his fall, and which takes concrete form in death and passion-dominated life. It discusses the fact of death, the charisma of mindfulness of death, overcoming death, and mourning and tears. The fourth chapter analyzes Father Sophroni's teaching on the mystery of the ways of salvation and refers to what he lived, wrote, and said about the advent, withdrawal, and regaining of divine grace. This process is actually knowledge of the way of Christ. In the fifth chapter, the reader finds the elders teaching about the path of monasticism. Monasticism is presented as a gift of the Holy Spirit, and the monastic promises of obedience, virginity, or chastity, and poverty are discussed, as well as spiritual fatherhood as a ministry of man's reconciliation with God. The sixth chapter describes the elders' teaching on orthodox hesychism and speaks about the Jesus prayer and its practice, inner stillness, noetic hezekiah, which is central to orthodox hesychism, and deliverance from imagination. Seventh chapter analyzes the transition of the Christian and monk from the psychological to the ontological or spiritual level. It refers to repentance, which begins in the psychological and sensory realm, and the ontological regeneration of the human being who reaches theoria, vision of the uncreated light. Mention is made of the elders' teaching about ascetic humility and divine humility, and to the ontological content of the person. Finally, the eighth chapter discusses the elders' teaching on prayer as a way of salvation, prayer as personal communion, pure prayer, prayer for the whole world, which is the manifestation par excellence of the hypostatic principle, and love for enemies as a criterion of truth. The epilogue analyzes Father St. Siloan the Athenite's basic principle, which was also the basic factor in the life of Father Sophroni, keep thy mind in hell and despair not. It speaks of the singular and perfect repentance which consists in keeping one's noose in hell, but also of the spiritual gift of hope in God, which expels despair and hopelessness. This book by Archimandrite Zacharias presents in a readily understood and convincing way the whole of Father Sophroni's theology, which was his personal experience. It shows that the content of the elders' theology was the action of the Holy Spirit, but it was expressed through the elements that made up the elders' personality, as well as through his education and his knowledge of the philosophical and religious trends of his era. Archimandrite Zacharias writes in his introduction, quote, Father Sophroni was endowed with many gifts of the Holy Spirit, the most impressive was the living word of God, which he grasped through prayer and carried in his heart. He was a man of the word. Every contact with him was an opening to new understanding and life. And even his most everyday words conveyed grace to those who turned to him. He prayed continuously and intensely for those who suffer and rejoiced more than over any miraculous occurrences to see his word and his prayer transform their hearts. He struggled to diminish their pain, but above all he spent himself to the utmost in the service of the greatest and most significant miracle of our temporal life, the union of human beings with the spirit of the living and eternal God. End of quote. It is impossible for what has been set out above 
to give a full picture of Father Safroni, his theology, and the way in which he approached those who visited him from all over the world. He himself spoke four languages, Russian, French, Greek, and English. He also had great spiritual experience, and he could understand perfectly well those who were not Orthodox and those of other faiths, atheists and believers, pious people and anarchists, the young and the old, laity and clergy, those living in the world, and monks. The time came for this spiritual sun to set, or rather for it to rise in the kingdom of God, which he knew from its repeated appearances. And he fell asleep in the same way as he taught, prayed, and celebrated the liturgy. When he became aware of his end, he said, I have said everything to God. I have finished what I had to do. Now I must depart. He sent a letter to the ecumenical patriarch, Bartholomew, to whose canonical jurisdiction his monastery belongs, and asked his blessing to depart, to the longed-for light of the risen Christ. This also shows his ecclesiastical mentality. Shortly before he died, he said, I cannot wait any longer. He gave his instructions to those living at the monastery. He gave his last teachings and bade them all farewell. He crossed his hands and waited in bed, prayed and preparing for the encounter with Christ for whom he longed. When I saw him in the coffin during the funeral service, I realized that he had the same bearing, the same expression that he had had when he was praying, especially when he was celebrating the Divine Liturgy, and even when he was teaching and revealing the mysteries of the Kingdom of God. This showed the unification that had come about in his life between Theoria and Praxis, the desert and the community, Divine Liturgy and Sacred Hezekiah, silence and social behavior, life and death. His hands were the color of amber, as though light were shining through them, and they were giving a blessing. Thus, as a priest and celebrant, he had entered the uncreated temple from the created temple. From the created church, he had entered the uncreated church. And from there, he blesses us, prays, and waits for us. At a lecture Father Zacharias gave in America, one of the questions he was asked was, Father, could you tell us something about Father Sophroni in his last days? The answer he gave is significant and tells of the end of Father Sophroni's biological life, which set the seal on a whole life. The answer will be cited in full because it is relevatory. Quote, I do not know what to say. We had such ease of access to him. Myself, I had the key to his house. I could enter any time, day or night. If I wanted to ask him something and he was asleep, I only had to shake his armchair and he would open his eyes and say, What? And in the twinkling of an eye, I would have a word that re really informed the heart. We had such access to him, but we never lost sight of the fact that he was different, that he was a man of God. All his being was wrapped in God. Very noble and kind as he was, when he was speaking with me in Russian or in Greek, he would never address me in the singular, but always in the plural. Usually we do this for people who are older than we are. In English, though, there is no distinction between formal and familiar speech. He was strict with us when he perceived pride in us, because he knew 
that if he did not service us, we would have a crash. Otherwise, he was very loving and very kind. We used to go and tire him, especially myself, because I was very talkative and I had a lot of questions. Sister X and I were the ones who tired him the most. Father Sofroni named her a barrel of questions, and another sister said to me, that's why she's become a barrel of answers now. When he got tired in order to tell us that it is enough, he would say a very nice rhyme in Russian, like a poem, allow me to express my gratitude, and with heartfelt satisfaction, take my leave. So I went to see him two weeks before he died. At that time, we were building the crypt where we were going to be, where we are going to be buried, and of course, Father Sofroni was going to be the first. The walls and the roof were ready, but it was still muddy underneath, as though there was yet no floor. As he was accompanying me to the door, he looked at the crypt and asked, How long will it take for it to be finished? I answered, Father, two more weeks, I suppose. He replied, Hmm, for me it is difficult to wait even one hour. I have said everything to the Lord. Now I must go. It must be wonderful to feel in your heart that you have spoken to the Lord to the end, and, and that remains in eternity, and you are ready to go. Myself, I have the feeling that I have never spoken to the Lord. I went to see him again about a week before he died. He was already lying in bed, whereas before he was always sitting in an armchair. He said to me, Have you written the book I have asked you to write? He had asked me to write a book, which I managed to bring out only last summer. I told him I had written two chapters, and I explained to him what their content was. He said, you must put them at the beginning. And then he added, I will tell you the four central points of my theory about personhood. In brief, he gave me all his theory about the hypostatic principle, as he says. It was about a page long, but very fundamental, four points. And he was telling me how to proceed in writing the book. Four days before he died, he closed his eyes and would not speak to us anymore. His face was luminous and not pathetic, but full of tension. He had the same expression as when he would celebrate the liturgy. Not all of us went in to see him, only Father Kirill and myself, Father Nicholas and Father Seraphim. Two or three weeks before he died, he invited all the brethren one by one to go and sit with him for about an hour in his kitchen for their last conversation with him. But the four of us had the key to his door and would go to see him every few hours. We would go in and say, Your blessing, Father. He would not open his eyes or utter a word, but he would lift up his hand, blessing us. He blessed us without words, and I understood that he was going. So myself, I did not want to detain him. Before, I used to pray that God extend his old age, as we say in the liturgy of St. Basil the Great, succour the aged. But during those days, I saw that he was going, and so I began to say, Lord, grant unto thy servant a rich entrance into thy kingdom. I prayed using the words of St. Peter, as we read in his second epistle, 2 Peter 1.11, so I was constantly saying, O oh God, grant a rich entrance to thy servant and place his soul together with his fathers. And I named all his fellow ascetics that I knew he had 
on the holy mountain, starting with St. Siloan and then all the others. The last day, I went to see him at 6 o'clock in the morning. It was a Sunday, and I was celebrating the early liturgy, while Father Kirill, together with the other priests, were to celebrate the second. For practical purposes, on Sundays, we had two liturgies at our monasteries. I realized that he was going to leave us that day. I went and started the prothesis. The hours began at 7 o'clock, then the liturgy followed. During the liturgy, I said only the prayers of the anaphora, because in our monastery we have the habit of reading them aloud. For the rest, my prayer was continually, Lord, grant a rich entrance into thy kingdom to thy servant. That liturgy was really different from all the others. The moment I said the holy things unto the holy, Father Kirill entered the altar. We looked at each other. He began to sob, and I realized that Father Sofroni had gone. Asking what time he departed, I knew that it was the time I was reading the gospel. I went aside because Father Kirill wanted to speak with me, and he told me, take communion, give communion to the faithful, and then announce the departure of Father Sofroni and serve the first Trisagion, and I will do the same in the second liturgy. So I parceled the lamb, I partook. I gave to the faithful, and I finished the liturgy. I don't know how I managed. Then I came out, and I said to the people, My dear brethren, Christ our God is the sign of God for all the generations of this age, because in his word we find salvation and the solution of every human problem. But the saints of God are also a sign for their generation. Such a father God gave us in the person of Father Sofroni. In his word we found the solution to our problems, and now we must do as the liturgy teaches us, that is, to give thanks, and to make entreaty, to supplicate. Therefore, let us give thanks to God who has given us such a father, and let us pray for the repose of his soul. Blessed is our God, and I began the Trisagion. We put him in the church for four days, because the crypt was not yet finished, and the tomb was not yet built. We left him uncovered in the church for four days, and we were continually reading the Holy Gospels from beginning to end, again and again, as is the custom for a priest. We read the Holy Gospels, and we read the Trisagia and other prayers. We had the services, the liturgy, and he was there, in the middle of the church for four days. It was really like Pascha, such a beautiful and blessed atmosphere. No one showed any hysteria. Everybody prayed with inspiration. I had a friend, an Archimandrite, who used to come to the monastery every year and spend a few weeks during summertime, Father Herothius Vlakos, who wrote A Night in the Desert of the Holy Mountain. He is a metropolitan now. He came as soon as he heard that Father Sofroni had died. He felt the atmosphere and said to me, if Father Sophroni is not a saint, then there are no saints. We happened to have some monks from the Holy Mountain who came to see Father Sophroni, but they did not find him alive. Father Tikhon from Simonospetra was one of them. Every time the Greeks came to England for medical purposes, they had the habit of coming to the monastery to be read a prayer by Father Sophroni because many were healed. They all relate such things. Two of them, out of gratitude, even built a church in Greece dedicated to St. Siloan. 
The second or the third day after Father Sofroni's death, a family came with a 13-year-old child. He had a brain tumor, and his operation was due the next day. Father Tikhon from Simonopetra came to me and said, These people are very sad. They came and did not find Father Sofroni. Why don't you read some prayers for the child? I said to him, Let us go together. Come and be my reader. We will read some prayers in the other chapel. We went and read prayers for the child, and at the end, Father Tikhon said, You know, why don't you make the child go under the coffin of Father Sofroni? He will be healed. We are wasting our time reading prayers. I told him that I could not do that because the people would say that he has only just died and we are already trying to promote his canonization. So you do it, I said to him. You are an Athenite monk. Nobody can say anything. He took the child by the hand and made him pass under the coffin. The next day they operated on the child and found nothing. They closed his skull and said, wrong diagnosis. It was probably an inflammation. It happened that the child was accompanied by a doctor from Greece who had the x-ray plate and the wrong diagnosis. What it means. The next week, the whole family of that child, who were from Thessaloniki, came to the monastery to give thanks at the tomb of Father Sophroni. The child has grown. He is 21 years old now, and he is very well. When they came to give thanks the week after, they found in the middle of the church the coffin of Mother Elizabeth, the oldest nun of the monastery, a hundred and one years old. She died exactly 13 days after Father Sophroni. The family said, huh, every time we come here, we find somebody else dead in the middle of the church. This was something from the last days of Father Sofroni. I have never been so open in my life as I have been with you during these days. Forgive me for being like that. Although our dear bishop warned me that his clergymen are so good that they will make me open up, I did not take any precautions. End of quote from Archimandrite Zacharias, The Enlargement of the Heart. The life of Elder Sophroni was a miracle of God on earth, a proof of his existence, and his death was glorious, worthy of a radiant life. This was also confirmed by the miraculous intervention. Chapter 2. Spiritual Autobiography it is not easy to describe the way of life of a saint, because one has to live the same life as him. Only saints understand saints, and those whose lives are the same as the saints are able to interpret the holy experiences that dominate their existence. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? 1 Corinthians 2.11 According to one view, every human being is the summary of the whole creation, the microcosm of the entire universe, so he lives the drama of the whole of humanity. In the course of his life, he lives the tragedies of wars and all the different kinds of upheavals and conflicts of all the descendants of Adam. In this sense, if we look at the issue from a spiritual point of view, we realize that the fall of Adam, the consequences of the fall and Adam's lament, but also the joy of the resurrection take place within the depths of each man's being. What happens in every human being took place to an overwhelming extent in Elder Sophroni. 
He lived Adam's fall, Adam's lament, mindfulness of death and the experience of the hell to the uttermost degree, but also the joy of seeing the uncreated light, the light of the kingdom of God. Who can analyze this inner aspect of Father Sophroni's personality? One would need to have comparable experience in order to attempt this task. St. Paul, referring to this fact, writes, quote, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. End of quote, 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15. Father Sophroni wrote St. Silouan's biography and undertook a thorough theological analysis of his life and conduct because he had the same experience. I am not in a position to do this. Precisely for this reason, in order to write the spiritual biography of Father Sophroni, I have chosen the interpretive method of using Scripture to interpret Scripture. Just as one word in Holy Scripture can be interpreted by another, the same can apply in this case. I shall leave Father Sophroni himself to speak about himself. In the book, we shall see him as he is. There are many openings or windows through which one can see the greatness of Father Sophroni's inner life as he refers, sometimes overtly and sometimes obliquely, to his spiritual experiences in order to help those who live through the same spiritual events to deal with them with greater knowledge and wisdom. Just as he received confirmation from St. Silouan, so he too wishes to be like a brother and witness for those going through the same spiritual trials. He wrote this book towards the end of his life. I had the honor of being allowed by him to read it while Father Zacharias was translating it into Greek. I remember that at that time I was literally intoxicated by reading these texts. I thought that I was reading writings by St. Simeon the New Theologian. In fact, Father Sophroni originally wanted these texts to be published in Greek after his death so that the readers of the book would not go to the monastery to meet a saint, as he said, because this made him feel very uncomfortable. In the end, this book was published shortly before his death because his love for those of his brethren going through spiritual torments who would benefit spiritually from the book prevailed. He writes, Now at the close of my life I have decided to talk to my brethren of things I would not have ventured to utter earlier, counting it unseemly. Essentially, in this book Father Sophroni describes in an ascetic and humble manner the spiritual experiences that he had in the course of the century of life. He characterizes it as a confession and my spiritual autobiography, which, as he writes, the finger of God traced out with indelible marks on the body of my life. These spiritual experiences were more powerful than the drama of the two world wars through which he lived. He writes, quote, The Lord knows with what fear and dread many of the pages of this my confession are written. End quote. The elder writes that as a monk, he was accustomed to leaving the soul alone with God. However, drawing near to his departure and having reached a great age, he writes, I notice that I am less sensitive to criticism. I have therefore decided to disclose even more and before many people the things that until today I have zealously kept from the eyes of others. Concluding his prologue, 
He writes, So then I entrust myself confidently to my reader in the hope that he will include me also in his prayers to our Father who is in heaven. I have read this book many times. Apart from the spiritual benefit that I gain from his blessed and authoritative words, burning and illuminated with the fire and light of God, I have also singled out some sections which are to some extent autobiographical. I shall comment on them so as to give the reader some impression of the great significance of Father Sofroni and his exceptional personality. 1. The Teaching of the Church as the Fruit of Experience First of all, it should be stressed that everywhere in the ecclesiastical tradition one encounters the fact that the prophets, apostles, and fathers of the Church did not speak in an abstract or speculative way, but from experience. And often, in order to confirm their teaching to their spiritual children, they referred to the revelations granted to them by God. A few examples will prove this. The prophets were sent to the people to preach the things that the unincarnate word revealed to them. For this reason, the people called the prophets seers and those with vision. They did not utter their own teachings and speculations, but God's revelations. Therefore, they usually began their preaching with the phrase, Thus says the Lord, Exodus 4.22. St. John the Evangelist, who was present at Mount Tabor at the transfiguration of Christ, refers in his first general epistle to this vision of God and uses it to instruct Christians. Quote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. End of quote, 1 John 1, 1-2. The Apostle Peter, who was granted this great experience of divine vision on Mount Tabor, writes his epistles in this spirit, and this was what he preached to the recipients. He was never able to forget the astounding event that he experienced at Christ's transfiguration. Thus he writes in his first general epistle that he did not come to know the power and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ through cleverly concocted fables, but through the vision of God that he had, because as he writes, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, he preached what he had seen not myths and speculations. He goes on to refer to the Father's voice which he heard and confesses. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He uses this experience to guide them and to urge them to heed this prophetic word until the day dawns and the morning star rises in their hearts. 2 Peter 1, 16-21 The Apostle Paul uses the spiritual experience that he had, the vision of God, in order to prove his apostolic status to the Christians. He writes, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? 1 Corinthians 9.1 What is more, in his defense before King Agrippa, he refers to the appearance of Christ to him when he was on the, his way to Damascus to oppose the first Christians. Quote, While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. End of quote. 
Acts 26, verses 12 to 13. The same apostle mentions to the Corinthians an amazing experience in the course of which he was caught up to the third heaven. He mentions entering paradise and hearing ineffable words. He writes, quote, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. End of quote, 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4. Lest it be supposed that in saying this, St. Paul is passing on a revelation granted to someone else, rather than concealing himself behind the words, I know a man, one should look at the verse that precedes this revelational experience. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, he writes. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 12, 1. One should also see the verses that follow, which refer to the thorn in his flesh given to him by God on account of the great revelations to prevent him from being coming proud, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10. St. Gregory the theologian, when dealing with the Arians who denied the divinity of Christ, but also with the Eunomians who asserted that not only the word, but also men know the essence of God, refers among other things to his own revelatory vision of God. He received a command from God, an inner conviction to go up the mountain, to enter the cloud, and to draw near to him. And he obediently ascended in eager expectation. He then gives a description of his personal experience. He climbed up the mountain, penetrated the cloud, withdrew from matter and everything material, and concentrated his attention as much as possible within himself. Then he scarcely managed to see the back of God, that is to say, the incarnation of the Word. He then stooped down a little, and although he did not see the pure nature, the essence of the Holy Trinity, which is known only to the Holy Trinity itself, he saw the outside, that is to say, the energy of the Holy Trinity that reaches us. It is evident here that St. Gregory the Theologian, speaking about theology, invokes his own experience of the revelation of God's uncreated energy, but not of his uncreated nature. St. Simeon, the new theologian, often refers in his writings to the theoria of the uncreated light that he was granted by the grace of God. We see this clearly in his poems. There exists, however, an amazing text, one of his discourses to his spiritual children, entitled, Of Contemplation, Theoria, Revelation and the Prayer of Illumination, How He Who Is Possessed by the Love of God and Has Attained to the Depth of Humility is Activated by the Holy Spirit. Here he describes how he began to return to his senses, from the abyss of evil and darkness, and how he struggled to free himself from sinful propensities and habits and the evil ethos of sensuality through the persistent practice of prayer, studying the divine words and good habits. He tells how he ascended the stages of the spiritual life, how he reached the vision of the uncreated light, what he saw, and how he felt in the course of this experience. At one point he says, quote, by grace I have received grace. By doing well, I have received kindness. By fire, 
I have been requited with fire, by flame with flame. As I ascended, I was given other ascents. At the end of the ascent, I was given light, and by the light, an even clearer light. In the midst thereof, a sun shone brightly, and from it a ray shone forth that filled all things. The object of my thought remained beyond understanding, and in this state I remained while I wept most sweetly and marveled at the ineffable. The divine mind conversed with my own mind and taught me. End of quote. He then describes how the beauty of the one who had appeared to him wounded his heart and drew him towards infinite love, how this love freed him from the bonds of the flesh, how he was given full assurance of the forgiveness of his sins, but at the same time how he felt he was the most sinful of men, and many other things. What is significant, however, is that St. Simeon, the new theologian, also sets out at the end of the text the reason why he disclosed this personal experience to his disciples. He did so because he felt that he had reached the end of his life and he wanted to guide them in this way in order to establish them in their spiritual life. He writes, quote, Behold, I have revealed to you, my friends and brethren, the mysteries that are hidden within me. Already I see my end drawing near. How near I do not yet see. I have told you this in order that you may know the ways of penitence, the ascents and the progress of the beginning and the middle and the measures of perfection. So may you endeavor to imitate, if not someone else, at least the one who has begotten you all and loved you with all his soul, who has fed you with the milk of God's word and refreshed you with the life-giving bread and has shown you how to walk in the way of the saving commandments of God. End of quote. St. Gregory Palamas wrote the Declaration of the Holy Mountain, which was signed by the leading monks of the Holy Mountain in order to counter the heresy of Barlam, who denied the teaching about God's uncreated deifying energy. As well as using passages from Holy Scripture and the tradition, St. Gregory also records his own experience, quote, These things we have been taught by the Scriptures and have received from our fathers, and we have come to know them from our own small experience, end of quote. It is obvious from these few examples that the prophets, apostles, and fathers guided their spiritual children by means of the personal experience that they possessed. It is, of course, also clear that God's revelation to humankind is not limited to one era of the church's life. As long as the Orthodox Church exists, there will be witnesses who experience the same reality in different ways and who confirm the personal existence of God. We should also see Father Sofroni's testimony in this context. He was found worthy of a great revelatory experience without having previously read the writings of the Holy Fathers. And he set it down in writing toward the end of his life in order to strengthen his spiritual children and other Christians in the conviction that Christ is true God, and that the aim of human beings is deification and communion with God in the uncreated light. It is worth adding that St. Simeon the New Theologian's experience, which he saw, we saw above, is amazingly similar to the writings of Father Sofroni, not only in style and content, but also as regards the purpose for which it was written down toward the end of his biological life. The only difference is that Father Sofroni is more analytical about this reality. Two marvelous works. 
Father Sofroni's case is out of the ordinary, as he lived extremely profoundly within his personal life, the fall of Adam, theory of the uncreated light, and the experience of the kingdom of God. Between these two spiritual states, the fall of Adam and the vision of the divine light, he experienced the charisma of the mindfulness of death, the deepest penitential mourning, unquenchable thirst, and most of all, impetus toward God. Such spiritual experience is rarely found among human beings, even among ascetics, for many and diverse reasons. He himself records this experience in his book, We Shall See Him As He Is. On a much smaller scale, however, and with a lesser degree of intensity, all human beings go through these states, although they are often unaware of it. Many experience worldly despair, but also godly despair, as well as the sense of the nearness of eternal life. The elder, however, lived these things to the utmost degree and with great intensity. He writes that God revealed to him, quote, the tragedy of the sufferings of millions of people scattered all over the face of the earth, end of quote. Thus, the elder's book is a confession and his spiritual autobiography, which may help some to find a more appropriate way of facing the ordeals that they are likely to encounter. Reading Father Sofroni's descriptions, one ought to be aware, on the one hand, that everyone to a lesser degree passes through states analogous to these, and on the other hand, that the intensity with which Father Sofroni lived these spiritual events is not for all. This is a rare spiritual experience. For this reason, many people, even monks, are, are unable to understand Father Sofroni's writings, as they cannot approach his experience, which transcends normal human limits. It should be borne in mind that spiritual experiences cannot be classified according to time, manner, quality, or quantity, or put into categories associated with biological created life. It is not easy to define states that unfold in the world of the soul, particularly on the spiritual level. The deified participate in the eternal God. They touch eternity. They see the uncreated light. They hear ineffable words, and subsequently they attempt to describe them for the spiritual guidance of those who have similar problems, something that is not fully possible or feasible. According to the Holy Fathers of the Church, God is seen without being seen, heard without being heard, participated in without being shared, and known without being known, precisely because man cannot participate in the essence of God, and someone who sees God shares only in his energy. Father Sofroni is also aware of this when he attempts to articulate his experiences. He states clearly, but simply, that he is not a writer, and often while recording his experience, he interrupted this work, dissatisfied with what I had written. The same experience was expressed each time in a different manner or sequence, so it cannot be fully described. In any case, writing a book requires methodological organization of all the material. For this reason, there are repetitions in many chapters of the spiritual autobiography. Let us marvel at Father Sofroni's spiritual biography, rather as we marvel at the great athletic struggles of Olympic champions, even though we cannot equal their achievements. Let us praise God for the great and glorious things that he accomplishes in human beings, declaring together with St. Sophronius, Archbishop of Jerusalem, quote, You are great, Lord, and marvelous are your works, 
and no words are sufficient to him your wonders. A. Early Experience According to the teaching of the Holy Fathers, man's soul has a noetic faculty and a rational faculty. The noetic faculty functions immediately when the soul is created, whereas the rational faculty is linked with the development of the brain, which it uses as an organ. According to St. Gregory of Nyssa, the vision of God takes place through the noetic part of man's soul and not through his rational faculty. On these presuppositions, it is possible for the infant whose noose is pure to have experiences of God, although he cannot yet express himself using images and descriptions like an adult because the intellectual function of his brain has not yet completely developed. As the child gradually matures, he expresses his experience according to his brain's capacity to understand. Thus, experience is put into words using the concepts appropriate to each age group. The experience of God gained by the pure noose is not the same as the expression of this experience, which takes place through the rational faculty. According to St. Maximus the Confessor, a pure noose sees things correctly. A trained reason puts them in order. Infants have an enlightened noose by means of which they may see angels during the divine liturgy and elsewhere, although they cannot express it rationally because the functions of their brain have not yet developed. Their noose, however, is darkened with the passage of time by the development of the passions and the darkness of the environment. Father Sofroni states that from his infancy he saw the uncreated light, which he only recognized later when he was counted worthy to see it as an adult. Some people may have had similar experiences in their early childhood, but the subsequent course of their life did not allow them to verify and recognize this fact. Belonging to a Christian family, the elder became a Christian through the mystery of holy baptism. Immediately after his birth, he received the gift of the Holy Spirit through the mystery of chrismation, and he became a member of the church. This grace remained in the depth of his heart while he was straying in his life. It kept him from greater falls and led him to repentance. He was taught to pray from his earliest childhood. He writes, As a child I had been taught to pray to the immortal Heavenly Father, to whom my fathers and forefathers had gone. In my childish faith, person and eternity easily combined into one. He writes the same elsewhere. To pray was natural for me from childhood. Prayer was offered to the living God and with reference to eternity. Other children of his age were also interested in these matters, and they like, like to speculate naively, but in all seriousness, about this mystery. He prayed at home and in church, where his parents took him. It seems that this was no ordinary prayer, but an intense prayer directed towards God. For this reason, it was linked with early experience of divine vision, which he remembered throughout his life and which could not be erased from his memory. He writes that he knew the living God from an early age, because sometimes coming out of church in his mother's arms, he saw the city illuminated by two kinds of light. As he writes, sunlight could not eclipse the presence of another light. To think of it brings back the feeling of quiet happiness that filled my soul at the time. B. Struggling with God, mindfulness of death. As someone grows up, depending on what happens in his life, as his rational ability increases, he usually comes up against 
various personal and social problems and difficulties. In this way, he battles with God. He cannot understand rationally the way in which God acts in his life and in history in conjunction with human freedom, which God cannot violate. The root of the problem is that there is a vast difference between what is uncreated and what is created. What is uncreated, God has no beginning. It is not subject to corruption, and it has no end, whereas what is created has a beginning. It is subject to corruption, and it has an end. The immortal, uncreated God without beginning cannot be understood by mortal, created man who was created in time. Only in Christ was the uncreated united hypostatically with the created. There is also a difference between God's essence, in which man cannot share, and his energy, in which man can share. Thus the Apostle Paul proclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Romans 11:33-34. This ignorance of man concerning the ways of God creates the problem of theodicy, man's struggle with God. We see this curious and painful struggle of man with God very vividly in the book of Job. Such a struggle developed in Father Sophroni's soul during his adolescence. He describes it powerfully. It is well known that at a young age, between eight and ten years, children begin to think and feel concerned about so-called existential questions connected with life and death, the meaning of existence, and the fact that biological life is temporary. They become aware, then, that death is an irreversible event, and this raises serious questions for them. It seems that in the elder this took place in a more intense way. As he grew up, the time came when his prayer to the living God took on another character. Quote, I found myself reflecting more and more often on the infinite, on what goes on forever. This would happen particularly in his discussions with his younger brother Nicholas. These existential questions were magnified by the tragic circumstances of that era, as the agony of the First World War was convulsing humankind. Father Sofroni could not come to terms with the idea of the death of so many thousand innocent people. He reflected that he could find himself in their ranks, killing unknown men just as others were trying to destroy him. This awareness gave rise to various questions. Where was the sense of our presence in this world? And I, why was I born? Had I only just begun to perceive myself as a human being, my heart was aglow with good intentions, seeking perfection like all young people, aspiring to the light of universal knowledge. Must all this be abandoned? And in such a fashion? And abandoned to whom and why and for what good? Such questions led him, with extreme intensity, to a sense of death and a search for the meaning of existence. He realized later on that this was not a natural development on the path from childhood to adolescence, as happens in most children. Rather, it was the spiritual gift of the mindfulness of death that God had bestowed on him. Certainly, this charisma of the remembrance of death accompanied him for the rest of his life. At that time, however, he knew nothing about this spiritual gift. The question could not be silenced. Was I eternal? Was everyone else? Or were we all destined for the black night of non-being? 
This question, however, was not an intellectual exercise, a thought to ponder or something burning in his heart. Soon the question spread like a mass of molten metal. In the depths of his heart, a strange feeling took abode, which did not resemble anything he had ever felt before. The futility of any and every acquisition on earth. In the first chapter of Father Serfoni's book, headed The Grace of the Mindfulness of Death, he gives an analytical description of the state through which he passed at that time, which actually prepared him for the great things he would experience later on. He expresses gratitude for those years. Oh, the terrors of that blessed period, he writes. No one could have the stanima voluntarily to subject himself to such an ordeal. Although he was outwardly calm and living an ordinary life, all these existential problems preoccupied him in the depths of his being. Even while the First World War continued with its shocking social consequences and catastrophes worldwide, his inner cataclysm held his attention. Questions arose one after the other. If I really die, that is, sink into non-being, it means that, like me, everyone else will also disappear without trace. So then, vanity of vanities, authentic life is not for us. All happenings in the world are not but a wicked mockery of man, end of quote. The meaning and experience of death went beyond his own personal life, just one less, and assumed universal and theological proportions. Having this remembrance of death, he lived the fact that in him everything would die, humankind, the earth, the universe, even God himself, the creator of the world. Everything would be engulfed in the darkness of oblivion, and the elder confesses, the spirit that held me in thrall detached me from the earth, and I was cast into a somber realm where time did not exist. This perpetual oblivion, as the extinguishing of the light of consciousness, horrified and crushed him. A vision of the abyss was ceaselessly before him. He continued to see the earth, with his eyes, but as he writes, in spirit I was moving over a bottomless abyss. A little later, another occurrence was added. A barrier rose up in front of me which felt like a solid wall, heavy as lead. Not one ray of light, mental light, not physical, could pierce this wall which was not a material one. It stood there, oppressing me for a long time. He saw that he was going to die, but the whole world was likewise going to die, and so was God himself. This led him to awareness that man is the center of all creation, and in the eyes of God, of course, he is more precious than all other created things. At this period of his life, he was unaware of the great charisma of the remembrance of death. He found out about it later by reading the writings of the Holy Fathers of the Church. However, this ignorance actually helped him to bear this divine gift of mindfulness of death without falling into the awful sin of vanity. This inner state led him sometimes into a great temptation. Quote, I was more than once tempted into fearful wrath against my creator. End of quote. Unable to understand everything that was happening within him, he turned against God and regarded him as a hostile potentate. A sense of anger grew within him on behalf of all those who lived this dreadful life. And as he writes, I regretted that I had no fiery sword with which to destroy the cursed ground 
and thus put an end to the whole preposterous farce. Reflecting on this whole inner state, he writes, quote, Why this intricate process, the genesis of our spirit in a body made of the dust of the earth, for the creation from non-being of sons of God? How is it possible to conjoin spirit, the likeness of the absolute, and the material world? It is not easy for our spirit, by nature immortal, to be held fast in a body subject to disintegration and death. Hence, the unremitting conflict between the spirit straining up toward God, anxious to have the body likewise incorruptible, and able to follow in the ascent, and the body pulling downwards to the earth from which it was taken, and communicating its mortality to the spirit. End of quote. He could not understand any of these things, and worn out by unceasing conflicts and unresolvable contradictions, he attempted to put himself in the Creator's place and to ponder, quote, how I would have ordered the world, shutting myself up in the dark and quiet, I concentrated my thoughts on the task, end of quote. The mindfulness of death was always with him, always occasioned by the tragedy of human existence during the war between Russia and Germany which was drawing to a close, but also by the civil war within Russia. He gives a startling description of a scene from his experience of mindfulness of death. While he was sitting at his desk and reading, resting his head on his hand, he suddenly felt that he was holding his skull in his hand and observing it from outside. He reflected, quote, I still have a whole lifetime before me, 40 or more years full of energy, end of quote. And what happened? The reply came at once, quote, And suppose you have a thousand years, what then? And the thousand years in my consciousness were over before I could frame the idea in words. End of quote. This mindfulness of death in connect connection with eternity had many expressions. He would see people dying, and he felt compassion for them. He did not want praise from dead mortals or to have power over them. He did not expect their love. He despised material wealth and did not esteem intellectual thought. He had no desire for a happy life. He writes, My spirit required eternal life, and eternity, as I realized later, stood before me, effectively re regenerating me. I was blind. I had no understanding. Eternity was knocking at my door, and my soul was locked tight in fear. However, the pain of this remembrance of death, which he lived to an intense degree, did not enter his deep heart, in which, out of reach of the external paroxysms of despair, there was hope that the Almighty could not be other than good. At the same time, this mindfulness of death and the struggle which with God held him immobilized between the temporal forms of existence and eternity, and this eternity was experienced in its negative aspect. This whole state, together with hope, led him to prayer. This whole situation caused him unbearable pain, which the elder calls sacred. An invisible fire consumed him, but within him a ray of hope overcame his fear of setting out on the painful path. Sometimes the pain in his heart caught up his spirit in rapture, and as he writes, I marveled how God had created my nature able to endure suffering through which hitherto unknown depths of prayer were disclosed to me. There were times when in pain he would glorify God in a quiet voice. Then as he confesses, 
Prayer delivered me from the cramped prison of the world, and my spirit lived in the freedom of the infinity of my God. Early in his life, these intense states led him gradually to Eastern mysticism in order to find an answer to his existential questions. Later, as we shall see, he regarded this inclination to Eastern mysticism as his great fall, as his spiritual suicide. Following a revelation of God, he was brought to great repentance, a burning impetus towards God, and finally to the vision of the uncreated light. He relates that an ardent prayer, which continued while he was waking and sleeping, he would pray to the still unknown or forgotten God. He reached complete exhaustion, and then, quite unexpectedly, it seemed as if a fine needle pierced the thick wall, and a ray of light gleamed through the hairline crack. We shall look at this journey of his in the sections that follow. See, fall. When Adam was created, he had communion with God through his illuminated noose. His noose was open to God and the angelic world. By his disobedience to God's commandment, however, his noose was darkened. It became identified with his rational faculty and his surroundings and linked with imagination. The Apostle Paul, referring to the fall of Adam and of mankind in general, writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The ancestral sin in every sin is linked with falling short of the glory of God and the loss of participation in the divine energy that enables man to see God. Then man's noose is darkened and obscured. The result of this darkening is that man abandoned the true God and worshipped idols. St. Paul writes, quote, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as, as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals and creeping things, end of quote, Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. St. Gregory Palamas observes, quote, For a noose far from God becomes either like a beast or a demon, and once it has gone beyond the bounds of nature, it desires what belongs to others and cannot satisfy its greed for gain. Such a man surrenders himself to the lusts of the flesh, and recognizes no limit to self-indulgence. Christ's words are characteristic. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Matthew 6.23 The teachings of the fathers refer to the obscuring of God's image in man. The de denial of the glory of God and the replacement of the true God with a non-existent idea of God or gods, with ideas and human systems, constitutes darkening of the noose, and this is a repetition of Adam's fall. This fall is a departure from paradise, which is communion with the living God. The church relates this event dramatically in the troparia sung on the Sunday before Lent, but also in the great canon of St. Andrew of Crete, most typically in the verse, My noose is wounded, my body has grown feeble, my spirit is sick, my reason has lost its power, the gospel is of no effect. Father Sophroni also lived this fall, and he remembered it throughout his life. 
It was an experience comparable with that of the Apostle Peter in Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75. In the elder's book, we see how he describes this great fall of his. At one point, he characterizes his turning towards Eastern mysticism as a fall similar to the fall of Adam. Just as Adam lost his communion with the true God, so he too lost the experience of the living God that had been granted him. When he writes about his fall, he does not mean things that took place on the outward, social, and ethical level, but the wandering of his noose and heart into every kind of vice. In particular, he regards as a fall his involvement for seven or eight years in meditation because he considered that this Eastern mystical contemplation, this philosophy, was far superior to Christian emotionalism of God's commandment to love God and thy neighbor, at that time, the word persona meant exactly the same in his consciousness as the individual. The questions that preoccupied him in his youth, as we saw above, led him to an Eastern kind of meditation and to an act of self-divinization as return to his immemorial being. This happened under the influence of books on Far Eastern mysticism and encounters with people from lands that have cultivated such esoteric doctrines for thousands of years. It is no simple matter to rid oneself of aberrations of this kind. The impression is created that perfection is attained by transcending our hypostatic principle, which is a temporary form of existence, which introduces restrictions into our life. Therefore, one must willingly accept the disintegration of human personality in the nameless ocean of pure being, of the suprapersonal absolute. He considered that the absolute, as perceived by Eastern religions, was superior to Christian personalism and more valuable. This Eastern experience was something intellectual, the asceticism of the mental divestment of all that is relative. It was a wrong road that was taking him further away from true real being and leading him towards non-being. At that time, he did not understand the meaning of the person in God and man, as he himself says, quote, Consequent on such a vital lacuna in my cognition, I carried away, I got carried away by the mystical philosophy of the non-Christian East. In my folly, I supposed that this would show me the way out of the snare into which I had fallen. I wasted a lot of valuable time. End of quote. He applied himself to transcendental meditation. Quote, My intellectual asceticism consisted in concentrating thought and will on divesting myself of the materiality of the physical body, next to proceed towards all transcending pure being by renouncing in myself the personal principle the thinking process, and other forms of cosmic being. Quote. This whole process served the God of the philosophers who does not really exist. And the beginning of his involvement with transcendental meditation brought him some relief from so many existential questions that preoccupied him and offered him hours of intellectual delectation. It lifted him above his surroundings. However, he could not conceive of the absolute principle as personal. It was a state of delusion. 
Concentrating within himself and transcendental meditation distanced him from the god of his childhood years and led him to the darkness of ignorance, to divestiture, and to a particular kind of ecstasy. In fact, he was brought to the point of seeing his noose, his mind as light. At that time, he was on the one hand carried away by a forceful impulse toward the unnameable, all-transcending being, non-being, while on the other hand, he was seeking in his painting to express the beauty proper to almost every manifestation of nature. Others might regard such a period of being full of inspiration, but the elder himself saw it as suicide in the metaphysical sense. Speaking about seeing his thinking energy as light during transcendental meditation, he explains, quote, The world of mental contemplation is essentially a radiant one. Indeed, our mind is an image of the primal mind, which is light. The intellect concentrated on metaphysical problems can lose all sense of time and material space, traveling, as it were, beyond their boundaries. In just such a situation, my mind would seem to be light. End of quote. The elder knows and confesses that this mental light is different from the uncreated light of God. Today, we know from scientific research in the field of neurology that the human brain, through the chemical processes and the electrical energy produced there, makes it possible for someone, when concentrating absolutely within himself, to re reach a state of intellectual illumination. This is how discoveries are made. But this illumination differs very clearly from the uncreated light of God. Certainly, as St. Diodocus of Photiki and St. Gregory Palamas explain, the illumination of the noose is not something peculiar, but the energy of God that illuminates man's noose once he has been purified of passions. It is a preliminary stage for the vision of the uncreated light through the illuminated noose. Thus, the light of the mind, which results from concentration and human effort, is different from the grace of God that enlightens the pure noose and raises the deified to theoria of God. I regard Father Sophroni's testimony as significant. It shows the difference between meditation and divine revelation, and the distinction between the created light of the noose or mind, diabolical light, and divine light. This is an extraordinary description which is not to be found in the patristic writings and is therefore extremely important, especially in our era, when there is confusion between intellectual attainments. Eastern religions and the divine revelation that Christ brought into the world. The elder writes, quote, To pray was natural for me from childhood, but a day came, one morning, as I was walking along a street in Moscow, when the thought forced itself into my mind, the absolute cannot be personal. Eternity cannot lie in the psyche of gospel love. It was a curious business. The idea hit me like a hammer. I shall always remember the spot. I then began, it required a certain amount of effort, to make myself stop praying and go in for meditation of a non-Christian character. One night soon afterwards I was awakened in a way that I did not understand. I saw my whole room flooded with patches of vibrating light. My soul was troubled. The vision repelled me. I felt something like the aversion mixed with fear that one feels if a snake gets into the house. I left my room and went into the sitting room, where I stayed a while before returning to bed. The light had gone and I fell asleep again. 
Soon after this, while I was engaged in my meditations, which had developed a certain degree of intensity, I saw my thinking energy like a faint light inside and around my skull. My heart, meanwhile, continued to live separately from my brain. Years later, after the mercy of the high God had visited me, I noticed that the uncreated light is tranquil, integral, steady, acting on the mind, the heart, and the body too. In contemplating it, one's whole being is in a state unknown to the earth. The light is the light of love, the light of wisdom, the light of immortality, and wondrous peace. End of quote. Father Sofroni regards this period when he was involved with Eastern mysticism as one of spiritual blindness, as a period when he departed from the living God of his childhood years, although at the time he supposed that he was improving on the gospel. D. Returning to Christ, I am that I am. Through his incarnation, the Son and Word of God restored man to his previous glory and raised him even higher, because he assumed mortal and passable human nature without sin and deified it. The work of the divine incarnation shows God's love for humankind. God also expresses his love for mankind to each human being personally by calling him to new life and inviting him to return from the darkness of ignorance to the light of the gospel. This is not a matter of moral reform, but a return to paradise. This return does not come about through fine thoughts and speculations, but through the revelation of God himself. A moment comes when God manifests himself, and then one perceives the depth of one's fall. Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul in the uncreated light and asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 9.4 Until then, Saul believed that he was fighting a new heresy in the name of God of the Old Testament, whom, however, he did not know personally. Christ revealed to him that he is a living person, that he is the word of God who appeared to the prophets as the unincarnate word and who became incarnate for man's salvation, and that he is the head of the body of the church. The same happened to the Apostle Peter as soon as he denied Christ. According to the testimony of St. Luke the Evangelist, quote, The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. End of quote. Luke 22, verses 61 to 62. St. Peter's weeping and his profound repentance in general were the result of the penetrating energy of Christ's gaze, his revelation to Peter at the moment of his great fall. We see the same in the parable of the prodigal son. The repentance of the younger son in the parable was not due to a surge of emotion, to rational reflections and various human-centered states and ulterior motives. It was due to the remembrance of his father's love and his life in his father's house before he left it. Quote, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I will perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion 
and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Luke 15, 17-20. St. Paul speaks about God shining in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God reveals himself through his divine energy. The noose is separated from the rational faculty and is illumined, and then noetic prayer becomes, in the Holy Spirit, self-acting in the heart, or rather, it is activated by the Holy Spirit. Father Sofroni writes at many points in this book about his return to the true God. It is not at all easy to follow this journey because on the one hand it is spiritually unified and cannot be analyzed into successive stages, and on the other hand it happens swiftly, at least at the beginning. Besides that, we do not have corresponding experience. We shall attempt, however, to make what he writes about this spiritual state at least partly comprehensible. The elder himself asserts that his attempts at, the, at that time to find God apart from Christ was erroneous, and he could never have escaped from it by his own strength. He writes, I do not know how to relate it due, due, in due sequence the spiritual events of those days. The first thing that happened was a revelation of vital importance. Quote, Suddenly, as it were, it became obvious to me that my artificial absorption in the abstract mental sphere would not afford me authentic knowledge of the first principle of all principles. My austere putting away of all that was relative had not brought real union with the one I sought. My mystical experiences had been of a negative character. It was not pure being that lay before me, but death, complete and final. It was revealed to the elder that union with God comes about through love, and the commandment to love in the gospel pierced my heart and mind like the light of true knowledge. Elsewhere he uses the image of a tiny boat tossed about by the waves in the dark night to describe how his noose would ascend to the crest of a wave and then be fiercely hurled down into the depths by another wave. Then, however, God, who was waiting for the right moment set before him, Quote, the Bible text, the revelation on Mount Sinai, I am that I am. Exodus 3.14 Being is I. God, the absolute master of all the celestial worlds, is personal. I am. With this name, distant prospects were revealed to me, which stretched into the unattainable. Not in the form of abstract thinking, but existentially this personal God became overwhelmingly evident to me. The whole structure of my spiritual life was transformed. End of quote. Putting together the two passages cited above, we shall see this revealed truth that God is personal. I am that I am was not an idea or a good thought, but an inhypostatic illumination that would be decisive for him for the rest of his life. This is clear from the fact that the elder writes that it became obvious to me and that God himself sought an occasion to appear to me through the name I am that I am, as he writes. This personal God became overwhelmingly evident to me. And through this reality, the whole structure of my spiritual life was transformed. This was obviously 
a significant experience comparable with the revelations to Moses, to whom God said, I am that I am. To the Apostle Paul, to whom he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Acts 9.5. And to St. Constantine the Great, who saw the sign of the cross and the words, in this sign conquer. It seems that this was also a prelude to the great experience that would follow. This is how Christ brings about man's salvation as he prepared his disciples to follow him, to face his passion and his cross, to see him risen and to receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In order to evaluate this first experience of Father Sophronius theologically, it ought to be noted that, according to the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas, what Father Sophronius experienced then was a moment of illumination, the beginning of Theoria of the Light. St. Gregory Palamas writes that when the noose during sincere, pure prayer, leaves behind all created things. This is something higher than apophatic, speculative, and scholastic theology. This ecstasy, however, is not yet union with God, unless the All-Holy Spirit comes. Father Sophroni would call this state the darkness of divestiture. St. Gregory Palamas goes on to write that this theoria of God Quote, has a beginning and something that follows on from this beginning, more or less dark or clear, but there is never an end, since its progress is infinite, just as is the ravishment in Revelation. End of quote. According to St. Macarius of Egypt, sense perception, vision, and illumination are different things. Sense perception is connected with the natural vision of creation. The one whose noose is illuminated is greater than the one who has sense perception. Revelation, however, is something different and superior, because through it, great things, mysteries of the Godhead, are revealed to the soul. The moment of illumination that Father Sophroni was granted was superior to apophatics, that is, speculative theology, superior even to ecstasy. At the same time, this experience was the beginning of Theoria of God. Of course, as St. Gregory Palamas writes, there is a difference between illumination and a durable vision of light and the vision of things in the light, whereby even things far off are accessible to the eyes and the future is shown as already existing. This first experience of Father Sophroni was an enhypostatic illumination, but later, as we shall see below, he was found worthy of continuous vision of the light when the divine light stayed within and around him for many days, and he lived within the light. This illumination, that I am that I am, which Father Sophroni saw at that time, was not just an idea or a concept. It was not something that appears and disappears like a flash of lightning, but an inhypostatic illumination. Not only non-existing existent things and apparitions are called non-hypostatic, but also everything which quickly disintegrates and runs away, which disappears at once and stops as soon as it starts, as is the case with thunder and lightning, and our words and thoughts. The Holy Fathers, however, regard this shining of the light as inhypostatic, quote, because it remains in being and does not elude the gaze, as does lightning or words or thoughts, end of quote. In other words, the revelation of God with the words, I am that I am, was not something that came and went, but a manifestation of the energy of God 
as the name of God is God's energy, which is named according to the results that it produces. St. Gregory Palamas, confronting the scholasticism of Barlaam, who said that the vision of the uncreated light was an apparition, something that came and went like a flash of lightning, or even that it was a conventional symbol signifying something else, made a distinction between natural, conventional, and illusory symbols. Natural symbols are inseparable from the nature of the things that they symbolize. For instance, the dawn is a natural symbol of sunlight. Warmth is a natural symbol of the burning power of fire, and thunder is a natural symbol of lightning. Conventional symbols are independent of the objects they symbolize, and they exist in their own right, like national flags, or the blaze lit by an army to signify that a city has been taken. Illusory symbols do not exist in reality, but are apparitions and fictions that come and go, appear and disappear. The light of Christ's transfiguration is the glory of Christ's divinity. It was neither a conventional symbol nor an apparition, but the very kingdom of God. As his writings show, Father Sophroni is clearly aware that the light that he saw was the glory of the divinity of Christ, the uncreated energy of the Holy Trinity. It was in hypostatic light. In fact, he plainly distinguished it from visible light, diabolical light, and the light of human knowledge. In addition, he confessed that it conveyed divine knowledge to him. Referring to theology, St. Dionysios the Areopagite writes, Theology is both vast and extremely small, and the gospel is wide-ranging and great yet briefly stated. This means that revelational theology can be expressed in a word, but its subject matter is extremely profound and vice versa. He goes on to say that the good cause of all is eloquent, reserved in speech, and wordless, as it has neither word nor understanding, since it is above these things in a way that surpasses being, and is revealed to those who have abandoned everything and have risen very high. St. Maximus the Confessor's words are significant. Quote, Each word of God neither consists of many words, nor does it require much speaking, but rather it is one, though made up of different visions, each of which is a part of the word. End of quote. The revealed word is not expressed using many words, but it is a theoria, a vision, which is part of the word, and it is interpreted with many words. Thus, the deified received revelation and assurance from God at a given moment with a spiritual concept linked to the vision of God. This is what is meant by inexpressible words. And throughout their lives, they analyze this concept by means of theology and preaching, which are created words and concepts. So the deified receive an ineffable word and they convey it using many created words and concepts. We see this in the revela revelational experience that the elder had when the meaning of the words I am, that I am, was disclosed. God was revealed to him as person, as I am. Very few words, but they satisfied his heart and filled it with theology. Then the person of Christ was revealed to him as far as he could bear. He transformed him and made him a theologian. 
Thus, it was possible for him to speak and write in an amazing way about this experience, and his words were theology behind the facts, a theological description. We see this in all the elders' writings that refer to the light of the person of Christ, but on every occasion and in every chapter, this experience is developed in a particular manner. God's revelation made his noose theological, so he spoke about God concisely, but his speech was rich in content. According to the, father, the teaching of the fathers of the church, illumination is theoria of the hypostatic God. It is, however, the beginning of theoria and is different from continuous vision. Through illumination, the inhypostatic grace and energy of the triune God enter man's heart. From Father Sofroni's existing writings, it is impossible to see completely the chronological sequence of his experiences. It seems, however, that after the overwhelmingly evident experience of the name of God, I am that I am, or more likely at the same time, divine grace penetrated his heart. He writes, quote, My torment continued a long time until my whole strength was exhausted. Then, quite unexpectedly, it seemed as if a fine needle pierced the thick wall and a ray of light gleamed through the hairline crack, end of quote. Elsewhere, he refers to heavenly fire coming into his heart. How did his gentle but powerful hand catch hold of me when with the stubbornness of youthful folly I rushed headlong into the dark abyss of non-being? The heavenly fire burned into me and its heat melted my heart. The radiant moment of the appearance of I am that I am and the advent of the fire of faith in his heart are also described in another passage. He speaks of the appearance of him who said, I am the truth, John 14, 6. And he describes this moment when he was initiated into the truth as radiant. It led him out of the hell of mortal ignorance. He speaks of the fire of faith in Christ, which penetrated his heart like a sharp sword. Of course, he realized that he had not yet acquired the living truth, but this inspiration was itself transformed into an awareness, into the presence of truth within him. We realize that this was not a simple awareness of a presence, but a transmission and transfusion of life-giving truth, although only at a preliminary stage. It was the revelation of the hypostatic principle in the divine being, but also the revelation of the principle that we humans, too, as God's creatures bear within us the hypostatic principle, potentially, not actually. So this hypostatic principle needs to be activated. This is revelational theology and not philosophical speculation. His spiritual experience, however, gradually reached the point of beholding God in the light. The elder writes, When I accepted belief without the faintest shadow of doubt in the divinity of Christ, I was irradiated by light, not of this world. And to a certain extent, like Paul, in his light I knew him. At first I believed with a lively faith. Afterwards, light appeared to me. He confesses that this was a manifestation of the kingdom of God. The Lord knows my thankfulness to him that he showed no mercy on me and did not end his work which he had made. Genesis 2.2 Until he had lifted me to a vision of the kingdom be it only still in part, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 
Since the greatest theological charisma is the gift of discerning between what is created and what is uncreated, and this is a token of authenticity in theology, the elder's great worth is clear from the fact that he made the distinction between created demonic lights and the uncreated light of the kingdom of God. In one passage, he speaks of the many kinds of light and lights that he experienced, such as the light of artistic inspiration, the light of philosophical speculation, the light of scientific knowledge. He was also tempted by radiant apparitions coming from the devil. Quote, but in my adult years, when I returned to Christ as perfect God, the unoriginate light shone on me. This wondrous light, even in the measure vouchsafed to me from on high, eclipsed all else, just as the rising sun eclipses the brightest star. End of quote. These words of the elder remind us of the parallel teaching of St. Simeon, the new theologian, who, as his writings show, through the frequent appearances of the uncreated light acquired, on the one hand, true knowledge of God, and on the other, was able to discern the difference between human knowledge and the divine knowledge that comes from the light. Thus he writes, Knowledge is not the light, rather it is the light that is knowledge, since in it and through it and from it are all things. Romans 11.36 At the same time, he had a profound awareness of the presence of God within him, but also of his presence in heaven. Quote, How do I adore you within myself, and yet I see you at a distance? How do I perceive you within me, but behold you in the heavens? You alone know, you, the author of these things, who shine like the sun in my heart, my material heart, immaterially. End of quote. The elder had previously passed through the hell of mindfulness of death, and this prepared him for the theoria of the uncreated light. He feels that God himself permitted that he should go through these afflictions for reasons known to him, and in the end God, ignoring his objections, seized him with his powerful hands and wrathfully, so to speak, hurled me into the immensity of the world he had created. When the elder experienced hell, the divine light was invisible, but it opened his eyes to perceive the darkness in which he was living. The awareness of hell was repentance, which was activated by the grace of God. This is the path for those who have fallen, in order that they may be lifted up to the theoria of God. He writes characteristically, Profound grief over myself, and there beyond I see light. In this way, the elder was led from the spiritual gift of the mindfulness of death to the overwhelmingly evident revelation of the power of the name of Christ when a burning flame entered his heart, and from there he was led to the theoria of the uncreated light. All these things had a hypostatic foundation because they were connected with the manifestation of the truth about God, hypostasis, and man, hypostasis. The Elder writes in many places about this first great theophany, manifestation of God, which regenerated him, brought him back into communion with God, and gave him certainty that he is the true God. At one point he writes that the appearance of the divine light cures us of our blindness. We recognize our sin, our fall, the tragedy of our situation, and the drama of universal history. No doctor on earth can cure these consequences of the fall. The vision of God, which is sharing and communion with God, made him a participate, 
participant in Christ in, in his sufferings, his resurrection, his ascension, and Pentecost. To some extent, he experienced in his own life what Christ lived. Meeting the living Christ is the greatest gift to man, and in the light of knowing him, all the circumstances of our life are full of meaning. Everything that happens in our life must serve to prepare us for a personal encounter with him. This is an experience that appertains to meta-history. The one who encounters Christ understands the manifestations of God in the Old and New Testaments. According to St. Gregory Palamas, the one who beholds God acquires knowledge of God which is empirical and spiritual and is released from the ignorance which knowledge gained from the senses and the rational faculty offers. This noetic light sometimes acts intelligibly. It is seen by the noose through its noetic perception. And when this light is shed on the rational souls, it releases them from the ignorance associated with their state and so brings them back from multiple opinions to unified knowledge. Knowledge without and apart from the divine light is opinions, that is to say, miscellaneous ideas, knowledge that is connected with the product of man's imagination and his senses. Knowledge of God, on the other hand, which is the fruit of purity and acquired from the light, is single, pure, unified. God himself led the elder to true faith the truth, and the knowledge of him, not because he had adapted to the elder's way of thinking, but because of a process deep within him. That was healing my mind, he writes, and heart. Sometimes this process would be slow and laborious, but sometimes a sudden upsurge would sunder me from everything that was not he. It seems to me that this was nothing other than God's revelation of himself within my spirit. Matthew eleven twenty seven. After his complete spiritual journey, which was a path of participation in the sufferings, the cross, the descent into Hades, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, Father Sophroni is certain that he lived an experience analogous with that of the prophets, apostles, and fathers, and that from then on Christ became his life. He writes in an amazing manner, quote, Of course, I do not compare myself with the prophets or the apostles or fathers. It is just that here and there I seize on an analogy without which it would be impossible to find one's bearings. God in his measureless humility did not reject me but gave to me to contemplate his uncreated light. End of quote. Having gone through this experience and being certain of God's revelation to him, he confesses, quote, Christ became my life. I worshipped him and could imagine no parallel to him. He is for me the one true Lord and God. I live in an almost constant dread of forfeiting his mercy because of my perpetual stumbling. I may argue with him, make innumerable attempts to avoid his cross, but still I embrace Christ's cross and somehow or other bear my own cross as ordained for me. Matthew 16:24. And now I bless my God who has granted me regeneration in fervent repentance. End of quote. The elder had this revelatory experience of I am that I am, as well as the experience of three days in the uncreated light, as we shall see below, while he was in Paris, before he became a monk on Mount Athos. 
As this may perhaps be problematic for some readers, I shall refer to a patristic text. In his Discourses, St. Simeon the New Theologian refers to a certain George. Obviously, it was the saint himself before he became a monk, who at the age of about 20 was living in Constantinople and had a worldly outlook. He made the acquaintance of a certain holy monk from whom he received spiritual guidance. That holy spiritual father gave him a spiritual book containing a description of the monk's way of life and accounts of their ascetic practices, and also the book on the spiritual law by St. Mark the Ascetic. As he studied these books, particularly the one by St. Mark, George longed to see the Lord. He was wounded by love and desire for him and sought the primeval beauty through hope, even though it might not appear to him. In obedience to the instructions of his elder, he examined his conscience and made prostrations, saying psalms and above all the prayer, Lord have mercy. He was busy at that time with worldly affairs, with the household of a certain patrician and the concerns of the palace. In parallel, however, he was living an intensely spiritual life. He shed tears. He made prostrations. He prayed diligently and with sighs to the mother of God, and like a blind man begged Christ as though he were present for mercy and spiritual sight. He prayed from the evening until midnight without growing slack. On one occasion, while he was saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner, with his noose, divine radiance suddenly came from heaven and filled that place. The young man fell into ecstasy. He saw nothing but light all around him and did not know if he was standing on the ground. He felt no fear or worldly concern. He was free of every thought. Instead, he was wholly in the presence of immaterial light and seemed to be himself to have turned into light. Oblivious of all the world, he was filled with tears and with ineffable joy and gladness. Then his noose ascended to heaven and he saw another light, clearer than that which was close at hand. Strangely enough, standing next to that light, he saw the holy elder, equal to the angels, who had given him guidance and the book to read. This vision demonstrated that the prayers of that holy monk had contributed to this event, but also that God was showing him the heights of virtue of that holy elder. This is actually a description of Theoria of the Uncreated Light by a young man who was living in the world. And, as St. Simeon the New Theologian says, as soon as this Theoria passed and the young man came to himself, he was filled with joy and surprised. He wept with all his heart, and sweetness followed his tears. Then he fell on his bed, and when he, the cock crew, he understood that it was midnight. A little later he heard the church bells ringing for matins, and he rose to sing psalms as usual, without any thought of sleeping that night. This description of Theoria shows what precedes the appearance of the uncreated light, what happens during it, and what happens afterwards. The most significant point is that the uncreated light appears to someone who is young in years and lives in the world, with its concerns, but who tries to live the hesychastic life under the guidance of a holy elder. E. Mourning For someone who has previously denied Christ or doubted him, the vision of Christ and his glory gives rise to intense mourning, profound repentance, and insatiable contrition. 
When a man sees the glory of Christ, he gives himself over quite naturally to mourning for his great fall. The fact that he was looking for a God apart from the truth, apart from the God of revelation. In his Beatitudes, Christ praised those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Moreover, it seems that this mourning is a consequence of the sense of one's spiritual poverty, which is why the Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3-4, comes first. Repentance is a prerequisite for the kingdom of heaven and a continuous state in human life. For that reason, Christ began his preaching with the call to repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 7. We know that repentance has no end. It simply changes its expression on each occasion because human beings can never be completely like Christ or absolutely identical to him. This morning is the Apostle Peter's bitter weeping and the characteristic feature of true ascetics. A few examples will be cited. When a monk was asked, Abba Piman, to give him a word, he replied, the fathers put compunction at the very beginning of every action. In another situation, the same Abba, when he saw a woman sitting at a grave and weeping for someone she loved, said, quote, if all the delights of the world were to come, they could not drive sorrow away from the soul of this woman. Even so, the monk should always have compunction in himself. End of quote. St. John Climacus links exile, which is the basic characteristic of monks, with mourning. He writes, Exile loves continual weeping. Elsewhere, the same saint writes, Every word is preceded by thought, and the remembrance of death and sins precedes weeping and mourning. St. Gregory of Sinai writes, Unless your life and actions are accompanied by a sense of inner grief, you cannot endure the incandescence of stillness. St. John Chrysostom, too, characterizes the present life as a life of mourning. He writes, This is the season of grief and tribulation, of bruising and bringing into subjection, of struggles and sweat. And you laugh? He continues, Serve God with tears, that you may be able to wash away your sins. Let us mourn, therefore, beloved, that we may laugh indeed, that we may rejoice indeed in the time of unmixed joy. St. Gregory Palamas, speaking of godly mourning that leads to salvation, describes its course. And those who sin against God and become aware of their offenses, mourning is stirred up. Reproof brings despair, and then the involuntary reprimand of their conscience increases with mourning the anguish suffered by each one. This grief gives rise to yet another form of grief because it is everlasting. Then God visits the human being and consoles him. This mourning is born of a humbled soul and contrition follows and consolation follows. The fallen state of man means that his noose is dispersed through the senses into the surrounding world. Then an ugly mask is created within him. St. Gregory Palamas, referring to man's journey to deification, writes that when the soul distances itself from everything perceptible to the senses and emerges from its overwhelming concern for these things and surveys the inner man, then as soon as it sees the repulsive mask acquired from wandering below, 
it hastens to wash it away with mourning. And when this ugly covering has been removed, his soul, because it is no longer sordidly distracted by all sorts of attachments, gains peace, draws near to real Hezekiah, conceives of God through itself, surpasses its nature, and is deified through repentance. It is clear here that through grace the noose sees the inner world of the soul and all its ugliness, and through mourning man is led to deification. Father Sophroni lived this godly mourning to an extreme degree, as he describes in his writings. Some of the passages will now be highlighted that refer to the mourning created within him after the first vision of the uncreated light and the revelation that God is hypostasis person, I am that I am. He says that God gave him the grace of repentance in the course of which hopeless grief dominated prayer, which was accompanied by a sense of fire. This was a fiery flame that burned up something within him. Later he understood that this assisted in his rebirth. Thus this period was fearful yet blessed. Searing repentance is a great gift from God and is linked with the experience of seeing the glory of God and the sense of one's unworthiness. In other words, through searing repentance, we can feel his immortal breath upon us, but the vision of God also makes repentance more ardent. The elder refers in his writings to the upsurge of repentance, which is overpowering, and to which there is no end. In other words, it acts intensely and without stopping because perfection belongs to God. Through the upsurge of repentance, the light of the uncreated sun penetrates the dungeon of the soul. Because he experienced repentance, he is well aware that through it man is born again, and it is the prerequisite for the kingdom of God. Much patience is required in the waverings that exhaust the heart and noose. Perfect stability is the conclusive gift for eternity of God our Savior. The elder experienced beyond doubt that repentance in accordance with grace is not something psychological or pathological, but supremely theological. The behavior of the penitent is neither a nervous disorder nor the consequence of unsatisfied desires of the flesh, neither the result of psychological conflict or loss of mental control. There is nothing at all pathological about them, absolutely not. By their nature, these sufferings belong to another plane of being. At the outset of repentance, the whole entity suffers, but spiritual travail in connection with God quickens and does not destroy. Thus man is freed from the law of sin. Repentance is expressed through tears of repentance, which take many forms, because repentance is expressed in a variety of ways. A certain elder on the holy mountain counted as many as twelve kinds of tears. But Father Sophroni, who passes on this information, writes that although he was familiar with many forms of tears, he never counted them. The Niptic Fathers speak about the tears linked with mourning that transform man's being. In one of his poems, St. Simeon the New Theologian speaks of contrition and tears which cleanse a man like water. Quote, when man is filled with remorse and weeps, this is then called water, for it purifies. United with tears, it washes from all stain. End of quote. 
it is significant that this mourning quenches wrath and afterwards meekness comes. Quote, when mourning cools down the anger of the heart, with its help, it takes the name of gentleness. Elsewhere, St. Simeon, the New Theologian, referring to tears that spring from divine illumination, writes, O tears which flow from divine enlightenment and open heaven itself, and assure me of divine consolation. Because he has experience of this state, he concludes, Where there is an abundance of tears, brethren, accompanied by true knowledge, there also shines the divine light. The elder did not usually speak about tears, but about mourning and weeping. According to the ascetic tradition, weeping is loud crying with pain, grief, and self-hatred. The elder mentions in his writings the profound mourning that gripped him. He felt that his soul was hanging, terrified over the abyss, like a small helpless being. He saw himself full of wounds and unfit for the kingdom of God. All the same, he was aware that he was in the hands of his Creator. This weeping that he could not restrain started from the awareness of his fallen state, which he saw in the light of God, and subsequently it broadened its scope to include the state of the whole world. Through the revelation of God, the ascetic acquires a sense of communion with all Adam, and then prayer becomes like Christ's prayer in Gethsemane. This happened especially in the desert of Manathos during the Second World War, when he wept bitter tears for the world at large. The elder writes that to a certain extent he understood the fall of the Apostle Peter, who denied Christ and afterwards wept bitterly. His own fall consisted in being led astray by transcendental meditation, and he regarded it as a repetition of Adam's fall. However, when God appeared to him, as we saw above, he was horror-stricken. His prayer was characterized by self-loathing, and he trembled with fear. He felt as though he were standing before the dread judgment seat of the judge, and he prayed with the inexpressible sighs of his heart. Praying in this way, he lost awareness of his body, and his spirit would enter some mental sphere, the boundaries of which it is impossible to reach, perhaps because there are no boundaries. In this spiritual abyss, his soul sought only God. Then he received God's favor. This description by the elder is actually a description of pure prayer, about which the Holy Fathers wrote so much. True repentance in accordance with grace is not only expressed through tears, but through a profound sense of unworthiness. This atmosphere of penitence is brought about by a purely theological event, not by some sort of psychological or emotional state. After the vision of the living God, the elder felt that he was a hideous criminal because he had left this living God and occupied himself with suprapersonal absolute being. He regarded this act as suicide, that is to say, an eternal defection from my Creator. He writes, I detested myself, and for decades I wept out of sorrow and shame. Horror and despair took hold of him, but did not cast him into hopelessness, because the presence of the living God gave him strength. Even when God appeared to the elder, despair, strangely enough, still prevailed in him. He writes, quote, Even when he was with me and in me, I could not stop weeping for my sin, which appeared to me in its metaphysical essence to surpass all patent transgressions. 
a powerful desire to break with all that had gone before took the form of detestation of myself as I had been in the past. The positive side of my repulsion of my passions lay in the fact that at the same time it presented itself as an act whereby I placed myself in God made manifest to me. The sense of his crime overwhelmed his being and caused him pious horror. He would pray like one demented, and he was granted long hours of such prayer. Christ spoke of hatred toward all and towards oneself as a characteristic feature of his true disciples. This is not pathological hatred, but a sanctified loathing associated with great love for God and the denial of every other selfish love, every sin that lurks within us and expresses itself in all sorts of different ways. Christ said, quote, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. End of quote. Luke 14, 26. It is impossible that Christ who taught people to love everyone and to honor their parents, should mean here a passionate sort of hatred for other people. Rather, he means hatred for self-love and sin itself. The elder refers in his writings to sanctified loathing, the blessing of despair and self-hatred which God bestowed on him when he appeared and revealed the ugliness and deformity of his distorted self. True repentance in accordance with grace reaches the point of self-hatred which is a precondition for being set free from, quote, the traces of the Luciferian fall and reaching theory of the light. Father Sofroni tells us that we, that he was accounted worthy in the spirit of seeing Christ praying in Gethsemane, and this made him hate himself on account of Christ's pain, which he too caused him by his fall. This blessed self-hatred brought him great peace, and through it he experienced the uncreated light in the kingdom of God. Holy self-hatred is linked with the ascetic virtue of self-condemnation, which is a charisma possessed by all who live the life in the spirit. The ascetic, through beholding the uncreated light, reaches the point of condemning himself and descends into the dark abyss. Just as lightning illuminates the night, so the ascetic sees the darkness like a condensed mass of disgusting filth. This increases his pain and repentance. Reading what Father Sophroni writes about mourning, burning repentance, self-hatred, the experience of hell, and the vision of the living God, one understands that his point of contact was with St. Siloan and the revelation that the latter received, quote, keep your mind in hell and despair not. They both had the same experience. Father Sofroni lived this godly mourning throughout his life. It made him simple, peaceful, and humble, and he passed it on to those who spoke to him. He had received from God the blessed and holy fire of which Christ said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Luke 12:49. By appearing to him, Christ lit within him this sacred fire, which set him aflame and made him fire-bearing. F. Reaching up to God. Godly mourning is not a negative state. It does not create psychological despair or hopelessness, but it is a positive energy as it cures man's inner wound. 
In this state, one observes a reaching up to God. This reaching up is expressed in many ways, but two of them will be noted here. One is the desire to keep the commandments of the beloved Christ. Those who mourn throw themselves into a struggle to observe only the will of God, who has loved them. The prophet King David writes, quote, I held to hard ways because of the words of your lips. Psalm 16, 4. The Apostle Paul speaks of casting down every high thing that exalts itself arrogantly against the knowledge of God, and of bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. The other consequence of reaching up to God is thirsting for God and searching for God in order to find rest and acquire certainty of forgiveness for the fall. It is an unquenchable thirst for God. Quote, as the deer longs for the springs of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before the face of God? My tears were my bread day and night, when they said to me each day, Where is your God? Psalm 41, 2-4 In this state, noetic prayer develops. The heart is aflame day and night with the name of God, which is the energy of God. Then one feels like the disciples who were on their way to Emmaus. They were sorrowful, but when Christ spoke to them, their hearts burned. Quote, and they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Luke 24, 32. Reaching up to God is linked with loving desire, unquenchable thirst, and a burning heart. Such states are found in many of the writings of the Holy Fathers. We shall refer to a few passages from the teaching of St. Simeon, the New Theologian, of whose life and teaching Father Sophroni reminds us. Reaching up to God, holy love and divine longing are very closely linked with theoria of the beauty of the face of God. St. Simeon describes this longing as wounding that leads to ecstasy and oblivion to visible things. He writes, quote, The ineffable beauty of that which appeared to me wounded my heart and it and attracted me to infinite love. That love prevented me from turning to things below, as though I were already completely freed from the bonds of the flesh. And I rejoiced, and then I was again wholly human." End of quote. It is clear here that Theoria of the Light ignites divine longing and brings ecstasy without the human being lost. This longing linked with the wounding of the heart, is of a different nature and cannot be explained psychologically or emotionally. In one of his poems, St. Simeon the New Theologian expresses it vividly. Quote, For seeing you, I am wounded deeply within my heart. I am un unable to look at you, but I cannot bear not to look at you. End of quote. With the recollection of this love, the light of God came into his heart, and as he writes, I have been ravished by its delight and have ceased to perceive outward things. I have lost all sense of this life. Expressing this quality of holy love, he writes, O holy love, you are the end of the law. It is you who surround me and inflame me, you who, by the pain of my heart, enkindle me with boundless desire for God and for my brethren and fathers. Here, the words surround, inflame, pain of heart, and boundless desire should be emphasized. They show a state that goes beyond what is usual on the human level, a fiery experience of God that impels the human being towards God with longing and reaching up to him. 
this reaching up appears scattered throughout the writings of the of Father Sofroni. Some of these passages will be singled out, and the words that the elder uses to express this reality should be noted. First of all, he speaks about the energy of the Word of God, Christ's commandments. The divine Word, according to the elder, is God's energy that works in man's heart, breaks through the hardened tissues, and regenerates him. It is not simply a commandment in the legalistic sense. Aware of this reality, he tried to keep God's commandments. He speaks of the terrible privilege of walking the mysterious tightrope of a rope that was stretched over an abyss and linked its two sides. The sense of walking this tightrope changed into a vision of the arms of Christ on the cross. When we read this passage as set out in his book, we should note that the phrases that the sense of the abyss, quote, changed into a vision of the arms of Christ on the cross and that he felt crucified by Christ's teaching, also that in despair I prayed, and then I saw the body of the Lord nailed to the cross, hanging like a marvelous bridge between heaven and earth. This whole scene and the words used in the description, particularly the words I saw, show that this is an experience of revelation and not an imaginary or mental image, and reveal the theological importance of Christ's commandments. In the spiritual life and in man's effort to be reborn, the keeping of Christ's commandments is of great significance. In particular, the experience of being forsaken by God is linked, is seen to be linked with a maximum effort to observe Christ's commandments. In this state, the more one feels abandoned by God, the more one attempts to do his will. It goes without saying that this happens to those who have had a taste of God's appearing. The elder prayed for decades that God would give him inspiration to follow Christ wherever he goes. Anyone who loves Christ wants to follow him and to do his will everywhere, even as far as Gethsemane and Golgotha. Father Sofroni was a man of prayer. He had always prayed from when he was young, but once he knew Christ, once Christ was revealed himself to him, his prayer became a natural state of his spirit. Speaking about prayer, he often refers to insatiable prayer, prayer free of earthly cares, the gift of a potent agony of repentance, pure prayer, thirst for God, an unbridled reaching out to God, and so on. These phrases show the intense degree of Father Sophroni's prayer. Elsewhere, he mentioned that prayer becomes like a torrential stream. He used to pray before he became a monk, and later at the monastery of St. Pantaleon on the Holy Mountain. Most of all, however, he prayed in the desert of the Holy Mountain, in the cave of the Holy Trinity near the monastery of St. Paul. He recorded this state in his writings. In particular, he describes his prayer in the desert, in the cave where he had the unique privilege of devoting himself entirely to this prayer, free of earthly cares. This prayer possessed him for months on end. He prayed with insatiable thirst. His soul thirsted for God and was drawn by a force that brought joy, but at the same time was linked with pain. This thirst for God became his permanent state, and unceasing prayer acted within him. He writes, My spirit sighed after the living truth. Elsewhere, he reveals the context within which prayer acted, that he prayed unceasingly even during sleep. Weeping, would take hold of him, and he would throw himself on the floor of the cave. The prayer was so intense that, 
quote, my whole being, my mind, my heart, and even my body, everything was closely and powerfully united into one, like a tight knot, end of quote. He reached a state of ecstasy, and then he had experiences of the light. The elder uses many images and descriptive adjectives to express the intense prayer that gripped him. He speaks of fiery prayer, of frantic prayers, of the fact that when he was praying he was unrestrained, audacious even, that he prayed to God like one demented while he was in painful despair, and so on. This prayer of extreme tension was fiery, and this divine fire of God's grace, which is his purifying energy, penetrated his inner world even to his bones, and converted his diabolical loathsomeness. After long hours of such prayer, he did not want to return to the world. Elsewhere, he speaks of the despairing prayer that absorbed him. This prayer, however, was offered to a living and personal God, whom he knew from his revelation and not to an invisible, suprapersonal power. His description of charismatic ecstasy during prayer is characteristic. He found himself alone as the whole world had disappeared, and his soul would cry out to God in painful despair, Yes, yes, I am a sinner, he writes, but I thirst for God, holy God. When he prayed, he did not do so out of Christian duty, but out of a longing to find God and to have a personal encounter with him. Prayer had become a personal hypostatic event. He prayed with frantic prayers. He was unrestrained, audacious even. And in answer to such prayers, Christ came. As might be expected, such a powerful prayer, prayed with the fire of God's grace, led the elder to pure prayer and to ecstasy. Then his spirit would enter a mental sphere, and the lamentation of repentance became one with the abyss that he beheld. Of course, when we say ecstasy, we do not mean it in the sense of Stoic philosophy or the way of the life of the Pythian priestess, in other words, as a departure of the mind from the body, but as the return of the noose to the heart, the rejection of all thoughts, even good ones, the union of soul and body in the Holy Spirit, an approach to eternity, and an encounter with the uncreated God, without the soul being separated from the body, but remaining united with it. This is how one should understand the noose being caught up by God, and the melting of the noose by the flame of love that issued from the heart. This is what the elder means when he writes, quote, eternity entered calmly but authoritatively into my heart, end of quote. This union of mind, heart and body into one created a sense of wholeness of being, a state that is very different from the usual division between spirit, soul, and body. When the elder refers here to spirit, soul, and body, he is not thinking of the theory that man is by nature made up of three parts, spirit, soul, and body. According to orthodox teaching, man is made up of two parts, soul and body. When the apostles and the fathers speak about spirit, they mean the grace of God, the Holy Spirit. The perfect spiritual human being ought to have soul and body, but also to be united with God's grace, with the Spirit of God, who will permeate and characterize both soul and body. Father Sophroni gives a vivid description of the energy and the experience of unceasing prayer, which the Lord bestowed upon him from the start of his monastic life on the holy mountain, and which led to him to ecstasy. Subsequently, he records the blessed fruits of this prayer, which reveal its authenticity. 
This experience is cited as the elder describes it. Quote, This is how it often used to be. Towards evening, at sunset, I would shut the window and draw three curtains over it to make my cell as quiet and dark as possible. With my forehead bent to the floor, I would slowly repeat words of prayer, one after the other. I had no feeling of being cooped up, and my mind, oblivious of the body, lived in the light of the gospel word. Concentrated on the fathomless wisdom of Christ's word, my spirit, freed from all material concerns, would feel flooded, as it were, with light from the celestial sun, like a body exposed to the rays of the midday sun. At the same time, a gentle peace would fill my soul, unconscious of all the needs and cares of this earth. End of quote. Ecstasy is an encounter with the uncreated, illuminating, and deifying energy of God. Once divine grace as fire has purified the heart from passions and transformed the powers of the soul, this grace becomes illuminating, and then the one who prays, praying experiences unceasing prayer. Afterwards, at moments when he least expects, this grace of God appears as light. In other words, he who is deified sees the uncreated light that surrounds his whole being, his soul and body. We shall look at the subjects of visions of divine light later on. Here we simply mention it because pure prayer accompanied by ecstasy leads to the vision of God. And because these spiritual events cannot be distinguished categorically from one another. In any case, as the elder writes, this pure prayer swept me into another world. In such cases and states, as he writes, quote, we become receptive to the action of grace, be it as illumination by uncreated light or some other form of being caught up of knowledge or revelation, end of quote. With great simplicity, he gives an astounding description of ecstasy according to grace at one point in his book. When he returned from this sort of ecstatic prayer, the spiritual feeling remained with him of having prayed in a soundless, indescribable abyss. Well, two interesting points should be noted in this passage. The first is what he writes about the soundless and indescribable depths in which he found himself during pure prayer. The prayerful cry from the abyss, which the elder often uses to express this spiritual experience, is significant. We also encounter this state in the writings of St. Simeon the New Theologian using other images. For instance, the spiritual man, quote, seized by ineffable fear and trembling, cries out to God with all his soul, like Jonah from the whale, like Daniel from the lion's den, like the three youths from the fiery furnace, like Manassas from the statue of bronze, end of quote. <clears throat> it is noticeable that the image of the abyss used by the elder is more intense. However, no one can understand this cry and the search for God in such a state unless he has such an experience. Since the elder often refers to the abyss or the depths in which his spirit found itself, a brief theological comment will be made on this spiritual event. The word abyss, also rendered as deep or depth, is used in Holy Scripture. We find it in Jonah's prayer, in affliction from the belly of the whale. Quote, water is poured over me to my soul, the lowest depth, abyss, encircled me. My head plunged into the clefts of the mountains. Jonah 2.6 St. Maximus, the confessor, giving a theological interpretation of this passage, writes that, quote, the clefts of the mountains, 
end of quote, are the counsels of the evil spirits and the abyss, the lowest depth, is the ignorance that results from an evil disposition over which evil spreads like deep waters over the seabed. In the sixth ode of the canon for Great Thursday, St. Cosmas, the hymnographer, refers to the prophet Jonah, and applying Jonah's situation to his own life, he writes, quote, The uttermost depths, the abyss of sin, have compassed me about, and no longer able to endure its stormy waves. As Jonah, I cry out to you, O Master, lead me up from corruption. End of quote. Interpreting this troparion, St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain writes, that Bishop Cosmas, who composed the canon, calls the sins by which he was surrounded the uttermost depths, the abyss. And since he was unable to withstand its tempests, he calls to the master. He also cites a relevant comment by Zonaras, quote, he, St. Cosmas, compares the abyss of our sins with the abyss of God's mercy and compassion, end quote. Thus, our sins are immense, but the compassion of God is also immense. Sin is an abyss, but so is God's mercy. I think that the meaning of the abyss in Father Sophroni's writings is more closely connected with the passage from the Psalms, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows went over me, Psalm 41, verse 8. This sums up a profound experience. St. Maximus the Confessor gives a theological interpretation of the abyss. He asserts that the word abyss derives from the Greek verb meaning to plug up or to block and denotes something that cannot be fathomed. Abyss means the incomprehensible. It refers to the judgments that issue from God's abundant providence, which are incomprehensible and become comprehensible in, in another way. Elsewhere in his writing, St. Maximus the Confessor applies this passage to the state of Theoria. The noose engaged in Theoria is like an abyss because of the multitude of concepts. When the noose goes beyond the order of perceptible things and enters the realm of intelligible things, then, through its faith and forceful momentum, it goes beyond their beauty and stands still. At that point, completely fixed and motionless on account of having passed through everything, it cries out. As is fitting, it calls upon the divine wisdom, which is, according to knowledge, the real abyss with no way out. As St. Maximus the Confessor describes it, this is a significant experience, according to which someone has a powerful longing and ascends to Theoria, but is hindered or blocked, and so he cries out to God. St. Gregory the Theologian gives the same interpretation when he writes, I am persuaded not just to look at things above, but to proceed from one depth to another calling upon deep after deep, and finding light after light, until I attain the highest pinnacle. This too expresses the same interpretation, which is linked with man's progress to theoria of the uncreated light, and the insatiable thirst and longing to find the God of knowledge. These last interpretations support the experience of Father Sophroni of calling upon God in the abyss, through repentance, man is brought to the vision of God. This is not an abyss of non-existence, but a realm of knowledge of the true God and ascent to a greater knowledge of Him, with insatiable and unquenchable thirst. This knowledge is an abyss. Father Sophroni lived this state to an extreme degree, showing it to be an extraordinary exp experience. 
and he recorded it in a unique way. It seems from his writings that this is an impulsive state of the soul in between pure and ecstatic prayer and theoria of the divine light. One wonders at this amazing experience and its description, but also at the redemptive intervention of God who sends down his gifts, his uncreated energies, in torrents. The second interesting point in this passage is what the elder writes about the movement of his nature in this, quote, sphere of the eternal, end of quote. He writes, quote, In that infinity there is no up or down, no forward, no backward, neither right nor left. Yet there came a moment when it seemed to me that I was beginning to move, and it felt like a falling. And a choked cry would burst from my throat, Lord, save me, thou alone canst reach me in the bottomless pit. And he saved me. But why did it feel as if I were falling? Was it not because my mind could no longer stand in the sphere of the eternal? For after that, the vision ended. End of quote. When reading this testimony, one ought to bear in mind that he is describing here the distinction and difference between uncreated and created, which is the basis of Orthodox theology. It should be reiterated that what is uncreated has no beginning, is not subject to corruption, and has no end, whereas what is created begins, decays, and ends. Man, however, although he is created, does not have an end, because God wanted to give him this privilege. What is uncreated does not have the characteristics of quality, quantity, space, and so on. It is infinite, so it is regarded by man as the sphere of the eternal. During ecstasy, according to grace and man's encounter with the uncreated deifying energy of God, with God himself, the one who is deified experiences what is meant by uncreated deifying grace. At the same time, he senses with complete clarity his own createdness. This is the meaning of the phrase, it seemed to me that I was beginning to move. Father Sofroni was aware of this movement, the encounter of a created being with the uncreated, as falling. What is created is plainly different from what is uncreated. As he explains, this was because his created noose could no longer stand in the sphere of the eternal. St. Gregory of Nyssa explains this point. He teaches that the characteristic feature of uncreated nature is that it is immovable and unchangeable, whereas that of created nature is movement and change. He writes that uncreated nature is incapable of admitting movement because movement causes change and alteration, while everything that exists through creation has an innate tendency toward movement, inasmuch as it came from non-being into being. Following this sort of ecstatic prayer, this rapture of the noose, one returns to earth as if dead and lives one's deadness according to Christ. The elder uses the example of an engineer who, testing the function of a new jet engine in an aircraft factory, carelessly stepped into the airstream created by the running engine. It seized him, swept him off the ground, and drew him towards the engine, but when the engine was switched off, he felt to the ground dead. Something similar, says the elder, happens with a man who experiences being caught up by the uncreated grace of God. He is dead 
to fleshly interests and worldly gains. He will not seek any career. He will not be too upset if he is rejected, nor will he be elated by praise. He forgets the past, does not cling to the present or worry about his earthly future. A new life full of light has opened before him and in him. The infantile distractions that occupy the vast majority of people cease to interest him. St. Simeon the New Theologian refers to the transfer of the noose from visible things to invisible ones, and how instead of dwelling among perceptible things, it dwells among things transcending the senses, which, quote, makes us oblivious to all that we have left behind. The state to which he too was accounted worthy to ascend is called Hezekiah by St. Simeon. Quote, this is what I mean by stillness, Hezekiah, and the home and resting place of stillness, end of quote. St. Macarius of Egypt uses the example of someone who enters the palace and sees the splendor and beauty that are there and the treasures. He eats with the king, and then he leaves and finds himself in ill-smelling places and sees the difference. The same happens with someone to whom God shows his good things. Quote, he has given him a taste of another age, of other delicious food. He has shown him splendor and regal delights, ineffable, heavenly. And so, finally, man, when he compares such spiritual gifts with the things of the world, casts everything else away. Whether it be a king, or princes, or the wise ones that meet his eye, he turns his look to the heavenly treasure. End of quote. God is love, and the one who has received the heavenly and divine fire of Christ has found rest and joy, and there he is bound fast. He is attached to heavenly beauty, and nothing human and created moves him. After returning from such prayer, Father Sofroni would feel completely exhausted, and he would sense the humility enjoined by the commandments. Christ's humility, which cannot be compared with anything human and created, and is searchless, unconditioned. It is an attribute of divine love, giving of itself without measure. Prayer of this kind is not individualistic, but personal. It is natural that in the beginning man should pray, have prayer about his own ugliness and his falls, which he senses by grace. However, when he encounters God within his uncreated light, he meets the creator of the world and all humanity face to face. And this gives rise to personal prayer, to prayer for the whole world. The elder was aware of his own drama as the drama of all humankind, and he prayed for all human beings for more than half a century, weeping bitter tears, sometimes in wild despair, for the peace of the world and the salvation of all. Since he himself had experienced God's compassion for the whole of lost mankind, he prayed with fellow feeling for all those who were separated from God. While the elder was living in the wilderness of the Holy Mountain during the Second World War, he lived all the pain of humanity and prayed for all mankind with tears as he prayed over his own fall. His experience of the First World War and the Russian Revolution also contributed to this. As he writes, there is no worse sin than war. He was aware of communion with the world, even though he was living in the most remote desert. Thus he writes, 
quote, In those years I lived the liturgy, pondering on Christ, who prayed in Gethsemane and died on Golgotha. I was in despair. The enormity of the first fall of man was revealed to me. I cannot think how I survived. End of quote. This phrase, I cannot think how I survived, shows the intensity of the elder's prayer for the whole of humanity. It led him to frantic prayer, to lamentation for whole world. And this lamentation and weeping shook his entire being to his very bones. Such fervent prayer is a sacred rite for the whole world. The one praying becomes, in the widest sense of the term, a priest who possesses spiritual priesthood, that is to say, prayer for all human beings. The elder, however, became a priest in the special sense. He received the charisma of priesthood and celebrated the divine liturgy in the spirit of prayer for the whole world. Thus he would say that the divine liturgy opens man's heart to the sufferings of all humankind. His soul plunged into the ocean of human suffering, especially because, since the First World War and the Russian Revolution, quote, the inconsolable torments of many millions of people have been impressed upon my soul forever, end of quote. Thus, when he celebrated the liturgy, he embraced the whole world and prayed for it. He says that when he celebrated the divine liturgy in the desert on his own, assisted by a monk who helped him with the chanting and represented the congregation, he was profoundly aware of the presence of all mankind and that every liturgy is a universal event. Quote, the whole world was there with us, the world and the Lord, the Lord and eternity, end of quote. If it is possible for every Christian who participates in the divine liturgy to experience the agonies of all human beings and to pray for them, this is much more the case with the celebrating clergy. In this perspective, Father Sophroni touched the eternal high priesthood of Christ and respected this great spiritual gift. He was grateful to God for the blessing of the priesthood that he had received, and although he had no impotent impediment to prevent him receiving it. Nevertheless, spiritually, I felt myself, he writes, worthy only of condemnation to outer darkness. God, however, did not did the opposite for me. The greater the recognition of my unworthiness, the more abundantly he granted me to touch his eternal high priesthood. Such pure noetic prayer and prayer for the whole world sometimes, at moments when one least expects, lead to the vision of the uncreated light. Father Sofroni had many experiences of this kind, which are rare for the majority of people, precisely because he prayed within the perspective of, divine, of the divine light. G. Visions of the Uncreated Light St. Isaac the Syrian teaches that the Theoria, the vision of God as light, is the fruit of pure prayer. Pure prayer is the name given to prayer offered by a pure noose, which means that the noose at the time is completely free of all thoughts. If the noose is mixed with any alien concept, or if it wanders, then this prayer is not to be called pure. At a certain moment when God so wills, pure prayer gives way to Theoria of the Divine Light. This Theoria is not called a prayer, but the offspring of pure prayer, which is sent down by the Holy Spirit. There exists no prayer beyond pure prayer, because after pure prayer, quote, there is awestruck wonder 
and not prayer. At that point, quote, what pertains to prayer has ceased, while a certain divine vision remains, and the mind does not pray a prayer. End of quote. And St. Isaac the Syrian continues, Prayer is one thing, the divine vision of prayer is another, even though each takes its inception from the other. Thus, from prayer, the noose is led to awestruck wonder and theoria, and when theoria ceases, noetic prayer becomes more intense. Prayer is the seed, and theoria is the harvesting of the sheaves, the spiritual crop. As we saw above, Father Sofroni experienced pure prayer free of all imaginings, thoughts, speculations, and everything human, as all these things were burnt up by the flames of hell, which he experienced even in his body. He often experienced states of ecstasy, and then at moments when he was not expecting it, he was granted theoria of the divine light. According to St. Gregory Palamas, the Lord dwells within people in different ways according to the worthiness and way of life of those who seek him. Man's freedom is also expressed in this way. God dwells in different ways, in an active man, in the man of theoria and vision, in the zealous, and in those already divinized. Father Sophroni belongs to the category of zealous men of theoria and vision who thirsted insatiably for God and longed continuously for him. In the church's troparia and its entire tradition, God is praised as light, and specifically is the light of three sons. This is not simple, simply because Christ said, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, John eight twelve. but above all because those who have been found worthy to behold God in his glory have seen him as light. This light is uncreated and is also called the glory of God. Someone to whom this experience is granted is said to be glorified. Every essence has energy. The difference is that if the essence is created, its energy is also created. And if the essence is uncreated, then its energy is uncreated as well. The uncreated energy of God is seen as light. It is the uncreated divine light. The disciples saw the light of Christ's divinity on Mount Tabor, when his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light, Matthew 17, 2. An abundant crop of theology has sprung up around this event, especially in the writings of St. Simeon, the New Theologian, and St. Gregory Palamas. The uncreated light that the disciples saw on Mount Tabor, according to St. Gregory Palamas, was not a third concealed nature of Christ, but the glory of the divine nature in his hypostases. Also, the divine light is not something that comes and goes like thunder and lightning and, and our words and thoughts. It is something permanent, and for that reason, the saints refer to it as enhypostatic, as, quote, it remains in being and does not elude the gaze, as does lightning or words or thoughts. It is a hypostatic light that is completely different from natural phenomenon and from the energy and process of thought. Thus, the deified can easily distinguish between natural and spiritual experiences. Barlaam asserted that the philosophers who used their rational faculty were superior to the prophets, because the prophet's vision was much inferior to intelligible things. St. Gregory Palamas says in reply that the prophet's vision is higher than the philosopher's reason, and so the purity of the prophets 
collaborates with the angels to express theology. In fact, the prophets are transformed noetically into a divine form, and through this holy transformation they cultivate knowledge of God. Those who behold God are fellow ministers with the angels. They acquire a godlike form and real knowledge of God. When the saints reach the state of deification, they see God's energy as light. They are transformed and behold the glory of God. According to St. Gregory Palamas, the deified see the light when they have received eyes that they did not previously have. This light becomes accessible to eyes which have become superior to ordinary eyes and perceive the spiritual light with spiritual power. Quote, this mysterious light, inaccessible, immaterial, uncreated, deifying, eternal, this radiance of the divine nature, the glory of the divinity, this beauty of the heavenly kingdom is at once accessible to sense perception and yet transcends it. The bodily senses are transformed by God's grace and see the uncreated light. End of quote. Thus, the light is seen through the light, according to the words of the psalm, In your light we shall see light, Psalm 35.10. St. Gregory Palamas, referring to the vision of the light granted to the prophet Moses, writes, quote, That light is self-revealing and is hidden in its transcendence from the noetic powers that have, been deprived of their, have not been deprived of their sight. End of quote. When the noose goes beyond every kind of noetic energy and transcends the faculty of sight, then it is filled by this surpassingly beautiful splendor and reaches God by grace and through a union that surpasses thought, possessing the self-revealing light ineffably and seeing it through itself. As the light of the eyes, when it is united with sunlight, really becomes light and sees visible things, so the noose that becomes one with the Spirit of the Lord clearly sees spiritual things. The purity of the noose is made radiant by the energy of the light, and man beholds God. This vision is not a natural human ability, but the action of the uncreated light with man's collaboration. Human beings undergo deification, they do not bring it about. In every era, there are witnesses to the vision of God as light. Otherwise, we would not sing at every divine liturgy, we have seen the true light. Nor would we pray, Christ, the true light that lights and sanctifies every human being who comes into the world, may the light of your countenance be marked upon us, that in it we may see the unapproachable light. Prayer from the First Hour Father Sophroni is a witness to this great theological truth, and this experience of revelation in our times. He actually gave his book the title, We Shall See Him As He Is. We shall now identify some of the passages referring to this subject, which is the pinnacle of Orthodox theology. First of all, the elder affirms many times in his writings that he saw the uncreated light and that he is a witness to this great event. The following testimony is characteristic. Quote, now I testify to the truth, which our fathers and forefathers knew. I am setting forth how truth was disposed to appear to me in response to my long-drawn-out weeping of repentance, which consumed me like fire. I lived this truth as really Im an Im immemorial, and in accordance with my belief, so do I speak and write. He confesses, Quote, I am aware that my knowledge is not absolute, 
but that does not mean that there is some other truth. I believe that I came in contact with truth, unoriginate, but I know also that I have not realized in the act of my life the experience taught to me by prayer. End of quote. Elsewhere, he speaks of contemporary experience granted to him by the Holy Spirit, which coincided with the experience of the ascetic fathers, but was also different from it due to the change in circumstances of life in the world. In another passage, he refers to the fact that this revelation is a gift of God to man and shows that he thirsts for our salvation. He is victorious in the war against the enemy, but he attributes this victory to us who suffer in this warfare. Father Sophroni describes in his book two such visions of the uncreated light. The first took place on Holy Saturday after Holy Communion, perhaps in 1924, before he went to the Holy Mountain, while he was living as a layman in Paris. The second vision of the uncreated light was at the monastery of St. Pantaleon on the Holy Mountain in the early 1930s, while he was still a deacon. We shall look at these descriptions below in the appropriate place. Apart from these visions for which a date is recorded, the reader finds other visions of the uncreated light on many pages of the Elder's book. The Elder also describes authoritatively how he reached Theoria of the Uncreated Light. His basic teaching is that Theoria of the Uncreated Light comes after pure prayer. When someone prays noetically, without thoughts or imaginings, once his noose has been purified of perceptible things and illuminated by God, he reaches Theoria of the Uncreated Light. Elsewhere, he writes that his frantic prayer attracted the sympathy of the Most High God, and his light began to shine in the darkness of my being. Thus he came to know, quote, his clemency, his wisdom, his holiness, end of quote. And as he writes, new powers opened in me, a different eye, a different ear. I became aware of indescribable splendor. He knew the kingdom of God beyond all doubt. He also writes, quote, prayer of sorrowful repentance becomes all-devouring, and suddenly there is a miracle, something unthought of, unheard of, that has never happened before, even in the heart. 1 Corinthians 2.9 A ray of the uncreated sun penetrates the blackness of the abyss wherein I lie. End of quote. In another passage, he refers again to the pure prayer that precedes Theoria of the uncreated light. It is a fiery prayer that cleanses the heart, creates longing, concentrates on the Lord whom we seek, and leads to ecstasy. Then God acts with such delicacy that man does not perceive the moment when the light comes. Same happens as with the moment of falling asleep, which comes without one being aware of it. One only perceives it later, on waking up. When he who beholds God returns to normal awareness, all earthly things seem transient and brittle, and the soul recognizes that the point of her existence is to be with God in him in his eternity. Elsewhere, he speaks once more of what comes before Theoria of the Uncreated Light. The pure prayer with a pure mind and profound repentance pours forth fervently day and night, and unexpectedly, not by design, prayer becomes pure. Then does man really live in the radiant reality of the Holy Spirit, and for God and for himself he will appear in the full nakedness of his being, in such prayer as this, our spirit is freed from the spells of phantom truth, 
of the many obscure attractions in the darkness of ignorance. Well, through these passages, Father Sofroni confirms the teaching of the Holy Fathers of the Church about participation in the purifying, illuminating, and deifying energy of God, which is described as purification, illumination, and deification. This is clear from the other basic teaching of the elder, that God's grace first purifies the heart from the passions and is experienced as hell. Subsequently, it illumines the noose and is experienced as paradise, the kingdom of God. In Father Sophroni's teaching, we often find that when he was going through the hell of deepest repentance, hell unexpectedly changed into the kingdom of God. This appears to be a strange and contradictory phenomenon, but it has a theological interpretation. The energy of God is single, but it is called by different names according to the results that it produces. If it purifies, it is called purifying. If it illumines, it is called illuminating. And if it deifies, it is called deifying. Once God's purifying energy has purified the heart, the same energy becomes illuminating. And when it has illumined the noose, the same energy becomes deifying. Thus the consuming fire becomes delightful light. He writes, I ached with yearning for the Father, so much so that when the flame that consumed me was translated into light, I was unable to take account of this gift and went on condemning myself to outer darkness. Shame devoured me. I prayed, lying prostrate, not daring to look up to him. I loathed myself. End of quote. Somewhere else he speaks of the consuming fire that acted, as he writes, both in my body and in my soul, burning up anything alien to God. He also mentions that the light did not interrupt his reaching up to God. This is an extraordinary description of an extraordinary experience. The writings of the fathers frequently refer to comparable experiences as regards the relationship between fire and light. For example, St. John Climacus writes that he saw Hezekists who insatiably satisfied their ardent desire for God with Hezekiah, quote, generating fire by fire, love by love, desire by desire, end of quote. Elsewhere, he says that when fire descends into the heart, it resurrects prayer, and once prayer has been resurrected and ascended to heaven, then the fire of the Holy Spirit descends into the upper room of the soul. In another passage, the saint is even more explicit, writing that the Holy Spirit himself is called a fire that consumes and a light that illuminates. The heavenly fire comes upon some people and burns them because they still lack purification, whereas it enlightens others according to the degree of their perfection. St. Simeon, the new theologian, who had experience of this state, speaks about the twofold action of divine grace as fire and as light. In one of his texts, he writes that man nourishes the divine fire by carrying out the commandments, and subsequently it appears as divine light. Quote, Let us strive to feed and increase the divine fire within us by practicing the commandments, that fire that makes the divine light shine more brightly and brilliantly. End of quote. Elsewhere, St. Simeon expresses his surprise that the same God is both fire that burns and water that refreshes, that he burns and brings delight. Quote, how are you at once the source of fire? How also the fountain of dew? How at once burning and sweetness? How a remedy for all corruption? 
end of quote. Even when God appears in the uncreated light, the pain does not vanish. The explanation for this is that satiety of the divine mercy is limitless, and man's longing cannot be fully satisfied, because he cannot encompass infinite God completely within himself as he desires to do. This gives rise to pain and distress. St. Simeon, the New Theologian, writes, quote, I fret, I suffer in my miserable soul, when within it appears the clear brightness of your light. In me love is known as suffering, and so it is, suffering at not being able to embrace you completely and to satisfy myself as I desire. That is the situation, and I lament, end of quote. In spite of the pain that is due to unsatisfied longing because human beings are created and God is uncreated, St. Simeon the New Theologian still feels joy at the presence of God in the light. He continues, quote, Yet, nevertheless, because I see you, that is sufficient for me. That will be my glory, my joy, my royal crown, and above all the charms and all the attractions of the world that will make of me the equal of angels, will even elevate me, O my master, above them, end of quote. Father Sophroni had many different kinds of experiences. Besides those occasions which, when he was lifted up to heaven from hell, there were also occasions when he remained at an undefined border from which he saw both the light of the divinity and the outer darkness, which fills the soul with dread, dread of an especial kind, nothing like the fear of physical death. Then the eternity within him was revealed, but also the timeless tenebrity. Despite the passions, as he writes, quote, I suffered, and thirsting for immutable good, I strained toward God. End of quote. Father Sophroni also provides important evidence about the vision of the uncreated light and notes its distinction from created light and diabolical light. He writes that he felt that his spirit was in some sort of illimitable space, which was transparent, even though the light was not visible, prayer continued, however. He bears witness to the fact that the, the divine light can be within a man and he within it, without this producing any intellectual reaction, as it seems to be a natural state. The account of his experience of beholding God after Holy Communion in the body and blood of Christ, when the divine light stayed with him for three days, is noteworthy. He writes, quote, And lo, on Easter Sunday in 1924, perhaps, the light visited me after I had taken communion, and I felt it like the touch of the divine eternity on my spirit. Gentle, full of peace and love, the light remained with me for three days. It drove away the darkness of non-existence that had engulfed me. I was resurrected, and in me and with me the whole world was resurrected. The words of St. John Chrysostom at the end of the Paschal Liturgy struck me with overwhelming force. Christ is risen and there are no dead in the grave. Tormented hitherto by the specter of universal death, I now felt that my soul too was resurrected and there were no more dead. If this is God, then quickly let me abandon everything and seek only union with him. End of quote. St. Simeon, the new theologian, having beheld the uncreated light, expresses the same experience. Referring to Christ, who is the true light of the world, he writes, The bread of his sinless flesh is light, the chalice 
of his precious blood is light. The other testimony, according to which the uncreated light stayed with the elder for two weeks, is also important. He writes, quote, Early in the 1930s, I was a deacon then. For two weeks, God's tender mercy rested on me. At dusk, when the sun was setting behind the mountains of Olympus, I would sit on the balcony near my cell, face turned to the dying light. In those days, I contemplated the evening light of the sun, and at the same time another light which softly enveloped me and gently invaded my heart, in some curious fashion making me feel compassionate and loving towards people who treated me harshly. I would also feel a quiet sympathy for all creatures in general. When the sun had set, I would retire to my cell, as usual, to perform the devotions preparatory to celebrating the liturgy, and the light did not leave me while I prayed. End of quote. According to St. Simeon, the New Theologian, those who purify their souls in this world and are united with God through repentance and receive the noose of Christ, quote, become monks as they are separated from others, end quote. He writes, their cell is heaven, they indeed are a sun, and the unsetting and divine light is in them, which enlightens everyone who comes into the world and comes from the Holy Spirit. These are true monks. St. Simeon continues, Only such then are monks and solitaries, those who alone live with God alone and in God, stripped of every kind of reflection and reasoning, seeing only God in a noose without thoughts, fixed in the light as an arrow in the wall, or as a star in the heavens, or I fail to express it. And so they live in their cells as in another nuptial chamber, all lighted up, and they think that they are living in heaven, or they truly live there, behold and do not doubt. End of quote. From Hymns of Divine Love. Herothius continues, During Theoria of the Uncreated Light, according to the testimony of Father Sophroni, two kinds of experience are noted with regard to the world around. In the first kind, one loses awareness of one's material surroundings and all sense of one's own body. The spirit melts into such tenderness that afterwards it does not know if it was in the body or out of the body. In the second kind of experience, two lights, the natural and the divine, are seen with open eyes. There is, however, a difference between created light and uncreated light. Both lights are seen but not in the same manner. The elder actually regards the first type of theoria as higher than the second. This shows the basic precondition for the vision of God in orthodoxy, namely the discernment between created and uncreated light, and also the discernment between demonic and divine light. The deified who make this distinction are unerring theologians. Theology as a charisma acts where this distinction between created and uncreated light is made. Father Sophroni refers in his writings to the light of the created noose, or thinking energy, to demonic light and divine light. And with, with rare clarity and expertise, he records the differences between them. I, I cite a characteristic passage. Quote, One night, soon afterwards, I was awakened in a way that I did not understand. I saw my whole room flooded with patches of vibrating light. My soul was troubled. The vision repelled me. I felt something like the aversion mixed with fear that one feels if a snake gets into the house. I left my room 
and went into the sitting room, where I stayed a while before returning to bed. The light had gone, and I fell asleep again. Soon after this, while I was engaged in my meditations, which had developed a certain degree of intensity, I saw my thinking energy like a faint light inside and all around my skull. My heart, meanwhile, continued to live separately from my brain. Years later, after the mercy of the high God had visited me, I noticed that the uncreated light is tranquil, integral, steady, acting on the mind, the heart, and the body too. In contemplating it, one's whole being is in a state unknown to the earth. The light is the light of love, the light of wisdom, the light of immortality, and wondrous peace. End of quote. In his writings, Father Sophroni teaches us unerringly about the nature of the divine light, which is a gift from on high. It is the radiance of heavenly glory, the brightness that fills everything but remains ever intangible, otherworldly for the created world. Many human beings have seen this light, but most of them keep this blessed secret until death, whereas others were commanded to bear witness to their brethren of this vision of God. St. Gregory Palamas mentions the experience and the nature of the light in his writings. The divine light lives eternally with the saints. It is the glory of the divine nature, the beauty of the eternal age to come, the kingdom of God without beginning or end. In an authoritative and revelational manner, the elder gives his own testimony, which is in harmony with the teachings of the Holy Fathers. Quote, the light its nature is mysterious, and what terms can it be described? Incomprehensible, invisible, yet it may sometimes be seen by the physical eye. Quiet and gentle, it draws heart and mind to itself until the earth is forgotten, one spirit caught up into another sphere. It can happen in broad daylight, as in the blackness of the night. It is a soft light, yet more powerful than all around. In strange fashion it embraces from without, you see it, but your attention is drawn deep within the inner man, into the heart burning with a love now compassionate, now grateful. It may happen that one is not aware of the material world, of external circumstances, and one sees oneself as light. End of quote. The elder clearly teaches that this light is neither something imaginary nor a transcendent, suprapersonal, absolute, but the light of the Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The energy of God is linked with his nature and is expressed through the persons, which is why it is called hypostatic energy. He personally experienced this empirical revelation. In the elders' writings, we encounter extraordinary references to visionary and relational experience of the triune God. He says that the eternal light of God gives birth within us to words that resemble the teaching of Christ. Further on, he mentions that while beholding God, man participates in the shared energy of the triune God, but he also acquires knowledge of the particular hypostases of the Trinity. Because of the great importance of this passage, it will be quoted in full, and subsequently we shall also consider the parallel experience of St. Simeon the New Theologian. The elder writes, quote, In this light we contemplate the Father. We apprehend this light as the Holy Spirit. In it we see Christ as the only begotten Son of the Father. In it we perceive the oneness of the three. Praying to this God, we live the one being of the three persons. 
but we apprehend and relate to this oneness variously. I approach the Father in one fashion, I pray otherwise to the Holy Spirit, I turn to Christ in a different manner. And a special spiritual feeling is associated with each that in no way detracts from their oneness of being. With each hypostasis of the Holy Trinity, we have to a certain extent a different relationship. Closest of all, we know the Lord Jesus through his incarnation, his becoming man, and through him we are led to first being, which is true God, the Trinity, one substance and undivided. End of quote. Elsewhere, he writes that in this light, we know the triune God and the hypostatic principle in us as a potential it is activated. Quote, Christ's light is divine energy, the uncreated, unoriginate life of God, the Trinity. It is energy action proper both to the Father and the Holy Spirit. In, in this light, we know the Father and the Holy Spirit and the only begotten Son, end of quote. The teaching of the Church that the energy of the triune God is seen as light by those who have been purified is to be found throughout the texts of Father Sophroni. At one point he writes, quote, And I made bold to say that the vision of the uncreated light is indissolubly bound up with belief in the divinity of Christ, bound up with, though in a curious manner, one depends on the other. In one light both Christ and the Holy Spirit appear. This witnesses to the divinity of Christ, since it is impossible not to recognize God in this light of which we are speaking. Its action is indescribable. In it lies eternity. In it the inexpressible goodness of love. End of quote. We encounter a similar experience of knowledge of the triune God in the uncreated light in the God-seeing saint, St. Simeon, the new theologian. Referring to the subject of the illumination of the light, and mystical conversations with it, he writes that when man's noose meditates on God, he becomes, quote, wholly outside of the world, not in his body, but in all his perceptions, end of quote. Then, behold, there is light. This light seems to him to have its origin from on high. As he seeks to find out what this light is, however, he finds that this light, being perfect, possesses neither beginning nor middle. And while he is pondering on this, behold, there are three in the light, the one through whom, the one within whom, and the one in whom. He sees three lights which have the same energy and the same light, but are particular hypostases. Finding himself in this state of theoria, outside the world, St. Simeon the New Theologian asks to learn more, and then he hears distinctly, Behold, I am the Spirit, through whom and in whom is the Son, he also hears, Behold, I am the Son, in whom is the Father. With growing amazement, he hears the Father speak, Behold, you see. Then, and I, says the Son, am within the Father. But the Spirit too says, It is truly I, for he who sees through me sees the Father and the Son, and is transported by the seeing beyond the things which are seen. Certainly the persons, hypostases, have the same essence and energy, the same glory. For that reason, the deified one who sees God is informed, quote, all at once together, for I am inseparable and indivisible in every way, preserving the one even in the persons, end of quote. It is clear that someone who beholds the uncreated light 
acquires an empirical knowledge of God. He is very profoundly aware of the three persons hypostases of the Holy Trinity, but also of the one essence. Thus dogma and dogmatic definition is the formulation of this experience. It is also obvious that seeing is also hearing, hearing is also seeing, and all the sense perceptions become one in the vision of God. With this spiritual knowledge, St. Simeon the New Theologian confesses, quote, God is light, a light infinite and incomprehensible. Everything to do with God is light, and this light is common to all the persons, divided between them indivisibly. But if for your sake I may speak of the indivisible as if it were divided, the Father is light, the Son is light, the Holy Spirit is light, one single light as they are simple, non-composite, timeless, eternal, and possessed of the same honor and glory. All that comes from him is light and is given to us as arising from the light." End of quote. During St. Simeon the New Theologian's experience of beholding God, he is plainly aware of the three hypostases and the one essence or nature. He therefore affirms, quote, The Father is light, the Son is light, the Holy Spirit is light. Watch what you are saying, brother. Watch so as not to fall into error. For the three are one light, unique, not separable, but united in three persons without confusion. God is indeed completely indivisible by nature, and by his essence is truly beyond every essence. He is not divided in power, nor in form, nor in glory, nor in aspect, for he is contemplated completely as a simple light. Nevertheless, the persons are one, the three hypostases are one, for the three are in the one, or rather the three are one. The three are one power, the three one glory. The three are one nature, essence, and divinity. End of quote. Hymns of Divine Love. According to the teaching of the fathers of the church, the vision of God's uncreated deifying energy comes about through man's deification. This vision is connected with deification, and deification is man's communion and union with God. This union offers theological knowledge that is superior to human knowledge. Seeing the light bears many fruits, as this vision is connected with being born again. According to St. Gregory Palamas, the vision, Theoria of God, is not something abstract and negative, but a union and a divinization, which comes about mystically and ineffably by the grace of God, after the stripping away of everything from here below, which imprints itself on the mind. In other words, after the noose has been freed of imagination, or rather, after all its activity has ceased. This union goes beyond abstraction. The union of man and God through the light from on high is an experience, in Greek pathos, a passion, and a divinizing end. Perfect theoria is not simply an abstraction, but actually participation, a giving and taking of divine things. Thus, the vision of God, which is real theology, is man's union with God, and this union is his deification. This is not the mortification of the passable part of the soul, but a passionless passion. At the deepest level, man's purpose is deification by grace, his face to face, person to person, communion with God. This does not come about through speculations and pious reflections, nor through external changes, but through the energy of the divine light. 
St. Gregory Palamas, speaking about the uncreated light, writes that it deifies man and makes him worthy of personal converse with God. It is the light which deifies those who contemplate it. St. Gregory Palamas refers to St. Dionysios the Areopagite, who calls the light a superluminous and theurgic ray, and also a deifying gift and principle of the divinity, that is to say, of deification. This is because the Lord dwells in people in different ways, according to their worthiness and the manner in which they seek him. Father Sophroni mentions in, in his writings the fruits of theophany, the manifestation of God, as he experienced them in his personal life. First of all, he writes that when the light appears, it shows us the state of the depths of our heart, our personal hell, and reveals our appalling condition. Through the action of the light, one sees one's inner darkness, which is like a condensed mass of disgusting filth. Painful repentance begins, which grieves us at every level of our being. It causes suffering, and we are drowned in tears. Initially, the divine light, like a thin flame, healing and cleansing, burns up everything that is not well-pleasing to it, calmly, hardly making itself felt. Subsequently, when it appears in strength, it brings love, drives away doubt and fear, and one transcends all created states, even death itself. It is significant that the elder asserts that this light is weightless, more finely attuned than anything the earth knows, but it frees man from everything that previously oppressed him. The light not only reveals the passions, but comforts the soul. It offers it peace and illumines the mind with new vision. By seeing the divine light, man acquires dispassion, which is the transformation of the passable part of the soul, and he realizes that through it God can make him, like him, a lord. Through the vision of the uncreated light, man receives new powers and new sense perceptions, a different eye, a different ear, and he becomes aware of indescribable splendor. The hypostatic principle, which is within us, from our conception as a potential is actualized. When by God's grace man reaches this state, it is proof that he has progressed from being in God's image to being in his likeness, as being in his likeness is the same as deification, and this deification is man's ultimate and profoundest purpose. Then he perceives that God is the living God, hypostasis, but that he too is a hypostasis who speaks with God hypostasis. The elder writes, quote, I can address him as thou, and in his I, and in my thou, all being is contained, both God and this world. When I am in him, then I am also, but apart from him, I die. End of quote. Because the elder was granted the living revelation of God, he knew that God is not an idea, not an abstract conception, or a suprapersonal absolute, but a living person. His might is incalculable, his love inscrutable. To dwell with him is ineffable riches. With the coming of the divine light, man encounters God hypostasis, and he too is a hypostasis. Therefore, he experiences God-like perfect love. Without these things, nothing has any meaning. The elder knows the degree, different degrees of freedom, he sampled the first taste of the soul's imperial freedom when divine grace visited him for the first time, and he freely surrendered himself 
to every hardship. However, he also knew perfect freedom, even freedom from death, through the vision of the uncreated light. Thus we understand what is meant by love and freedom, as they are linked with the person, and this person is revealed through seeing the light and encountering the divine person personally. H. The coming of the uncreated light and its concealment. There are many variations in the vision of the uncreated light. Initially it happens obscurely with the revelation of one's inner darkness. Then it becomes brighter and transmit divine life. After that, however, there are fluctuations, withdrawals of divine grace, times when God departs and then divine grace comes anew. All these things are described by an empirical theologian who was familiar with these visits and departures of God. In his writings, the elder speaks about the unexpected advent of the divine light, which embraces us with love. Later, he speaks of continuous vision of the light, which stayed with him for three days, and on another occasion remained with him for two weeks. Here we should recall the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas, which we saw above, about illumination and the continuous vision of the light. This grace, like the grace of experiencing Gethsemane, was a great gift which he, as he confesses, continues to this day, increasing all the time. He lived through that period when he was in the light, and the light was in him as a natural state. He goes on to speak about the loss of God's grace, of the retreat of the Spirit of the Lord, of the departure for a long time of the vision of heavenly light, of being forsaken by the light, and of drifting away from the celestial radiance. It is clear from this that Father Sophroni's experience was very great, and for that reason it is difficult to interpret. We cannot analyze it, and can only cite his words that reveal this reality. The elder usually went through this experience without evaluating it rationally and without attempting to understand or check it by comparing it with the teaching of the fathers of the church. He did not theologize about this experience. He did not cling to these states, although he dwelt in a formless mental sphere, nor did he engage in introspection in order to analyze the experience theologically. Rather, he loathed himself due to the deep repentance and contrition that possessed him throughout his life. He went for long periods without thoughts, although thoughts would arise when he was talking to others. The unrestrainable impetus towards painful repentance drew his soul, quote, to insatiable prayer, that sort of prayer where the soul is unremembering, thinks of nothing but unbridled, reaches out to God, invisible yet beloved, inapprehensible yet known, inaccessible yet near." End of quote. At the arrival of even one proud thought, he was deprived of the light. He writes, quote, Time and again I would pray, drowning in tears of repentance, and then somewhere close by, in the air still, a vain thought would come, and I would rise to my feet bereft, tears gone, soul desolate, body vigorous, spiritual life no more. End of quote. This, however, taught him how to deal courageously with proud thoughts while they were still approaching. He writes, quote, After such many disasters, the slightest sign of the enemy's approach would fill me with dread, and I would redouble my cries of repentance. O Lord, the murderers are come, save me. 
Then it was that I understood why the fathers disliked praise. If praised, even the most perfect of them did not escape damage to their love of God. End of quote. This is why he wrote that the imaginative mind is not suited to theology. Anyone who wishes to stand before God with a pure mind must distance himself from the sphere of the imagination. Drawing near to God is linked with painful tension, which is difficult to bear for those whose fallen nature hates suffering. He was faced with a choice. He could come to terms with present reality by wrongfully, wrongly abasing him myself, or he could accept Christ's dread summons. And he writes, When I chose the latter course, I was reborn into life in the living God. Father Sofroni testifies to way in which the soul ascends to God, quote, And however high we may ascend in our reaching for him with the whole strength of our being, we continually, joyfully aware of the process of ascending. Yet at the same time, he appears to us more and more unattainable. And sometimes we grow faint. A kind of despair seizes us. We see ourselves about to fall, and suddenly he, unexpected now, is with us and embraces us with his love. God is wondrous strange. End of quote. The elders' writings also identify the basic reason for losing the light of divine grace, which is called abandonment by God, God-forsakenness. Generally speaking, man cannot endure theoria for long on account of his corruptibility and mortality. God also providentially arranges this deprivation because of someone's immaturity, and so that he will freely respond even better by emptying himself more completely and by drinking the cup that he drank. Thus the soul is humbled and its knowledge of the ways of God increases. In other cases, the man himself bears the responsibility because he does not respond as he should to this great gift of God. After describing the experience of seeing the uncreated light for two weeks, the elder goes on to mention the reason why he has lost this great gift. It was because he attempted to understand it rationally. He writes, quote, One evening, a monk from a cell near mine came to me and said, I have just been reading the hymns of St. Simeon, the new theologian. Tell me, what do you make of his description of the vision of the uncreated light? Up to that moment, I had lived with grateful hearts, the Lord's blessing upon me, but had not posed any question about the occurrence. My thoughts were fixed upon God to the exclusion of self. In order to answer Father Juvenali, I reflected on what was happening to me at the time. Trying to cover up, I answered evasively, quote, It is not for me to pronounce upon St. Simeon's experience, but perhaps when grace was with him, he was conscious of it as light. I don't know. I had the impression that Father Juvenali retired to his cell without suspecting anything more than I had said. But soon after this brief exchange, I began to pray as usual. Light and love were no longer with me. End of quote. This rational analysis of the vision of the uncreated light caused the loss of this gift. He confesses, quote, It has occurred more than once in my life in God that as soon as I begin to perceive with my reason, my left hand, what was happening to me after God had condescended to me, the light forsook me. End of quote. Some may regard it as madness 
to renounce rational analysis at such times, on the grounds that God gave us the ability to reason. Well, this is what Barlaam used to say, and he described the vision granted to the prophets as inferior to understanding. The elder refutes this view very effectively by writing that when this madness, that is to say, this refusal to rationalize, left him, he understood the inestimable loss caused to his spiritual being. There were circumstances in which this logical analysis of the experience would take place at another time for the purpose of spiritual guidance. It was sometimes necessary for the elder to say what was happening to him in order to help those monks who had experienced something similar. However, this too was a disaster. As he writes, quote, This calamity befell me particularly after I was appointed spiritual confessor on Mount Athos. Of quote. On other occasions, the loss of this great grace was due to a subtle, proud thought. The elder was helped by the writings of the fathers because he found in them something similar to his own experience. On the other hand, this spiritual reading and knowledge also had its dangers because, as he writes, I was plunged into complete struggle with my self-conceit, and then the vision of heavenly light would depart, perhaps for a long time. He would suffer deep sadness on this account. After the loss of the undying life that he had known during the vision of the uncreated light, he would return to his previous state, and of course his repentance and mourning continued. The deified ascend from illumination of the noose and unceasing noetic prayer to theoria of God, and when for various reasons this theoria comes to an end, they return to noetic prayer. After the loss of theoria of the light, which is the light of the kingdom of God and eternal life, profound sorrow would fill the elder's soul, and a kind of distress or alarm would enter his heart. He characterizes this loss, especially when caused by subtle thoughts of pride and rational processes, as a calamity, as irreparable loss to my spiritual being. I. Sermon on the Uncreated Light Father Sofroni presented a concise account of the experience of the uncreated light in a homily on the Feast of the Transfiguration of Christ on the Light of Tabor. This talk was probably delivered in Paris after his return from the Holy Mountain. In it he analyzes the statement by the evangelists about the revelation of Christ's glory. Quote, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Matthew 17.5 This is an extraordinary homily. Whenever I read it, I am especially impressed, because on the one hand, it is comparable with the homilies of the Holy Fathers, as it describes the event of the transfiguration of Christ through personal experience. And, on the other hand, it is actually an autobiography of Father Sophroni. On reading this text, it becomes clear that it divides into two parts. In the first part, the elder sets out the theological foundations of this event, and in the second, he explains how a certain ascetic analyzed the subject of the transfiguration of Christ for him. Obviously, this ascetic is the elder himself, who poses questions and gives replies relating to this great event. He did this in order to conceal the extraordinary experience that he had been granted by the God of Lights. 
In the first part, the elder urges his audience to overlook for the moment his insignificance and to close their eyes to his ignorance and the clumsiness of his words and to regard him simply as a messenger. He then refers to the great gift that Christians have received through baptism, chrismation, and the divine Eucharist, the divine word, and the life of the church. He speaks of the insatiable hunger an unquenchable thirst to know God that characterizes human beings. Man's impetus to reach up to God grows after theoria of God until he is filled with the food of which one never has one's fill, so that the light is united within the soul. This foreshadows man's deification in the divine glory. The transfiguration of Christ is a firm foundation for the hope of the transfiguration of our whole life which at present is full of toil, illness, and fear, into the incorruptible and godlike life. This requires a struggle on man's part. The fathers passed along this road. What happened in Christ's life must be repeated in our own life. This life is common to all. We must go through the temptations of Christ, his persecution, the transfiguration, the passion, crucifixion on invisible crosses, death, resurrection, and ascension. There is no need to fear because this comes about through the power of Christ. These are words of eternal life, the preaching of the apostles and the dogma of the fathers, the unshakable hope, the foundation of our faith, the permanent basis of our spiritual life. There are always witnesses to this life who follow Christ to Tabor, Golgotha, and the Mount of Olives, not with worldly wisdom and proud audacity, but with fear and trembling, as unworthy of this ascent and vision, hoping that the everlasting light of the divinity may shine even on us sinners, according to the immeasurable goodness of the Heavenly Father. In the second part of the homily, the elder presents the significance of the great event of the transfiguration of Christ for the history of the world, by analyzing how the disciples were prepared for this divine vision, what happened during the Theophany on Tabor, and what consequences it had for Christ's actions and the awareness of those apostles who were witnesses of the transfiguration. Apart from anything else, this text is a model for the orthodox interpretation of Holy Scripture, as everything that happened on Mount Tabor is interpreted on the basis of the commentator's similar experience. What is significant is that the elder, as we mentioned above, presents the whole exposition of this subject as the words of an experienced ascetic, whom he believes was accounted worthy on many occasions to behold this light. This is undoubtedly the elder's own description, and he puts it into the mouth of an anonymous ascetic, in line with the Apostle Paul's words, quote, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, 2 Corinthians 12.2, this is clear from what is written in other chapters of this book. The experiences are the same as the elders. In his sermon, Father Sophroni says that on the day of the Feast of the Transfiguration of Christ, he spoke to an unnamed ascetic who had seen the glory of God and who answered three questions for him. The first question is, What is this radiant cloud which illuminated Holy Mount Tabor that night? The answer to this question refers to the mystery of the light of Tabor, how it is seen and how one can acquire this gift. The ascetic told him that when he was young, 
This light would appear to him indistinctly for a few moments, sometimes as an imperceptible flame of fire, which burnt his heart with love, and sometimes as a radiance, which shed its brightness into his noose during prayer, especially in church. But on one day, after many months of prolonged fervent prayer, accompanied by deep sorrow over his wretchedness, this light came gently down upon him and stayed with him for three days. With this vision of the uncreated light, death was transcended, and he was filled with the joy of the resurrection from the dead. For that reason he called this light the dawn of the resurrection. At that time he was living in the world, in the midst of other people. Later on, however, when he had become a monk and a member of the clergy, it often happened that his prayer was transformed into theoria of the light, to the point that he no longer perceived his body or the material world around him. The God-seeing ascetic explained that the light is a favor from above and comes unexpectedly. It brings sweet perplexity to the soul, and one is led out of thick darkness into boundless, sunlit expanses. Although this light is unchanging by nature, its energies are of various kinds. They are experienced as a sense of Christ's love, as the assistance of divine strength, as an inexpressible impulse of eternal life, as the light of wisdom, or a, a noetic vision of God that surpasses understanding. At other times, the light is poured out more abundantly and fills man completely. The ascetic continued his discourse, and interpreting the experience that the apostles had on Mount Tabor, he analyzed what it was and how it came about. There is actually a gradual path by which the apostles and others ascend to participation in the glory of God. The disciples were established in the faith that Christ is the Son of the living God, as Peter confessed. After the confession, silence followed, as the evangelists do not mention any event between the Apostle Peter's confession, which took place in Caesarea Philippi, and the ascent of Mount Tabor a whole week. Christ is light, and remained in the light without appearing to the disciples. His manifestation, however, took place during prayer, which was like his prayer in Gethsemane. The disciples were exhausted by this prayer. Nevertheless, through their inner prayer they saw the glory of Christ and the two men of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. This theoria overwhelmed the apostles with inexpressible amazement and blessed perplexity. Until then, the apostles' vision of the spiritual world and the divine light was combined with the scenes of the visible world around them. After that, however, the light increased and lifted the disciples above everything visible and transient into what is invisible and eternal. A cloud overshadowed them, which was the light and the breath of the Spirit, and it brought the apostles into the world of the uncreated, immutable, unsetting, unchanging, boundless, heavenly light, and obliterated the images that they had of the forms of this world. That is to say, in the beginning they saw the light pouring from the body of Christ, which was the source of uncreated light, but they also saw the world around. Afterwards, however, they ascended to a higher degree of theoria and the surrounding world disappeared. Through the Holy Spirit, the apostles entered into theoria of indescribable divinity of Jesus Christ, 
and they heard the immaterial and unapproachable voice of the Father, This is my beloved Son. This was the sublime moment of everything that happened on Tabor. Interpreting this event, the ascetic said that however great and exalted the vision granted to the apostles was, it was still not perfect because they were incapable of receiving the fullness and perfection of the light. Also, they did not assimilate it perfectly, which is why they wavered during the events of Golgotha. Nevertheless, this vision on Mount Tabor was greater than the visions granted to Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. This analysis shows the steps to Theoria, faith in Christ's divinity, silence in the full sense of the word, prayer like Christ's prayer in Gethsemane for the whole world, the unexpected appearance of the light, and exaltation to a higher degree of Theoria, which is the entrance into the cloud. The elder goes on to record his second question, which that great man understood before he managed to put it into words. Since he had been saddened during the exposition by the thought, this is not for me, the ascetic consoled him by telling him that one should reprove and condemn oneself of being deprived of this gift on account of one's wrongdoing, but not fall into despair, as the theory of the light is not only the lot of the chosen few. Such a thought can kill the sacred hope in us. We have all been called to the same perfection as the three apostles on Mount Tabor. We have all received the same commandments. This is clear from the service from, for the Feast of Transfiguration, in which the Church powerfully invites and persuades everyone to climb up the untouchable mountain of noetic divine vision. In every age, even today, this gift is poured out upon those who wholeheartedly follow Christ. The view that this theoria is not for me is false humility, but also unjustified despair born of despondency and self-indulgence. Another obstacle to theoria of the uncreated light is man's attempt to know God and his mysteries through reason. In this case, one does not encounter the bright cloud, but thick darkness concealing God. God is light, and all who are accounted worthy of beholding God see him as light. When, however, philosophers appeared who upheld the view that God could be fully known through reason, the Holy Fathers, in order to eradicate this foolish idea, used the language of the Old Testament and spoke of darkness. Obviously, the true path to theoria of the divine light passes through the inner man. When we struggle to keep Christ's commandments, with all the strength of our desire, the divine light visits us at various times and in various ways. There are no limits to God's favor because it is truly beyond all bounds. At the end of this conversation, that God-seeing ascetic answered, as the elder writes, yet another third question in my timid soul. Being, as he says, unable to see the path and not knowing how to begin this life or where to start, he felt he was in the dark. And he asked, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Then the unnamed ascetic answered that he should pray with faith to God in accordance with the words of St. Gregory Palamas, Lord, lighten my darkness. The words of the church's hymn, quote, May your unapproachable light shine also upon me a sinner, O giver of light. And the prayer of St. Simeon the New Theologian, Come, true light, come, eternal life. 
When one reads this sermon and compares it with what Father Sofroni wrote later on, one realizes that its contents are autobiographical, and Father Sofroni is the anonymous ascetic. This homily presents all his teaching about the uncreated light, its energies, what precedes theoria, and how knowledge of God is bestowed. The elder also teaches us indirectly through the ascetic that theoria of the uncreated light is the purpose of our life, our lot, and our path. In fact, the elder was always, as we see him here, a theologian of the uncreated light and a witness of Tabor. Sometimes he was categorical in his teaching, as this teaching was based on experience and revelation, but he was always sensitive and courteous, a true man of God. At one point in his homily, full of self-accusation and trying to hide himself, he writes that he will pass on to his listeners the conclusion of my unforgettable conversation with that great man. He expresses fear and hesitation because the writer of Proverbs urges, quote, drink water from your vessels and from the fountains of your spring, Proverbs 5.15. As, however, it is clear from the above that the analysis given by that ascetic ties in absolutely with the teaching of Father Sofroni, ultimately everything he describes in this homily is water from his own vessels and the fountains of his own spring. The grace of God instilled divine revelations into his heart, and he bore witness to this life in our times. It is clear that Father Sofroni passed through all the stages of the spiritual life. He progressed from being in God's image to being in his likeness, from purification to illumination and deification. He received from God the rare gift of experiencing the uncreated light. We saw earlier that during the experience of pure prayer, at moments when he did not expect it, he attained to theoria of the uncreated light. To be sure, this also posed a spiritual danger because while he was experiencing profound and pure prayer, the thought might naturally arise that he would soon see the light. However, the experience that he had previously acquired through the charisma of the remembrance of death, deep mourning, and living through the flames of hell, which never left him, together with his spiritual courage to stop praying when a proud thought came, saying, my murderers have come, prevented him from losing God's great gift. When it decreased to some extent or was providentially withdrawn, it soon returned. Thus, within the economy of God, all the earlier history of his life was a preparation for steady progress to deification and the vision of the light, without the serious dangers that this sort of spiritual state entails. We perceive from this that theology, which is the expression of experience of the uncreated light, has no connection with the imaginings of the deluded noose or with various passions. In fact, the imaginative noose is incapable of theology. Real orthodox theology is linked with man's journey from purification to illumination and deification. J. Living Confirmation, St. Silouan. The way to deification and the path that leads from being in God's image to being in his likeness is a difficult and noble one, and for that reason no one can travel along it alone. On every subject, confirmation is required, and this applies even more in spiritual matters. Father Sofroni went through extraordinary experiences, 
the charisma of the remembrance of death, his fall, which he regarded as a denial of God, mourning, the experience of hell and paradise, and the vision of the uncreated light. It is significant that in the early stages he had not read anything in the patristic writings about what he was going through. Later on, reading the words of the fathers entailed the hidden danger of proud thoughts. However, mourning and profound repentance, the gift of the remembrance of death, and the experience of the flames of hell kept him safe. But he needed to acquire living confirmation and guidance from a spiritual father who had experienced the things of God and learned about them. At this crucial moment of his life, he met St. Silouan, who had lived this same life before him and stood by him like a brother and a witness, confirming the truth of the state he was going through. Father Sophroni understood the major role played in man's life by a spiritual director who knows how to guide unerringly, how to be the living confirmation of spiritual experience, and how to distinguish delusion from truth, created from uncreated, what is devilish from what is divine. We also see this in the events of Holy Scripture. For example, the All-Holy Virgin, after the Annunciation, was commanded to visit Elizabeth, from whom she received confirmation. And the Apostle Paul, after being called by Christ, went to meet the other apostles who had heard about his rebirth. The value of the presence of an experienced spiritual father in the life of someone traveling along difficult paths belongs in the same context. Father Sophroni affirms in many of his writings that he regards the fact that God led him to St. Silouan as the greatest blessing of his life and he glorifies God without ceasing for this great gift. It should be noted, of course, that apart from St. Silouan being living confirmation of Father Sophroni's spiritual experience, at the same time, Father Sophroni recognized the depth of St. Silouan's spiritual experience on account of his spiritual kinship with him and made it known to the whole world. We shall look at what he writes about the blessed figure of St. Silouan the Athenite. Father Sophroni testifies that when the uncreated light appears to man in the Holy Spirit, his soul must possess courage for him to believe what has happened and, of course, to live the rest of his life within this perspective. At that period, living witnesses to Christ's resurrection are required in order to give their testimony, confirmation, and support. This is the task that St. Silouan accomplished in Father Sophroni's life. As the elder writes, although the Old Testament prophets received the revelation from God, they did not reach, quote, the plentitude proper to the personal principle. This is what Christ revealed to the world in all its power. He writes that in the whole history of the church, only occasional individuals throughout the centuries have attained this form of being, and few have duly apprehended this. The heroes of the faith who followed in the steps of God's chosen are rare, but their influence extends to all the multitude of members of the church. The elder refers to the help accorded him by St. Siloan. Quote, St. Siloan was an event of supreme importance on my journey through life. Thanks to him, year after year, I was able to observe at close quarters a truly Christian life, and even become a disciple.
I am incomparably more indebted to his prayers than to all my other preceptors, though among them were several outstanding representatives of our church, grace-endowed ascetics in monasteries and hermitages, bishops and priests, likewise professors in theological schools. End of quote. The elder states that in the course of his life he met many ascetics on the holy mountain, many bishops and priests, and even professors of theology, but no one had the spiritual experience of St. Siloan. This is proved by the fact that through his own experience, St. Siloan was also able to give effective help to Father Sophroni with his rare experience of divine grace. Christ manifests himself to St. Siloan in great light, and he knew him in the Holy Spirit. He was given grace to delight in Christ's indescribable humility. He prayed for the whole world, and he was accounted worthy to see the light and to breathe the air of the upper world. The elder goes on to confess, The process of my own growth was a slow one compared with St. Siloan's. Nevertheless, what I received was undeservably glorious for me. It was natural that Father Sophroni would consider his meeting with St. Siloan as one of the most significant events that divine providence had in store for him in his life. He writes, quote, It was given to this humble man from on high to pray for the whole world as for himself. Predominantly, however, he sorrowed for those who have already passed over. His soul was riveted on the vision of hell beyond the bounds of this earth. He contemplated this hell by virtue of his experience of the reality of the spiritual state of the human spirit. He did not let time or space condition his prayer, for his spirit looked always on eternity. End of quote. Father Sophroni testifies with absolute certainty to the great spiritual genius of blessed St. Siloan, to whom divine providence led him. St. Siloan spoke and wrote in simple words about the experiences granted to him by God, but his, own wor his words were only comprehensible to those who lived in the same spiritual atmosphere and not to the representatives of academic theology. The elder confesses with simplicity and sincerity, quote, the fact that by his, St. Siloan's prayers, I too was placed in the same spiritual perspective allows me to venture on this task. To be sure, I did not receive in full measure the blessing that the Lord poured out on him, but nevertheless it was given to me, the least of men, to live approximately the same experience. 3. Conclusion Everything written above forms part of the spiritual autobiography of the great Father Sophroni of blessed memory, whom I knew with whom I was in communication, and by whom I had the honor and blessing to be loved. It is only a part of his biography, because how can the spiritual tensions between hell and paradise, consuming fire and delightful light, the abyss and the sacred land through which Father Sophroni passed be described? At one point in his book, we shall see him as he is. The elder writes that only repentant prayer is in keeping with the truth about us. When we are conscious of our sinfulness, we are on the level of the divine truth. He continues, quote, The more profoundly we see our sin as something that brings death to us, the more fully do we surrender to God in prayer, 
and by his life-creating strength escape from the clutches of time and space. May the Lord forgive me and my brothers not condemn me too severely if I say that thus it was with me. And so, reading St. Paul's epistles, I surmise confidently, I make no secret of it, that he too was given visions and revelations of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, 1-6 In his repentance before Christ, with strong crying and tears, and was heard, and that he feared. Hebrews 5, 7 End of quote. Father Sophroni also lived the whole course of his life with strong crying and tears, and subsequently he was granted visions and revelations of the Lord. This part of Father Sophroni's autobiography clearly shows us how someone lives within the church, which is the body of the risen Christ. To be sure, the elder followed a noble path, and he ascended to exalted heights. But with some adjustments, all who wish to be saved must pass along the road of repentance, purification, illumination, and deification. What has been written is simply an introduction to reading the elder's book, We Shall See Him As He Is and I urge readers to do so. I also recommend them to read the elder's other books, above all his classic, St. Siloan the Athenite, because, apart from anything else, that book shows how one saint interprets another. 3. Conclusion Everything written above forms part of the spiritual autobiography of the great Father Sophroni of blessed memory, whom I knew with whom I was in communication, and by whom I had the honor and blessing to be loved. It is only a part of his biography, because how can the spiritual tensions between hell and paradise, consuming fire and delightful light, the abyss and the sacred land through which Father Sophroni passed be described? At one point in his book, We Shall See Him As He Is, the elder writes that only repentant prayer is in keeping with the truth about us. When we are conscious of our sinfulness, we are on the level of the divine truth. He continues, quote, The more profoundly we see our sin as something that brings death to us, the more fully do we surrender to God in prayer, and by his life-creating strength escape from the clutches of time and space. May the Lord forgive me, and my brothers not condemn me too severely, if I say that thus it was with me. And so, reading St. Paul's epistles, I surmise confidently, I make no secret of it, that he too was given visions and revelations of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, 1-6 In his repentance before Christ, with strong crying and tears, and was heard, and that he feared. Hebrews 5, 7 End of quote. Father Sophroni also lived the whole course of his life with strong crying and tears, and subsequently he was granted visions and revelations of the Lord. This part of Father Sophroni's autobiography clearly shows us how someone lives within the church, which is the body of the risen Christ. To be sure, the elder followed a noble path, and he ascended to exalted heights. But with some adjustments, all who wish to be saved must pass along the road of repentance, purification, illumination, and deification.
What has been written is simply an introduction to reading the Elder's book, We Shall See Him As He Is, and I urge readers to do so. I also recommend them to read the Elder's other books, above all his classic, St. Silouan the Athenite, because, apart from anything else, that book shows how one saint interprets another. 1. Meeting and Conversation with David Balfour I had heard a great deal about David Balfour from my parents and in other pious circles to the effect that he used to live in Athens and was the priest at the Evangelimos Hospital before and during the 1940 war, that our commandrite Demetrios, as he then was, made a great impression on the Athenian society of that era, that he was in touch with the theological world, the theological school in Athens, that he was an expert on many subjects and knew many languages, that he was associated with the royal family, who attended church at the Evangelimos, and some members of which went to him for confession, that he had links with the Zoe Brotherhood of Theologians prior to 1940, and after the Germans entered Athens, he departed for Egypt, where he abandoned the priesthood. Immediately after the return to civilian government in Greece, 1974, and actually not long before I met him in England, I had read in certain newspapers and periodicals that he was a British spy in Athens before the war, that he was not really a priest, that he had duped even Father Sophroni, that he had come to Athens after the liberation, and while working for the British diplomatic service, in the secret service, he played an important role in the affairs of that period and during the Civil War, and that he was an instrumental in Archbishop Damaskinos taking on the regency, and so on. While visiting the Holy Mountain, I had also heard some monks implicating Father Sophroni as well in Balford's aims and views. Rumors circulated, and a myth was created. Naturally, all these things roused my interest when I met him. Since we were staying for a few days in the same place, I had many opportunities to talk to him on various subjects. On one occasion, I met him in the library of the monastery, and we began an interesting discussion. Among other things, as I vividly recollect, he told me that in the early 1930s he visited the Holy Mountain to do research on manuscripts. As he knew Russian, among other languages, it was natural that he would visit the Russian monastery of St. Pentelemon. The first monk whom he met at the jetty of the monastery was St. Silouan, who led him to the reception room for visitors. During Vespers, while he was sitting in a pew and praying, St. Silouan approached him and said, I have a message for you. Pray about the matter that is worrying you, and God will reveal to you what you should do. In fact, he was preoccupied at that time about whether he should enter the Orthodox Church, and St. Silouan understood his thought and his anxiety. Subsequently, St. Silouan brought him into contact with Father Sophroni, then a hierodeacon at the monastery. He also told me that after he left the monastery, as he had many problems and uncertainties, Father Sophroni used to send him letters to strengthen him and to encourage him in his decision. He said to me, word for word, quote, I have many letters from Father Sophroni. In those letters, as he wanted to strengthen me in my decision, he wrote to me about many of his experiences. It is clear in these letters that he saw the uncreated light. 
If one day these letters are published, it will be obvious that Father Sofroni is a great saint, higher than St. Silouan. End of quote. I record exactly what he said. He then spoke to me about his theological study of the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas, his interest in hesychism, and his research on the writings of St. Simeon, Archbishop of Thessaloniki. He told me, quote, I knew true hesychism on the holy mountain in the 1930s, end of quote, and also that after a gap of many years, he had begun to work once again on theological writings, and in particular that he was going to publish hitherto unpublished texts of St. Simeon of Thessaloniki. In 1981, the book Simeon, Archbishop of Thessaloniki, Theological Works, was published, containing previously unpublished works by St. Simeon of Thessaloniki in a critical edition prepared by David Balfour and with an introduction by him. The introductory section at the beginning of the book vividly demonstrates Balfour's capacity for research, his knowledge, his critical approach, and his apt comments, his excellent knowledge of the Greek language, his originality, and the significance of his critical apparatus. All these things revealed him as a greatly gifted man with wide-ranging abilities as a researcher and an expert on the texts. This introductory section is divided into three chapters. The first entitled, quote, The Author and His Unpublished Works, refers to St. Simeon of Thessaloniki's writings and how he, Balfour, discovered his hitherto unpublished works. These consist of 20 unpublished works by St. Simeon, anti-heretical and spiritual in character, that he found in 1940 in a manuscript codex described as Codex 23 of Zagoras, which had been been neglected and completely ignored by scholars. His research began, as he writes in the year 1940-41, to 41, and in 1971-73, to 73, he completed his thorough check of all the existing catalogs of Greek codices to discover St. Simeon's unpublished works. In this chapter, he sets out the titles of these works with a preliminary description of their content. The second chapter of the introductory section describes the manuscripts of St. Simeon's works. The best manuscript source, which is the Zagoras Codex, and the lesser manuscript sources, which are in other libraries. There is a detailed description of the manuscript tradition of St. Simeon's works in academic terms and on a scholarly basis. In the third chapter of the introductory section entitled, quote, The Life and Characteristics of Simeon, end of quote, Balford gives a detailed account of his birth, his life as a monk, his enthronement, and his first years in Thessaloniki, the crisis of 1422 and 1423, his activity under Venetian rule, that is 1423 to 1429, his death, which, in Balfour's opinion, should be dated to mid-September 1429, a few months before Thessaloniki fell to the Turks, on the 29th of March, 1430, and his posthumous renown. In addition to the significant introductory section, in the second section of the book where Balford gives the critical texts of these 20 works by St. Simeon of Thessaloniki, he also provides relevant notes at the foot of each page and with references to the scriptural and patristic passages used by St. Simeon, spelling, punctuation, reference numbers, and the critical apparatus. 
He also adds specific introductions to each of St. Simeon's texts. At the end of the book, there are three appendices, together with an index of names and subjects. Balfour himself remarks in his introduction, quote, The present volume, containing Simeon's works of an anti-heretical and spiritual character, is the continuation of another publication circulated towards the end of 1979, which contains his politico-historical works, together with an introduction and notes in English, end quote. All the above demonstrates Balford's important research work and his many and varied scholarly and other gifts. It is characteristic that Panayotis Christou, director at that time of the Patriarchal Institute for Patristic Studies, writes of Balfour in the note by the editor. To quote, David Balford has labored more than any other researcher in studying the work of St. Simeon Archbishop of Thessaloniki. Having examined the historical circumstances of his age, his activity in the manuscript tradition of his works, he has managed to acquire all the necessary elements to make him a genuine expert on this great ecclesiastical, theological, and political personality of Byzantium in the last years of, his, of its existence. End of quote. Paniotis Christou goes on to give some interesting information about him. Quote, David Balfour began his research during his years as a student in Athens from 1936 to 1939, when the writer of this present note was a fellow student of his. The circumstances of life after 1941, however, diverted his attention elsewhere. More than three decades later, he took up his research once again, and its fruit was, firstly, the publication in Vienna of Simeon's Politico-Historical Writings in 1979, on account of which he also acquired his degree of Doctor of Philosophy, and secondly, the publication here of Simeon's Theological Writings. Following these publications and the publication of Ioannis Futulis of the liturgical works, we now have in our possession the complete literary output of Simeon, whose holiness was officially recognized this year, also thanks to David Balfour's contribution. The Patriarchal Institute for Patristic Studies is particularly delighted to include the present book in its series of publications. End of quote. The opinion of this patrologist and professor also reveals Balfour as a major figure in research. In the discussion that I had with Balfour at the Monastery of St. John the Baptist, I did not want, out of curiosity, to ask him about what I had heard and read about him concerning alleged espionage and renunciation of the priesthood. In any case, I found out, and was told by others who knew him, that the rumors about him were exaggerated. He had certainly renounced the priesthood, and his life had not been straightforward, and this was the result of his disobedience to the word of St. Silouan, who had advised him not to go to Greece, because that would bring catastrophe upon him. I did not ask him about these issues, because I always stand with great respect before someone who repents and weeps for the sins of the past. I remember that Father Sophroni of blessed memory showed him great love. I also recall a characteristic incident. I was sitting next to Balfour in the refectory of the monastery during the meal. We were talking. I was asking him about various theological matters, and I ascertained that he was an expert on many theological subjects, 
but also on the attitudes and trends that prevailed in the theological and ecclesiastical world in Greece. At one point I turned towards Father Sophroni, who was sitting a short distance away, at the head of the table. I saw the elder glancing affectionately at Belfer, looking at him with his gentle, penetrating gaze, and tears were flowing from his eyes. I have never attempted to explain what those tears of Father Sophroni's meant. The fact is that I saw for myself the elders' charity and love for people, particularly for the suffering and the penitent, but especially for Balfour, as will become clear below. Information reached Balfour's ears about what was being said about him in Greece, namely that he was a spy and had made use of his non-existent, according to them, priesthood to carry out his espionage. This seems to be untrue, as he entered the British diplomatic mission after he had left Greece. On many occasions, he thought about responding to these slanderous accusations, but he had learned from Father Sophroni to take a different stand in temptations and to cure his involuntary and voluntary errors by means of voluntary silence. This is how the spiritual law functions. Balford sent the former Archbishop of Thyatira and Great Britain, Methodius, an important letter in which, among other things, he refers to the subject that we are considering here. He writes, quote, I am 85 years old. He's writing in April 1988, 18 months before his decease in October 1989. And for the last 42 years, I have been the subject of the grossest slander, which humanly speaking, has irretrievably destroyed my life. Nevertheless, obeying my spiritual father, Archimandrite Sophroni, I have never replied or uttered a single word in self-defense, but I have learned to take literally, word for word, Christ's words. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. End of quote, Matthew 5.11 End of quote, this letter is a personal confession that Balfour had been slandered and was still being slandered by the accusation of espionage. However, on account of his fall in renouncing the priesthood, he lived in repentance, obeying the counsel of Father Sophroni, and he kept silent about the slanders uttered against him. 2. Reflections on the book Struggle to Know God in 2004, a book called Struggle to Know God and subtitled The Correspondence of Father Sophroni with D. Balford was published by the Holy Stravopedic Monastery of St. John the Baptist, Essex, England. I was particularly interested in this book because, as I mentioned above, Balford himself had told me about this correspondence and had revealed to me how valuable the letters were which Father Sophroni had sent him to establish him in the Orthodox faith. At the beginning of the book, there is an interesting introduction by hero deacon Nicholas, Father Sophroni's great-nephew, his brother's grandson, recording the biographical details of the lives of Elder and Balfour, as well as various information about the communication between them as it appears in the letters, but also as it has been passed on by word of mouth. Referring to the accusations against Balfour, Father Nicholas writes significantly, quote, 
Many believe that Balfour made hypocritical use of orthodoxy during his life. Perhaps this view is based on his changes of direction, as well as certain combinations of circumstances in his turbulent life. The documents that we have at our disposal, however, do not lead to such conclusions. End of quote. As it is recorded that he lived in Cairo after his departure from Greece and before he joined the British diplomatic corps, it does not seem possible that he had been a spy in Greece. In fact, this correspondence does not show anything of the sort. It is also clear from the letters about Balfour's fall that Father Sophroni, who worked hard and with selfless generosity to build him up spiritually, was in no way responsible. The introduction to the book records the basic points of Father Sophroni's teaching, as these can be deduced from reading the letters that he sent to Balfour. After the introduction, the 30 letters from Father Sophroni are published. These refer to Balfour's life and make theological comments on various aspects of the life of this interesting man. Reading the list of subjects covered by the letters is sufficient on its own to show that Balfour was seeking the Orthodox faith. These letters are arranged in five chapters entitled Divine Call, Accepting Orthodoxy, Trials, The Rift, and Outside the Church. They are followed by two appendices called From the Letters of Father Sophroni and From the Letters of D. Balfour. I read this book with great interest and close attention, as well as being the spiritual correspondence between Father Sophroni and David Demetrios Balfour, this book is simultaneously a spiritual and biographical x-ray of these two ecclesiastical figures. My interest is justified, not only on account of the elders' inspired writing, which is known in any case to many, and which I especially love and am familiar with, but on account of my personal acquaintance with both these people. As I read these letters, I felt deep contrition and many times intense prayer and increased love for the ever-memorable Father Sophroni arose within me. I shall note some of my impressions in the following pages. A. The Basis of the Book, St. Siloan the Athenite The correspondence between Father Sophroni and Balfour formed the spiritual basis of the book St. Siloan the Athenite, which the elder wrote later and which made such a great impression on the Orthodox ecclesiastical world, after it was written and after its translation from Russian into Greek and many other languages. It is actually clearly evident that Father Sophroni lived the spirit of the book about St. Siloan the Athenite from the first years of his monastic life on Monathos. By God's economy, Balfour became the occasion for these spiritual and theological experiences of the heart to be written down. It is also obvious that the way in which Balfour wrote to Father Sophroni and the arguments that he used expressed Western theological questioning, whereas the way in which Father Sophroni wrote expressed the hesychistic manner of the Orthodox tradition. I believe that everything Father Sophroni expounded later in his book, St. Siloan the Athenite, flowed from his spiritual experience in grace, but also from his discussion with this representative of Western scholastic theology, who was unable to subject himself completely, despite his desire to do so, 
to the hesychistic tradition of the Orthodox Church and the bearers of this tradition. From this discussion, apart from his personal knowledge of theological trends and his grace-given experience, Father Sofroni also became very familiar with the mentality of speculative theologians who have learned theology by studying books and personal conjecture about the experience of those with experience. This is why the elder spoke about the relationship between man's freedom and the energies of divine grace, the way in which speculative theologians and empirical theologians work, the difference between the natural and the spiritual man, and so on. Orthodox theology follows a different path. It passes through Hezekiah in the full orthodox sense of the word, and for that reason he wrote to Balford, quote, agonize, labor, grieve, pray, weep with your whole soul reading these things, end quote. B. Two Levels of the Spiritual Life Father Sofroni wrote his letters to Balford at a period in which he was experiencing a great flame of repentance and reaching up unceasingly to God. It was the time of his great and rare spiritual experience. All the atmosphere of a patristic figure emerges from these letters. In earlier chapters, we looked at Father Sofroni's journey from Paris to the Holy Mountain, where he lived in 1925, searching for knowledge of God. The correspondence with Balfour begins in 1932, only seven years after his arrival on the Holy Mountain. And at that time, he was living his fatal impetus towards God and his great longing to become like Christ at every stage of the divine economy. He was full of a powerful flame of communion with God. He had great experiences of divine vision, and he saw the uncreated light, as he notes himself. Thus, in one of his letters, he wrote, in order to encourage Balfour, quote, I am talking to you about things I am certain about, since I have lived them myself, end quote. We know from our whole tradition that the Christian's life is a struggle to be united with Christ, to be born with him, crucified with him, and rise with him. The apostle experienced this intensely. Thus he says, quote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Elsewhere, he writes that by the effort that he makes, he fills up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Quote, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, Colossians 1.24. That he has seen the risen Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.1-11, and so on. We find the same thing in many saints, for example, St. Gregory the Theologian often refers in his writings to the experience of being crucified, buried, and resurrected with Christ, which is the true experience of Orthodox Christians. We see this very intensely in these letters. Father Sofroni experienced for himself the heights of Gethsemane and prayed for the whole world. He suffered for the torments of humanity. He was crucified every day and had the charisma of the remembrance of death. He lived hell and the flames of hell. He saw the light of the resurrection and he lived the blessing of Pentecost. He knew God as love, quote, love inexpressible, ineffable, indescribable, insatiable, 
boundless, completely pure, all holy, incomprehensible in its perfection, most sweet, powerful, eternal. End of quote. In such a state, he felt that the heart wounded by God's love sometimes hurts as much as if a burning sword had pierced it. But this pain is indescribably sweet. For the sweetness of the love of God, one cannot, one can forget the whole world. Within this flame of the spiritual life in Christ that he was living, he was on the cross and down in hell and experiencing the light of the resurrection. While he was on this high spiritual level, he invited Balfour to follow him. And Balfour, in spite of his desire, wavered, lost patience and refused. Often from the height of the mystery of the cross and the resurrection, the elder directed him, affectionately but also reprovingly, to follow the same path. However, for Balfour, who lacked decisiveness, but also the great and overwhelming longing to encounter God empirically, this was not an easy road. The elder wrote to him, quote, Make your way, my friend, with us paupers to the cross, to the insults, the humiliations, the poverty, the sufferings, and later perhaps even to death. End of quote. To be sure, he ultimately respects his freedom since this is God's gift to humankind. No one can violate man's freedom. Not even God himself does, does not do so. Each one receives God's grace depending on the extent to which he surrenders himself to him. This correspondence shows freedom in all its grandeur. One sees an experienced elder with exalted knowledge of the spiritual life who is capable of bringing about someone's regeneration, but the man concerned, Balford in this case, is unable to bear this guidance and in the end does not want it. But God's love directed Balford's step after his disobedience to St. Siloan and Father Sophroni and his turbulent life, so that at the end of his life, a long time afterwards, he felt the grace of repentance and the affection of the church, and he had some hesychistic experiences. Many years had to pass before Balfour understood the exalted message of St. Siloan and Father Sophroni and assimilated it. These are the two ways in which the church works in people. The first is to point out to them the heights of the spiritual life and their route to the cross and the resurrection, and the other way is love, forgiveness, comfort, and a spiritual caress at times of failure when they return. One way or another, the church keeps people within its embrace, instructing them and loving them tenderly. See Self-Emptying Love Father Sophroni's self-emptying love for Balfour, but also for all human beings, is clear from his letters. The elder lived this Christ-like love that ascends to Gethsemane and the cross and descends to Hades for the salvation of mankind. As these letters repeatedly show, he mourned for days over Balfour and other people as though he were mourning the dead. In fact, this grief reached the point of exhausting him. He writes in one letter, quote, praying for you on Friday night, I wept as they weep for the dead, end of quote. His love for humankind was limitless. He had the great desire even to be crucified for them. His love for Balfour was clearly obvious from the fact that he made known to him the whole of his 
secret spiritual world all the mysteries that the grace of God had revealed to him and opened up his heart to him completely. And when later he was faced with Balford's fall, this love was expressed as respect for his freedom and as a struggle through prayer of the heart to bring about his repentance, his return to the realm of the church. Thus Balfour was finally accounted worthy by God of the great gift of dying within the church with repentance and weeping. D. The Experienced Spiritual Guide In Father Sophroni's letters we see many subtle details of the spiritual life, the journey towards knowledge of God. This is the justification for the book's title, Struggle to Know God. The letters published in this book are full of the subtle processes that are closely associated with man's spiritual life. Christianity is not aesthetic culture, but asceticism and struggle against thoughts, against the passions, against the delusion of visions and charismatic states. It is a complete life of burning repentance to the end, self-surrender to God's will and a journey to Gethsemane, Golgotha, Hades, the new tomb, and the grace of Pentecost. In this correspondence, we not only see the method of the spiritual life, but also how a genuine spiritual father guides those entrusted to him. He teaches that thoughts are the actions of demons, and one must deal with them by the grace of God. That the beginning of the spiritual life is the battle with passions, and the route that it takes is self-surrender to the will of God. He also describes confrontation with demons, obedience to the spiritual guide, avoidance of daydreaming, self-emptying repentance, and self-accusation that is full of inspiration, the endeavor and struggle for utter purity of the heart and body from carnal and every other sin, the acquisition of noetic hezekiah as a basic pre-requirement for ecclesiastical life, the experience of noetic prayer, the true meaning of obedience, and so on. It is clear from Father Sophroni's letters that he is an experienced spiritual father in general on this march towards deification and sanctification. He has passed through all the spiritual states, and for that reason he is able to guide his spiritual children, whom God's providence has entrusted to him, and he feels spiritually responsibility for their salvation. His experience is clear from the fact that he has been through all the spiritual states, even his battle with the demons and his charismatic descent into hell. He is not ignorant of the thoughts and wiles of the devil. At the same time, he knows how someone can confront them with the spiritual father's help. And he describes what our attitude should be towards our spiritual father in order that our spiritual experience may increase and we may mature spiritually. Because he lived in such an intensely spiritual way and experienced such exalted spiritual states, he was neither concerned about nor frightened by the earthquake that was taking place at that time and shaking his whole cell. He continued writing his letter undisturbed. E. Hezekistic and Liturgical Life Most of Father Sophroni's letters to Balfour were written when he was a hero deacon, and some when he was a hero monk. His location varied. He wrote most of the letters from the monastery of St. Pantolaemon and from Kurulia, as the letters from Balfour indicate. Others were written from the hermitage cave of the Holy Trinity near the monastery of St. Paul. Others 
from France and others from the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England. Since he was a hero deacon or hero monk, and Balfour, before abandoning the priesthood, was a hero monk, it was to be expected that among the subjects mentioned they would also refer to worship and liturgical life. And naturally, Father Sophroni's way of life and the place in which he was waging his ascetic struggle also influenced how he celebrated the divine liturgy. As a hesychist, Father Sophroni closely linked the divine liturgy with Hezekiah and asceticism. In all his letters, it is clear that he is guiding Balfour as an orthodox spiritual father by means of sacred Hezekiah, noetic prayer, spiritual vigilance, and true repentance. He speaks about the weeping by which monks are cleansed, about the work of spiritual vigilance and repentance that must precede the divine liturgy and holy communion, about noetic prayer, which is the climate for worship and the divine liturgy, about the spirit of obedience that Belford ought to have toward his bishop and his brethren. As regards this last point, he actually does a complete analysis for him about how he ought to behave towards his bishop and the meaning and method of obedience towards him and towards spiritual fathers in general. In this context, the elder also speaks about how Balfour ought to celebrate the divine liturgy. His letter shows his wide experience on this subject too. He writes to him that since there are obstacles preventing a daily divine liturgy, he must do two things. The first, which is more necessary for him, is that he should concentrate his soul and noose on his inner life. The second is that, for the time being, he should celebrate the Divine Liturgy once or twice a week. Father Sophroni wants these two indispensable elements of the spiritual life to be combined because he knows that there is a danger of familiarity and of celebrating the Divine Eucharist in a formal and mechanical way. One sees in these letters how the elder perceived the Divine Liturgy and the way in which he participated in the sacred services. Before the altar, he felt completely broken by afflictions, but also by inner repentance, and the light would come and overshadow him. Elsewhere, he writes that at the dread moment when the Holy Spirit descends and changes the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, quote, fiery grace descends and touches the heart, and sometimes it embraces the whole man with great power, end of quote. Even when the conditions at the Divine Liturgy are not favorable, this does not prevent the hero monk from praying and celebrating the liturgy peacefully. Writing in the third person, the elder refers to someone, he means himself, who lived in the uncreated light for three days from Holy Saturday until the third day of Easter, and he expressed this event as the dawn of the day without evening. He was a layman then. But this shows the value of the Divine Liturgy and Holy Communion, especially during Eastertide, as in it one can live experiences of divine vision when, of course, one approaches this great mystery in an appropriate way. The ascetic life is very closely linked in Father Sophroni's teaching with man's liturgical life. In the Divine Liturgy, he experienced lamentation for the whole of mankind the descent into Hades, and the vision of the light of Christ's resurrection. Even when the monks who chant are tired and chant badly and in a rush, even then 
This does not prevent the hero monk from praying and celebrating the liturgy peacefully, except when their haste is excessive. This is because the celebrant has become accustomed through noetic Hezekiah to concentrate his noose in prayer. I was accounted worthy on many occasions of concelebrating with Father Sophroni, and I know from experience the spiritual intensity with which he celebrated. He celebrated with noetic Hezekiah. His noose and body were clenched together like a fist, and he also influenced those who concelebrated with him. This was an expression of his hezekistic experience and life. F. Triple Alliance. This book enables the reader to see the close bond between St. Siloan, Father Sophroni, and Balfour. The elder calls this spiritual bond a triple alliance. In particular, there is the opportunity to observe a conversation with St. Siloan and his replies. There is a link between these three figures, which is expressed through the exchange of letters, personal communication, and prayers. Balfour goes to the holy mountain to do other work, and the first monk whom he meets is St. Siloan, who points out to him what he ought to do. St. Siloan entrusts Balfour to Father Sophroni to guide him in his spiritual quest. Father Sophroni, aware of this great and responsible ministry, fulfills this mission with fear and trembling and continuously asks St. Siloan about how he should deal with problems that arise. St. Siloan replies, and Father Sophroni obeys and passes on the saint's instructions to Balfour. From time to time, Balfour, although he respects these two men, is unable to follow their advice, and he pays for this spiritually because Spiritual mistakes are paid for dearly according to the spiritual law. In this correspondence, we can see the calm, discerning, and illuminating way in which St. Siloan the Athenite deals with matters, Father Sophroni's unquestioning obedience to St. Siloan, but also Balfour's disobedience to the illuminated and revelational word of St. Siloan, and as a consequence, to Father Sophroni's word as well. Father Sophroni and Balfour had different attitudes towards St. Siloan and the spiritual life. Father Sophroni acted like a hesychist, whereas Balfour acted in a rationalistic and scholastic way. Father Sophroni's obedience to St. Siloan was a source of life and a secure road to progress and growth in the spiritual experience that he had already possessed. For this reason, he was able to guide others in an orthodox way, concerning the value of obedience to spiritual fathers, but also about the way in which spiritual fathers should direct their spiritual children. By contrast, disobedience led Balfour into adversities. There is a letter that preserves Father Sophroni's dialogue with St. Siloan on a subject concerning Balfour. This is a unique case of great interest. In this revelational conversation, one admires the way in which St. Siloan acted, how he undertook spiritual guidance, and the way in which he practiced it, but also the spirit of freedom in Christ, which was characteristic of him. The following words spoken by St. Siloan are very significant. Quote, really, he is like a little child, like a nanny. I was holding him back from disaster so that he would not break his skull. But, but let him live in Greece. It will be interesting even from the point of view of experience. So he compares prayer to an oracle? Then he has held us cheap. We are not encroaching on his freedom. He has lost faith, 
and without faith there will be no benefit. Why should we quarrel? Write to him that we will not dissuade him. I have seen that if we behave strictly towards him, he will lose his temper. End of quote. This whole correspondence also vividly reveals the delicacy which, with which Father Sofroni approached St. Siloan, even though he himself had great experience comparable to the saints. His attitude towards him was that of a disciple to his elder and a pupil to his teacher, and for that reason God preserved him and increased his spiritual gifts. And I ascertained that the way in which St. Siloan dealt with the case of Balfour was the same way as Father Sofroni acted, that is to say, he would point out to someone the path that he should follow and would then allow the disciple's freedom to express itself. A breeze of freedom ought to blow between the elder and the disciple, as he used to say. G. Conversion of non-Orthodox to Orthodoxy Reading these letters, one observes that it is not easy for non-Orthodox Christians to convert to the Orthodox faith in the Orthodox Church, as they have to struggle with their own nature, which is imbued with the way of life they have been following since birth. Heresy has changed theology and all the powers of the soul, its rational, appetitive, and insensitive aspects, the entire way people think and live. Dogma is closely connected with the spiritual life, so, when dogma is altered, this has consequences for man's spiritual life as well. This means that when someone who is not Orthodox comes to the Orthodox Church, he must go through a furnace of repentance, of change and regeneration of his entire way of thinking and living. This will take a long time. In order for someone's positive attitude towards Orthodoxy to become an experience of his heart, he must lead a life of asceticism and crucifixion for many years under the guidance of an experienced spiritual father. Otherwise, the old self will remain, with the result that unbelief and the inclination to go back to the old way of life will often recur. The spiritual director, however, must also be crucified in the course of this spiritual guidance. This is a rebirth that comes about through the grace of God. As is well known, on this way of the cross, the spiritual guide is subject to attacks from the one he is guiding. Who holds him responsible for his troubles. This correspondence preserves a word from St. Siloan. Quote, Some people ask for advice. You tell them. They do not want to obey. It is difficult for them. So they even start being hostile to you. End of quote. If this happens with all those receiving guidance who are Orthodox from birth, who were born in orthodox surroundings, it is much more the case with those who come from other worlds, who were born and brought up in western surroundings with other theological traditions. Superhuman efforts are needed to deliver them from the world of delusion and heresy that has become natural to them and determines how they think and live. For that reason, Father Sofroni would say of someone who had returned to orthodoxy that usually more then 20 years are required from the time when he was baptized as an Orthodox Christian under the guidance of an experienced spiritual father before we are certain that he has learnt to live in an Orthodox way and Orthodox dogma has become his way of life. H. 
the Orthodox Church and other organizations and confessions. In the book to which we are referring, although the letter writer is not so interested in issues of church history, nevertheless, because he had to guide this particular individual, many aspects of the historical life of Christianity and the Orthodox Church are recorded. Father Sophroni, in various letters to Balfour, analyzes the life of the Orthodox Church and distinguishes it from every other religion and Christian confession. Within the Church, it is possible to live the mystery of the cross and resurrection of Christ, the vision of the uncreated light, the awareness of divine grace during the divine liturgy and asceticism, inner peace and assurance, holy Hezekiah and prayer, and so on. All these demonstrate the truth of the Orthodox tradition, which abounds within the Orthodox Church. Thus, in one of his letters, he closely links dogma, church, and asceticism. Elsewhere he writes, quote, The Orthodox Church is distinguished from all the other churches on three levels, because A, only it is completely true in its theology, B, only it knows the mystery of grace, of holy life, and preserves the fullness of divine grace, and C, it is the most ancient, the fundamental, and the basic church from which other larger or smaller fragments have broken away from time to time. End of quote. Within the Orthodox Church, despite the problems that arise from time to time, it is possible to experience the grace of Christ. In these letters, Father Sophroni refers to problems in the historical life of the Church, to nationalistic distinctions and differences, to anti-canonical situations, and other circumstances where passions dominate. Nevertheless, he maintains that divine grace exists within the Orthodox Church. At one point he writes, I too have experienced troubles a thousand times, and still experience them, but I endure them, because I also receive positive gifts from the Church. He emphasizes obedience to the instructions of Balfour's bishop, particularly to the bishop who comes under the immediate direction and dependency of the Patriarchate of Moscow, and not of other ecclesiastical organizations, because this arrangement, quote, is the best and, from the canonical point of view, more correct. Here, too, his respect for the canonical institutions of the Church is obvious in spite of the problems that exist. For the purpose of guiding the recipient of his letters, he points out the mistakes of the Roman Catholic Church. He analyzes various phenomena such as the stigmata of the crucifixion, the dogmatic differences, its organization, which has been secularized from the institutional point of view, the alteration of dogma and the spiritual life, of repentance and confession. He writes, In Roman Catholicism, however, in comparison with Orthodoxy, there are many basic errors, as much from the dogmatic point of view as from the point of view of the spiritual life. He regards it as very significant that noetic activity in the prayer of the Orthodox ascetics is spurned and despised. In particular, the error of Roman Catholicism is that some Holy Fathers who were most eminent in this noetic activity are regarded by it as especially malicious heretics, uh, such as, for example, St. Gregory Palamas. All the same, he does not think it is good to undertake this anti-heretical activity and he writes that it is more perfect to pray to God with a pure noose. This shows how a Hezekist father works. 
As an empirical Orthodox theologian, he cannot accept the limitation of the Orthodox Church and the theory of ecumenism, which he regards as one of the most dangerous heresies. The attempt by some people to create a worldwide apostolic church is a deluded effort. In the same way, those who try to live some sort of exalted mysticism, which transcends the limits of the ecclesiastical perception of the Christian religion, are also deluded. He advises Balfour, I pray to God that you may not be deluded by all these things, but that you may believe unshakably with your heart and noose that there exists on earth that one unique and true church that the Lord founded. This church, and not its individual members, preserves intact and complete the teaching of Christ. It possesses the fullness of knowledge and grace and is unerring. He goes on to set out his confession, which is an expression of experience and life. I, self-emptying love after the rift and the fall. Until Balfour settled without a blessing in Athens, the letters that he sent to Father Sophroni are not preserved or published. All the same, the views which were contained in his letters are to be found in Father Sophroni's replies, so we are able to form an idea of his spirit. From the time when he settled in Athens, however, and after he left the priesthood, his letters are published and we are able to see his way of thinking, but also the way in which Father Sophroni answered him. Starting from the fourth part of the book, entitled The Rift, by reading the letters of Balfour and Father Sophroni in turn, it is possible to make some important findings and observations. The first is that Balfour, throughout his life, even after his break with the church, was gripped by the remembrance of death. He was seeking noetic prayer and inner calm, but he was clearly at a low level as a Christian. He approached the margins of the inner spiritual life just as the Hebrews remained at the foot of Mount Sinai. Father Sophroni, however, was at the height of divine vision. He saw the uncreated light, like the prophet Moses. Sometimes he experienced a lessening of divine grace when he referred to this as God-forsakenness. But even then he had noetic prayer within him. It was to be expected that Balfour would be unable to understand Father Sophroni or to comprehend the spiritual event of God-forsakenness, which is not human hopelessness and despair, but a particular stage of the spiritual life. The second point that can be ascertained is that Balfour, when he settled in Greece, was set at ease by meeting well-bred clergy and laity who were involved in various activities and missionary work, who were conspicuous for their discipline and resembled, as he said, the Western orders of the Jesuits and Trappists. He compared this life with the average state of the monks whom he encountered on the Holy Mountain, and he regarded the former as superior. Father Sophroni replies with politeness, discretion, humility, and self-accusation. He rebukes his correspondent very tactfully, without Balfour grasping sufficiently this pastoral guidance from Father Sophroni, as they are at different levels of the spiritual life. The third observation is that Balfour lived the tragedy of the Second World War and its consequences while he was in Athens, and when he left there and abandoned the priesthood and monasticism. Father Sophroni, however, lived the horror of the war in dread Kurulia, when, madly, shamelessly, and boldly, he besought God to give peace to the world. He lived the deprivations of war 
as he struggled for a piece of black bread. But his soul also lived through profound desolation, inner peace, and the sweetness of the light, the kingdom of God. The fourth point is that Balford passed three years in complete atheism after his fall, but the remembrance of death did not leave him and worldly life did not satisfy him. He felt that he had become a heavy burden for Father Sophroni, so he wrote to him, quote, I was an almost unbearable burden for you, and now you have been freed from it. Do not torment yourself over me, end of quote. In this tragic phase of Balfour's life, Father Sophroni attacks him with love and affection. Instead of rebuking him, as he did previously, he consoles him. Most important of all, he invites him to join him so that they may live happily together. He wrote to him, Perhaps we shall be given the opportunity, even if only briefly, to live together. I always wanted that, now more than ever. I mention this so that you may bear it in mind, if ever you feel called to that. In another letter he wrote that he would never change his attitude towards him, whatever happened. This spiritual, ascetic, and hesychistic love of Father Sophronis kept Balfour in the Orthodox Church and brought him to repentance. The fifth point that can be ascertained is that after his fall, Balfour felt freedom from the bonds of priesthood and monasticism. And Father Sophroni, with unrivaled pastoral and spiritual skill, expounded to him his own method of acquiring freedom, which consists in withdrawing from everything and restricting himself. This is the ascetic and hesychistic dimension of the spiritual life. Thus he writes to him, I bind myself so much that I am not aware of the bonds imposed on me by the church and society. He describes how, within his this inner depth of the church, he acquires a close relationship with the apostles and fathers of the church who are his friends and kin, because outside the church the link with them weakens. The sixth observation is that Balfour, after his long struggle to find orthodoxy, accepts Father Sophroni's description of him and confesses that he is a beginner. Then the elder, in an act of hesychistic love, speaks to him self-accusingly about his inner spiritual paralysis, about being abandoned by God, about the reduction of divine grace and his senseless quarrel with God, which follows noetic theoria of the divinity of Christ. These are different states, but the elder speaks in this way in order to console him, to keep him in the Orthodox Church, and indeed he succeeded. For that reason, during those difficult years, he did not sign the letters with love in Christ, but with great love in Christ. And in the last letter that Father Sophroni sent him, he mentions that he has assured himself that God is love and that he longs with insatiable thirst for each of us, that he searches for us, that he does not change his love for us, however much we change towards him, that he always tries to overwhelm us with his benefits. He goes on to reassure him out of pastoral concern for his salvation that he prays to God to grant him the joy of human love, so that at the end of his life he may also reach that ultimate love, namely the eternal love of God. He writes, For this reason I beseech God to preserve you and to bestow upon you the fullness both of human and of divine love. J. Miraculous Intervention and Repentance 
It was impossible for such an elder who lived with noetic Hezekiah with self-emptying love towards everyone and in union and communion with God not to bring about spiritual changes in those for whom he prayed if of course they too responded to this invitation. Usually he would pray for the whole of humanity. In one of his letters he writes the amazing words which show that he made supplication for the whole world and was a universal priest. Quote, concern for all makes it difficult to minister to individuals and obliges us to some extent to distance ourselves from them. On one occasion, however, as he writes to Balfour, he prayed for a lady of their acquaintance who was suffering from cancer in the final stage and was condemned by the doctors to die. The elder was asked to pray, and he did so with joy in my spirit, he writes, but also with distress in my heart. He stayed by her hospital bed for more than two hours. They prayed together, talked, discussed, and he gave her holy communion of the most pure mysteries. The lady became completely well by the action of God through the elder's prayer. This, however, did not prompt either her or her husband to change through repentance, and their previous worldly life continued. However, as the elder writes, the miracle is not done so that they can stay the same as they were before it. When later on she fell ill again, as the elder writes, it was then incredibly hard for me to beseech God once again because my first hope had proved false. They had not changed. They had not been renewed. This made him certain that prayer for the sick, that they may be cured by a miracle, is only possible with the promise of repentance, that is to say, of a fundamental change in the whole of their life, so that the gloomy, the, the glory of God may find room within them, and their whole life from then on may continue on the level of divine glory. This is how a Hezekiah's spiritual father lives, behaves, exercises his pastoral ministry, and prays. K. General Impression As I read this book, I marked many phrases in pencil to the point that I almost underlined the whole book because every phrase in it has a great value and importance. There's nothing that can be left unheeded and without comment. The overall impression is that these letters were written by a great ascetic and hesychist who had reached exalted spiritual states and experiences and therefore proved to be a great empirical theologian and spiritual father. And it should be borne in mind that Father Sophroni, at the time when he was writing these letters, was in his 30s. He was a hero deacon and subsequently a hero monk with great spiritual experience. It is a book full of orthodox theology and orthodox experience. In it we see a great spiritual father, a starts, writing and directing. He has the same experiences as the Apostle Paul, St. Simeon the New Theologian, and St. Gregory Palamas. One of the phrases that I noted from Balfour's own confession, as it is set out in the introduction, made an impression on me and in some way reflects and describes the whole relationship between Father Sophroni and Balfour. It is Balfour's confession before his death. Quote, I, like a stupid donkey, thought I could run after two strong horses, star at Silouan and Father Sophroni. End of quote. This confession 
arouses admiration. One certainly admires and respects Balfour's self-accusation and humility, which represent the spirit of the repentance that he experienced in his last years, but one also admires the greatness of St. Siloan and Father Sophroni. I believe, however, that this confession could be written in a different way that might perhaps better reflect his spiritual state. Quote, I, a strong horse, thought I could follow two donkeys. I write this from the point of view that Balfour's stormy life may perhaps be connected with the fact that he thought that he was endowed with many capabilities, that he had intellectual gifts and knowledge of cerebral Western theology, that he had and sought social prominence. Yet he could not follow two humble monks who lived on the holy mountain with the spirit of the hesychistic tradition, although he loved the hesychistic life. That is why he compared the well-bred and educated people whom he met in Athens with the ascetics of the holy mountain, and naturally preferred the former. Thus, the sense of the wealth of his mind was what prevented him from humbling himself before the wise, experienced, and illuminated counsels of St. Siloan and Father Sophroni. Balfour was no ordinary man. He had exceptional intellectual qualities, as is clear from his writings, but also from the way in which Father Sophroni dealt with him. He was intellectual and sometimes actually too critical. According to Father Sophroni's comment, at one point the elder writes to Balfour, quote, It is difficult to guide even a simple, uneducated man who is easily convinced. How incomparably more difficult it is, however, to attempt to advise someone who is educated and whose intellect is highly developed. That is why it was sometimes necessary for Father Sophroni to write to him with his opinions on contemporary philosophical and theological trends that were current at that time in Europe, on the French philosopher Auguste Comte, on Schleimacher, and on Leo Tolstoy, on mystics, theophysists, theosophists, neoplatonists, Buddhists, and so on. In addition, Balfour was seeking high spiritual states. He was concerned about what the heart is, and he had even visited Father Theodosius the Hermit in Karulia to ask about that subject. For a time, his basic aim was to engage in true prayer. However, he made the mistake of approaching these aspects of the spiritual life in a scholastic way. He mused and speculated about them so much that Father Sophroni wrote to him, I fear that all these things happen through your mental conjectures rather than by the illumination of grace. Then, because Balfour was living in this fashion, Father Sophroni wrote somewhat reprovingly, it is not essential for divine grace to visit you, because even without it you are learning to understand the spiritual divine law. However, after the bitter experience that Balfour gained through his spiritual fall, but also through the repentance that he showed, he eventually reached the point of feeling differently about these things, namely that he was the stupid donkey and the elders were the strong horses. Thus he rejected the wealth of his mind. Father Sophroni also assisted in this. After Balfour's fall and his atheism, he did everything he could through his prayer and his love to bring him back to repentance in the path of the Orthodox tradition. Finally, this book vividly shows the difference between Orthodox Hezekiah and scholasticism. Orthodox Hezekiah is the crucifixion of the old man and the negative way 
to the positive encounter with God. Scholasticism, by contrast, is uncrucified life, as it is based on speculation and human reason, and sometimes on imagination and daydreams. From this perspective, the correspondence between Father Sophroni and Balfour can be seen as a dialogue comparable with that which took place in the 14th century between St. Gregory Palamas and Barlam. There are actually many similarities. It becomes apparent that Orthodox issues surface at every historical moment of ecclesiastical life with different nuances and intensity. Father Sophroni was a major ascetic, hesychistic, and theological figure, a great father of the church in our age, with orthodox theology and an orthodox way of practicing true theology. But Balfour, too, was a major figure with intellectual gifts, high aspirations and constant remembrance of death, and he was accounted worthy to meet holy men. To be sure, he was unable to follow these two high-flying spiritual eagles in the final ascent to the cross and the resurrection, but at least he lived with profound repentance at the end of his life. If Father Sophroni and St. Siloan were crucified with Christ, Balfour was crucified with the thief on Christ's right hand, who said, Lord, remember me, and sought the love of God. For that reason, we hope that he too found his salvation. He lived through a lot. He had his ups and downs. At one time he reached the point of atheism, but ultimately he did not leave the Orthodox Church. He was obedient to the elders toward the end of his life. He repented, and the sincerity of his repentance is clear from the fact that, although he felt that he was blamed for more than he had actually done, and he was slandered to excess, out of obedience to Father Sophroni he kept silent and chose not to defend himself. The entire correspondence shows that Balfour was accounted worthy of Father Sophroni's love both before and after his fall. In any case, the elder wrote to him in one of his letters, I promise you that I shall pray for you to the grave, and if the Lord should give me such grace, wretched that I am, then even after my death I shall pray for you, as the soul most dear and most akin to me. All these things reveal the great worth of someone who lives noetic Hezekiah, who knows how to guide others, to be crucified, to love, and to truly sacrifice himself. However, they also show the worth of true repentance, which is able to crucify man and save him. L. Testimony Professor Antonios Emilios Takeos of the Theological School of the Aristotelian University of Thessaloniki and corresponding member of the Academy of Athens after reading the above text, which was initially published in Ecclesiastical Intervention, the newspaper published by my holy metropolis, sent me an interesting letter dated 28th December 2004. In it he submits his testimony concerning David Demetrius Balfour and Father Sophroni. It is set out below to complete the picture of David Balfour. Quote, Your Eminence, with great interest, as always, I read the November issue of Intervention, which I regard as one of the most worthwhile and sober ecclesiastical periodicals. I, too, knew the two people to whom you refer, Father Sophroni of Saintly Life and D. Balfour. I had the good fortune to meet Father Sophroni in 1954 in a suburb of Paris, where he was living in an old tower. 
and I used to visit him to receive spiritual strength from godly converse with him, which I shall never forget. As for Balfour, who has been so defamed by the Greek left-wing press, and not only by them, I heard a lot about him in 1952 in the Belgian Benedictine Monastery of Cheftogne, where he had lived for a time. To be specific, he had lived as a monk in that monastery when it was still situated in Amé-sur-Mossou in Belgium at the end of the 1920s. David Balfour had studied in Rome and was a brilliant liturgist. He had an excellent knowledge of Russian. He had come to the monastery of Chev Togni because of a major effort was being made there at that time to understand the liturgical wealth of the Orthodox Church, without, of course, the aim of proselytizing. The result of this profound research into Orthodox liturgical life was that three extremely eminent Roman Catholic monks embraced Orthodoxy. Lev Gillet, David Balfour, and Alex van der Menbruchu. This event enraged the Vatican, and it not only severely rebuked the abbot of the monastery, Dom Lambert Bedouin, but also punished him. The sequel for Balfour is well known. He came to Athos, where he lived as a hermit ascetic, and subsequently he went to Athens. Given that he had a profoundly Western theological education, it is understandable that the asceticism of the Holy Mountain, however much it attracted him, was not a way of life that a Western cleric who had converted to Orthodoxy could easily follow. Perhaps, if he had lived the common life in a monastery, the subsequent course of his life would have been different. But again, the educational level of the Fathers of the Holy Mountain at that period must be borne in mind. With the exception of Father Sofroni and Father Gerasimus Menangia, who had lived in Switzerland, he was a chemist, it would be difficult for him to find anyone with whom to discuss theological issues. When Balfour came to Athos, he was still too immature to become a monk there. Apparently, his undiscerning enthusiasm led him there. As you see, he was unable to follow Father Sofroni's advice. Apart from that, we should also bear in mind how distant the Western world was from Greek Orthodoxy at that period. I met David Balfour two years before his decease, here in Thessaloniki. On account of his contacts with the eminent patrologist Professor Panayotis Christou of Blessed Memory, and his cooperation with the Patriarchal Institute for Patristic Studies, he came frequently to our city. We frequently ate lunch together, as I knew people and events from his past life. We embarked on very interesting discussions. Perhaps the fact that his predecessor in the post of consul in Smyrna was the former diplom diplomat Charles Gregg, my cousin's husband, contributed to this. I ascertained from our extended discussions that Balfour was a real theologian. He thought in a purely theological way and had profoundly spiritual criteria for life. He was a faithful child of the Orthodox Church in such a way as would be impossible for a hypocrite or someone who simply, coldly, and deliberately carries out a mission as a spy, which is how he was interpreted by people who are not in the least capable of understanding the ups and downs of a restless and troubled soul, or what sin 
and repentance are. Someone recruited as a spy would not need, in order to carry out his mission in Athens, to study theology in Rome for years, to become a Roman Catholic monk, subsequently to become an Orthodox monk and priest, and to live among the rocky precipices of the Holy Mountain, at a time when in the salons of Kolonanaki and at a diplomatic receptions in Athens, information of interest to the relevant British ministry was circulating in abundance. The period, 1941 to 1945, was an extremely troubled one for Balfour. He abandoned the priesthood and joined the British army. However, his subsequent transfer to the diplomatic corps of Great Britain opened the way for him to a new form of isolation and reflection. His term as consul general in Smyrna was a period of profound reflection and return, not only to theological literature, but also to cons consistent observance of the principles of orthodox spiritual life. Having gained courage to venture into more personal aspects of his life, I dared to allure, allude to the things of which the Greek press accused him. He answered me boldly, why would I need to spy on King George II and guide him at a time when he was living with an English mistress? In conclusion, I wish to note that I do not wish by what I have written to justify what Balfour did, but simply to say that just as any of us could or does sin, so he too, as a weak human being, sinned at one time, but he repented sincerely and confessed his sin, and it is this repentance that is so significant and remains a lesson for others. We human beings have no excuse for being more severe than the Lord who received him. Signed, Antonios Emilios Takeos. End of quote. Metropolitan, he wrote this, continues. The information provided by Professor Antonios Emilios Takeos is interesting. Obviously, the epistolatory dialogue between Father Sophroni and Balfour is of particular significance from every angle. Above all, we should note here how pastoral guidance is carried out through Orthodox experience in Hezekiah. Such a ministry is sacrificial and brings salvation. It does not offer an ideology or speculations, but life that saves through humility and love. We shall now look at this. Part 1, Spiritual Autobiography Continued, Chapter 3, Struggle to Know God, Part 3 of that, Autobiographical Elements. In the second chapter, we saw the elements of Father Sophroni's spiritual autobiography that are contained in his book entitled, We Shall See Him as He Is. The elder analyzes various issues concerning the spiritual life and, in order to avoid a theoretical analysis, inserts truly amazing and noteworthy incidents from his life. Such spiritual autobiographical elements can also be found in the book Struggle to Know God, which publishes the letters exchanged between Father Sophroni and David Balfour. We looked earlier at Balfour's personality and his communication with Father Sophroni. This correspondence was briefly analyzed and its central points were stressed. Here some elements relevant to the elder's spiritual autobiography will be noted. Father Sofroni's correspondence extends from 1932 until 1948, 
and there are two of his letters from later years, namely 1962 and 1970. This is significant because bearing in mind that Father Sofroni settled on the Holy Mountain in 1925, one realizes that his first letter to Balfour was sent just seven years after he entered the monastery of St. Pantolemon on the Holy Mountain. In fact, at the time of this correspondence, Father Sofroni was having momentous experiences of beholding God. He had experienced hell, war with the demons, and divine visions. This was also the period when the elder met St. Silouan, who passed away in 1938. What is more, during the decade following the death of St. Silouan, Father Sofroni lived as an ascetic, initially in Kurulia, and subsequently in the cave of the Holy Trinity near the monastery of St. Paul on the Holy Mountain. It should also be borne in mind that it is one thing to write down one's spiritual experiences years afterwards, and something else entirely to record them at the time when one is living them, especially in letters intended to support the recipient in his spiritual struggle. In fact, everyone expresses himself more freely in his letters, particularly when he knows that they are personal, and all being well will never be made public, and that their purpose is to sustain the recipient spiritually. At that time, Balfour was engaged in his own struggle to accept the Orthodox faith and was going through various vacillations and uncertainties. Father Sofroni felt the need, and St. Silouan encouraged him to support Balfour, and for that reason he recorded his own experiences. Later, when Balfour abandoned the priesthood, the elder strengthened him through his letters so that he would not also forsake his faith in Christ. This introduction is essential to give the reader a better understanding of the personal experiences that Father Sofroni records in his letters to Father David Demetrios Balfour. What we shall see will confirm what the elder wrote in later years, and which we examined in the second chapter. We shall also see that these experiences are vividly described, because he wrote them down while he was experiencing them during the spiritual battle. These letters are like th those that soldiers send their families when there is a pause in the war. They are very important letters from the point of view of their genuineness, authenticity, and descriptive truth. We shall look at some passages from this correspondence that show the whole struggle that Father Sofroni waged to know God, but also his great love for Balfour with the aim that he too would follow the same path and his faith would not be shaken. A. Reason for the Letters St. Siloan urged Balfour to write to Father Sofroni, and in this way a powerful bond developed between them. At that time, Father Sofroni was living immersed in tears, but also in the ocean of God's mercy, as God had already revealed himself to him as light, and he knew his love and charity towards mankind. However, no one else in the monastery except St. Siloan was aware of his spiritual state. Father Sofroni wrote letters to Balfour to give him strength, initially to become Orthodox, and later to become established in his new faith. This is why he was so open in his letters. He opened his heart like a book, so that the recipient of his letters could read it. These letters come from the heart. They burn with the fire and the light of divine grace. In any case, he was unaware that one day they might be published. In one letter, Father Sofroni writes, quote, 
However, your promise to keep all these things secret, and I trust your word completely, have led me in my foolishness to make the decision to be more open with you than with anyone else. I have done this in the hope that I might perhaps prove at least slightly useful on your journey to salvation and to Christ." End of quote. He acknowledges that the Holy Fathers have written about all matters concerning the spiritual life, and he feels that it is difficult for him to help Balfour by means of letters. In any case, he feels that he is completely inadequate or, to be more precise, illiterate in all these things. Out of humility, he finds it difficult to advise him, so he resorts to describing the experiences that he was going through at that time. Thus he revealed the knowledge of God that he had acquired by divine grace in order to help him. In one of his letters, he mentions his hesitation about writing down his spiritual experiences because there are many spiritual dangers in such situations. He writes, we should not tell others anything at all about ourselves before our soul has been completely established in humility. Otherwise, our heart becomes unsuitable ground, if not altogether unfit, unfitted for asceticism on account of pride and self-esteem. Elsewhere, he expresses his acute uncertainty even after writing his letter. Two thoughts preoccupy him. The first is that he should not send it. The second is that he cannot destroy it. He leaves it to God and asks forgiveness from the recipient. Clearly, his profoundest aim, as we have mentioned already above, is to give spiritual assistance to Balfour, who wanted to become Orthodox, and then to, to become established in the Orthodox Church. With this aim in mind, he writes with assurance and confidence, quote, I am telling you these things about which I am certain because I have lived through them myself. However, I want to stop referring to my insignificant experience. I know that you do not condemn me for this, but all the same, it is immodest for someone to talk about himself. Balfour had the special privilege of being the only one, apart from St. Silouan, of course, who was aware of Father Sophroni's spiritual states as the elder did not speak to anyone else about what he was going through at that time. He writes in the original draft of one of his letters, No one on earth knows more about me than you. For this reason, do not treat my love ungratefully. The elder's humility and truthfulness are clearly expressed in a passage from a letter in which, among other things, he recommends Balfour, if he wishes, to check this gift of God that he has found worthy of experiencing, and which he wants to keep far from the gaze of others by describing it to other experienced spiritual people without revealing his identity. In other words, he subjects himself to spiritual testing. This shows the authenticity of his experiences. B. The Orthodox Church The elder, as mentioned above, sought God for a time outside the church in Eastern mysticism. However, as soon as he came to know the hypostatic God of the Orthodox Church in the Holy Spirit, for the whole of the rest of his life he confessed that the Church is the realm where man encounters the true God. He regarded the Church as the realm of divine knowledge. The knowledge of God acquired by the Elder was distinctly ecclesiological in content. For this reason, in this section, I shall present the Elder's ecclesiology. In one of his letters he writes, I believe in Christ, 
I believe Christ. I am bound by Christ's love. I trust only in Christ, whom I came to know in the church. At some point, my search for true being led me to Athos. Now I desire with all the powers of my soul to be like Christ, even if only in the very least degree, because authentic, eternal, divine life exists for me in him. I have stopped searching. When Father Sofroni prayed, he was not seeking some incomprehensible, invisible, impersonal, eternal being, some unknown God, but the God who exists in the church and who attracted his soul and his whole being. He writes, quote, Christ, whom the church gave me, I do not despise any means that helps to bring about my union with Christ. But is it, I wonder, possible for us to find somewhere outside the church with a greater abundance of such means? In the church, I have the incarnate God in such a way that we eat and drink God. We breathe his word. Through his name, his word, and his power, we celebrate the mysteries. And these mysteries are not just simple symbols, but true reality. All experience bears witness to this in such an obvious way. End of quote. He cannot conceive of his life far from the true God, whom he came to know in the church, which is the body of Christ. He regards the Orthodox Church as a rich spiritual treasure, and he cannot lose everything positive that the church gives, such as the mysteries and the theology of the Holy Fathers. He regards the fathers who live in the church as his kinsmen, and he cannot be cut off from them. In a striking passage, he writes, quote, It is impossible for Christianity not to be ecclesiastical. If we look carefully at the church as the body of Christ, or as a historical phenomenon, as a community of Christians, so what does the church give me? The mysteries, baptism, confession, holy communion, the priesthood, and so on. Through the church, always according to the measure of my possibilities, I become an heir of the most magnificent tradition that exists in the history of mankind. By means of the church and within the church, I live continuously in the liveliest relationship with John the Theologian and Paul and the Apostles, with Athanasius, Basil, and the other fathers, with Anthony and Sisios, with Macarius and Isaac, with Maximus and Simeon the New Theologian, with Gregory Palamas, with Seraphim of Serov. These are my friends, my kin. I received them, however, within the ecclesiastical order. Outside the church, the link with them weakens. Although to a lesser extent, I live the same life as them. By means of the church, I form in my consciousness the image of Christ, who was crucified for our sins out of infinite love. And this image, humbly but intensely, draws my soul. All these things give me strength to endure many senseless and distorted things that I encounter in the ecclesiastical environment. End of quote. The one unique church possesses the truth and fullness of God's grace. Returning to Elder Sophroni's writings, quote, The church's teaching which received its final form from the ecumenical councils, may not be changed in any way. All later scholarly work must necessarily agree with what was given through divine revelation and formulated in the teachings of the ecumenical councils of the church. The same applies to grace. 
Only the one unique church can possess the fullness of grace. End of quote. In accordance with Father Sofroni's testimony, the church is not something in the past, as even today there are fathers who have the same experience as the early fathers. In any case, as we shall see below, he too reached the height of Pentecost and acquired the same experience as the apostles and fathers. He is therefore ready to confess that even in our day there are people who are equal to the great saints of the church in ancient times. His knowledge of the church's power does not come from books and writings, but from his own experience, from the appearance of divine grace to him during the vision of God, from prayer and the divine liturgy. We shall look at what he writes about the manifestation of God and fiery prayer a little later. Here we shall point out how he lived the divine liturgy. Father Sofroni had a living relationship with God in the divine liturgy. He writes, I should consider it a great joy and mercy from God to serve you during the celebration of the liturgy, especially at the moment when the deacon proclaims, Bless, Master, the holy bread, and the priest says, And make this bread the precious body of thy Christ. At this moment, fiery grace descends and touches the heart, and sometimes it embraces the whole man with great power. End of quote. Father Sofroni's ecclesiology is absolutely clear and was defined by his revelational experiences. In one of his confessions of faith, he makes clear his conviction that Christianity is inconceivable without dogma, outside the church or without asceticism. He is extremely revealing in one of his letters. Quote, There are three things that I cannot understand. One, faith without dogma. Two, Christianity outside the church. And three, Christianity without asceticism. These three, church, dogma, and ascetic practice, Christian asceticism, constitute for me a single way of life. End of quote. It will become evident from what will be set out below that this clearly stated faith of his is the outcome of his experience of divine vision. This is a very important point. His ecclesiology is empirical. The way in which he guides Balfour concerning the relationship that he ought to have with the, his bishop is also particularly impressive and shows his discretion, but above all, his respect for the charisma of the episcopate. His ecclesiastical mentality is very obvious here. He writes, quote, If his eminence the Metropolitan puts you in charge, do not resist. The most that is permitted in such a case is for you to say more or less the following. Holy Master, your blessing and your will are God's blessing and will for me, and I do not care, I do not dare, excuse me, at all to resist. However, being fully aware of my weakness and inexperience, I must tell you in advance that the task of obedience that you wish to entrust to me is beyond my powers." In other circumstances, when they give you a task that is within the limits of your capabilities, bow low and say, your blessing. That is all. Do not say, I am not worthy or anything else. Do not refuse, even if it is not to your liking. And do not rejoice too much if it pleases you. See Theophany and Divine Grace. 
According to the revelational teaching of the Church, God is essence and energy. Whereas man cannot share in God's essence, he can share in his energy. God's energy, as St. Gregory Palamas teaches, is existence bestowing, life-giving, wisdom imparting, and deifying. The whole of creation partakes to varying degrees in God's energy, but only the saints and the angels also share in His deifying energy. The energy of God is also called the grace of God, as it is graciously bestowed upon us by Him. It is not our own work. God brings about deification, whereas man undergoes deification. And since the grace of God is divine, this energy of grace is also referred to as uncreated, because it was not made. It has existed since before all ages together with God. Someone who is on his way to deification participates in the purifying, illuminating, and deifying energy of God and is referred to as being deified. In his letters to Balfour, Father Sophroni also refers to the theological subject of divine grace, as at that time, more than previously, he was bathed in its energies. Divine grace is a gift of God. It is not our own achievement and work. It is the saving energy of God which comes to man when he least expects. Someone in this state understands that he is sharing in a gift that is not of his own. It is not something on the human level, but comes from elsewhere and is divine. The elder writes, Experience shows that grace comes to us more when we are not expecting it, when we regard ourselves as unworthy of it, and even unworthy of salvation. And this, however, partly holds true. Elsewhere, he describes in a very analytical and revealing way how the grace of God comes to the soul that has suffered a lot and comforts and strengthens it. He also describes from personal experience how, after someone has spent a long time in darkness, in a fallen state, his will, freedom, and passions resist divine grace. All the same, grace patiently carries out its task, respecting man's freedom. Ultimately, it is divine grace that leads man to repentance and corrects the results of the deviations of his free will, although man too collaborates in his salvation. There is a characteristic passage in this analysis that is significant. Quote, Nevertheless, by an extreme effort of will, I would return to my room, and then I was about to drop from exhaustion on account of the melancholy and despondency that overwhelmed me, ready to tear at the ground with my fingernails. From the pain in my heart, I was ready to weep, and in fact I wept. Only prayer saved me and restored peace to my heart. Thus I felt peace such as I have never previously imagined to exist, such as had never previously come to my heart. In cases like this, the elder says that the prayer became like fire. He was very experienced in visitations of divine grace. Not from studying, but from his own personal experience, he was familiar with its various energies, in every human being analogous with his psychological makeup and his temperament. In some people it expresses itself impetuously, whereas in others in a very subtle and gentle way. In certain people, grace gradually increases from smaller to greater degrees, 
whereas in others it appears initially with great power and subsequently it abandons them in some way. There are many changes and fluctuations of divine grace within man, and he is aware of his state spiritually. He knows when the grace of God is working within him and when it abandons him in accordance with God's economy. Of course, someone in this state can distinguish the energies of God's uncreated grace from the natural gifts that he has, because these so-called natural gifts are always with him, even if temporary, they're, temporarily they're inactive, but divine grace comes and goes. The one who has received this gift is clearly aware of this fact. Father Sophroni writes, We ought to know when we are with God and when we are far from him. We need to know what we should do every day in order to remain in God and how we should draw near to him. The elder was not only familiar with the advent and the withdrawal of divine grace in his own inner world, but he also sought acting in other people. This was not the outcome of his natural capabilities nor the result of psychological knowledge, but the fruit of empirical experience of divine grace. It is absolutely clear in his letters to Balfour that he is able to discern between created and uncreated energies, between diabolical action and divine grace. This is what is meant by the spiritual gift of theology. Such discernment is a sign of divine vision and empirical knowledge. It makes someone capable of exercising an orthodox pastoral ministry because in this manner he can discern when the devil is acting and when it is God, when a thought comes from the devil and when it comes from God, and so he cures people. The elder saw this in Balfour and wrote about it in a letter. Although it is obvious that Father Sophroni had the spiritual gift of discerning the coming of divine grace and its departure, he nevertheless avoids observing this and also guides the recipient of his letters to avoid such observations. He advises him rather to regard himself as unworthy of grace. The elder not only has personal awareness of the advent and the withdrawal of divine grace, but he knows from experience the intensity with which divine grace visits someone. In the beginning, divine grace acts less intensely, almost imperceptibly and gently, although someone feels at that time that he has received great grace because his noose was darkened until then. Subsequently, however, grace acts more intensely and leads him to ecstasy, rapture, and theoria of God. For that reason, in a letter referring to the various states of his inner life, he writes, Sometimes love for God cuts me off from the world. I want to forget the world and noetic theoria of the divinity of Christ. In a letter to Balfour written at Easter Tide in 1935, ten years after his arrival on Manathos, he speaks of the foreshadowing of the eternal Pascha that he was celebrating at that period, but also of the dawn of the day without evening, eternity, that he was experiencing. He remarks disarmingly, Quote, I know someone in Paris who, from Holy Saturday until the third day of Easter, for three days was in a state of theoria, an event that in terms of our earthly existence he could only express by saying that he had seen the dawn of the day without evening. Dawn because the light was strangely tender, subtle, gentle, and slightly blue. The day without evening is eternity. 
This is his own experience that he had in Paris before going to the Holy Mountain, as we saw in chapter 2. And as he described in his book, We Shall See Him As He Is. It is surprising that he puts it down in writing for the first time for Balfour, a few years after the experience, in his personal correspondence with him, but subsequently he keeps it secret within his heart until he wrote it down and published it 50 years later, toward the end of his life. One wonders how he could bear to keep such a gift secret and how he avoided referring to it even to those closest to him. This is a sign of authenticity. In another letter that he wrote to Balfour three years previously in December 1932, he is very explicit and revealing. In order to help Balfour and to establish him in his new spiritual life, he refers to his own experiences of divine vision. In this letter he mentions amazing grace, and it is clear here that he is speaking about Theoria of God and the vision of the uncreated light. He begins by referring to two Theophanies while he was in Paris. Quote, I remember that in Paris amazing grace visited me twice. At the time he understood nothing, until later on he read the hymns of St. Simeon the New Theologian. However, as he suspected that it was the uncreated light, God's grace did not visit him again. He then refers to an experience of divine vision that he had on the holy mountain, which was law, later lost due to his attempt to analyze it rationally in order to reply to Father Juvenali. Among other things, the elder writes, quote, I should add that this theoria is so pleasing to the noose and the soul that when after praying the soul remembers the need to return again to this world and to face the light of the material sun, it accepts this necessity with sorrow. It would like to remain unceasingly in theoria of the noetic immaterial light. The soul enters this theoria so gently that initially, this is what happened in my case, I did not understand what had happened. When, however, my left hand saw what the right hand of God was doing with me, the vision ceased. I lived through many such occurrences. Through the vision of God, the elder acquired empirical knowledge of God, not knowledge about God that is gained by reading books, but existential knowledge of God. According to the teaching of the Holy Fathers, the vision of God is man's deification. Deification is man's union and communion with God, and this union gives knowledge of God that is superior to human knowledge. Such knowledge makes the one who sees God an unerring theologian within the church. The elder writes revealingly, My soul knew that God is love, love inexpressible, ineffable, indescribable, insatiable, boundless, completely pure, all-holy, incomprehensible in its perfection, most sweet, powerful, eternal. And what else can I say? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, neither spot nor blemish. Speaking about God as love, he writes that he is absolutely convinced of this. In a very characteristic passage of one of his letters, he writes, for some time now I have, have become certain that God is love and that he longs with insatiable thirst for each of us, that he searches for us, that his love for us does not change however much we change towards him, 
that he always tries to overwhelm us with his benefits. This knowledge of God opened up his spirit's horizon so much that he was led to conclude how tragic it is for someone not to know the true God. He is less concerned about the other tragic events in human life than about the fact that people are ignorant of God. He writes, It seems to me that the most tragic thing about all this is not that people suffer a lot, but that they die without knowing God. This knowledge of God that comes through the vision of the divine light, the vision of the true God, is not theoretical, but transforms the whole of man's being and increases his desire for greater and continuous communion with him. In this state, man lives eternity with all the consequences. In one of his letters, he writes that someone who has acquired knowledge of God prays with insatiable weeping for his friends and his enemies and for the whole of creation. He even wishes to lose his soul for the salvation of others. Then the heart, wounded by God's love, sometimes hurts as much as if a burning sword had pierced it. This is a sweet pain that makes him forget the whole world. Because the elder tasted the divine life, his heart was on fire and he thirsted to live with the saints. He writes, I tell you truthfully that when my heart was aflame, I suffered from thirst to live there, where all the saints are all around, because the devout sense of divine fear becomes a, a torment to the soul at the sight of ungodly life. Look at what the Apostle says in Second Peter 2, 8. After the vision of Christ as true God and the acquisition of divine knowledge, the elder confesses that he is he no longer searched for God, but strove to resemble Christ and to be conformed to him whom he knew personally and spiritually. What a great theological truth this is! He did not seek some incomprehensible, invisible, impersonal, eternal being, some unknown God, but Christ, and he longed to be like him and to be assimilated by him. The elder, as a great empirical theologian, is very well aware of the dangers that arise from seeing the uncreated light. This also demonstrates the unerring theology that was characteristic of him. He is not, over, not overly enthusiastic about this great and amazing grace, nor is he naive, but he points out the risks, including delusion and self-esteem, which come from such a great gift. His un, unerring theology is clear from the fact that although God had accounted him worthy of such a great and rare gift is seeing the uncreated light, which is the kingdom of God, the food of angels, and communion with God. He is nevertheless plainly aware that man ought to pounce upon visions, theoria, and exalted states. Instead, he should descend with his noose to hell and live in deepest repentance and godly mourning, which cleanses the heart from passions and frees the noose from every kind of delusion and imagination. He should sense his own wretchedness and the fact that he is worthy of condemnation. As his whole life demonstrated, the elder kept silent about the gift that God had given him and considered this to be the most authentic way of dealing with this great charisma of seeing God in the uncreated light. He knows that this represents the highest degree of the spiritual life, and when it is proclaimed, it is unacceptable to those who live in their passions and make idols of them. As a result, they turn against the one who declares this truth. This explains why people turned against the prophets and the apostles, who usually ended their lives as martyrs. 
From what he writes, it is clear that he too is numbered among the God-seers, the prophets and the apostles. The elder writes about these experiences of divine vision to Balfour because he has faith in his spiritual courage, but also in order to humble himself. D. God-forsakenness. Continuous communion with God is not easy. Christ said, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew twenty-six forty-one. During man's life, he receives visitations of divine grace, but he also experiences times when it is withdrawn, periods of God-forsakenness. And to some extent, he lives Christ's cry on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. To be sure, God the Father did not abandon Christ when he was on the cross. But through these words, Christ was representing and expressing our own abandonment by God. St. Gregory the Theologian writes, He is not forsaken either by the Father or by his own Godhead. No, in himself, as I have said, he expresses our condition. We had once been the forsaken and disregarded. Then we were accepted and now are saved by the suffering of him who could not suffer. Father Sophroni was granted the great experience of the uncreated light, but at the same time, as is natural in the human condition, he also experienced the pain of the withdrawal of divine grace and God-forsakenness. In his writings, we find many passages in which he expresses his suffering on account of this spiritual state. When someone knows God in the Spirit and he fills his whole being, subsequently he feels, on the one hand, pain at his apparent absence, and on the other, insatiable thirst to have the experience once again. The elder writes, quote, Times of despair used to alternate with times when the sense of divine love would overwhelm me. The alteration of waves of darkness and waves of light is, as you know, the lot of the monk. Sometimes the soul painfully searches for God, and at other times it is drawn by Christ with a powerful and sweet feeling. It loves Christ. It senses him within it, whereas afterwards this light departs again and it remains alone. With sincerity and simplicity, he describes this dread experience of God-forsakenness, which would lead him to the point of madness, and he would become like Job in the Old Testament. Quote, he himself is not in need of anything. If it is his good pleasure, he can come to us. I call upon him earnestly, sometimes weeping, sometimes sighing over the darkness and poverty of my life, sometimes with prayer, sometimes in silence, sometimes with cries, but he does not hear me, and I have grown weary. A terrible change has come about in me. The light divine grace have departed from me. I have suffered irreparable damage, and therein lies the inexhaustible source of my torments, which have increased yet more and have surpassed my strength. Both my soul and my body are sick. From great affliction, like Job, I sometimes reach the point of losing my mind. Please pray for me. Quote. The same happened in his life as in the lives of the great fathers of the church, who were accounted worthy of this experience after seeing the uncreated light. It is clear from his letters that he links the abandonment by God that he experienced with similar states experienced by St. Seraphim of Serov, 
and those living in the prison described in the latter of St. John Climacus. This state creates a sort of spiritual paralysis and makes it possible for the ascetic to live the tragedy of humankind when man found himself or finds himself outside the paradise that he knew in the person of Adam. He goes on to link this state with living the cross of Christ when Christ was crucified on Golgotha for all Adam. He writes, Sometimes love for God cuts me off from the world. I want to forget the world in noetic theoria of the divinity of Christ. At other times, love for man, sharing in his suffering, pushes me into a senseless quarrel with God. Christ, crucified for love of the world and for the sins of the world, is my ultimate love, the last ascent of my noose, the greatest daring of my heart, the only true God. The elders struggle with God before God's revelation to him has already been mentioned in chapter 2. In a way that defies human reason, the struggle with God also continues in a somewhat different form during the period of abandonment by divine grace. He refers to this contest in one of his letters. Quote, From time to time the struggle takes the form within me of a struggle with God himself, in spite of my consciousness of my utter insignificance. Sometimes I pray with calm lamentation, but often, like one demented, I struggle, insist, demand, quarrel, and almost become blasphemous. Notwithstanding the battle with God that characterizes my life, I love God to the last depths of my being, and I leave the final judgment to Him, because He has boundless possibilities beyond the limits of this world. A fierce struggle has taken place in my soul thousands of times, but the love of Christ has always been victorious. There is a significant phrase that one finds in his letters, which shows how he felt about himself when, when in the state of abandonment by divine grace. He writes, Wretch that I am, I have now lost everything, and I live like an irrational beast. E. Spiritual Struggle Only man's journey toward God fulfills the purpose of his existence. It leads him from being in God's image to being in his likeness, and it presupposes a great struggle, mainly against his own self, which has become distorted due to his departure from God. A major effort is required for someone to transform his inner powers and to acquire communion with God. Father Sofroni knows clearly from his experience that the way that we are following is a difficult one, but at the same time it is blessed and brings joy. He knows that the way that leads to salvation is narrow and difficult, and one must not grow slack or treat one's salvation lightly. He has taken the matter of his salvation seriously and is determined to attain it, however many sacrifices this entails. He goes on to refer to the cross of Christ, which he ought to preach and to live. Using an example from the First World War, when soldiers were ordered to advance because if they retreated they would be shot, he says that the same should happen to us, as from every point of view our salvation lies only ahead. His letters clearly show not only his disposition to walk the way of salvation, but also 
that he knows this way with absolute clarity. In one of his letters he refers concisely, but at the same time unambiguously, to the path that man must follow. When the grace of God leads him to the ineffable light, it reveals eternity to him and then abandons him to struggle. Then he sees the tragedy of the fall, especially within his heart, and he tries to conform the inner life of his heart to the laws that he knows. From that point onwards, the way of the cross begins. Of course, this journey is not undertaken in an uncontrolled fashion. There is a particular order that has to be observed, with some exceptions, because there are steps up to perfection, and there are beginners who are being guided toward the end. The elder proves to be an experienced guide in the spiritual life, even though when he wrote this letter, he was a monk and did not exercise the ministry of spiritual fatherhood. However, things are not always easy. The elder often refers to difficulties in the course of this journey, as well as mentioning the tiredness that he felt traveling along this path. In one letter he writes, I am really exhausted. In another letter he refers to his weariness due to various sorts of asceticism and writes, This month from excessive tiredness I reached the point of exhaustion and suffered a lot on that account. Balfour seeing all the effort made by Father Sophroni, asks him to rest. The elder, however, replies, You suggest to me that I relax a little, but I am afraid of surrendering myself to this sort of relaxation. Rather, he advises Balfour to struggle too. In one of his letters, he also mentions that Balfour should have a hard mattress, which shows that he himself practiced asceticism in this respect. He regards having a spiritual father and making one's confession to him as an important aspect of the ascetic life. In one of his letters, he refers to his own case in order to teach Balfour how he ought to confess. He writes, quote, The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit. I remember what happened to me when the, for the first time I went to confession with real contrition for my sins. The entire life that I had lived rose up before me as wrongdoing from start to finish. When I met the priest, I could not speak at all out of grief, tears, heartfelt pain. I just wept. And believe me, even before I began to speak about my sins, the Lord himself came out to meet me and fell on my neck and kissed me. And I was dear to him, without him waiting for the moment when I would say, forgive me. End of quote. And he writes with simplicity, I trust you, and out of love I cannot hide from you what I hide from others. Elsewhere, in order to help Balfour, the elder, referring to an attack he suffered from demons, speaks about the confession that he made to his spiritual father. He writes, quote, The same happens to me. I go to the spiritual father to say that the demons are troubling me at night and tormenting me. The spiritual father tells me, Never mind. Be patient. It will pass. The Lord allows this to happen to you on account of your pride, your criticism of someone, or your dislike of him. I believe him, and I go away. After a while, when I am worn out once again, I tell him that not only is the situation not improving, but the demons are bothering me even more. The answer? Never mind. Be patient. Surrender yourself to God's will. 
humble yourself and you will stop being tormented. Not to worry, from now on this will stop, go in peace. Sometimes he reads the prayer of absolution or gives some other guidance. After that, two or three days might pass more quietly, and afterwards the same torments again. And this situation continues for years. End of quote. He goes on to affirm that through faith in our spiritual father and patience, we gain courage. He ascribes great significance to mourning in the struggle against demons. The presence of a spiritual guide is very important. In the person of St. Siloan, Father Sophroni found the suitable guide to direct him in the unusual experiences that he was having. He submitted himself to him to the point of complete self-denial. He buried himself in the ground and humbled himself perhaps to the point of absurdity. He guides Belfer on the basis of his own experience. He gives him advice. On the one hand, he writes that many of these who have lived in the monastery 40 years and more have not even found themselves a spiritual friend or father. The charisma of eldership is rare in our days. On the other hand, he sets out how he ought to behave to the spiritual father whom he will meet in the future. He should have faith, subject himself to him, and behave with devotion, love, simplicity, avoiding every type of exuberance. He should be simple, easily convinced, obedient, and not inquisitive. He also describes how we ought to respond to the spiritual father's words which shows how he himself responded to St. Siloan. Throughout his life, Father Sophroni had God's commandments before his eyes. They represent the will of God, and he tried to keep them, because through Christ's commandments, he would gain his salvation. Often the will of God leads to Golgotha. It is doubtful whether anyone who has realized this, anyone who has trodden this path himself, would dare to be obstinate and overbearing. The elder was a great ascetic. He strove selflessly to practice Christ's commandments in order to share in the grace of the Holy Spirit. He was not looking for rewards. Another important element of the spiritual struggle is prayer. As we see in many instances, the elder had a profound knowledge of prayer, particularly of the prayer of the noose in the heart. Pure prayer prepares man for the vision of God. When Balfour wrote to him about prayer, Father Sophroni, as a teacher of this prayer, replied, When we, he and St. Siloan, carefully read everything you write about prayer, we noticed that you do not yet know what noetic prayer is. As Balfour seemed to be linking reflective contemplation and prayer, the elder guides him discreetly. Quote, when you walk in the forest and reflect, restrain yourself from daydreaming. It would be good then if you were to say the Jesus prayer with your lips and to think of God. It is beneficial then and in other situations to train your soul by keeping watch over it. End of quote. As Balfour referred again in one of his letters to the prayer practiced by the Latins, Father Sophroni in an undated and unnumbered excerpt writes, quote, the Roman Catholics give the name noetic prayer to the act of turning mentally to God without pronouncing words, as well as to meditations on God and divine things. We, on the other hand, understand the term noetic prayer to mean 
that the noose stands in the heart before God. This may be accomplished by a sense of gratitude, praise or fear, supplication or repentance. The noose abandons all reflections and thoughts when it stands attentively in the heart and observes its state and what is happening in it. At the same time, it sees the enemy drawing near, and with a sharp knife, or as though with a flame, it wards him off with the name of the Lord Jesus. End of quote. Thus, pure noetic prayer is the indivisible union of the noose with the heart in the Holy Spirit. Someone who truly prays concentrates his noose in his heart. The elder is also very revealing on this point when he writes, Quote, standing with our noose in our heart means concentrating our noose in that place, the physical location where our heart is, the heart of flesh that beats in our chest. At that time, we must not concoct any type of image, and we do not even need to imagine the heart itself. We should just stand naked of every alien thought with our noose, Think purely without form or shape of God and call upon the divine name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. You will see what happens while you are doing this, and then you will be able to talk about it. That is one thing. It is completely different from surrendering oneself to daydreaming. We really must avoid doing that. It also seems to me superfluous for you to search for metaphysical concepts of the heart. It is obvious from this excerpt that Father Sophroni was very familiar with the Hezekist method and noetic prayer. Also, he teaches that the union of the noose and the heart comes about through the grace of God and not by means of psychosomatic methods, which may be helpful, but are unable to achieve this aim. In one of his letters, he mentions how the charisma of the mindfulness of death teaches and guides man in pure prayer. Sincerely and simply, he writes that the energy of the grace of the remembrance of death within him lasted for ten years and gradually intensified, and he reached the point of almost total exhaustion. In this state, everything changes, even time. He acquired dispassion and love for the whole world. Subsequently, he writes, quote, Mindfulness of death teaches true prayer. When I lay down to sleep after Devastating weeping and exhaustive prayer, the words would issue from my mouth like a flame. And when I fell asleep, I remember my soul would remain in prayer on its own all night, although my body was lying in bed. From the energy of the remembrance of death, my soul could not stop praying. End of quote. His letters show that he continued to pray with the hope in God, even when the love of God was absent from his heart even if he was crushed by weeping. This is a very interesting secret of the spiritual life. The elder was a great athlete of prayer, as is clear from one of his letters. Thus, with great labor, with grief, sometimes with bitter tears, I dared, wretch that I am, to entreat the goodness of God day and night. Noetic prayer, when exercised in accordance with all the spiritual prerequisites, unifies the whole human being very intensely. The elder describes this state vividly. Quote, when, despite my awareness of my extreme unworthiness, I pray to him, then, from the intensity of this prayer, my whole being is united, my soul, body, noose, heart, and all the members of my body, 
even my bones, everything within me, awestruck by the intensity, somehow contracts. My breathing alters. So powerfully and unrestrainedly does Christ draw the soul, the whole human being, to himself. End of quote. With amazing knowledge, the fruit of personal experience, the elder teaches that the activity of the brain is something other than the unceasing activity of the heart within, which God's grace acts through prayer. Through the faculty of the brain, we know about the world perceptible to the senses, but through the faculty of the heart, we acquire knowledge of the spiritual world. This sort of noetic prayer has many and varied consequences. The elder writes that through prayer, division is abolished and unity is achieved. Through noetic prayer, he could also perceive very clearly the state of the one for whom he was praying. Referring to Balfour's mother, he writes, In the beginning, when I prayed for her, my heart grieved. He mentions the same thing in another letter. As regards your mother, I pray very often for her. I do not know exactly what psychological struggle and afflictions she is going through, but I know from praying that she is really suffering. I want to pray for her. We see the same in addition in another letter. When I pray for your mother more than for your sister, my soul grieves while praying and I see no way out. All the same, it seems to me that the love of God is in her, but this love is weaker than the influence exercised upon her by this present age. He also felt grief for Balfour's sister when he prayed for her. In one letter he writes, Your sister is further away from us spiritually. I pray for her, however, only because she comes into my mind. Your brother who is in China is far away from us and not just in body. Father Sofroni sensed the state of the soul of the one for whom he was praying, just as he was also aware of the state of Balfour's soul. He declares, however, that he does not always want to trust this feeling. This is a sign of authenticity. In general, the elder greatly loved to pray for everyone who was in difficulties. He writes in one of his letters, How my soul loves to pray for every human being who is afflicted. His prayer embraced the whole world. In particular, this found expression during the Second World War, when he was living as an ascetic in the desert of the Holy Mountain. He writes, Madly, shamelessly, and boldly, sometimes with pain and almost, that almost brought me to the point of death, I too beseeched God to give peace to the world. As is well known, profound repentance and mourning are also linked with prayer. The sense of spiritual poverty and mourning are an expression of pure prayer. This repentance was very well developed in Father Sophroni, and he regards it as the distinguishing feature of Orthodox Christians. He writes, quote, Christians wash themselves in nothing but tears. Believe me, dear Father David, even though I am ignorant, there is only one way to theoria, addition without delusion, and the love of God, repentance. Repentance should be the beginning of the spiritual life. Its golden thread should run through our whole life until the grave, and if God wills, he will catch up the man to Theoria. This is purely the work of his judgment and good pleasure for the one who repents. 
Nowadays, people often talk about divine adoption, but there is very little said about the path that leads to it. This path is repentance. End of quote. These are not theoretical teachings, but Father Sophroni's own experiences, as is clear from one of his letters. He writes, I mix with people, and my face looks cheerful, but my soul sorrows greatly. I would like to cry, lying face down on the ground, and not to get up until the day of redemption or judgment, but weeping soon tires me out. Many times I have wept so much that my belly seemed to be burning and pouring out tears. He mentions the same in another of his letters. In spite of the gifts that God had given him, he did not spy on himself. He writes, It is by no means permissible for us to turn our attention to observing ourselves from outside with proud self-complacency. Instead, we must repent of these things before God. As we've seen elsewhere, Father Sophroni was in harmony with the life and teaching of Star Siloan and with the word of revelation that the latter had received, Keep your mind in hell and despair not, which is why he refers to the sense of hell. In other letter, he mentions, using the third person singular, that he knows someone, essentially it is a description of himself, who gazed into the abyss of hell. He was simultaneously both suspended over it and submerged in it, but the hand of God pulled him up from there. His soul experienced horror. This is a terrible image, which expresses a state of mourning that cures the passions and teaches true prayer. Quote, for his soul, time was like that fine thread by which it was bound and hung temporarily over the abyss, while all around it saw infinity and, yet more awful, hell, where the torments are without end. When the soul finds itself in such a calamity, it learns genuine prayer. F. Temptations Father Sophroni received exceptional revelations from God. He experienced hell, profoundest repentance, theoria of the uncreated light, and repeated visitations of divine grace. On account of the abundance of the revelations, it was natural that he would also have many temptations. His case recalls the words of the Apostle Paul who writes that, on account of the abundance of the revelations that he received, he was given a thorn in the flesh. He besought Christ three times about this, but received the reply, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 And St. Paul declared, For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12.10 In the book Struggle to Know God, we see some of the many temptations that he had, which we shall list. What is significant is the way in which he handled temptations. He faced them with powerful inspiration, spiritual courage to do God's will, and self-hatred. At one point in his book, he writes that he was going through tempests of temptations. On each occasion, however, he proceeded with trust in whichever direction, worn out by thirst for genuine being. God was merciful to him. And from this came a spirit of love for the salvation of his brethren. He writes characteristically, Up until now it seems to me that during prayer hot tears would flow not only from my eyes, but from my whole being. 
My whole body was filled with a strange longing to be nailed and crucified, in order that people might know the light of life in Christ. And I am not telling you everything. At the peak of his afflictions, he realized the value of the human soul, not through abstract philosophical speculations, but through the living and profound feeling of my heart. He confesses, sufferings yield so much fruit that if we were a little wiser, we would not want to come down from the cross. He mentions the experience of a hero monk. The Lord, nailed to the cross, appeared to a certain hero monk in his sleep and said, People do not come down from the cross. They take them down. The Lord repeated these words three times, then the vision faded. His bodily illnesses were continuous. It is surprising that such great grace and mourning could be experienced in so delicate and sensitive a body. He writes in one of his letters, Hundreds of times I was at death's door. I often went to the hospital. I would often fall down in my room with tears of pain, with no hope of ever recovering. In another letter, he also writes about his illnesses. I have actually become even more ill, and I no longer find strength for anything apart from celebrating the liturgy and carrying out my task of obedience. I spend the rest of the time in bed on account of exhaustion. I hope, however, by the mercy of God to get well again. Elsewhere, he writes, From the beginning of this year, during the night of the 6th and 7th of January, I have been seriously ill and I have not yet recovered. He says in another letter, I am writing to you for the second day running. My hand grows tired and I do not feel completely well. One letter ends with the following words, Your unworthy and least significant brother in Christ, Hero Deacon Sophroni, ill, negligent, and faint-hearted, and all these without end. On one occasion, he feels that death is drawing near. A letter written in April 1935 contains some extraordinary phases Phrases, excuse me, such as, quote, On many nights death looked me in the eyes persistently. The most burdensome temptations engulfed the soul like a storm during that dreadful state on the boundary between life and death. When the decision on our eternal fate draws near, fear grips the soul. Only the thought of the crucified Savior gives it strength. During the last twenty years of my life I have often been near death. This year, too, I once again experienced very powerfully that our earthly life is a stopping place on the boundary between existence and non-existence, full of severe conflict, a stopping place between the paradise of God's love and the hell of God-forsakenness. Nevertheless, however severe our sufferings are here, in the depth of our soul is concealed a consciousness with a profound meaning. I like thinking about the meaning of misfortunes. I like thinking about eternity. It seems to me that our earthly temp temporary life must inevitably be full of torment. End of quote. Here, one observes in how spiritual a manner he faces illnesses that lead to death. In the same letter, he writes, I have not written to you for a long time. Now, on the occasion of the Pascha of the Lord, I want to share with you, as my close kinsman, the hope that at the moment the Heavenly Father determines 
we too will be raised to eternal life. His illnesses seem to have a continuous state, so he writes in one letter, I am telling you this now because if death comes upon me suddenly, as is very likely, I shall not be able to tell you in advance. Everyone prophesies that I will recover and live a long time, but I, defeated by the severity of the illness, have little faith in these prophecies. If I die, please do not stop praying for me. In spite of his many illnesses, he diligently performs his tasks as a monk. In parallel with his intense spiritual life, he writes in a letter, Since the first days of August, a lot of work has accumulated, which uses up nearly all my free time. In addition, I have been slightly ill. I caught a cold for the last few days, and this in turn weakens me physically. He is subject to many hostile attacks from the devil. Holy Scripture speaks about the existence of the devil, who is a being who actually exists and is not a personification of evil. The fact is that Christ came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3.8. There are many incidences in Christ's life which show the devil's hatred for humankind, but also Christ's power over him. The saints of our church had experienced during their lives not only of the devil's existence, but also of his warfare. As stated by Father John Romanides, ecclesiology has two aspects. One is positive and is expressed as Christology, and the other is negative and expressed as demonology. In a manner that defies human reason, the more aware someone is of the negative aspect of the church, the more he fights against the devil by confronting passions and thoughts, the more he is aware is of Christ's love and mercy. The liberation of the heart from the presence and energy of the devil makes it possible for Christ to enter it, and one becomes a member of the church. Father Sophroni knew what was meant by the devil and how he battles furiously against humankind. Referring to carnal desires, he writes, When the enemy makes war on us, exploiting our own nature, with the desire for natural human love and something simply bestial, carnal love, we should fall to the ground and beseech God, as did St. Mary of Egypt, that in his mercy he may permit us to know his divine love instead of that carnal human love which we renounced for his sake. We must pray in this way until the moment when every desire for carnal love is extinguished and peace arises in our soul and body, there's no need to ask anything more, lest we fall into temptation or delusion. He was not only attacked by the devil through thoughts and desires, but even in his body. Earlier in this chapter, we looked at the devil's attacks on him and the way in which he dealt with him, namely that he would go to the spiritual father and seek guidance. Here, we shall simply cite the extract that refers to the physical attacks by the devil because he had numberless attacks through thoughts. He writes in one of his letters, quote, The demons are troubling me at night and tormenting me. They hit me, choke me, crush me, push me out of bed, yell furiously, and there is no end to their filthy deeds. So during the night, not only... Do I not sleep, but I grow more tired. When day breaks, 
I can only just walk on account of the pain, yet I need to carry out my tasks of obedience all day. According to the teaching of the Holy Fathers, the passions are unnatural movements of the energies of the soul. St. Maximus the Confessor writes that a blameworthy passion is an impulse of the soul contrary to nature, either towards irrational love or mindless hatred, or on account of something perceptible to the senses. And vice is the wrong use of ideas, which is followed by misuse of the things themselves. Like every ascetic and spiritual warrior, the elder dealt victoriously with the passions by the power and energy of God. In particular, the method of descending into hell had been revealed to him, and he had been granted the charisma of mindfulness of death. He knew that through victory over the passions, it is possible to know God. In one of his letters, he advises Balfour that if he wants to reign together with Christ, he must overcome the passions, because there is no other way. He records information that shows how strict he was as regards purity of soul and body in an extract from a letter he writes. To quote, At one time, with the blessing of my spiritual father, I used to hit myself every time I felt excitement, to the point of causing bloody bruises, until in the end the pain reaching my heart extinguished and tamed the impulse of the flesh. Now, however, I have abandoned this method for two reasons. First, because of the sickly state of my body and the lack of occasions to be scandalized here on Athos, the passion of debauchery does not trouble me so much. Secondly, this method, when practiced frequently over a long period, deals a serious blow to the whole nervous system. Thus we are obliged to prefer prayer alone. I once nearly killed myself. With the corner of a piece of wood that I was holding in my hands, I struck between my ribs directly onto my heart. For two weeks I could only move with difficulty. My left arm was almost dislocated. I felt pain when I lay down, and it was difficult to breathe. But glory be to God I recovered. Sometimes, however, when the body's excitement is excessive, it is almost inevitable that we resort to this means. And strangely enough, the passion of debauchery acts in such a way in the body that in the intensity of stimulation, even powerful blows, which leave painful black marks or bruises for a long time so that even walking is difficult, can hardly be felt at that moment. Consequently, one has to hit oneself mercilessly many times until the pain strikes the heart in order to calm the body. This is a hard saying, John 6.60, but what can we do? It is better, as St. Isaac the Syrian says, for us to die in the ascetic struggle than to surrender ourselves to the passions, to lose the human image and betray Christ. End of quote. Lest this action of the elders be misinterpreted as an act of contempt for the body or self-flagellation as, as observed among the Latins, it ought to be made clear that beating the body in this way was customary for many fathers on the holy mountain in their effort to overcome the passions and to live life in Christ. It can be interpreted theologically as follows. Human beings are made up of soul and body, and there is a close bond between the two. Usually sin begins with thoughts, 
and progresses to the act which is committed by means of the body. According to the teaching of the Holy Fathers, the noose is the first victim. It is darkened, and from then on the passions, desire, and anger function contrary to nature. When, however, sin becomes a passion, it can also act in the opposite direction. The bodily passions which reside in the body and are expressed through particular sins on account of human nature's subjection to sin and death stimulate the rational faculty with various thoughts and darken the noose and man enters into deepest darkness. To be sure, the body is not to blame, but it is subject to the influences of the passions. Thus, sin sometimes starts from the noose and spreads to the body, and sometimes it starts from the body, the passions, and proceeds to the noose. Some ascetics, therefore, in order to overcome the pleasure which is caused by the passions and expressed through the body, even cause pain to their bodies, because they know that pleasure is cured by pain, as St. Maximus the Confessor teaches. They know that it is not the body, but the carnal mentality that is evil. They also know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that it is defiled by the passions, which are shared energies of the soul and body. With various forms of bodily asceticism, the fathers do not destroy the body, but the passions. We should bear in mind all this theology of the Church about how man sins with both soul and body and how he is cured by different kinds of ascetic practices involving body and soul. As briefly mentioned above, St. Gregory Palamas, countering Barlaam's point of view, analyzed this subject in detail. He writes that the body too must take part in the journey towards deification, and that it too ought to practice asceticism, as there are energies common to the soul and the body. This is the explanation for tears, fasting, bodily asceticism, and prostrations. Nevertheless, when Father Sofroni mentions this ascetic practice, he writes that he did it with the blessing of my spiritual father. But subsequently he gave it up because it created problems for his weak body. So he dealt with temptations through prayer. Be that as it may. This incident shows that he was a great ascetic. He was seeking complete purity and would stop at nothing, even martyrdom for the love of Christ. Apart from these temptations, the elder, as we saw in another chapter, faced difficulties from his isolation in the desert, especially during the Second World War. In a letter written on the 23rd of April, 6th May, 1945, the elder describes the difficulties that he had gone through in the course of the war. He felt the lack of almost all necessities. He went through extreme poverty, sometimes even physical labors beyond his strength. He spent a lot of time struggling for a piece of black bread. Apart from the material deprivations of that era, quote, times of despair used to alternate with times when the sense of divine love would overwhelm me. The alternation of waves of darkness and waves of light is, as you know, the lot of the monk. Sometimes the soul painfully searches for God, and at other times it is drawn by Christ with a powerful sweetness, and it loves Christ. It senses him within it, whereas afterwards this light departs again and it remains alone. End of quote. His book also shows us how he faced earthquakes. It is clear from one of his letters that during an earthquake his courage was such that he continued writing 
Quote, now as I write, the earth is buzzing and all the buildings are shaking. This prevents my hand from keeping sufficiently still and steady. In another letter, he writes about earthquakes, and it is evident that as an Orthodox monk, he faces this temptation by regarding it as the result of God's just wrath. Elsewhere, he says that when there is an earthquake, we ought to pray. He writes, The earthquake is still continuing here. At intervals, weak tremors are noticeable, sometimes almost imperceptible. All the same, when they are noticeable at night, we should get up and remember the verse from the Psalms, What is my being? For did you not create all the sons of men in vain? So, see Psalm 88, uh, verse 48. Glory be to God for everything. In another instance, he writes, It is impossible for me to write to you now about many essential things. While I was writing these few pages, the buildings had already shaken several times with a buzzing sound, loud noises, and creaks. If the Lord vouchsafes, vouchsafes that we remain alive, we will talk about everything to his glory. It is clear from all this that the elder faced temptations with faith in God as a genuine Christian and an experienced ascetic. G. Orthodox Monasticism all Father Sofroni's writings show his love for monasticism and for hesychistic monasticism in particular. He was a perfect monk who practiced self-accusation and self-hatred and had great love for God and other people. He knew the meaning of noetic hezekiah and noetic prayer. For that reason, he is a genuine exponent of orthodox monasticism, which is in reality the life of the gospel. In one of his letters, he speaks about asceticism as the essence of the Christian life. He writes, The Christian ought first and foremost to be an ascetic, even more so the monk and the priest. Analyzing what is meant by asceticism, he advises, quote, Hate yourself. Begin to understand yourself, not only through abstinence from passions, but also through resistance to them. In other words, by attacking them, and immediately you will feel relief. A certain light will rise in your soul. St. Basil the Great and St. John Chrysostom say that voluntary sufferings are more pleasing than irrational joy. End of quote. He feels that it is a great honor to belong to the order of monks, and in a letter dated 23rd February, that is also 9th of March 1935, he writes, during the night of the 17th and 18th of January, I was professed as a monk of the great schema in the church of the hospital. Glory be to God for this gift. As a monk, he was completely obedient to the abbot. In a letter to Balfour, he describes the whole concept of obedience to an elder, but also how a monk should behave in his elder's absence. Among other things, he lists the three types of obedience. The first is cutting off one's will, which is achieved through obedience to the bishop and to the brethren of the monastery. The second is cutting off the carnal will, which is achieved through reading the ascetic writings of the Holy Fathers. And the third type of obedience is obedience to an elder, particularly to the elder's first word. Obedience to an elder has a particular aim as he presents it. Quote, this is why an elder is necessary, he writes. 
A. To cut off every expression of personal, sinful, carnal will in the disciple who is in obedience to him, guiding him according to the will of God. And B. To lead his disciple by guidance, by his instructions, from the lower stages to the higher ones, to introduce him to asceticism that corresponds to his spiritual age and his strength. End of quote. At the same time, however, he also records how difficult it is for contemporary disciples to obey. He writes, What is more, those under obedience nowadays, being idiosyncratic and full of initiative, intelligent, impatient, reluctant to humble themselves, and confident that they know everything, are not in a position to live under the guidance of an elder of our era. He also writes in another letter about the value of obedience. Defining its significance, he says that it means that the noose is kept pure of thoughts and attachments to things of the world so that it can be devoted to the remembrance of God and prayer. Monasticism, according to the elder, also means preserving virginity, through which man's destiny is fulfilled. This does not, of course, imply that the monk is in any way diminished, nor does it constitute naivete and ignorance. One of his letters shows clearly that he is an advocate of genuine patristic monasticism, as opposed to secularized monasticism. He knows very well that it is possible for a monk to be pure and like an angel, while at the same time being involved in active work. Yet, nevertheless, for him to be very far from genuine patristic monasticism. This is a very important text because it is written by someone who lived monasticism and Christianity at their most profound. To this should be added the fact that Father Sofroni was of Russian origin and a great hesychist. At the time when he was living on the holy mountain, Russian monks had created various problems. And for that reason, there was distrust and speculation among some Greek monks, and they regarded him as a spy. Father Sofroni had nothing at all to do with racial or national tendencies, rather, as we have already described. He lived in intense and profound mourning, and his noose experienced both hell and paradise. Such a man could never be involved in the irrational activity of racists and nationalists. He loved the holy mountain very much because there he was granted the possibility of knowing the depth of the spiritual life. And there, of course, he was counted worthy of meeting St. Silouan, who led him unerringly on the path to deification. At one point, the elder writes, It is impossible for me to abandon Athos or the monastery. If the Greeks or some other circumstances drive me away, that changes things. I hope, however, that the Lord and the Mother of God will keep us from such a calamity. E. Spiritual Struggle Only man's journey toward God fulfills the purpose of his existence. It leads him from being in God's image to being in his likeness, and it presupposes a great struggle, mainly against his own self, which has become distorted due to his departure from God. A major effort is required for someone to transform his inner powers and to acquire communion with God. Father Sofroni knows clearly from his experience that the way that we are following is a difficult one, but at the same time it is blessed and brings joy. 
He knows that the way that leads to salvation is narrow and difficult, and one must not grow slack or treat one's salvation lightly. He has taken the matter of his salvation seriously and is determined to attain it, however many sacrifices this entails. He goes on to refer to the cross of Christ, which he ought to preach and to live. Using an example from the First World War, when soldiers were ordered to advance because if they retreated they would be shot, he says that the same should happen to us, as from every point of view our salvation lies only ahead. His letters clearly show not only his disposition to walk the way of salvation, but also that he knows this way with absolute clarity. In one of his letters he refers concisely, but at the same time unambiguously, to the path that man must follow. When the grace of God leads him to the ineffable light, it reveals eternity to him, and then abandons him to struggle. Then he sees the tragedy of the fall, especially within his heart, and he tries to conform the inner life of his heart to the laws that he knows. From that point onwards, the way of the cross begins. Of course, this journey is not undertaken in an uncontrolled fashion. There is a particular order that has to be observed, with some exceptions, because there are steps up to perfection, and there are beginners who are being guided toward the end. The elder proves to be an experienced guide in the spiritual life, even though when he wrote this letter, he was a monk and did not exercise the ministry of spiritual fatherhood. However, things are not always easy. The elder often refers to difficulties in the course of this journey, as well as mentioning the tiredness that he felt traveling along this path. In one letter he writes, I am really exhausted. In another letter he refers to his weariness due to various sorts of asceticism and writes, This month from excessive tiredness I reached the point of exhaustion and suffered a lot on that account. Balfour, seeing all the effort made by Father Sofroni, asks him to rest. The elder, however, replies, You suggest to me that I relax a little, but I am afraid of surrendering myself to this sort of relaxation. Rather, he advises Balfour to struggle too. In one of his letters, he also mentions that Balfour should have a hard mattress, which shows that he himself practiced asceticism in this respect. He regards having a spiritual father and making one's confession to him as an important aspect of the ascetic life. In one of his letters, he refers to his own case in order to teach Balfour how he ought to confess. He writes, quote, The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit. I remember what happened to me when the, for the first time I went to confession with real contrition for my sins. The entire life that I had lived rose up before me as wrongdoing from start to finish. When I met the priest, I could not speak at all out of grief, tears, heartfelt pain. I just wept. And believe me, even before I began to speak about my sins, the Lord himself came out to meet me and fell on my neck and kissed me. And I was dear to him, without him waiting for the moment when I would say, forgive me. End of quote. And he writes with simplicity, I trust you, and out of love I cannot hide from you what I hide from others. Elsewhere, in order to help Balfour, the elder referring to an attack he suffered from demons, 
speaks about the confession that he made to his spiritual father. He writes, quote, The same happens to me. I go to the spiritual father to say that the demons are troubling me at night and tormenting me. The spiritual father tells me, Never mind, be patient, it will pass. The Lord allows this to happen to you on account of your pride, your criticism of someone, or your dislike of him. I believe him, and I go away. After a while, when I am worn out once again, I tell him that not only is the situation not improving, but the demons are bothering me even more. The answer, never mind, be patient, surrender yourself to God's will. Humble yourself and you will stop being tormented. Not to worry. From now on, this will stop. Go in peace. Sometimes he reads the prayer of absolution or gives some other guidance. After that, two or three days might pass more quietly. And afterwards, the same torments again. And this situation continues for years. End of quote. He goes on to affirm that through faith in our spiritual father and patience, we gain courage. He ascribes great significance to mourning in the struggle against demons. The presence of a spiritual guide is very important. In the person of St. Siloan, Father Sofroni found the suitable guide to direct him in the unusual experiences that he was having. He submitted himself to him to the point of complete self-denial. He buried himself in the ground and humbled himself perhaps to the point of absurdity. He guides Balfour on the basis of his own experience. He gives him advice. On the one hand, he writes that many of these who have lived in the monastery 40 years and more have not even found themselves a spiritual friend or father. The charisma of eldership is rare in our days. On the other hand, he sets out how he ought to behave to the spiritual father whom he will meet in the future. He should have faith subject himself to him and behave with devotion, love, simplicity, avoiding every type of exuberance. He should be simple, easily convinced, obedient, and not inquisitive. He also describes how we ought to respond to the spiritual father's words, which shows how he himself responded to St. Silouan. Throughout his life, Father Sofroni had God's commandments before his eyes. They represent the will of God, and he tried to keep them, because through Christ's commandments, he would gain his salvation. Often the will of God leads to Golgotha. It is doubtful whether anyone who has realized this, anyone who has trodden this path himself, would dare to be obstinate and overbearing. The elder was a great ascetic. He strove selflessly to practice Christ's commandments in order to share in the grace of the Holy Spirit. He was not looking for rewards. Another important element of the spiritual struggle is prayer. As we see in many instances, the elder had a profound knowledge of prayer, particularly of the prayer of the noose in the heart. Pure prayer prepares man for the vision of God. When Balfour wrote to him about prayer, Father Sofroni, as a teacher of this prayer, replied, When we, he and St. Siloan, carefully read everything you write about prayer, we noticed that you do not yet know what noetic prayer is. As Balfour seemed to be linking reflective contemplation and prayer, the elder guides him discreetly. 
quote, when you walk in the forest and reflect, restrain yourself from daydreaming. It would be good then if you were to say the Jesus prayer with your lips and to think of God. It is beneficial then and in other situations to train your soul by keeping watch over it, end of quote. As Balfour referred again in one of his letters to the prayer practiced by the Latins, Father Sophroni, in an undated and unnumbered excerpt, writes, quote, The Roman Catholics give the name noetic prayer to the act of turning mentally to God without pronouncing words, as well as to meditations on God and divine things. We, on the other hand, understand the term noetic prayer to mean that the noose stands in the heart before God. This may be accomplished by a sense of gratitude, praise or fear, supplication or repentance. The noose abandons all reflections and thoughts when it stands attentively in the heart and observes its state and what is happening in it. At the same time, it sees the enemy drawing near, and with a sharp knife, or as though with a flame, it wards him off with the name of the Lord Jesus. End of quote. Thus, pure noetic prayer is the indivisible union of the noose with the heart in the Holy Spirit. Someone who truly prays concentrates his noose in his heart. The elder is also very revealing on this point when he writes, quote, Standing with our noose in our heart means concentrating our noose in that place, the physical location where our heart is, the heart of flesh that beats in our chest. At that time, we must not concoct any type of image, and we do not even need to imagine the heart itself. We should just stand naked of every alien thought, with our noose, think purely without form or shape of God, and call upon the divine name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. You will see what happens while you are doing this, and then you will be able to talk about it. That is one thing. It is completely different from surrendering oneself to daydreaming. We really must avoid doing that. It also seems to me superfluous for you to search for metaphysical concepts of the heart. It is obvious from this excerpt that Father Sophroni was very familiar with the Hezekist method and noetic prayer. Also, he teaches that the union of the noose and the heart comes about through the grace of God and not by means of psychosomatic methods, which may be helpful, but are unable to achieve this aim. In one of his letters, he mentions how the charisma of the mindfulness of death teaches and guides man in pure prayer. Sincerely and simply, he writes that the energy of the grace of the remembrance of death within him lasted for ten years and gradually intensified, and he reached the point of almost total exhaustion. In this state, everything changes, even time. He acquired dispassion and love for the whole world. Subsequently, he writes, quote, Mindfulness of death teaches true prayer. When I lay down to sleep after devastating weeping and exhaustive prayer, the words would issue from my mouth like a flame. And when I fell asleep, I remember my soul would remain in prayer on its own all night, although my body was lying in bed. From the energy of the remembrance of death, my soul could not stop praying. End of quote. His letters show that he continued to pray with the hope in God, even when the love of God was absent from his heart, even if he was crushed by weeping. 
This is a very interesting secret of the spiritual life. The elder was a great athlete of prayer, as is clear from one of his letters. Thus, with great labor, with grief, sometimes with bitter tears, I dared, wretch that I am, to entreat the goodness of God day and night. Noetic prayer, when exercised in accordance with all the spiritual prerequisites, unifies the whole human being very intensely. The elder describes this state vividly. Quote, when, despite my awareness of my extreme unworthiness, I pray to him, then, from the intensity of this prayer, my whole being is united, my soul, body, noose, heart, and all the members of my body, even my bones, everything within me, awestruck by the intensity, somehow contracts. My breathing alters. So powerfully and unrestrainedly does Christ draw the soul, the whole human being, to himself. End of quote. With amazing knowledge, the fruit of personal experience, the elder teaches that the activity of the brain is something other than the unceasing activity of the heart within, which God's grace acts through prayer. Through the faculty of the brain, we know about the world perceptible to the senses, but through the faculty of the heart, we acquire knowledge of the spiritual world. This sort of noetic prayer has many and varied consequences. The elder writes that through prayer, division is abolished and unity is achieved. Through noetic prayer, he could also perceive very clearly the state of the one for whom he was praying. Referring to Balfour's mother, he writes, In the beginning, when I prayed for her, my heart grieved. He mentions the same thing in another letter. As regards your mother, I pray very often for her. I do not know exactly what psychological struggle and afflictions she is going through, but I know from praying that she is really suffering. I want to pray for her. We see the same in addition in another letter. When I pray for your mother more than for your sister, my soul grieves while praying and I see no way out. All the same, it seems to me that the love of God is in her, but this love is weaker than the influence exercised upon her by this present age. He also felt grief for Balfour's sister when he prayed for her. In one letter he writes, Your sister is further away from us spiritually. I pray for her, however, only because she comes into my mind. Your brother who is in China is far away from us and not just in body. Father Sofroni sensed the state of the soul of the one for whom he was praying, just as he was also aware of the state of Balfour's soul. He declares, however, that he does not always want to trust this feeling. This is a sign of authenticity. In general, the elder greatly loved to pray for everyone who was in difficulties. He writes in one of his letters, How my soul loves to pray for every human being who is afflicted. His prayer embraced the whole world. In particular, this found expression during the Second World War when he was living as an ascetic in the desert of the Holy Mountain. He writes, Madly, shamelessly, and boldly, sometimes with pain and almost, that almost brought me to the point of death, I too beseeched God to give peace to the world. As is well known, profound repentance and mourning are also linked with prayer. The sense of spiritual poverty and mourning are an expression of pure prayer. 
This repentance was very well developed in Father Sophroni, and he regards it as the distinguishing feature of Orthodox Christians. He writes, quote, Christians wash themselves in nothing but tears. Believe me, dear Father David, even though I am ignorant, there is only one way to theoria, addition without delusion, and the love of God, repentance. Repentance should be the beginning of the spiritual life. Its golden thread should run through our whole life until the grave, and if God wills, he will catch up the man to theoria. This is purely the work of his judgment and good pleasure for the one who repents. Nowadays, people often talk about divine adoption, but there is very little said about the path that leads to it. This path is repentance. End of quote. These are not theoretical teachings, but Father Sophroni's own experiences, as is clear from one of his letters. He writes, I mix with people, and my face looks cheerful, but my soul sorrows greatly. I would like to cry, lying face down on the ground, and not to get up until the day of redemption or judgment, but weeping soon tires me out. Many times I have wept so much that my belly seemed to be burning and pouring out tears. He mentions the same in another of his letters. In spite of the gifts that God had given him, he did not spy on himself. He writes, It is by no means permissible for us to turn our attention to observing ourselves from outside with proud self-complacency. Instead, we must repent of these things before God. As we've seen elsewhere, Father Sophroni was in harmony with the life and teaching of Star Siloan and with the word of revelation that the latter had received, keep your mind in hell and despair not, which is why he refers to the sense of hell. In other letter, he mentions, using the third person singular, that he knows someone, essentially it is a description of himself, who gazed into the abyss of hell. He was simultaneously both suspended over it and submerged in it, but the hand of God pulled him up from there, his soul experienced horror. This is a terrible image, which expresses a state of mourning that cures the passions and teaches true prayer. Quote, For his soul, time was like that fine thread by which it was bound and hung temporarily over the abyss, while all around it saw infinity, and yet more awful, hell, where the torments are without end. When the soul finds itself in such a calamity, it learns genuine prayer. H. Spiritual Guidance Father Sophroni helped Balfour with St. Siloan's encouragement. So he writes, For you I am neither an elder nor a father, but a brother. In most cases he was the intermediary between Balfour and St. Siloan. A spiritual link developed between them, which on many occasions caused difficulties for Father Sophroni, because Balfour was not only intelligent, but also intellectually trained, and it was difficult to guide him. In one letter, the elder expresses his hesitation and his dilemma. Elsewhere, he refers to the self-emptying and sacrificial character of spiritual fatherhood. He speaks about the spiritual father's difficulty in guiding his spiritual child, especially when it is a matter of curing him of passions. In this case, the spiritual father ought to accept into his heart the one under his guidance and take his temptation upon himself as his own personal concern. 
This sacrifice, however, often meets resistance from the one being directed. Spiritual fatherhood entails heavy responsibility and many sacrifices. The elder puts it very characteristically, quote, Being aware of my inadequacy, I prayed a lot to God and the Mother of God to free me from this task, which surpasses my powers, of being in some way your spiritual advisor. All the same, until now it has not been God's good pleasure that I should escape from this charge, and for that reason, with suffering, pain, and tears, I have borne this burden as far as I was able. Thinking of you continuously, writing letters at night, and later my complete exhaustion in the vigil of matins have completely destroyed my inner stillness. End of quote. He feels responsible, so he is careful not to do anything wrong that would cause damage to his soul. He writes, quote, if I sin against you, if on account of me, the most wretched of all men, your soul were to lose salvation or suffer any kind of damage, would give me tears to beseech the Lord for you and for me, when I myself am poor and needy, a blessed but difficult feat. End of quote. As the elder was very sensitive, he would try not to wound his neighbor, especially someone with whom he had a special spiritual relationship. After sending a letter to Balfour, he wrote in the next one, When I had sent you the last letter, later on on Sunday, I wept during the night, thinking, Why should I insult him, distress him, and rebuke him? If I do this, who will console him in those afflictions that he is suffering? Sometimes he feels that he is worn out by spiritual direction, which he experiences as a ministry. So he writes, My ministry to you is drawing to an end. In another of his letters, he expresses this more clearly, writing, quote, My soul rejoices to struggle for you, but I confess that it is beyond my powers. I have often prayed that the Lord and the Most Holy Virgin would deliver me, weak as I am from this burden, because you have an unstable soul with little faith. The enemy is powerful, because there is something wrong with our faith. Otherwise, asceticism would not only be easy, but even enjoyable, end of quote. In one of his letters to Balfour, seeing that his soul is impervious to correction, he writes very severely, quote, I mentioned in my previous letter, and now I repeat once again, that unless you understand something in your soul and put it right, not only will you not find a genuine elder and father for yourself, but you will not even find a simple guide. And even if you do find one, he will avoid you, end of quote. The sense of service, of sacrifice, and self-offering is connected with love. Spiritual fatherhood can only be exercised in an atmosphere of love. That is to say, love in Christ, free from passions and selfish interests. Writing to Balfour, the elder says, I am now bound to you by the eternal bond of love in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the end of another letter, he writes, Devoted to you to the end of my life. And elsewhere, he writes, Quote, you can be absolutely certain, completely sure, that I will never change my attitude towards you with the help of God. This is not because I feel responsible for you, no. Of course, I accept the view of the Holy Fathers as to the limits and conditions of spiritual responsibility, conditions that do not exist in our case. I shall not change because there are things that cannot be erased from your being, as they form an essential part of this being. 
End of quote. This love, especially when Balfour writes to him that he is ready for sufferings and afflictions, is abundantly expressed. My soul rushes to embrace you and to greet you with a holy kiss, as a brother who is infinitely dear and precious to me. Because this love is sacrificial in nature, following the example of Christ's love, it leads him to this crucifying ministry. In one letter he writes, quote, But I too love you, and am ready to suffer many things for your salvation. I believe in the merciful God that if you do not waver, we shall be brothers for the whole of eternity. After all the sufferings in this world, we shall venerate together his undefiled hands, which formed us and fashioned us. In this context, he continually writes his letters to guide him. The entire book is proof of this orthodox guidance that he offers Balfour. This is a very important point. On the one hand, we have an orthodox theologian who has assimilated theology through asceticism, prayer, and God's appearing to him. And on the other hand, someone brought up in the West with remarkable intellectual gifts and a strong personality. The letters convey this atmosphere completely. The elder actually writes in one of his letters, quote, Both my time and my powers are exhausted. I have written this letter in fits and starts, sometimes during the day, sometimes in the evening, sometimes in the library, sometimes in the cell. If it be God's good pleasure that we continue to communicate with one another, and if you wish, I shall be glad. End of quote. Orthodox guidance, however, is not given only through spoken words and in writing, but above all through intense prayer and a sacrificial disposition. Christ taught people and worked miracles, but in the end he suffered and was crucified for all, and through his cross and resurrection he showed his great love and cured sick humanity. In the Garden of Gethsemane, through his prayer in the course of which his sweat poured like great drops of blood falling down to the ground, Luke twenty-two forty-four. He embraced the whole of humankind in his divine love. Father Sophroni, imitating Christ to the extent that this is possible, exercised his pastoral ministry through the prayer of Gethsemane. There are many such references in his letters. He writes in one letter, I pray for you more than anyone else and before everyone else for the time being. I promise you that I shall pray for you to the grave, and if the Lord should give me such grace, wretch that I am, that even after my death I shall pray for you, as the soul most dear and most akin to me. In another letter he writes, It is impossible for me to pray only for myself. I pray continuously for the two of us, as I would pray for myself. My soul has become so closely linked with your own blessed soul. Instead of the usual prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Or, Most Holy Mother of God, save me, a sinner. I say, have mercy upon us. Save us. We are in difficulties, O Sovereign Lady. Help us, save us as you know best. I think of you almost constantly, and I pray for you. Only during sleep for a short time, against my will, do I cease remembering you. I have changed the whole of my prayer rule, all the service in church, and the whole of the liturgy into prayer for you. In one letter he explains that he prays for him out of love and not in order to burden his soul with any sort of obligation. The elder was always sensitive about such matters and did not want to receive obligatory gratitude from his fellow man. 
because he respected freedom to a very high degree. When Balfour was aware of a visitation of God's grace, the elder assured him that it was not due to him. Often, however, the elder felt that his prayer encountered difficulties and obstacles, and this increased his suffering. He writes in a letter, How many times already have I reached the boundaries of exhaustion, praying for you without ceasing? My God, what a changeable, indecisive, mistrustful soul you have. When you resist the enemy in thoughts, then although not without difficulty and a struggle, nevertheless my prayer goes my prayer for you goes well. Sometimes, however, almost voluntarily, you incline toward the enemy's side and allow yourself to be drawn away toward a dark abyss. Then my soul is afflicted and my heart grieves. In another letter he writes, Praying for you on Friday night, I wept as they weep for the dead. May God give you the courage to humble yourself and to bear the inevitable humiliations and other sufferings. We find the same thing in another letter. Quote, I pray and feel sometimes that in some way I am emptying the strength of my soul into a vacuum. Then I beseech the Lord in distress that, merciful as he is, he will show you some other servant of his who would be able to help you. Being incapable and not yet in a position to bear my own burden, I can only lead others to stumble. I can do no more than this. Addition, if you had your spiritual senses developed so that you could discern where the truth lies and where hypocrisy or delusion, then you might perhaps recognize by means of your heart that I am not lying to you. This happens in the same way as when the Lord gives us grace to sense beyond doubt that he is the truth. When we read the gospel, especially the gospel according to John, what great joy and blessedness accompanies this feeling. I will tell you, however, that only those who have passed through great suffering taste this joy. On the contrary, someone who has suddenly forsaken sin, without having felt regret about it in the way he should, and without having realized yet what he has done, however much he may long to come to the wedding of the Lamb, he longs in vain. The angels do not permit him. End of quote. He regards the role of guiding Balfour as a ministry, which is not exercised through cerebral knowledge and speculation, but through his personal experience. When he writes letters, he, he felt as though his soul was being poured out. Between the two possibilities, on the one hand that Balfour might benefit from him revealing his experiences, and on the other that he might suffer harm himself, the elder chose the second. He also implores Balfour to pray to God to send him his grace, because as he writes... He had not the theoria of the Lord for a long time. Thus guidance is given through the coming and concealment of divine grace. What is surprising is that although the guidance is given by a God-seeing elder with sacrificial love, in the end, Balfour left the church for a long period because he could not obey such divinely inspired directions. Here we see the importance of man's freedom, which cannot be violated, either by God himself or those he sends. To be sure, the love that the elder showed him did not go to waste because Balfour returned to the church and died in repentance. A letter from Father Sofroni to Balfour, dated 29th January 1962, refers to the relationship between prayer, divine grace, 
and human freedom. The elder mentions that a lady known to them both had been miraculously cured through his prayers. However, because her life did not radically change, which is the precondition for a miracle, she suffered a relapse. The elder writes, quote, For me, the worsening of her health again was a natural consequence. It was then incredibly hard for me to beseech God once again, because my first hope had proved false. They had not changed. They had not been renewed. Prayer for the sick that they may be cured by power from above, working miracles, is only possible with the promise of repentance, that is to say, of a fundamental change in the whole of their life, so that the glory of God may find room within them, and their whole life from then on may continue on the level of divine glory. End of quote. The elder laid great stress on freedom and respected the freedom of others. He was truly noble in his love and freedom. I, St. Silouan. As we have seen repeatedly, there was continuous communication between the three men, St. Silouan, Father Sophroni, and Balfour. The elder himself speaks of a triple alliance. He writes, And so, forming a triple alliance, starts Silouan, you and I, let us hope that the mercy of the Lord will visit us and deliver us from all those who rise up against us. In his letters to Balfour, he tried to strengthen him to have trust in St. Silouan. When he sent Starrett Silouan's letter with his own, he writes, I shall say a few words about him. When he writes about Starrett Silouan in his letter dated 3rd or 16th December 1932, it's significant. This is one of Father Sophroni's first testimonies concerning St. Siloan. He writes that from the beginning he felt great reverence for him, that he humbled himself before him, that he saw his face shining with indescribable light and beauty, that Staretz Siloan prayed without ceasing and loved humankind. Recently he had spoken with him, and he glorified God that he knew him. His speech was simple and was marked by God-given wisdom that could not be put into practice without time and effort. Because he had unceasing prayer, he forgot things to do with everyday life. Father Sophroni then writes to Balfour that Start Siloan remembers him and prays for him, and also that he is sending him some letters that he has written to him. In the elders' letters, the close links between the three of them is evident. We see in one letter how St. Siloan perceived Balfour's state through prayer. He, the elder writes, quote, I used to go to Star at Siloan and speak to him about you. I would complain to him because we had no news from Father David for a while. The Starts would say, Nothing bad can have happened. I pray for him and my soul is calm. But why has he kept silent? I asked. The Starts replied, I don't know. Perhaps sometimes he happens to be at peace and does not have anything to write. Nevertheless, at the beginning of Great Lent, Start Siloan told me that we ought to ask someone about you. End of quote. When Balfour wanted to go to America and Father Sophronia objected, St. Siloan did not allow him to write to Balfour to express his opposition. The elder writes, quote, I disagreed with my whole soul and wanted to write to tell you so, but Father Siloan did not permit me to do so, saying that now that we are faced with an accomplished fact, 
it is not permissible for me to write anything against it, lest there should arise in your soul doubts or negative feelings towards Bishop Benjamin and the work which you are going there to do. End of quote. Later, however, Father Sophroni conveys a message from Start Silouan to Balford to return from America. He writes, quote, Start Silouan asked me yesterday evening to address an envelope to you, and he has already written his letter without waiting for mine. This evening, however, he again came to tell me to write to you in his name that you should go to London without having the least doubt. Regarding your stay in America, he said, My soul does not wish him to stay there. End of quote. In a postscript to another letter, he writes, With regard to your books, I shall fulfill your request when your mind is made up. This is what starts Silouan said. The most significant reference to the relationship between the three which clearly shows that St. Silouan was guiding Balfour following an inner conviction that he had received from God, but also with great sensitivity, that Father Sophroni was wholly obedient to St. Silouan, and also that Balfour was unable to obey St. Silouan, is to be found on page 263. And the following pages of the book struggle to know God. The reader can follow this whole conversation. St. Siloan gives a characteristic answer. So he compares prayers to an oracle? Then he has held us cheap. Let him live according to his own will. Experience will teach him. He has lost faith, and without faith there can be no benefit. This disobedience did in fact help to lead Balfour out of the priesthood and even out of the church for a long period. In conclusion... Struggle to Know God is a very important book and can be studied from many angles. Father Sophroni's letters to Balfour, which were written in to direct him in his spiritual life, are authentic and have all the elements of the letters written by the fathers of the Church. They are remarkable for their love, self-sacrifice, wisdom, and discernment for the one being guided. These letters are orthodox pastoral writings. In this chapter, we have only looked at a few points from the letters that show how Father Sophroni was living at that time. These are autobiographical excerpts. In order not to guide Balfour into an abstract manner, the elder opened up a few chinks in his soul, from which shone forth a little of the light within it. Thus we too are able to see the struggle in which the elder was engaged, the temptations that he endured, but also the revelations that he received from God. At the same time, we can also see his teaching on the aspects of the spiritual life. From everything mentioned above, it is evident that Elder Sophroni was a great theologian and spiritual father. End of Part 1 Spiritual Autobiography Part 2. Everyday Life. Pastoral Ministry. 1. Elder Sophroni in Everyday Life. When some people read Elder Sophroni's writings, they perceive him as a great theologian, as he indeed was. But at the same time, they think that he was aloof and inapproachable.
The reality, however, was completely different. When you met him, you saw an ascetic whose existence was integrated and whose life was simple and pure. You saw a genuine, authentic human being, free from every kind of passion, insecurity, or conventionality. Father Sofroni had many great experiences, both human and divine, during his life. He was not inclined to write about these matters, but he did so when he had to, when it was necessary. When I read the first edition of Father Sofroni's book about St. Silouan, I conceived the desire to meet him in person. At that time, he was living in England at the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, and I wanted to visit him. He was in his 80s then, but he still was vigorous and strong in spite of the illnesses from which he suffered. He would receive everyone. He conversed with people. He heard confessions, though not many. He celebrated the liturgy every Sunday, and often on Saturday as well. He was writing his last books. He would eat with us in the refectory of the monastery, and he held meetings with the monks. Now and again he would travel to visit other communities at their invitation. He would visit the homes of people he knew in towns nearby, and so on. He was full of life and spread optimism everywhere. That period when I conceived the desire to visit the elder was a difficult one for many reasons, which I shall set out below. Be that as it may, I went to England to meet him for the first time in 1976, 31 years ago. Footnote, the author, Metropolitan, he wrote this, is writing in 2007. To continue, I stayed at the monastery for about a month and a half, and from then on I used to visit the monastery almost every summer for many years. And I was in spiritual communication with the great elder of blessed memory. I shall briefly describe some of the scenes that I experienced from time to time and which all of us who visited the monastery to meet the elder used to experience. A. Welcome. Everyone who went to the monastery felt that the monks received him on the elder's orders as a unique personage. When the elder knew what time his guest would arrive, he would go out to meet him and greet him, or he would send one of the monks to convey his love to the guest and to express his joy that he had made such a long journey to come to see him. He instructed them to look after him as appropriate and to make him feel at home. B. Divine Liturgy. Prayer. The spiritual focal point for the monastery and the elder was the Divine Liturgy and the self-emptying sacrifice that one experiences in it. He would celebrate every Sunday and often on Saturdays as well, or in other days when there was a divine liturgy, he would take Holy Communion. When he celebrated, his whole being, body and soul, was absolutely clenched together like a fist. It was obvious that his noose was focused on his heart. One did not dare look at him, never mind speak to him, his movements were priestly and slow, and he blessed the people with full awareness of what he was doing, looking at all those who were present. The intonation and rhythm of his responses was such that the noose could easily follow the words, 
because when someone sings very quickly or very slowly, the noose is distracted. One felt that the elder was praying with his reason when saying the prayers, but also with his noose, which was in his heart. Often in the Divine Liturgy, he would be completely absorbed, particularly when, during the reading of the epistle, he sat down on a chair for a moment to rest. This was not physical sleep, as he was aware of what was happening in the church. The daily prayer that he had instituted to be held in church, and at which he was often present, took place in an intensely contrite atmosphere that inspired to penitence and a sense of the presence of God. For two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening in church, with oil lamps as the only source of light, the prayer to Christ would be said out loud, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon us. And the prayer to the All-Holy Virgin, Most Holy Mother of God, save us, in various languages. The Divine Liturgy and prayer hallowed the entire atmosphere of the monastery and produced the right climate for genuine monastic life. C. Refectory As in all monasteries, there too mealtime in the refectory was sacred. The presence of the elder was decisive. Concentrated and thoughtful, he would sustain his body with a little indispensable nourishment in a very courteous manner, but his presence was radiant and spiritual. I remember that during meals in the refectory, everyone would feel penitence and heartfelt mourning. The reading, the teaching, and the venerable presence of the elder produced a profound spiritual atmosphere. On the first day, the visitor would have the pleasure of sitting next to the elder in the refectory at mealtime, at his own invitation, above the monks, even if he were a layman. Immediately after that, however, he would take his place after all the others. The elder used to say that the first place is honorable because it indicates the respect that we show to our guest, but the last place is also honorable because it makes clear that we include him in our family. D. Hospitality Hospitality was exemplary and noble. He was moved that someone had undertaken a long journey to visit the monastery, and he would devote himself completely to him, particularly when he was in good health and understood that the other person needed spiritual help. If he could not look after him personally, he would apologize to him. He felt very uncomfortable, almost sickened, when someone visited him and stood reverently before him, regarding him as a saint. He would say, I do not want people to meet me and take me for a saint. He often told the brethren of the monastery to take their visitor for a tour of the dis district around the monastery, or even to other towns, such as Oxford, Colchester, and so on. He was extremely pleased when the visitor staying at the monastery felt at home. On one occasion, as an expression of the virtue of hospitality, he took me with him to visit a family that he knew in a nearby town. He did so mainly for my relaxation and as an expression of his hospitality. E. Love for people. He had a great love for the people who visited the monastery. He rejoiced that the monastery was always open and that the monks would receive people with great pleasure and without resentment. 
He knew that people nowadays suffer for different reasons, and because they suffer, they are sensitive about every difficulty that they encounter, so they voice various complaints. For that reason, he showed his abundant love, especially to those who were suffering and despised. On Sundays, the monastery was a meeting place for hundreds of people. After the Divine Liturgy, they would wander around at ease in the monastery grounds. They would eat there. Most brought food with them under the very tall trees. They would make their confession to the spiritual fathers of the monastery, take part in the paraclesis, and listen to the customary address. The elder would show particularly love to small children. He would take them in his arms, give them chocolates and sweets, celebrate their feasts, singing many years in their honor, and generally behave like a small child himself while talking to them. He was very sympathetic towards those who were depressed or in distress due to spiritual anxieties, and those who practiced noetic prayer of the heart with a sense of repentance. He also felt deeply for young people, those who re rejected authority, those who hungered and thirsted for God's righteousness, and who were going through what he had gone through in his life. He approached them with respect and love and did everything he could to help them. F. Discussion. Confession. He devoted hours to discussing various spiritual matters. There were two ways in which he usually talked to people. The first was when someone asked to see him discuss a serious subject that was troubling him. Usually he accepted the request, and he would call him whenever he had time. He would ask how long he was going to stay at the monastery, and he would arrange the time of the meeting. Often he would see him the day before he was due to depart. As I understand it, this was done with a particular aim in view. He wanted to give the visitor a chance to enter into the atmosphere of the monastery, to take in its spirit entirely, to make his confession to the spiritual fathers there, so that the spirit of repentance that could be felt at the monastery would bring him to contrition. His noose would be purified, and after that, the field of his soul would be ready to receive his word. The meeting would take place in the small office at the monastery. Before the discussion began, while he was still on his feet, he would pray, saying the prayer, Heavenly King and Comforter, slowly and steadily, so that this discussion would be blessed. He placed everything under the protection and energy of God. Next, he would say a few introductory words, expressing his joy that this meeting was taking place. And usually, without the other person realizing it, he led him to the question or problem that he wanted to discuss with him. When the one he was talking to wanted to make his confession, the elder would slowly put on his stole and read the appropriate service with a slow rhythm. Once he had heard the confession, he would say a divinely inspired therapeutic word, not merely by way of conversation, but whatever God revealed, the first word that he made known to him. He would then read the prayer of absolution slowly and contritely. If the discussion was not of a personal nature but general, immediately after the midday meal he would invite the abbot or another member of the community to join this meeting with the visitor. After the customary refreshment, he would expound various issues, usually theological and spiritual, the analysis of the person hypostases, the meaning of the hypostatic principle, the revelational words 
keep your mind in hell and despair not. And self-emptying and the divine liturgy were among the favorite central issues in his discussions. The other kind of discussion was unpremeditated. It was unpremeditated from the visitor's point of view. But for the elder, it may have been premeditated. He would meet the visitor somewhere in the monastery grounds and say to him, Let's go for a walk, often, so that he would be steadier in his movements, particularly when he had problems with his back, but more as a sign of mutual fellowship, unity, and love. He would take the arm of his companion. He would begin the conversation, and naturally the one he was talking to, faced with the patristic, consoling, and gentle words that flowed from his lips, the distillation of spiritual experience did not dare to contradict or even ask a question or continue the discussion with his own words. It was not that the elder forbade it, but his words gripped the one he was talking to. On such walks I heard his words about the link between the divine liturgy and noetic prayer, the breadth and width of repentance, the remembrance of death, how to experience genuine ecclesiastical life, the pastoral ministry to married couples, about families, bringing up young people, the difference between academic teachers and the Holy Fathers, various theological issues, and so on. G. Visits. Because his heart was sensitive towards everyone, he would pray for people living all over the world. In particular, he played for those who were in spiritual contact with him, most especially when they were in distress or practicing noetic prayer, or were inclined toward the monastic life, or were at the spiritual stage of the withdrawal of divine grace. He was continuously interested in them with nobility of spirit. He often made visits to those who asked for his help, or whom he himself perceived to be in need. He would go to people's homes to bring them a consoling word. He would visit the sick in hospital, but he would also go to communities which were seeking to live the spiritual life. H. Love for Nature He loved nature, God's creation. He liked to see the area around the monastery well kept, and he respected every blade of grass, as it was a product of God's creative energy. He wanted saplings to be planted at the monastery. He would specify the location and the type of trees to be planted himself. On one occasion, he came out of his bungalow to watch us planting saplings. He was so delighted that he called us in to give us a cold drink. I. Sense of humor. The characteristic feature of a saint is said to be a sense of humor. Studies have been made of patristic writings, and many such examples have been found. We see this especially in the letters of St. Gregory the Theologian, but also in contemporary holy figures, such as Father Paisios. Father Sophroni also had this sense of humor. As has been mentioned already, he was upset and did not want to continue the conversation with anyone who approached him convinced that he was talking to a saint. If this happened, he would bring the conversation to an end and find an excuse to leave. He would use very clever phrases which contained elements of joy but also of gentle instruction. He would laugh wholeheartedly at something that he saw or heard. Occasionally, 
He would behave with childlike simplicity without becoming childish. He had all the characteristics of a child within the wisdom of a great man. When he was walking along the paths in the monastery grounds and met a group of adults or children whom he knew, he would approach them or they would approach him, and he would tell them edifying stories. From the joyful noise, everyone knew where the elder was. J. Taking Leave When someone had stayed for a long time at the monastery and entered into its atmosphere, he was regarded as a member of the family. So the day of departure was a moving experience. All the monks would gather together with the elder in the church of the monastery and the appropriate service would be held, in which they besought God to bless the visitor's journey and read the appropriate gospel reading and the appointed prayer. After this service, everyone went out onto the road beside the car in which he was going to travel. Everyone took leave of him. They would give him a gift as a blessing. Sometimes at the visitor's request, a photograph would be taken as a souvenir. And as the car drew away from the monastery, everyone with Father Sophroni in the lead would wave goodbye with their hands for a long time until the car disappeared round a bend in the road. Some would even take out their handkerchiefs and wave them to bid farewell to the departing visitor. It was impossible for anyone to remain unmoved by this send-off, and surely no heart remained unaffected by this warm expression of love. I was an eyewitness to the instances described above, so the description is trustworthy. They may have happened on different days and at different times, but they all might have taken place in a single day. Thus they they give some indication of Father Sofroni's daily program. He once said to me characteristically, quote, What happens in our monastery is what happens with the Tipicon of the church. There is the basic book of the Paraclitki, which contains, excuse me, which contains the troparion for every day in the specific tone. At the same time, however, these troparia alternate with those of the Meneon, which refer to the saint celebrated on that particular day. This is what happens in our monastery. We are the Paracliticae, the stable basis, but every day new guests are added. They do not change our timetable, but they receive something from us, and in this way our daily doxology is offered up to God. End of quote. It makes a huge impression on me that such a great theologian of our day, one who, who, who knew leading theologians and philosophers, but most of all was found worthy, as is clear from his writings, of acquiring great experience of God and reached the point of theoria of the uncreated light, should be so near us, and that he should behave so simply and humanly. Although the comparison is not exact, it is like seeing Christ being transfigured on Mount Tabor one moment and the next moment seeing him among people, alleviating their pain, one moment singing with his disciples at the Last Supper, and not long afterwards being crucified, teaching one moment and taking little children in his arms and blessing them the next, reproving the scribes and Pharisees one moment and the next letting the woman who was a harlot wash his feet and forgiving her sins. Elder Sophroni was a great hesychist and an empirical theologian, but also a loving and genuine spiritual father, 
All who knew him can vouch for his wisdom, simplicity, tenderness, and abundant love, especially towards those who are aware of their poverty of spirit. Part 2, Everyday Life, Pastoral Ministry, Continued, Chapter 2, Theologian and Shepherd, My Contact with Elder Sophroni and His Words. The first time that I visited the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England, was in 1976, 31 years ago. From then on, I used to go regularly, almost every year, to the monastery to meet the elder and to talk to him about various issues that were troubling me. Sometimes I would ask him, and he would reply, but mostly there was no need for me to ask him because he raised the subject and brought it to a conclusion. I would listen to him respectfully and with great attention. As soon as the conversation with him came to an end, or as soon as I heard him say something, I would go at once to my room and write it down as I remembered it. Naturally, I recorded his words, which he was accustomed to expound in a spirit of contrition, in abbreviated form. I had collected his words from my contact with him over the years in a file, which I had lost due to my frequent moves. Recently, when looking for something else, I found it. I began to read what I had noted down from time to time, and I realized how rich the words of the great elder of blessed memory were. I wrote them out to see to what extent and in what way they could be put to good use. I felt that I did not have to I didn't have the right to keep them in obscurity. That servant was punished, quote, who had received one talent and went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money, end of quote, Matthew twenty five eighteen. I too fear this punishment. For th that reason, I want to share with readers the spiritual wealth that I unworthily received. Here, I must make two essential class of clarifications. The first is, that the words spoken to me by the elder were what he had to say to me as personal guidance on personal matters, as well as on pastoral and theological problems that were of concern to me at that time. The saints, as he used to say to himself, receive assurance from God about what they should say on each occasion to a particular individual. Sometimes he would speak from personal experience and sometimes by God's illumination. I do not know to what extent the things that he said to me apply to everyone or are valid for everyone. They are set out here to show one perspective and to help to provide for anyone who needs it. The second is that the ever-memorable elder's words are recorded as I wrote them down after the conversation or discussion that I had with him. This is more or less how the collection of the sayings of the fathers... was compiled. There are very likely gaps in the expression in some places, which are my fault, as I wrote down the basic points at the time and left out the detail. So if there is any lack of clarity in the words or any misinterpretation, this should be attributed to me and is connected with how intensely I was paying attention. My memory and my spiritual state at this time is not due to the elder. Be that as it may, these words clearly reveal the elder's depth, his love, and his powerful personality. I feel that what I received from him, which formed my theological frame of reference, 
is equivalent to having studied at a school of empirical theology, superior to any academic faculty, with a wise and experienced professor who had suffered and learnt divine things and subsequently taught the knowledge of God, the Word of God, and not words about God. His theology was a narrative. He would relate what he had seen and heard during his revelational experience. I glorify God for this gift. When someone reads the words of the elders, such as those which I have preserved and record below, he sees a man whose noose clung to God and who spoke about the spiritual life and even about ecclesiastical and social matters from this perspective. It is also particularly impressive that although the elder went through many fluctuations in his life, the experience of hell and paradise, the remembrance of death and his resurrection, the sense of the abyss, but also the experience of the knowledge of God, all the same, his spoken word was calm and his theology reflected peace and set the soul of the one with whom he was speaking completely at ease. In general, as the reader will ascertain in this second part of the book, his words are the crystallization of empirical knowledge of God, an expression of love, peace, and meekness, the distillation of long-standing and complete knowledge of God. Each time Elder Sophroni's words are quoted, they will be preceded by a short introduction setting out how and where the meeting with the Elder took place, and a general description of the atmosphere that prevailed during the discussion. In this way, instead of bare words, his words will be placed within the context in which they were spoken. 1976 From 1964 to 1968, I studied at the theological school in Thessaloniki. I regarded this as a particular blessing because at that time, that theological school was regarded as patristic since all the professors were working on the fathers of the church particularly on the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas. Young academic theologians under the guidance of Professor Paniotis Christou were involved in editing the critical edition of the works of St. Gregory Palamas. The fact that Roman Byzantine Thessaloniki and the theological school were near the holy mountain helped towards this end. It was natural that I should be integrated into this atmosphere, I enjoyed the divine liturgies and the services in the Byzantine churches of the city, as well as being taught from the works of the Holy Fathers of the Church. In this context, I read nearly all the works of St. Gregory the Theologian and of St. Gregory Palamas, which introduced me to the niptic hesychistic tradition of the Church. At the same time as my studies at the theological school, I regularly visited the Holy Mountain especially during the summer. Under the supervision of Professor Paniotis Christos, I worked with a team of students for a whole summer in the libraries of the monasteries of the Holy Mountain. After work, whenever the opportunity arose, the other students and I would race like thirsty deer to other monasteries, to Skeets and the desert of the Holy Mountain. We relished the long vigils and services the encounters with simple monks, the long walks along blessed pathways. A spiritual vacuum was created within me, however, for which I myself was to blame. On the one hand, I was reading the works of the Holy Fathers with their amazing theology, and on the other, I was meeting ascetics 
on the holy mountain with great humility, simplicity, and freedom, but who did not express this theology that I had found in the writings of the Holy Fathers, at least as far as I could see. At that time, there were also various problems in the ecclesiastical administration. In 1967, Archimandrite Hieronymus Kotsonis, professor of the Theological School of Thessaloniki, took over as Archbishop of Athens. He was chosen by an unelected synod, and there was discontent and reaction from other bishops. Thus I saw a divergence between the theology that I was being taught at university, the simple life of ascetic monks, and the meddlesome ecclesiastical administration full of passions. This divergence intensified in the early 1970s, when I was ordained to the clergy. I would read the niptic texts of the Holy Fathers, such as the works of St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, particularly a handbook of spiritual counsel, the guarding of the five senses, and the commentary on canons of the great feasts. However, at that time, many people's opposition to Archbishop Eronimos of Athens was growing. The culmination with his resignation as Archbishop, the election of a new Archbishop, Seraphim from Ionia, the enthronement of 12 bishops in 1974, the election of new bishops, and the associated ecclesiastical conflict after the change of regime in Greece. I was living in a curious state. On the one hand, the writings of the Holy Fathers revealed a church that was the body of Christ and a communion of deification, but on the other hand, I saw a church dominated by passions, conflicts, and overbearing tendencies. All this discord caused me distress at the beginning of my ecclesiastical ministry. Certainly, my metropolitan, the ever-memorable Bishop Kalinikos of Edessa, Pella, and Almopia, restored equilibrium in very many respects because I saw in him a humble bishop with a patristic approach and an ecclesiastical consciousness who lived like an ascetic and did not get involved in ecclesiastical controversies. Nevertheless, the whole atmosphere that prevailed in the church raised various serious questions within me. I would ask myself, quote, Where is it expressed that the church is the body of Christ in a communion of deification? How can passions be justified in a church that teaches the niptic hesychistic tradition? Why can theology not be linked with the pastoral ministry, and sometimes there is theology that does not exercise a pastoral ministry, and sometimes pastoral care that does not theologize? How is the hesychistic niptic tradition linked with theology? Why are there no fathers of the church today, as in the past, there was St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Theologian, St. Gregory Palamas, and so on. Has the patristic tradition disappeared? And many similar questions. At that time, in 1973, Archimandrite Sophroni's book, Start Silouan the Athenite, was published and circulated in Greek. I was given it as a gift. On reading the title, I said to myself, one of many books that are in circulation. Everyone is writing about monks and elders. Here's an Archimandrite writing about some monk I have never heard of. 
I began, however, to read it. It made a great impression on me. I realized that this book was an answer to the questions that were bothering me because it brought together theology and the monastic life, hesychism and the sacramental life, asceticism and the orthodox ethos. I thought that the author must be an excellent theologian and priest. I had actually heard of him in 1963 when someone I knew was studying in London and used to visit the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex where Archimandrite Sophroni was abbot. Full of the questions mentioned above and impressed by reading the book about Starat Silouan, I decided to visit the monastery in Essex and to meet Starat Silouan's disciple, the author of the book about him. Naturally, when I met him, as I shall record below, I realized that he was what I was looking for. He brought together in himself all three elements. He was an empirical theologian, a great hesychist, and a discerning spiritual father, full of affection and love. After various adventures, which this is not the place to mention, I visited the monastery of St. John the Baptist, Essex, England, in June 1976. I asked the abbot, Archimandrite Kiro, Father Sophroni had stepped down from being abbot, to let me stay a few days at the monastery. He consented, and I stayed with them for about a month and a half. The day I arrived at the monastery, I inquired after Father Sophroni, and they told me that he was away from the monastery and would return in a week's time. So, before I met Father Sophroni, I spent the first week in the spiritual atmosphere which he had created in his monastery. I experienced three things with great intensity. The first was the daily services. Accustomed to the festive services of Vespers and Matins, which I had taken part until until then, I was deeply impressed by the way in which the services were held there. Because the monks were of different nationalities, and because the elder wanted to introduce them to noetic prayer, the church services took the form of the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, in the small chapel in the main building of the monastery. The main building, the old rectory, was not built to serve as a monastery, but as a house. And they had bought it and turned it into a monastery. It was a building with two stories, ground floor and the first floor. On entering the building, one saw the kitchen to the left, the larder, and the two refectories. To the right was a hall, and then a large room, which had been converted into a chapel. Next to it was the office where the elder heard confessions and received visitors. On the first floor of the building were the cells where the monks lived, and two rooms in which guests stayed. The elder's bungalow was on the other side of the monastery, next to the garden where they grew various vegetables. Matins and vespers each lasted about two hours. The monks would say the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon us. Out loud in turn, each in his own language, surrounded by profound silence and in the dark. A complete typicon had taken shape with the Jesus prayer. I remember that the first time that I had experienced this service, I almost lost my bearings. When I came out of church, I did not know where to go. Every day, I would relish the Jesus prayer spiritually. 
I had heard on the holy mountain that monks performed their prayer rule and that we all ought to say the Jesus prayer, but it was the first time that I had experienced it in practice. I felt like a medical student who is taught theoretical subjects at university, but afterwards has to do laboratory work. I regarded these church services as a spiritual lab laboratory of theology. My second experience was the divine liturgies, which took place in this contrite atmosphere. Every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, the divine liturgy was celebrated in the small chapel of St. John the Baptist, and every Sunday in All Saints Church, which was one or two kilometers further down the road from the monastery. It had been ceded to them for that purpose, because many pilgrims used to come, and the small chapel of the monastery was too small. I experienced the divine liturgy in a hesychistic atmosphere. The way it was celebrated at the monastery bore no relation to how it was celebrated in the noisy environment of the parish churches with which I was familiar. The third thing that I experienced was daily life at the monastery. I asked them to regard me as a monk of the monastery, so all week I worked with the other monks. At that time, the building that was to house a refectory and kitchen on the ground floor and a library and other rooms on the first floor was under construction. I carried cement, lugged bricks, and helped the workmen on the construction. I cut grass, helping with buying provisions for the monastery, helped to make incense, and so on. In almost all these jobs, I was helping Father Zacharias. After I had stayed at the monastery for a week, Father Sofroni returned from his journey. I waited with great anxiety to meet him. I was not present when he arrived, but I saw him at a distance, standing between the main buildings and the new building, talking to the monks. I approached full of awe and respect and asked for his blessing. The elder was very agreeable. He looked at me with his penetrating eyes and said something to Father Kirill. I found out later that he had said, He looks like Anthony Bloom. From then on, I met the elder every day in the monastery refectory, at the Divine Liturgy and on his daily walks. I always approached him respect, very respectfully, but he too, because he was distressed and if people went to see him believing that they would meet a saint, would find ways of making the encounter pleasant by telling them a relevant antidote or saying something amusing. This is how all the saints behave. The truth is that at first I, I scrutinized him from the outside and tried to see his inner world as well. The elder was 80 years old at that time, but in relatively good health. He celebrated the liturgy every Sunday and took part in the liturgies held on weekdays, Saturdays, and feast days. He was of medium height with an upright posture, despite having a problem with his back. He held a small walking stick to help him. His gait combined majesty with asceticism. He walked nobly without affectation, but also with ascetic humility. When one saw the elder walking along the road, one saw nobility combined with the asceticism of the hermit. His eyes were blue and his beard and his hair, which fell lightly on his shoulders, were pure white. His face was cheerful, but also pensive. His voice was low-pitched, and he spoke slowly, clearly, and contritely. When he laughed, he laughed wholeheartedly. However, he would stop 
short immediately saying da in Russian and continued the conversation seriously. He was deeply pensive, but at the same time pleasant. These two characteristics revealed his ascetic personality and the depth of his heart because his personality was free from self-centered seriousness and impudent frivolity. In general, his face showed the depth of his inner world. He always wore a small cross, a treasure, on a simple chain. In the West, the Orthodox clergy usually wear crosses so that people can distinguish them from Jews and Muslims. After a few days, I asked him to appoint a day when I could talk to him about various matters that were preoccupying me. The elder's basic principle, as has already been mentioned, was that the pilgrim should enter into the atmosphere of the monastery, benefit from it, and be aware of an inner change, and then talk to him. The meeting would often take place on the day before the visitor's departure. To be sure, this differed according to needs and customs. The whole atmosphere prevailing in the monastery was extremely contrite and blessed. No one could fail to be changed by what he felt. The daily services with the Jesus prayer, the divine liturgies full of contrition, contact with the monks who never criticized anyone, but above all the presence of Father Sophroni opened up spiritual depths. A priest who had come to visit, Father Simeon Krayalopoulos, diagnosed this from the first day and told me that it was due to profound the profound personality of Father Sophroni. One day, the elder came out of his bungalow for his usual walk. He met me on the path and said, Let's have a discussion as we walk along, adding humorously, Let's be peripatetic philosophers. We began walking along the lane from the monastery towards All Saints Church. This was a narrow, asphalted road wide enough for one car. Two small cars could pass each other with difficulty. To the right and left, there was abundant vegetation, nettles, and other greenery. At first, I asked a question. He gave the relevant answer and proceeded from one subject to another, as if he had taken an X-ray of the problems and questions that I had inside me. So the first lessons that I learnt from the elder were on the road, which was symbolic because for me he really did become the path to truth. As will become clear below, I found united in his person the hermit monk, the theologian and father of the church, and the man of the church. In other words, in him the niptic and hesychistic tradition, orthodox theology and ecclesiastical life came together. We spoke in Greek, which he had learnt when he was a monk on the holy mountain. According to what I was told, he learnt Greek from Metropolitan Herotheus of Melitopolis, who had retired to the holy mountain. When he began the first lessons, in his effort to remember the words, grammar, and syntax, he sensed that his noose, which had previously been in his heart through penitent prayer, ascended to his reason. Then he realized that his noose had been for many years in his heart. In fact, one day, although he could see two monks arguing, he did not hear what they were saying, because his noose was in his heart. Thus he understood the movements of his noose. The Metropolitan once asked him to write something. The elder had learned 
classical Greek well with his aptitude for languages, but he also had great spiritual experience and a patristic approach. As a result, what he wrote resembled a patristic text. The Metropolitan thought that he had copied out something written by one of the fathers of the church and remarked to him that he should write his own text and not copy out the words of the fathers. Certainly he knew and used classical Greek very well because he had lived for many years in the West. However, he spoke Russian, French, and English more often, so he would forget some Greek words. During the conversation, he would try to be precise. Searching to find a certain word, he actually said, Unfortunately, speaking other languages, I forget the best language in the world, which is Greek. The Greeks are aristocrats. This is what he told me at our first meeting. The beginning of the spiritual life is a sense of sinfulness. One feels that one is worse than the animal and unworthy of God's love. This is a natural, normal state inspired by God's grace. It is an experience of hell, which is the negative vision of the uncreated light. Through the light of God we see our condition, just as the image on a transparency is projected when there is a light behind it. We should, we should be uneasy when we do not sense the passions that exist within us. The words, Keep your mind in hell and despair not, were revealed to star at Siloan. By the grace of God, we sense hell and its flames, not only in our soul but also in our body. This is a rare gift of God. It is a, a law of the spiritual life that we first experience God negatively as fire, and then positively as light. All the great saints passed through this fire. We remain there long, as long as we can bear it on the borders of hell. When despair comes, we withdraw for a while with our hope in God. The flames of hell burn up the passions, and this fire is changed into divine light. Noetic prayer helps us descend to the depths of our being and to find our deep heart. And then profound repentance begins. Then the heart becomes very sensitive. The Divine Liturgy, however, helps us to enter into the whole tragedy of humanity and to pray for people's suffering. We live Christ's prayer in Gethsemane and His crucifixion on Golgotha. The Divine Liturgy helps us to penetrate into the whole of humankind and to pray for the departed and for sinners. The spirit of the Divine Liturgy is the spirit of sacrificial love, the depth of Christ's self-emptying and his prayer in Gethsemane, which we should imitate. The teaching about the person is important for our era. Many people talk about the person in a philosophical, psychological, or personalistic way. The person, however, is a revelation by God to man. Through God's revelation and manifestation, man senses that God is person, but man himself is also a person and comes into contact with God person to person. This hypostatic principle, which is present within us from our conception, is activated by God's revelation, by theoria of the uncreated light, and this is the basis of the ascetic and spiritual life. The fathers prefer to speak about the hypostasis rather than the person, 
because the word person can lead to an external view of the concept of the person and to personalism. The hypostatic path is the route to participation in the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We walk along this path with the mysteries and with asceticism. As I mentioned earlier, I stayed at the monastery for about a month and a half, taking part in all the work and services. I would often see the elder at the services and divine liturgies. I concelebrated with him, and I perceived how great a saint celebrates the liturgy. A few days before my departure, I asked him completely spontaneously to give me a piece of the relics of Starat Silouan, which Father Sophroni had taken after the exhumation of his relics and kept in the sanctuary of the chapel. It should be noted that St. Silouan had not yet been included in the church's calendar of saints. Father Sophroni responded with delight. He was very pleased because I had told him that in Edessa we held a vigil every month and at the appropriate point in the service we would read the writings of St. Silouan. I regarded it as a special blessing from God that he himself gave me a part of St. Silouan's relics. The day before I had left, I asked the elder for another meeting. This time the meeting took place in the office next to the chapel of St. John the Baptist. With all the ritual which the elder observed on such occasions, even when there was only going to be a discussion, we would, he would stand upright in front of the chair behind the desk, lift up his head to heaven and close his eyes, saying the prayer, Heavenly King and Comforter, and then after making the sign of the cross, he would sit down and begin the discussion with solemnity that I have hardly ever encountered. The discussion did not take place in the usual worldly manner. Mostly, I asked a simple question, and he began to reply without me interrupting. Sometimes he would begin the discussion prompted by various things. For example, he expressed his pleasure at the communication between us and said that when this communication takes place, in the Holy Spirit, it becomes a prophetic event. In this last discussion, he told me the following. Many theologians talk about deification in the abstract. What is important is to keep Christ's commandments. In this way, we arrive at deification and the light. Dispassion is when Christ comes into our soul and body. Struggles and battles begin after the first visitation of divine grace. It needs a long time for someone to assimilate the first grace that he received. And this assimilation comes through patience and fortitude in periods when divine grace is withdrawn. We recognize the visitation of divine grace from contrition, the sense of repentance and weeping. Joy comes immediately afterwards. The vision of the uncreated light comes negatively in the beginning with tears and weeping, the sense of hell because we see our passions. This is the start of the spiritual life. Those with many years' experience feel the opposite after supplicatory prayer and the visitation of divine grace. In other words, first they taste the joy of the visitation of divine grace, and then come the tears and mourning. This happens after... 25 years 
a fruitful struggle as a Christian. We must be careful about how we live in the world, especially we monks and clergy. We should pray continuously, even when walking along the road. We should say, Lord Jesus Christ, save thy world and me. We should also say the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, for a short time in the morning and a short time in the evening. We should not, however, specify from the outset how long the time of the prayer will last, lest it become a habit. We should pray according to the fervor and appetite that is created, according to our inspiration. Then the time spent will increase day by day. When we repeat the Jesus prayer, all our passions will be revealed, because then the devil makes... 1976 continued. When we repeat the Jesus prayer, all our passions will be revealed, because then the devil makes war on us at our weak points in order to distract our news from prayer. Prayer stirs up a tempest of temptations and attacks from the devil, who attempts to distract our news from prayer. Thoughts that come during prayer indicate the stronger passions that dominate us. Subsequently, we have to struggle and strive for these specific passions to be cured. Above all, we should confess them to our spiritual father and seek guidance in order to heal them. In this way, prayer uncovers the passions and repentance according to grace cures them. In the morning, we should pray that God will give us illumination as to how to answer the questions that people will ask us and how we should respond to the problems that will arise during the day. Nothing can be done without God's grace. Then we should read the Holy Scripture and patristic books. We should read books that lead to contrition, not books that provide intellectual knowledge. Sometimes a walk or a rest are also necessary. There are people who cannot read the writings of St. Simeon the New Theologian because they become discouraged. I recommend to beginners that they read the instructions of Abba Dorotheus, which are very practical. We need to teach our noose to attach itself somewhere, to God, to our brethren, to our spiritual work, and not let it wander about as it wants under the influence and sway of the passions. Then the noose learns to cleave to God, and wherever we lead it, but carnal desires also wither away. As a consequence, the body is subject to the spirit. Something similar, though not identical, happens in the case of those who work with their reason academics, philosophers, and artists. We, however, attach our noose to God. Those who do physical work, by contrast, have more carnal temptations. For someone who struggles, the battle with the flesh ceases at about 32 or 35 years of age. I do not know how this happens, but it does. Now and again there will be nocturnal emissions, but without pleasure. However, if someone has gone through various fallen carnal states, the cure will take longer and will be achieved after much struggle. Monks are forbidden to cry about matters to do with human life, death, lack of necessities. Tears are good for a monk if he weeps for his sins. Even then, however, he ought not to think about the cause of the tears, 
lest a hint of pride or self-esteem may perhaps arise. Through humility alone we are saved, and through pride alone we are destroyed. We understand that tears are not sentimental when they produce a sense of contrition and repentance. When pride and a vain thought come at the same time as the tears, the tears of divine grace cease. Great care is needed with regard to judging bishops. We do not know exactly the conditions under which they live. It is absolutely certain on the basis of experience that we shall be judged for whatever we judge, and we shall fall in the same way. There is a difference between judging and condemning, but sometimes they are identical. When we judge from compassion, from suffering, and not negatively, this is simply judgment and not condemnation. It is judgment and not condemnation when parents ask, Why does our child commit that sin? This is judgment because it is said with profound suffering. It is not condemnation. Psychology and the spiritual life have different starting points. Their anthropology is different. However, we cannot overlook psychology, which mainly helps people who are atheists and do not want to use the hesychistic tradition of the church. It is a remedy for people who are far from the living God and are in terrible torment. It should be used discreetly and wisely. Medication with help will may help the body that has suffered serious harm from various problems, but the cure will come through man's regeneration by the grace of God. The soul's wounds are cured by means of prayer. On the morning of the day I was to depart for the airport, the monks asked me, what time exactly I would leave the monastery. At the specific, specified time, the elder called all the brethren to the church, and a special service was held for a brother setting out on a journey. After that, he and all the fathers embraced me. As the car was leaving, the elder and the brethren came out onto the road and waved goodbye with their hands, some with their handkerchiefs as well, until the car turned to the right after five or six hundred meters, and disappeared from sight. It was a moving scene, and a set, set a seal on the whole blessed way of life that I had enjoyed during those days at the monastery of St. John the Baptist. I recorded my impressions from this first visit to the monastery in an article entitled Orthodox Presence that was published in the periodical Parish Priest and was included in the book Time to Act. Reading this text, one sees the powerful experiences that I lived through that summer at the Monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex. These impressions are also clear from a letter which I sent to the abbot of the monastery, Archimandrite Kirill, and which is quoted below. Quote, Edessa, July 22, 1976. Dear Brother in Christ, Father Kirill, your blessing with the help of Holy God, and by your prayers, I returned safely to Edessa last week. My impressions from my recent visit to your blessed monastery still remain fresh. I cannot conceal from you that I was very deeply moved. These are not exaggerated words or rhetorical phrases or a wrong, mistaken evaluation of things, but the reality. Among you I passed the finest moments of my life. I cannot say more but I want you to believe me 
that my stay at your monastery is linked with powerful and sacred experiences, dynamic decisions, amazing occurrences. I think that perhaps it is impossible for you to conceive what you gave me and what spiritual nourishment I received every day by the energy of the Holy Spirit. Later on after my departure, when I tried to recall and assimilate your love and affection, I was stunned. On account of your modesty, you would prefer not to read the above, and perhaps you regard it as a consequence of the Greek tendency to praise. You should be aware, however, that these are absolutely sincere words, without the least hypocrisy, with gratitude, which gratitude imposes, for this is natural, Peter of Damascus, although they are based upon many phrases from Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who was truly the cultivator of truth and loved Christ madly. Let chapter 1 of his second epistle to the Thessalonians serve as an example. Thus, I give thanks with all my heart for the love that you showed me, of which I was unworthy. Please pray for me that the Lord God may keep me in constant repentance and profoundest humility, that I may turn to good account everything that I experienced among you. I greatly desire, Father, to acquire and to retain the blessed, joyful sorrow of holy contrition, John Climacus, since I am clearly aware that it is a divine fire that melts mountains and rocks and levels all things and transforms them into gardens of paradise and changes the souls that receive it. In their midst it becomes a flowing fountain, water of life that constantly leaps and bounds, that waters them abundantly and flows down as from a reservoir to those that are near and those that are far off, and fills to overflowing the souls that receive the words with faith. Simeon the New Theologian For this reason I also fervently entreat you to pray to the Lord that my heart may be filled with this holy contrition, which is undistracted pain of soul, St. John Climacus, and that I may thus live the heaven of the heart. I thank all the brethren because they bore with me and ministered to me in the name of Jesus Christ. I must confess that I bothered Father Zosimus, most of all with my sometimes excessive requests. I thank everyone wholeheartedly and I ask you to forgive me if I made any omissions or mistakes. We do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Colossians 1, 9-11 Please give, me, give my respects to the elder and my love in Christ to the brethren. Last Sunday I was with you all day long. With the love of Christ, signed Archimandrite Herotheus Vlachos. Footnote, Father Zosimus is now Archimandrite Zacharias. 1977 In 1977, I did not visit the monastery, although I was in constant touch, especially with Father Zacharias, a brother of the monastery. That summer, very much impressed by the service with the Jesus Prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, 
which I had experienced at the monastery in Essex, I went round a number of monasteries, skeets and cells in the desert of the holy mountain, asking many monks about the power and energy of the Jesus prayer. I had already taken practical lessons the previous summer at the monastery in Essex. As a result, I approached the holy mountain from another perspective. I came to know the deeper aspect of the holy mountain, its secret heartbeat, which is the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. My visit to the holy mountain after that year, after the preliminary training that I had received at the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, was truly blessed. I met many fathers whom I asked about the Jesus prayer, the heart, the noose, the vision of God, the knowledge of God, and so on. It really was a summer full of spiritual blessings. I heard words of God that issued from the spiritual experience of the elders. I felt like those pilgrims who used to ask the Desert Fathers questions, and from their answers, the sayings of the Fathers was compiled. That year I visited the Holy Mountain three times after Easter during Bright Week, in June, and at Christmas. Bright Week My first visit took place in Bright Week, as the desire to visit the places where St. Siloan and Father Sophroni had lived kindled within me. First of all, I visited the monastery of St. Pantalemon, the Russian monastery. I had read about the life of St. Siloan in the book of Father Sophroni had written, and I had heard a lot at the monastery in Essex. I entered the Cathilokon, the main church of the monastery, where these two blessed elders prayed and kept vigil. I walked on my own, though accompanied by the Jesus prayer, along the path that St. Siloan used to take from the harbor to the mill, loaded with sacks, but also with repentance and love for God. I went into the church of the prophet Elijah, where St. Siloan saw the living God to the right of the royal doors, in place of the icon of Christ. I went into the monastery refectory, where God's grace visited St. Siloan for a second time, similar to the first, while he was serving. I went to the church of the protecting veil and venerated the sacred skull of St. Siloan that is kept there. Altogether, I went reverently round the whole of the monastery. In the monastery of St. Pantalemon, I also sensed the presence of Father Sophroni. I visited his cell, where, according to his own account, he had experiences of the uncreated light, as well as the workshop of the monastery, especially the balcony facing the sea, where in the evening the elder had many conversations on spiritual subjects with St. Siloan. All in all, while I was staying at the monastery of St. Pantalemon, I was intensely conscious of the presence of these two blessed ascetics. Next, I set out for the desert of the Holy Mountain, following in the steps of Father Sophroni. I climbed up to his cell in Kurulia. They call it Dread Kurulia, and so it is. Many people have been impressed by this location. According to Professor Panayotis Christou of Blessed Memory, Kurulia symbolizes the desert of Athos and is a rocky, steep place with cave-like hermitages of hesychists set into the face of the cliff. It is called Kurulia on account of a pulley, Kuruli in Greek, 
which the ascetics in the last hermitage nearest the sea had installed, to help them to let down a basket to passing boats and to draw up a little bread and any other food that the fishermen or passengers had available, having received payment in advance in the form of hermit's handiwork that was in the basket. The ever-memorable Fotis Cantiglu gives a fine description of these hermitages. He saw them as seagulls' nests and hiding places, and writes that climbing up is a very bold decision. At that time, a Serbian ascetic, Father Stephen, was living in the hermitage where the elder used to live. Some regarded him as deluded, but when one approached him, one saw a monk full of joy and remarkable for his simplicity. That place impressed me. I observed the cave-like hermitage, but in my mind I tried to go back nearly half a century to the time when Father Sofroni was living there as an ascetic. I saw a cave that had water, and in the narrow external part a small whitewashed building had been constructed with a small chapel. Outside, Father Stephen was cultivating a garden with vegetables and flowers. Naturally, the soil had been brought from somewhere else. Father Sofroni lived here for about four years, two years as a hero deacon and two years as a priest, in complete isolation and intense repentance, mourning, thirst for God, prayer, and experiences of divine vision. It was the period of the Second World War, and the elder lived the global tragedy and prayed for the whole world. Later, I read a description of this location by an artist, M.A. Paltov, <clears throat> which was published in the periodical Sun in 1950. Paltov had visited Father Sofroni in Kurulia a few years previously and described both the surroundings and his overnight stay there. Because when this article was published, Father Sofroni was living in Paris, Poltov changed his name in the description and called him Athanasios instead of Sofroni. I quote the text so that we may acquire a sense of those hermitages and some awareness of the elder's life in the desert. Excerpt from M. A. Poltov. Quote, it began to grow dark when, after a laborious all-day journey, I descended a steep and dangerous pathway and drew near to the caves where the hermits spend their whole lives. I was already moving among the shadowy and rugged rocks upon which the waves of the sea were beating. The sight of the bare rocks with the very few trees here and there, the boundless sea, the sound of the breaking waves in the hermit's caves that could be discerned in the crevices constitute a spectacle as unimaginably magnificent as it is wild. I approached with difficulty. These caves were not easy to reach. Some of them are on the edge of an absolutely sheer cliff, in the side of which paths have been carved out just wide enough to hold a man's foot and the walker holds a chain fixed along the whole of its length. If at that moment he loses his calm or is seized by vertigo, he will fall onto the stony shore from a height of 
about 100 to 150 meters and be dashed to pieces. Exposed to all the winds and beaten by raging waves, this inhospitable shore seems to symbolize an austere and hard way of life. Throughout the summer, the lack of any kind of vegetation causes unimaginable heat. The sun beats down all day long on these bare stones which seem to be aflame. In the winter, the uninterrupted rainfall sweeps away earth and stones, undermines the grounds, and floods all the hollows. One wonders with amazement how these men managed to construct their hermitages there and what means they used. Of what do these men's dwellings consist? Very simply, a cave in the rock to which has been added a wooden hut covered with zinc sheeting. No vegetation, no garden produce, in contrast with the abundant greenery of the rest of the peninsula of Manathos. The little wharf for boats to approach is usually inaccessible due to wind and rough sea. All the same, it is impossible for the visitor not to feel that this place embodies an ideal and that there is something interesting and attractive about it. One senses that there is some sort of mystery in the soul and mind of those who have chosen to spend their whole lives in this place, far from the world, with real fasting and deprivation for the sole purpose of communicating with the Most High. What are they thinking of, I wonder? The desire to find out something brought me to the door of a hermit. It was a small wooden hermitage with one inner partition and a small yard with a natural stone wall and a small tree in the middle. A narrow pipe resting on the tree brings the hermit potable rainwater from a natural reservoir a little higher up. During long periods of drought, even this small quantity of water often fails. An elderly monk with a very sad expression, thin and wrapped in rags, opened the door to me. I asked him where the hermitage of Father Athanasios, note Father Sophroni, was, whom I wanted to see. Without asking anything at all, he took me where I wanted to go. Father Athanasios was standing at the outer door. This is not his name, but out of respect for his desire to sever every link with the world, I shall call him Athanasios. A refined and courteous young man, fair-haired, slim, pale, and with wonderful blue eyes. Welcome, he said to me and held out his hand. Come in. His hermitage was no different from the others that I have described. It is in a steep place, and the view of the horizon are unimaginably magnificent. The pipe from his water supply reservoir was also resting on a small tree and on empty tin cans. A small stone-built oven served as a kitchen, two seats in the yard, and a small bench as a table. On the right, the opening of the cave, which was also the last resting place of the previous inhabitant. In that cleft in the rock, Father Athanasios will also end his life when God calls him to himself. Sit down, he said, apologizing for not being able to receive me in better fashion. We are unaccustomed to visitors. I had heard about this man long before. A highly cultured and talented painter, he speaks many languages. My host 
had at one time had excellent painting exhibitions in Paris. He had lived for art and was looking for a new stage in painting. He was inclined to read religious books, and one day he felt, note Palto's opinion, that he had discovered in these books the path that he should follow. He did not delay. At once to the holy mountain, initially a novice, he became a monk and lived in the monastery. But life in the monastery did not satisfy him. He found it very worldly. He became a hermit. This was the man I was talking to, who was standing before me with a smile on his lips. There was nothing theatrical, nothing artificial about him. You must be hungry, he said. Let me offer you something. I declined and apologized for disturbing him by arriving suddenly and at such an unsuitable time. You did well to come. I want you to eat something. He hung a small oil lamp on the wire, and its faint light he went to his fireplace where he heated a small pot containing a strange concoction. It was sesame paste, which, together with a little bread, constituted our supper for that evening. We talked like friends for a long time. It was already two hours after midnight, and yet I did not feel in the least tired, even though I had been walking all day. I was pleased to be given the opportunity to find out something about how people like these think. Father Athanasius had guessed this as soon as I arrived. You would like, he said, to find out about things beyond the limits of worldly life. That's true, I replied. I wanted to ask you certain things. For instance, Father Athanasios, have you found what you were looking for out here? Certainly, he replied. I am absolutely convinced of that. Very well. Were you a talented painter so aware of the voice of God that you came here? Answer, that happened gradually without my realizing it. Until then, I only lived for art. I wanted art to return to the era of the Renaissance. I realized this was impossible, and gradually I changed direction by reading religious books. I imagined, note an attempt to hide himself, that I was enlightened about the way that I should follow, and here I am. Have you completely abandoned painting? Yes, completely, and I have not picked up a paintbrush for years. I am satisfied by my new life. Well, this conversation lasted nearly until dawn. I was so influenced by the surroundings that I thought that I discerned in the noise of the waves invisible beings who were near to us. I wanted to find out how he lived during the autumn and the winter. On occasion, he told me, he cannot stand upright on account of the strong wind. The sea in that area is particularly wild and dangerous. Sometimes the roof is torn off by the gale. There have been quite a few accidents. The hermits are provided with supplies by small boats, which put the scanty food, bread, and tea into the baskets that hang from the rocks, and then the hermits draw them up. The hermit dies inside his hermitage, and his body is buried there by one of the, who will succeed him in that place. I lay down to sleep on a plank spread with a blanket. I had such vivid impressions that I did not sleep at all until daybreak when I had to leave because my boat with my luggage was waiting for me, and when the sun rose, the wind would begin to blow, so it would be difficult to leave. I pressed the hand of 
the one I had been speaking to, and he thanked me sincerely for visiting him. May God be with you, he said. The boat pulled away from the rock, and for a long time I looked at the wild and magnificent sight of the inhospitable shore on which the slim outline of the hermit could still be distinguished. End of excerpt. I have read such descriptions of Karulia in various texts from the Holy Mountain and elsewhere, and I have experienced it for myself. How many times have I walked along the narrow paths up from the wharf, and how many times have I come down from Katunakia to Karulia with the fear of God, searching, thirsting, and praying in the unbearable heat of summer. There one feels that life and death are transcended, there one meets ascetics whose theology is written in their bodies. From them, I heard words of life. 1977 continued. After Karulia, I visited the cave of the Holy Trinity near the monastery of St. Paul. Here, too, I followed in the elder's steps. From the Russian monastery, he had gone for about four years to Karulia, and then for about three years, to the Cave of the Holy Trinity. This cave is also visible from the sea, in between the monastery of St. Paul and Nuskeet, when one is traveling by boat. I climbed up there along a difficult, overgrown path, from near the small harbor of the monastery of St. Paul. I walked up this path on my own with the Jesus Prayer. As soon as I reached it, I stood reverently for a while and prayed, asking for the elders' prayers. Then I went inside. It is a cave concealed externally by two small rooms and a chapel. This small building and its roof covered the cave. The location is amazing and uniquely suited to the eremitical way of life and repentance. I sat there for a long time praying. I sought the elders' prayers. To be sure, this cave-like cell seemed to be abandoned, the wind that was blowing at that time rattled the windows and doors. At the monastery of St. Paul, I met the former abbot, Father Andreas, and the librarian, Father Theodosius, who had known Father Sophroni and expressed their reverence and respect for this devout, spiritual, modest, and most courteous hieromonk. At Nuskeet, I met Father Theophylactos, a most devout monk and bearer of the hesychistic tradition, who was a disciple of the eminent Archimandrite Joachim Spetsersis, who lived in the Nuskeet at the end of his life, and like another Abazosimus, wrote the book about the female hermit Photini, as well as publishing the ascetical works of St. Isaac the Syrian. Father Theophylactos had also been connected with Elder Joseph, the cave dweller and hesychist and those with him and he too practiced noetic prayer he greatly revered the holy unmercenary physicians whose icon he had in his cell he prayed to them to send him a little oil because otherwise he would not light their lamp or he would leave them out in the cold to freeze and the holy unmercenary physicians fulfilled his wish. In addition, he besought them to free him from the attacks of the devil when he prayed, as was his custom. 
all night with the prayer rope for people's specific problems. The holy unmercenary physicians obeyed his entreaty. It was Father Theophylactos who used to help Father Sophroni with chanting when he celebrated the liturgy in the chapel of the cave of the Holy Trinity. Father Sophroni writes in his book, quote, When I was in the desert and celebrated the liturgy on my own, having with me only a monk who used to come in in order to give the responses to the supplications and litanies, to read the epistle and to provide the rest of the participation that was necessary in place of the congregation, then neither I nor that monk ever felt any lack. The whole world was there with us, the world and the Lord, the Lord and eternity. This monk was Father Theophylactos. When I asked him about Father Sophroni, he was so moved that he wept. He asked for information about his life. He told me what Father Sophroni had advised him to do and how he had helped him spiritually to deal with the situation with his elder, preserving his obedience to him, but also expressing the truth. He said to me and again and again, Father Sophroni is a saint and he asked me to give him his respects. Father Sophroni, too, when I told him about Father Theophylactos, was pleased and spoke with love and respect about how devout the monk Theophylactos was. This pilgrimage of mine to the holy mountain, following in the steps of Father Sophroni, was full of spiritual inspiration, especially as it was Eastertide. I returned to Edessa with intense, life-giving memories. June. My second visit that year, 1977, was in June, with the blessing of my elder, the ever-memorable Metropolitan Kalinikos of Edessa, Pella, and Almofia, who followed my progress and quest with love and discretion. This time, I was seeking to find out more about the Jesus Prayer, Noetic Hezekiah, and the vision of the uncreated light from the fathers of the Holy Mountain who experienced these things empirically. My first stop was Elder Paisios, who at that time was living as a monk in the Calivi, the small hermitages of the precious cross, close to the monastery of Stavronakita. I knew him from the past when I used to ask him about issues connected with the spiritual ministry, but now, under the influence of everything I had read about, the works of spiritual vigilance and noetic prayer, and what I had experienced at the monastery in Essex, I was determined to ask him about these matters. The discussion with him was an initiation into mysteries. I have kept notes from this conversation, which I wrote as soon as I left his cell, sitting on a little rock on my way to the monastery of Stavronakita. First of all, he spoke to me about God's noble love towards human beings and the whole of creation. He actually said to me, quote, God is noble even to the devil, but the devil cannot understand it. Ultimately, God puts pressure on the devil. End of quote. I asked him about the essence of the monastic life. He said, the, monks, the monk does not have rights because these belong to God. Afterwards, he told me that we ought to develop our inner life and not stay on the surface. In particular, he mentioned 
that we should live God's righteousness. Quote, purity of the body is not enough. Experience of righteousness is also necessary. The just, but also all those who suffer injustice, are really God's children. End of quote. Monasticism is centered on God and our relationship with him. He said, quote, if, if I go to a military camp and tell them about monasticism, they will all want to be monks. But if they come here, at first the chanting of the palielos in church will fill them with enthusiasm, but later they will prefer the sound of borzukis. Thus, the essence of monasticism is in the heart. It is our responsibility to teach the new generation true monasticism. End of quote. Because he knew the value of obedience, he said, Every elder will answer to God depending on how obedient his spiritual are, children are to him. Naturally, obedience is not imposed tyrannically by the elder on his disciples, but should take place freely. For that reason, he stressed, when monks have an elder who gives them freedom, they have a great responsibility. He also referred to the fact that some monks are not interested in this, their spiritual progress, but devote themselves to construction works. However, monks ought not to build a lot. They should simply repair existing buildings for their needs. He said, today we have cells and a paunch. The discussion turned in a natural way to noetic prayer, which is the essence of the monastic life. He expressed the teaching that prayer issues like a spring from the heart that loves God or feels pain. Quote, prayer does not mean simply praying, nor just that we have a pure noose and do not accept thoughts, but first and foremost that the heart begins to function. End of quote. One must feel this little machine working. However, the heart is one thing and the will is another. As regards what the heart is, he referred to an amusing incident. When an Englishman, without knowing Greek and mostly out of curiosity, visited him to ask what the fathers of the church mean when they write about the heart, Elder Paisios, seeing that he was not really searching, told him, quote, with my English and your Greek, we cannot even find where the bodily heart is. I asked him about the distinction between the noose and reason. He explained it with a simple example. Quote, the reason is like unfermented grape juice and wine, whereas the pure noose is like distilled tispuro. End of quote. I asked him about the headache that comes from attempting to concentrate on the Jesus prayer. He said that when someone tries to concentrate on the Jesus prayer and a headache comes, then this headache during prayer is a sign of a keen sense of honor. So God sees the effort of the child who has a keen sense of honor and blesses him. He says, do not tire yourself. I shall give you what you are looking for. One should be aware that when others rightly complain about us, that does not help in prayer. He said many wise words to me about the spiritual life because prayer develops in the temperate climate of ecclesiastical spiritual life. For instance, he said, quote, God's 
arithmetic is different from man's arithmetic. Four for God is excellent, whereas nine is not excellent. End of quote. When I asked for an explanation, he replied, when someone receives two spiritual gifts from God and doubles them, to four he is given excellent, whereas the one who received five gifts and instead of doubling them to ten, increased them to nine, was not given excellent. He also told me that sometimes thoughts of unbelief are the result of excessive asceticism, and also when someone uses his imagination, he may even fall into heresy and harm the whole church. I asked him about fools for Christ's sake. He mentioned the case of Father Euthemios, who used to live in the area of the great Lavra. Elder Paisios greatly respected and admired him, and he was at a high level of spiritual life. When Father Euthemios went to the monastery of the great Lavra, in order to conceal his virtue, he pretended with shouts and protests that the food that they gave him was not good, so that he would not have to eat it. And he also threw the clean sheets off the bed, so that they put him in an inferior room. And Elder Paisios added humorously, Today, as we are fools in our minds, why should we become fools for Christ's sake? To help me spiritually with related questions that I asked him, he told me about many incidents from the monastic life in the monastery of Konitsa, how the devil wanted to do away with him, his encounter with bears, how he dealt with bodily temptation, as well as various accounts from his time as an ascetic in Sinai. These have been recorded in the book written by Hieromonk Isaac of Blessed Memory about Elder Paisios, and I have written them down in a relevant text. After Elder Paisios, I went up to the monastery of Philotheu to meet Elder Ephrem, the disciple of Elder Joseph the Hezekist and cave dweller. Elder Ephrem was at that time abbot of the monastery of Philotheu, and now lives in America and is the spiritual father of many holy monasteries in the New World. Elder Sophroni greatly respected the ever-memorable Elder Yosif. I asked Father Ephraim about his elder and his way of life. Sweet words flowed from his lips when he spoke about Elder Joseph the Hezekist, about the force that he exercised on himself, about his vigils among the desert rocks, about his noetic prayer and the purity of his noose, his experience of the vision of God and his warfare with the devil. I listened to him with admiration. Most of all, I asked him about the manner in which Elder Joseph practiced noetic prayer. He explained to me the relevant points from his elder's life and teaching. It made a particular impression on me, however, that he dwelt on the way in which he had died. He told me, quote, I have never seen death faced more gallantly. He was waiting for it and he pursued it. End of quote. He related how, when the elder felt something wrong with his heart, he was filled with joy and glorified God. He celebrated the fact, saying, My departure will come from this. His death was truly hezekistic, just as he lived hezekistically. After my departure from the Holy Mountain in the autumn of 1977, to be precise, I wrote the book 
a night in the desert of the holy mountain on the subject of the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, what precedes it and what follows. During those two years, 1976 to 1977, I was living continuously within the current of the Jesus prayer. I heard and read a great deal about it. The book was published in the spring of 1978 anonymously with the initials A.I.V. because I considered that nothing was my own. I was simply conveying and recording this spiritual work. Archimandrite George, abbot of the Monastery of Grigoriu, wrote in the preface to the book, quote, The Lord who loves mankind and who gives us what our soul truly desires has given to A.I.V., the grace to love the spiritual atmosphere of the holy mountain and to hear its mystical heartbeat of the prayerful words, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He has spoken with the holy fathers and has received their blessings. He has heard words spoken of eternal life and out of the fullness of his heart, he offers these conversations to his brethren. Christmas. My third visit to the Holy Mountain that year began on the day after Christmas, when I went to the Monastery of Grigorio to spend two weeks there. Since the Holy Mountain celebrates these feasts with the old calendar, it was two weeks before Christmas, and that year I experienced the days before Christmas and the Feast of the Nativity of Christ for a second time. These blessed impressions will remain unforgettable in my memory. The abbot, Archimandrite George showed me much love and made sure that everything was arranged so that I could live hesychistically. The atmosphere of the monastery also helped in this with young monks who had zeal, but also the fact that there were few pilgrims because it was winter. Apart from the long and splendid services in church which prepared us appropriately for the Christmas feast and discussions with the abbot and the fathers of the monastery on spiritual matters, I experienced the spirit of divine inspiration. Everything spoke to me of God and inspired me to pray. After the services, I would go at once to the cell. Love for God and prayer were kindled by many small things. The quietness of the cell, gazing at the sea, visiting Kathisma, small dependencies of the monastery, reading patristic texts, even lighting the wood-burning stove. Strange, then the trees, the plants, moonlight, rain, wind, and so on. I lived the festive celebration of creation. I visited a cathisma of the monastery high up on the mountain, where there was a monk, and I sensed an, an ineffable fragrance. I asked him what incense he used, and he was surprised, because he had not burnt incense that day. Apparently his prayer emitted this fragrance of grace. The royal hours, vespers on Christmas Eve with the Divine Liturgy of St. Basil the Great, matins in the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom on Christmas Day, the refectory to which we went in the dark before sunrise as laid down in the Tipicon, the reading of St. Gregory the Theologian's homily. All these things were evocative of paradise, a feast of participation in the wedding of the king. I did not want this heavenly banquet to come to an end. After the Divine Liturgy on Christmas Day, I left the Holy Mountain for the world, where they had celebrated the Feast of Theophany.
in some way, I celebrated Christmas, Theophany, and Pascha together. So, in 1977, I did not visit the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, but with the blessing that I had received from Father Sophroni, I visited the holy mountain and came to know its depth. Thus, the monastery in Essex was united with the holy mountain in my being. I felt that what I had experienced at the monastery in Essex, the spirit of Hieromonk Sophroni of the Holy Mountain, which was simultaneously the atmosphere of the life and teaching of St. Siloan the Athenite and the holy ascetic Elder Joseph the Cave Dweller, was a preparatory stage for a better knowledge of the Holy Mountain and its deepest heart. 1978 At Easter in 1978, I visited the Holy Mountain again. From when I was a student in 1965, I had been a humble visitor and pilgrim to the Holy Mountain every year. But from the time when I was ordained to the clergy in 1971, I used to go at least three times a year. I would visit monasteries and skeets, cathismas and small dependencies and hermitages looking for spiritual nourishment. One of the most essential stops for spiritual supplies that Easter was Elder Theocletos of Dionysiu, a spiritual debater, unrivaled in his use of words and expertise and patristic wisdom, and an important figure on the holy mountain. I sought a meeting with him. He had been informed that I was behind the initials A.I.V on the book A Night in the Desert of the Holy Mountain. As soon as he saw me, he said, Are you the culprit? I pretended not to understand, but it was impossible to insist when faced with his torrent of words. He asked me, Who was that hermit to whom you talked? There are many hesychists on the holy mountain, he mentioned a few names, but they do not know about Buddhism, as you write in the book, comparing it with noetic prayer, nor about stoic dispassion. Without waiting for an answer, he went on, I said that the hermit, to whom you spoke was Elder Sophroni in Essex, who knew about transcendental meditation and, no and noetic prayer. He had experience and education and is able to write about hesychism. I listened in silence, neither affirming nor denying. He asked me if I had met Elder Father Sophroni. I answered in the affirmative and told him about it. He began to sing the praises of Father Sophroni. He asked me, with the simplicity of a small child, Has Father Sophroni seen the uncreated light? I answered, Father Theocletos, You have experience and you perceive these things. When you read the book that Father Sophroni wrote about Start Siloan, you must surely have understood that he has seen the uncreated light because otherwise he would not have interpreted the personality of Start Siloan in that way, and also he would not have analyzed such profound subjects with such obvious assurance. He accepted what I said, remarking, If there is a hesychist today who has experienced orthodox hesychism in depth, and most important of all can put it into words and compare it with other traditions, it is Elder Sophroni. He took the opportunity to explain to me in detail that the knowledge of God, according to the Holy Fathers, is not rational, but something that involves the whole of life. It is experience. 
to be a great father, like St. Gregory the Theologian, St. Basil the Great, St. Gre Gregory Palamas, and others who dealt with the heretics of that era, one must have noetic capacity and the vision of God, but also education, that is to say, knowledge of the philosophy used by the heretics. Knowledge of philosophy and the so-called wealth of the mind must be subordinated to holiness. The problem, however, is how they can be subordinated. Perfect purity from passions, or rather the transformation of the passions, is required. The pure heart knows how to discern things and to reject or accept. In reply to a question of mine on the subject, he went on to expound the teaching of St. Maximus the Confessor, saying that the disciple's attitude to his spiritual father ought to be distinguished by respect, fear, and love. Fear without love gives rise to hatred, and love without fear causes audacity. When love is not linked with fear and respect, this is not a healthy spiritual state, but an unhealthy sentimental one. As I was leaving his cell, he pronounced me blessed, because I had been found worthy to meet Father Sophroni, whom, as he said, is higher than St. Siloan. In fact, when he wrote a criticism of Father Sophroni's book about Start Siloan in his periodical Athenite Dialogues, he asked himself who ought to be praised, the subject of the biography or the biographer. Later, I heard Father Sophroni say that that was stupid because St. Siloan was at an exalted level in the spiritual life. After Father Theoclitos, I visited the ever-memorable Yerondefrem of Katanakia. From Nuskeet, I climbed up my beloved path, which I took every year toward St. Anne, little St. Anne in Katanakia. I found Elder Ephraim in a state of Hezekiah. He mentioned to me that some people had told him not to receive me again, because many considered that I had published the discussion that I had with him. However, he said to me, quote, I shall tell you some more so that you can include it in the second edition of the book, end quote. I remember that he referred mainly to two of his experiences. One was about the relationship between tears and the vision of the uncreated light. Intense prayer comes first, then a splitting headache, followed by floods of tears. The tears purify all his thoughts. The ascetic acquires noetic hezekiah and purity, and then, at a moment when he does not expect, his noose is caught up in theoria of the light. The other experience referred to the vision of the uncreated light of the Holy Trinity. One evening, while saying the Jesus prayer in his hermitage, facing the sea, he saw three lights. At first he thought it was fishermen fishing. He saw, however, that the lights were coming towards his hermitage. They entered it, filled the whole place, and he fell to the ground. He sensed that the triune God was embracing him. The joy was unspeakable. With difficulty, he recovered from the ecstasy as grass gradually stands up again after someone steps on it. I asked him about Elder Joseph the Hezekist, who had initiated him into noetic prayer. He told me a lot about that blessed Hezekist. I was incredibly impressed by his statement, With that blessed Elder, when I celebrated the Divine Liturgy in his cell, I was replete with grace.
This testimony that I was replete with grace is amazing. He expressed his admiration for Father Sofroni from what he had heard about him, and he was intensely aware of him in his heart. Everywhere I went on the holy mountain, I heard positive comments about Father Sofroni. Certainly, there were a few people who said that Father Sofroni was a Russian spy and gave their own interpretations of his relationship with Balfour. This was a superficial judgment. How could such an ascetic who beheld God act as a spy? In the previous chapter of this book, this slanderous statement is refuted. This was my reason for insisting on this point. Shortly after Easter, in June of the same year, 1978, I made my second visit to the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England. Anyone who reads the whole of this chapter will ascertain that my contact and spiritual relationship with Father Sofroni became more substantial and profound as time passed. The first edition of my book, A Night in the Desert of the Holy Mountain, which was published in the spring of 1978, as mentioned above, had reached Father Sofroni before I visited the monastery. When I met him on the path on that first day, I was extremely hesitant and ashamed at the thought that such a great hesychist and theologian had read the book written by an infant in the spiritual life about noetic prayer. He understood my hesitancy, and to give me courage, he called the book a bestseller, as he had heard that the first edition had sold out in a few weeks. Subsequently, he said on the, other hand, on the one hand that the content of the book was in the right perspective, but on the other, he made his own comments on it. He said that he was afraid for me. I asked why. He replied that he was afraid for me spiritually because the devil would envy me and would fight hard against me. He also told me when I write to be careful not to use strong expressions. Usually I should make use of patristic views to conceal any possible personal experience. Because I had put a photograph in the book, of the cave of the Holy Trinity near the monastery of St. Paul, where he lived for a while and had written underneath it, this cave became Tabor, a contemporary God-seeing Moses lived here. He said to me decisively, that was stupid. He said that when he saw that photograph with that caption, he was horrified and he advised me not to put it in the second edition. I complied. It should be noted here that many people attempted to discover the monk in the desert with whom I had had the discussion on the Jesus prayer that was recorded in the book. Personally, I was deeply surprised that readers attributed the discussions to many contemporary ascetics. Elder Ephraim of Katanakia told me that he used to reply to those who told him that he was the one who spoke to me. Quote, Don't try and find out who the hermit was. Try to put what he teaches into practice and read this book, which, with the things he writes, is like a spiritual bombshell. End of quote. Elder Porfirios of Kafsokalivi telephoned me and said, quote, Father Herotheus, have we ever had a conversation on these matters? Because everyone who reads your book has told me that it resembles what I teach them. End of quote. And Father Theocletus of Dionysio told me that 
To everyone who asked him about who the hermit was, he replied that, quote, the hermit monk with whom Father Hirothius spoke was Elder Sophroni, who knew about Buddhism and Stoic philosophy and refers to such subjects, end quote. In fact, Father Theoclitos of Dionysio wrote to me in a letter much later in Pascha 1995. A suggestion, he writes, would it not increase the prestige of the book A Night in the Desert of the Holy Mountain if in the new edition the words were added after the foreword, now that the great theologian, the Russian Hieromonk Sophroni, has passed away, I feel the need to reveal that the book was not produced in a night on the holy mountain, but in two nights, the second in Essex. End quote. In my opinion, it should also be subtitled And One Night in Essex with Father Sophroni. The great respect that Father Theocletus of Dionysio felt for Father Sophroni is clear from a paragraph in the same letter. He writes, quote, Now that I've reached 80 and read my early works, I wondered whether it might not have been better to postpone writing for 20 years so that they would have been written with greater fluency, more illumination, and more intense participation. Does it not impress you that the great Sophroni wrote very few books. So be it. God sees the heart and rewards each one according to his intention. End of quote. Be that as it may, I glorified God when I heard that the discussion in my book was being ascribed to many great contemporary monks of the desert, and it became clear that what I have written in the book expresses the experience and life of the church. As at that time, Father Sophroni's book, His Life is Mine, had been translated into modern Greek and published, Father Sophroni took the opportunity to refer to that as well and to tell me, quote, Europeans do not understand at all about mourning. They regard it as an unhealthy state. That is why I did not write anything in the book about mourning, end of quote. And he continued, that book that I wrote is for Europeans. The chapter, The Tragedy of Man, could not be written in a book intended for Orthodox Christians. Perhaps a few words about the tragedy of man could be written for Orthodox readers. For that reason, I am now writing another more analytical book that will relate to the Orthodox. He was referring to the book, We Shall See Him As He Is, which was published later. It is well known that in every genuine monastery, the daily common life centers on two focal points, the church and the refectory. As well as these two central points, every monk has his cell and the work that he is given to do. It was not easy for someone to enter Father Sophroni's bungalow. I once went into the small kitchen to give him something he had requested. I would pass outside his bungalow on my way to the monastery garden, and I always went by with the deepest respect, asking noetically for his prayers from outside. However, the elder lived in church particularly at the holy altar during the divine liturgy and also in the monastery refectory. Every Sunday he would celebrate in All Saints Church. He celebrated the divine liturgy with extreme concentration. He had great inner tension, as though his heart was drawing his whole noose. But this tension did not show on his face, which was joyful. 
with no sign of anxiety. This indicated that his noose was separated from his reason and was celebrating in the sanctuary of his heart, whereas his reason was following the order of the divine liturgy. Once during the service of the Tipica, before the little entrance, he had sat down in a chair to rest, and I discerned that his noose was deeply absorbed in his heart, without him losing his awareness. This was clear from the fact that on the one hand his head was not bent downwards, as happens when someone relaxes and falls asleep, but on the other hand, at the appropriate moment, he immediately stood up for the little entrance. This means that his reason was following what was happening in the church while his noose was deep in his heart. He did not, of course, express himself or say anything about his experiences. In his liturgical gestures, he was magnificent, contrite, and concentrated on the place of the heart. When he blessed the people, everyone perceived that he was receiving a blessing. The movement of the hand that was blessing was slow, and his attention followed its movement with his eyes. His very deep voice helped, as did the slow rhythm with which he declaimed the final clause of each prayer and the slow movement of his hand in blessing. It is easy to understand why many people felt very profound compunction when the elder celebrated the divine liturgy. There were some who told him that they saw and sensed God's grace, and which led them to repentance, mourning, and prayer. Another important place where I met the elder almost every day was the monastery refectory. When it was time for the midday meal, the elder would come from his bungalow, accompanied by a monk, following the cement path, which he had designed to have the appropriate bends, so as not to be completely straight. This image of the elder's slow approach against the background of the intensely green surroundings of the monastery with the tall trees and lawn was wonderful. He was always calm and pleasant. He ate in an aristocratic manner. His behavior was noble in every respect. He always found ways of guiding people from his abundant experience. I remember that one day in the refectory we were reading from the sayings of the fathers about a monk who had a blasphemous thought. About uh, And uh, Abba Piman advised him to speak to the devil and contradict him as though he had him in front of him. Father Sophroni stopped the reading and said, quote, That too is one way of dealing with the devil, but the best way for the beginner to deal with the devil is not to talk to him, but to despise him because he probably will not be able to endure that dialogue, and then it will turn out badly. His soul will be troubled because the devil will leave his energy, which will disturb that man's soul. In the refectory, he would congratulate anyone who happened to be celebrating that day or had some sort of anniversary. He would say a few words about the one whose feast it was and immediately afterwards would give the signal for those present to sing, Lord have mercy, three times in the first plagal tone in the Athenite manner, but more slowly. I had confided to Father Zacharias that I celebrated the 11th July. And he told the elder, Full of enthusiasm, the elder mentioned it to the brethren during the midday meal. He said that in Russia they used to name the child after the saint on the day of which he was born, but it was the first time that he had heard of someone celebrating the day of his baptism, his spiritual birthday. 
he asked the monks to sing, Lord, have mercy. After the meal, I approached him to thank him, and he said to me, In the 40 years that you will celebrate the liturgy, commemorate my name. I responded, And you, Father, commemorate me in heaven. He answered, If I go. I said, I believe that you will go. He replied, If I go to heaven, I shall pray for the whole world, as Start Silawan used to say. Usually, after the various the meal, various people would go up to him to ask for his blessing, sometimes pilgrims who had arrived that day, and sometimes those who were staying for a while but wanted to ask him something. He would reply to everyone. One day, after the prayers in the refectory, he called me so that he could expound to me the wall paintings of the Holy Trinity that had been painted. I had noticed that the faces which he himself had painted showed that their noose was in their heart the whole perspective was directed towards the heart and showed the hesychistic life and noetic prayer. When the elder painted icons, he depicted his spiritual state, his own self. He told me, We try to choose colors and scenes that do not impose, but can be accepted with pleasure. We use gentle colors. When I said, Do you mean sweet? He replied, Not sweet, but gentle, because sweetness is not always good. I asked, why? And he answered, it is not good. That's just how it is. On many occasions, he was brief and did not go into detail. A few days after my arrival at the monastery, I asked the elder for a private meeting. He accepted, and we went to the usual place, the office next to the chapel of St. John the Baptist. Among other things, he said the following, which I set down in writing immediately after the discussion. 1978 continued. Among other things, he said the following, which I set down in writing immediately after the discussion. The dogma of the Holy Trinity is related to our life because man is in the image and likeness of God. What is our relationship with God? The person, hypostasis. The Father lives in the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives in the Father and the Son. This unity does not do away with the particular hypostatic properties of the persons. We too were created as persons in order to have communion with the triune God. The hypostatic principle is inherent within us. After the sin, we became individuals, egotists. Now, however, that we have been united with Christ, the hypostatic principle is activated and we become real persons. God lives in us and we in Him. We love God and all human beings. The expression of the person of God is His love, which descended to Hades, and the expression of our person is our love, which descends to Hades through self-emptying and self-hatred. We Christians become persons when we are united among ourselves in Christ and live one within the other through love. Thus we live according to the Trinity. And an Orthodox Christian is one who has right belief, that is to say, correct faith, and who glorifies and prays aright. In other words, faith is connected with prayer and worship. As Orthodox, we believe God and glorify Him as Trinity and love the Triune God. This is the difference between us and other religions, which have a God with one hypostasis. 
Our love for God and our brother is a confession of faith. Consequently, when we love God, we confess him. And usually other religions and other systems conceive and construct the idea of God through man. In the Orthodox Church, we perceive man through the presence of God, insofar as man is in God's image and likeness. So, correct knowledge of God is a prerequisite for knowing man and for solving his problems. And each one of us is saved from a particular point. The church's preaching is general. Each one, however, takes what he needs and makes progress through asceticism and obedience by putting Christ's commandments into practice. We shall love other people when we pray for them. In order to understand what bothers someone else, we must pray for him with our heart. Then we see his needs and take care to solve them. If one's heart does not feel anything, one should not speak. When one speaks to monks, the only issue that he can definitely raise is obedience. Obedience is the basis of the monastic life. When someone is obedient, his heart has become very sensitive and he grasps the problems that concern the other person and helps him. By being obedient to the elder, he receives the tradition and life that the elder has. Obedience has many aspects. There is obedience to the tradition of the church, obedience to the bishop, obedience to the elder, and ultimately obedience to everyone. When one gives way to the will of others in secondary matters that do not constitute a transgression of God's commandments. Some people think that monks do nothing. That is how it seems, because monks do what other people don't. But monks have a secret. The center of their life is God. They are united with God, who is the center of the world, and so they too become in Christ lords of the whole world. Monks are perfect Christians. During my stay at the monastery, it was possible for me to encounter the elder either by chance or according to my own plan, particularly in the afternoons when he came out of his bungalow and went for a walk, accompanied by various monks along the concrete paths or on the narrow road outside the monastery. At every meeting, he found a spiritual word to offer. I had noticed that every contact with the elder, even if just for a few seconds, was a source of inspiration, because he always said a word that was a window enabling one to see a heavenly and eternal realm. Every word of his was theological, prophetic, instructive, and opened up spiritual horizons. For instance, one day he found me in the garden. He showed me an oak and said, That tree grows very strong, very slowly, first putting down deep roots. It is the same with the monk. He grows and makes progress gradually through repentance, but he is deeply rooted for centuries. On another occasion, I told him that although he was advanced in years, he was in good physical shape and was able to write. He replied lightheartedly, Moses began shepherding the people of Israel when he was 80. He offered me many gifts as blessings and spiritual treats. I remember one such treat very vividly. A Greek lady who lived nearby and used to come regularly to the monastery with her whole family invited me to her house for supper. 
At the same time, she invited two other monks with me. When they came to collect us from the monastery, the monks said that they were unable to come with us. She was upset. At that moment, the elder passed by and asked her why she was unhappy. When he found out the reason, he said, Don't worry, I shall come with Father Herotheus. She was delighted. We went to the town where she lived. On the way, the elder sang, Lord have mercy, many times and said various spiritual things. When we reached the house and went through the door, he immediately gave a magnificent blessing, as he did at every divine liturgy, and said, Peace be to this house. He sprinkled the room with holy water, which he had brought with him, and asked me to sprinkle the remaining rooms. Then he sat down, greeted the children in a childlike spirit, but at the same time, seriously. He gave them chocolates and showed them love. He held the view that we should speak to children as though they were adults, but according to what they would understand at their age. We should take them seriously, even when they behave superficially. He said that we should treat them as persons because they would realize it and respect us. During the meal, one of the things I remember is that in reply to a question from the mother, he said that the mother is the best protector of the child. She should make the sign of the cross over the child and pray for him or her. He mentioned that his mother gave him a cross and he had it on him always, and that cross protected him from many dangers that he went through in his life. The mother's blessing and prayer, he continued, play an important role in the child's life since the mother usually prays with pain. And when prayer is accompanied by pain, it is powerful. Father Sofroni was courteous in the extreme, not only by nature and upbringing, but also out of spiritual sensitivity. As he had beheld God, he loved all God's creations, and he saw God's image in every human being. He even respected small children whose hearts were pure. He did not want to grieve anyone. One woman who met him said to him joyfully, How are you, Father? Using an idiomatic phrase in Greek, which literally means, What are you doing to me, Father? He did not understand the expression and asked with concern, What have I done to you? He became calm, however, when I explained that the phrase means something else. Another woman, when he advised her how to deal with a certain issue, began to weep bitterly over her own problem. The elder asked her anxiously, Perhaps I said something that wounded you. These two incidents show his courtesy and the delicacy of his behavior. Also, when speaking Greek, he spoke to everyone in the polite plural form. As that year, too, I stayed almost a month in the monastery, timidly, I asked him if he had time available that we might have another discussion. He accepted, and at that meeting, the things he told me are included in the following. All the difference between orthodoxy and other confessions lies in the teaching about Jesus Christ as hypostases, as the God-man, Theanthropos. Otherwise, there is no salvation. An impersonal being who is not hypostasis person and did not take flesh cannot save man far from jesus christ there is no salvation there is no fullness or perfect salvation this is what distinguishes delusion from the truth from orthodoxy all the differences between the non-orthodox and the orthodox start from the fact that the non-orthodox 
do not know about the hypostases of God and man. Saul, that is Paul, felt he was making war on Christians in the name of God. For him, God was impersonal until then. However, when he saw Christ and the Holy Spirit and conversed with him, he knew the hypostatic God, the God-man Christ. Immediately in the Holy Spirit, he recognized him and became his servant and his apostle. Anyone who knows the hypostatic God, the God-man Theanthropos, knows the real God outside Christ, the impersonal, holds sway. The Romans, he meant the Roman Catholics, ascribe importance in their liturgy to Christ's words, take, eat, and consider that the consecration takes place at that moment. But Christ as man, his human nature, made supplication and prayed to his Father. For that reason, the prayer of consecration is a prayer to the Father to send the Holy Spirit and to change the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. When we rely only on these words of Christ and do not pray to the Father to send the Holy Spirit, we are committing Adam's sin, which is self-deification. The apostles said that God raised Jesus from the dead. They do not separate the energy of the Son from the Father and the Holy Spirit, as the energy of the triune God is shared. The non-Orthodox live in ignorance. God will judge them accordingly. But for us Orthodox, salvation is deification, that is to say, our union with Christ through his holy commandments and the mysteries. If the priest, together with priestly grace, the priesthood, does not also have kingly authority, the activation and development of the grace of baptism, that is to say, purification from the passions and resurrection from sin, then his priestly work will yield nothing. It is progress in prayer when the praying noose finds the place where the deep heart is. When someone feels his heart, all the fruits of prayer begin from there. The union of noose and heart is accomplished by the energy of the Holy Spirit and is revealed by the continuous shedding of tears. Through tears and mourning, the heart becomes very sensitive. During prayer, the attention, the noose, should be concentrated in the deep heart, According to the fathers of the church, the heart first feels the grace of God and then the experience is expressed through the rational faculty. During prayer, one ought to feel warmth in the heart. The absence of divine grace is marked by iciness and coldness of heart. When we read or pray, it is good to feel the warmth and movement of the heart. However, this should happen gradually because in weak and unaccustomed hearts, it may even cause physical disorders, in which case one stops praying and prayer works in another way. When, however, the heart is strong, it is recommended that one remains there during prayer. The descent of the noose into the heart is helped by breathing in and out, but it is better for it to descend through repentance. In these cases, the pain in the heart is completely healthy and natural. When the noose descends to the heart, it does not go down completely, but leaves a small remnant. This remnant may be occupied with other things without the noose leaving the heart. For instance, in the Divine Liturgy, we can pray with the heart and feel its warmth and at the same time say to the deacon or the concelebrating priest something connected with the tipikon, without our noose being distracted from prayer in the heart. When, however, this remainder of the noose runs after other things, 
it may lead the whole noose astray and extract it from the heart. For that reason, one ascetic used to keep count on the prayer ropes he had prayed during noetic prayer in order to satisfy this remnant and stop it becoming involved in other things. Consequently, one loves God with one's heart. It is the heart that distinguishes whether we have gone wrong or whether we are devoted to God's will. When we are aware that our noose is concentrated in the heart with repentance and warmth, we ought not to breathe in and breathe out. We should stop that method when our heart is warm. It is natural, in accordance with nature, for a man to be aware of a woman's body and a woman of a man's body. This is how the human race reproduces. Homosexuality is an unnatural state. Monasticism is a state above nature. Without divine grace, the desire for what is natural becomes unnatural, because without God, everything is sin. In the monk, the presence of divine grace fills everything. This is a supranatural phenomenon. The thoughts that come into the noose, particularly during prayer, show the existence of a passion. The more often the same thought comes, the more deeply rooted it means that those specific passions are. Such a passion has deep roots, and great labor and suffering is needed in order to cure it. So thoughts during prayer help us to discern our state and our passions. The same happens as with a cinematographic film. Excuse me. When there is light behind the film, then everything appears clearly on the screen. In the absence of light, it is not clear what is happening. And there are few of us monks left in the world. Everyone is against us. So there should be love between us. The older tradition of the monasteries on the holy mountain required that young monks should not be ordained to the clergy to avoid vainglory, as priests are honored on the holy mountain. Today, however, it seems that young monks seek ordination because they cannot endure the hardship of the monastic life. Father Gabriel, the abbot of the monastery of Dionysio, asked Father Seraphim, abbot of the monastery of St. Paul, What do you want with that spy? Note, he meant Father Sofroni, who at that time was spiritual father of the monastery of St. Paul, as some regarded him as a Russian spy. Father Seraphim did not reply. Later on, when Father Gabriel had problems at his monastery with the monks, he asked Father Seraphim to tell them how he ought to deal with them and what he himself did about such issues. Father Seraphim replied, I recommend that you take Sophroni, the spy, as spiritual father. I have him at the monastery, and I will have peace and quiet. Someone said that all the idlers become monks. I replied to him, but not many people become monks, although many are idle. It is natural for women to cling psychologically in the beginning. This is, however, a problem. There are three levels, spiritual, psychological, and physical. In women, the psychological level is nearer to the spiritual, so they regard psychological things as spiritual. In men, psychological matters are nearer to physical things, so they seek physical enjoyment and pleasure. As spiritual fathers, 
We should not turn away women because they start off more on the psychological level or stay there. We should tell them that we are seeking their salvation. It is natural for women to begin psychologically by looking for support from men and from the spiritual father. The spiritual father must be mature and not let thoughts dominate him. He should attempt to raise women to a higher spiritual level. If the spiritual father notices a psychological attachment, he ought not to send them away because they may feel deprived of the presence of the spiritual father and fall into despair. It is different if the spiritual father himself suffers harm in this case. If that happens, he ought not to hear women's confessions. In the beginning, when a woman comes to confession and has been through a lot, she's usually a wreck and feels very low. When she benefits a little from the spiritual father, she may become devoted to him out of gratitude. The spiritual father, however, should accept from her only her desire to become holy and nothing else. When women are upset by the absence of their spiritual father, this is unhealthy. However, we must help them with discretion and prayer. I mentioned to him the case of someone who had fallen into small transgression that was not a hindrance to the priesthood and who wanted to become a priest. He told me, This specific misdeed does not prevent someone from becoming a priest, but it ought to prompt us to identify the existence of the passion and to cure it, because otherwise, if he becomes a member of the clergy, he will not be spiritually mature. There are two ways of curing unsatisfied physical desires of the flesh. One is abundant divine grace, and the other is the absence of the former. In the absence of the former is ascetic practice. The abundance of God's grace does not allow someone to have evil thoughts. For instance, when we are crossing a road with traffic and we are careful out of fear, do we have evil thoughts? No. So when divine grace concentrates the noose, no margin is left for evil thoughts ideas, and desires. Ascetic practice, on the other hand, requires a struggle with thoughts. We have to struggle so that the image and the idea do not go on to become desire and action. This is called spiritual vigilance and hezekiah. On the subject of having children, we have to take into account the woman's power of endurance because it is unbearable for many people today. They do not have the fortitude of previous generations. Women nowadays cannot even breastfeed for long. And many women, once they conceive, have to stay in bed since their constitution cannot take the strain. In general, on these issues, we should ascribe great importance to developing the spiritual life of the couple. With regard to sins that are known to other people, the spiritual father needs to deal with them very carefully. For sins not known to others, it is possible to exercise economy, looking to the needs of the penitent and his salvation. When speaking to someone in order to avoid the possibility of sensing the energy that he transmits, one should avoid looking into his eyes and look instead at the place between his eyes, above the nose. Then, although one is Apparently paying attention to him, one is not subject to any energy that he may send out. When someone finds himself in different surroundings, he should avoid standing out. He should not be different from the others. 
He should do the same in the Divine Liturgy. He should not show that he is praying at that time because he will become vain. Philosophers can think correctly and right, but their life may be different. This means that they do not live with the heart, but with the reason, and actually with fallen reason. Life at the monastery, in association with the elder and the monks who expressed the elder's experience and were the spiritual children of this blessed man, was a daily education. Everything brought inspiration. Every word was a revelation. One could acquire many things for one's pastoral ministry, even through a simple word. One day, I met the elder on the lane outside the monastery. He was taking a walk with Father Kirill. Father Kirill said to the elder, Our beloved father, Herotheus, and Father Sophroni replied, He has managed to, to make us love him. He invited me to join them, as on other occasions, and said to me lightheartedly, We shall be peripatetic philosophers. He put me on his right and Father Kirill on his left. He said humorously, I am between two great men. To support himself, but also to show unity, he took us by the elbow, and the three of us walked along together. He began to teach us. Of course, neither of us interrupted him. At one point I asked him something, and he continued talking. I felt that he was a theologian and prophet. Some of the things he said were as follows. Nineteen seventy eight continued. Some of the things he said were as follows I am very insistent on the divinity of Christ, on the union of the divine and human nature in Christ, in his hypostases. The God man, Christ, is the bridge between uncreated and created. Without him, it is impossible to acquire knowledge of God. You should say that continually in your sermons. This is the most basic point. The Buddhists and the Muslims believe in a suprapersonal being. Thus, salvation is abolished. Many people attempt to live the spiritual life only in the Divine Liturgy on Sunday, but all week they are outside the ascetic life. These people cannot understand monasticism. Those who do not live evangelically and ascetically all week cannot live liturgically on Sunday. Those who slander and defame a member of the clergy do him a great deal of good. They humble him. However, not many people should criticize him because he will become embittered. And where there is bitterness, God's grace does not act. Being defamed helps the member of the clergy since it acts as a brake in the way that the brake stops a car when it is headed for a precipice. But it does not benefit the slanderer. When people praise a member of the clergy, he should rejoice, but also humble himself, because he is a minister of Christ, who endured humiliations and the cross. Tears are essential for the monk and for the Christian. There are worldly tears and divine tears. The distinction between them is clear from the fact that worldly, self-centered tears come from being despised by people from the loss of worldly valuables and goods, whereas spiritual divine tears spring from repentance, the desire for salvation and eternal life. 
God revealed the words, Keep your mind in hell and despair not, to Staretz Silouan. I believe this, and I understood it, just as I realized later on that this is evident in the life of Christ. The Apostle Peter confesses, You are the Son of God, and Christ announces the Passion, the descent into Hades and his resurrection. The announcement of the Passion is closely linked with the confession of Christ's divinity, this is, keep your mind in hell and despair not. Not everyone can keep his noose in hell. It also depends on his strength. This is the privilege of the few, the strong, because it is possible to fall into despair. When after the experience of hell, the hope of salvation comes, this means that it is the action of divine grace. The energy of the passions stops with the thought, keep your mind in hell and despair not and the eternal spirit enters us. Then someone does not feel that in the future he will possess the kingdom of God because he already has it within him. This phrase has been revealed to many people, and they have lived it personally, but it has been kept secret down through the centuries. I felt I was the possessor of a great inheritance that I must proclaim to the world. After a carnal sin, prayer ceases, whereas theological writing may continue. This is the difference between theology as a gift of the Holy Spirit and theology as human learning. Prayer shows the purity of soul and body. It is possible for someone to theologize, to write, to be an academic, but not to pray and not to be holy. I want to live the life of a hermit, not to act a part, to be what I am, when I laugh, there are people who will take offense. When I am serious, again, they take offense. But I want to be natural, simple. The monks in our monastery do not live as I lived in the desert of the holy mountain. But I am pleased because they are good monks and live in a natural way and are not hypocrites. They do not put on an act. They receive everyone, rich and poor, in the same way without making any distinction and they try to help everyone. When there are no monks, faith will be lost. I am glad that your bishop, Metropolitan Kalinikos of Edessa, loves monks. Monks are not idlers. They benefit every continent, the whole of humanity. Parish priests restrict their activity to one parish, but monks benefit the whole world. People come from all over the world to our monastery. Starat Siloan, with the physical constitution that he possessed, could have fathered many children, but the grace of God kept him completely self-controlled. He did not have a single carnal thought. When he went to the monastery and was inexperienced in the spiritual struggle, after eating, he fell into a sin. From then on, he did not accept a carnal thought for the rest of his life, in obedience to the words of his spiritual father. On the holy mountain, as a spiritual father, I also encountered some mostly young men who used to practice self-abuse. In this case, the cure is to fix their noose on prayer, on God. When inner prayer and spiritual inspiration develop, the energy of the passion ceases. When after a nocturnal fantasy we wake up troubled, that means that we experienced sensual pleasure. This is countered by repentance and grace, weeping, prayer, and the union 
of the noose with the heart. Many spiritual fathers have difficulties in dealing with the issue of childbearing in relation to Holy Communion. Discernment and God's illumination are required. One general comment is that great care is needed not to rebuke people thoughtlessly because they will be disappointed and will leave the church. In addition, being deprived of Holy Communion for a long time deadens people and distances them from the church. Many people live with the desire for Holy Communion. If we deprive them of it, they cannot withstand various temptations. Wisdom and prayer are required, and it depends on the Christians who come to make their confession. We ought to help them to live penitentially and prayerfully, to go to church and to keep Christ's commandments. Also, some exercise self-control beyond their strength. On this subject, it is impossible to lay down a common line for everyone. This is a matter for the spiritual father and the penitent. When there is a possibility of economy, we should give Holy Communion sometimes, as long as we see progress in their spiritual life. Before my departure from the monastery at the midday meal, I asked to say goodbye to him, and he asked the monks to bring us a cup of tea in the office next to the chapel. These are some of the things he said. There are no clear-cut divisions between positive and negative theology. Positive theology has negative elements. When we say that God is merciful, which is a positive word, even then we do not know in depth what the mercy of God is, and this can be experienced negatively. When someone sees God, he sees him as light, that is to say positively, in which, according to St. John the Evangelist, there is no darkness at all. But a negative path came first, denial of thoughts and rational energy, rejection of concepts. Also, our ignorance of God's essence in which man cannot share is called negativism. Then God is darkness. Beyond the light, there is nothing else. There is no darkness, as some people say. When the fathers teach that darkness follows after the theoria of the light, it is necessary to examine exactly what they mean. They either want to indicate the uncreated essence, or else this is simply a form of words to, for describing something very dramatic that goes beyond human capabilities. As human words cannot describe the abundance of light, they characterize it as darkness. This darkness, therefore, is the impossibility of describing the radiance of the uncreated light. Darkness also denotes the fact that human beings cannot share in the divine essence. I consider that the greatest sin in my life was being led astray into yoga and meditation at the time when I was dabbling in Eastern religions and denying Christ in practice. The greatest missionary work is accomplished through the divine liturgy. The fathers erected an altar in every country or city to which they went. This is because when the heart melts in the divine liturgy, it seeks God and begins to want to live the orthodox ecclesiastical life, which is centered on the divine liturgy. I have said to the brethren, first and foremost, to keep the divine liturgy in the monastery. The prayers in the divine liturgy ought not to be said in personal tone, because at that moment the priests are expressing all those who are praying, so the priests should not pray with personal emotions. They do not celebrate the liturgy as individuals. Some Anglicans, as soon as they become Orthodox as new converts, criticize their leaders and their confession, 
We need to be careful not to join in with this, nor to criticize Anglicanism to them, because their love for Anglicanism will probably return years later, and then our own ill-considered criticisms will be interpreted as attempts to proselytize. Westerners have lost the faith and fallen into a carnal way of life, but they have a culture, albeit human and rational, which keeps them at a certain level. They have descended very gradually. They have a high degree of courtesy. They draw the line somewhere and do not reach rock bottom. When the Orthodox, however, lose their faith, they do not have human culture to keep them in check, and they sink at once to rock bottom. Westerners have lost Orthodoxy, which shows the way to salvation. Thus some of them rely on reason separated from the heart, rationalism, and others rely on sentiment separated from the reason, sentimentalism. The noose is united with the heart only by the Holy Spirit, and man becomes in the image and likeness of God. I believe that the delusion of the world comes about through the Orthodox, excuse me, I believe that the salvation of the world comes about through the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church is always crucified, as Christ was, and we are crucified, not crucifiers. The higher the standing someone gains among the people, the more careful he needs to be about what he says and what he writes, because something that he says may not be orthodox, and on account of his prestige it may spread quickly and be very dangerous. Among people in the West, love, eros, has become a science and an art. The explanation for this is love of pleasure and the fact that Westerners do not have God's energy and inspiration. Much care is needed when books are translated into Greek, which have the Western spirit, which is unrelated to that prevailing in the Orthodox East. It can be usually be observed that when someone knows Christ and begins to live the ecclesiastical life, he wants to become a priest. However, a long period of time needs to elapse for him to become established in the life of the church, and after that he can decide if he wants to become a priest or if he is suitable. Prayer, free from delusion, comes with weeping. If someone wants to become a real monk, he must learn to pray. He regards himself as a condemned man. Then a thought of self-accusation comes to him. A new thought comes every time. He should stay there. Then his noose attaches itself to his heart. From this weeping, pain comes to his heart. This spiritual pain is essential. He feels this pain in the upper part of the bodily organ of the heart. If, however, the pain is in the lower part of the heart, this may easily cause the flesh to rebel, so this pain ought to be avoided. From this spiritual pain in the upper part of the heart, calm and peace spread to the whole body, and then someone can discern whether thoughts come from God or from the devil. Then he can also understand other people's thoughts. Thus, when a monk prays for others, he can immediately grasp their spiritual state. When a monk becomes accustomed to weep in this way, and the monastery becomes a hindrance to him, he goes out into the desert. When weeping comes automatically amidst continuous mourning, this is a sign that he should live as a hesychist in the desert. When one day a monk weeps for two or three hours with a pure mind, his noose may remain in God for many days and not be distracted from there. 
he may not need to say the usual prayers and his prayer rule. Love is when one becomes everything to all men, when he behaves sincerely with those whom he meets and with whom he lives, when he has no desire to impose his own will, but accepts the will of others as his own. For noetic prayer, ordinary light from the sun or a lamp, or even the color of the walls, causes difficulties, as does noise. Darkness and quiet are required for practicing noetic prayer. The colors of the room should be dark, and the icons not too bright. The Christian cannot pray many times a day with a sense of grace. God gives his grace now and again. When the noose prays noetic prayer and grows tired, it cannot pray intensely again that same day. How long the intensity lasts is different on each occasion. Sometimes one prays for one hour, sometimes two hours, and sometimes for a quarter of an hour. When it is done intensely, it is enough for the whole day. It is good, even for someone who has noetic prayer, to say the Jesus prayer out loud so that the ear can hear when he is tired of noetic effort. This should happen particularly when he is on his own. Sometimes during prayer the devil forms various images in the noose about his, the devil's, presence to frighten the one praying. For that reason there needs to be a very small light in the room, so that the one praying is not frightened by the idea that the devil is present. In the course of intense noetic prayer certain radiant thoughts come along. These are thoughts from the devil to distract our attention from prayer. During Theoria of the Uncreated Light, there are no thoughts. The thoughts may also be good or natural, the natural thoughts of the noose. When the mind is concentrated and reflects, it has a certain inspiration. Care is needed lest this be mistaken for the grace of God, God's illumination. This is what is called the darkness of divestiture. Purified of material things and enlightened by the grace of God, the noose acquires a certain brightness. Theoria of the uncreated light is experienced beyond this state. The Christian may say the Jesus prayer very slowly out loud, and afterwards his attention may rest noetically in his heart, and the utterance of the prayer cease. As long as the strength of the noose endures, the Christian should remain there and watch. When his prayer weakens, he should say it again out loud. This, too, is a method of experiencing Hezekiah. Often the devil recalls to our memory sins that took place, or allegedly took place, in the past in order to cause despair. In such cases, the spiritual father needs to have discernment in order to cure his disciple. Often during the night we sense a cloud in our heart. Then we pray the Jesus prayer intensely. We repent, we weep, and the next day we get up full of joy. Someone who practices the Jesus prayer often has pains in his heart. This is not something wrong with the heart. Sometimes it results from the effort made, or at other times it is a temptation from the devil. In the second case, the devil suggests the thought that if he continues praying, he will die. For prayer to develop, this sort of trial must be gone through as well. He should say, let me die, and continue praying. Trees have green branches that bear fruit, but they also have some dry branches which do not harm the tree. It is the same with people. They may have some failings that do no harm. We ought to look at their virtues. When a thought 
or an unlawful love gets into us, it goes away with weeping. Every kind of evil leaves the soul by means of tears. When something or someone attracts our love more than the love of, for God, we are committing spiritual adultery. Beginners in the spiritual life form the words of the prayer imaginatively in the noose, which develops and cultivates their imagination. It is preferable at first to keep the prayer on our lips, to say it out loud with our mouths without imagining the words. On spiritual matters, one must go forward in the fear of God. Fear of God should be the basis. When doing something results in humility, this is a sign of God's good pleasure and of wholeness. The elder ought to keep his disciple on the border of despair. He should not praise him for his gifts. He should only encourage him at difficult moments when incurable despair threatens. Then the disciple will make progress. The monastic life exploits every state. The monk benefits especially from insults and humiliations. When Elder Joseph the cave dweller prayed, the wild birds used to come and tap on the roof with their beaks. Someone could say that this was a temptation from the devil. I think that the birds were attracted by the elder's prayer. St. Seraphim of Serov lost the divine grace he had received because the following happened. There were two candidates for the post of the abbot at the monastery, St. Seraphim and someone else. St. Seraphim withdrew from the competition for the abbacy. However, when they sent him away from the monastery, he was aggrieved. This sadness was the cause of divine grace withdrawing from him or decreasing. It was necessary then for him to practice great asceticism and go through profound repentance, remaining on a rock for a thousand nights and a thousand days in order for divine grace to return. The feeling of worldly sadness and bitterness causes great harm. Monks are like merchants. Merchants make a million drachmas one day and the next day nothing, or they lose everything. The same happens to monks. One day they make a profit with tears and prayer, and the next day they lose everything by talking too much. After 20 minutes, conversation with people usually turns into chatter and criticism. He was asked if kissing was a sin. He answered, Everything outside God is a sin. Man far from God is in darkness. Whatever is in God is light and there is no darkness in it, and consequently there is no sin either. Whoever kisses someone else and remains in God, as parents kiss their children and spouses one another, does not sin. Whatever distances man from God, however, is sin. Since we are full of passions, we should avoid even what is regarded as free from passion. There are two expressions of true monasticism. The one is tears of repentance and despair over ourselves according to grace. The other is self-accusation. Are, they are two sides of the same coin. The monk should weep in despair of himself. Then a pain arises in the heart. The heart is wounded, and from this wound, remembrance of God is produced. All night long he is on tenter hooks, and during the day he has an intense desire for God. This is the natural state of genuine monks, and it is the source of uninterrupted prayer. It is possible to pray so powerfully for a quarter of an hour with weeping and self-accusation 
that the noose is held in God all day long. This is one way of expressing the words, keep your mind in hell and despair not. This is a difficult task, but this is true monasticism. This is the content of all the church's hymns. Through the hymns we express our wretchedness, keep your mind in hell, and we seek God's mercy, despair not. And other different attitude to God is outside the spirit of the Orthodox Church and Orthodox ascetic practice. All our experiences summed up in the prayer against the only do we sin and the only do we worship. Whatever is said between elder and disciple is sacramental in character and the devil cannot understand it. When, however, there is even a single discourse to a third person, the devil perceives it and begins to make war. Therefore, when someone wants to become a monk, he ought not to disclose it anywhere except to his spiritual father, because the devil will fight him. In order for a monk to mature, he must learn to wrestle with his thoughts. He must struggle and fight against the thought that gives him impure ideas about his elder. There is no way a monastery can be in a good state if the elder of the monastery is immoral. Even the perfect suffer harm when they hear praise. When a monk surrenders to thinking about the praises other people have addressed to him, he stops being a monk. An Orthodox monastery does as much missionary work as a parish. Also, creating and sustaining a monastery is more difficult than creating or sustaining a parish or a metropolis. If monastic communities have more than 12 monks following the example of the band of apostles, no productive work is done. Small companies of monks should have four monks together with their elder. A little while ago, I completed 50 years of monastic life. Someone said to me, What patience you have had to spend so many years in the monastic habit and asceticism. I answered him, not what patience, but what a privilege. We read in the sayings of the fathers that a monk was attacked by a certain woman. He started to pray and found himself outside on the road. How did this happen? I think that praying intensely with grace, he went into ecstasy, and whether in the body or out of the body, he did not know. In that state, he walked out of the house. That is to say, he walked along physically without realizing it. And when he returned to himself, he saw that he had covered quite a distance on foot. Thus, in all difficult situations in our life, we ought to pray intensely in order to overcome problems. Usually, the devil does not allow another monk to come into a cell of a saint who has sanctified it with prayer. And if another monk does enter it, he wages a fierce war against him. It is as though the devil were taking revenge. I recommended the monks to be cheerful outside, like the English. However, when they got into their cell, as soon as they shut the door, they should start to weep and mourn. When the longing for Hezekiah and flight to the desert comes and goes, that means that it is not a mature desire. When a longing comes from God, it remains irrepressible. When someone has the desire for Hezekiah and monastic life and dies before he can put it into practice, he will be reckoned as a monk and ascetic by God. When a synoptic monk is ready for the Hezekistic life, 
they should let him leave the monastery, because if he stays there, he will be destroyed by the praises of the other monks. When wealthy people want to donate money and wish to get involved in the life of the monastery, we should not take it in order to preserve our spiritual freedom. We should tell them to put it anonymously in the collection box if they want to. When I was a spiritual father at the monastery of St. Grigoriu on the Holy Mountain in the 40s, one monk fell into delusion and told me that the idea had come to him to murder some other monk as he was in a good spiritual state and thus he would help him to be saved. I advised him to tell Abbot Basarion in order to receive his blessing because nothing happens in the monastery without a blessing. I said this so as not to to transgress the confidentiality of the confession. The abbot, however, paid no attention and sent him away. Thus, the monk went in the evening to the cell of the monk about whom he had the evil thought, guided by the devil. He knocked on the door. The monk did not reply. But since the idea of murder had gotten into him, he knocked on the next door and murdered another monk. We should not be prisoners of an idea, and we should not act without obedience. We should not be tied down by dreams and aspirations. We ought to have no ties. If God wills something, he will give energy, grace, and strength for us to want it and to put it into practice. When a hermit visits a monastery, they ought not to take any notice of him because they may do him harm. It is possible that they may destroy him with the respect that they show him due to potential pride. Hearing confessions is a great and heavy task for the members of the clergy, but he must begin this task, even if he makes mistakes. He prays about every problem that God give him solutions. He should mention the first word that comes to him after intense prayer. In any case, no one is infallible. Only those who do not work do not have mis- do not make mistakes the idle do everything well don't they people's growing love of psychology is a terrible thing psychology helps those in the west but it is dreadful when the orthodox learn psychology and substitute it for the niptic tradition of the church We must undermine Orthodox Christians' love of psychology because psychological methodologies outside the Orthodox tradition and at the same time it is characterized by the Western mentality. Carnal sin starts off as psychological and sentimental and then comes to the body at which point it attempts to find occasions to complete the fall. Some children mature very quickly physically but the world of their soul does not mature easily. Some people want to combine married life with the sweetness of prayer as experienced by ascetics, but this cannot be done. As a result, they are distressed and lose hope. Noetic prayer requires purity of soul and body. We should guide them with discretion and tell them that it is better for prayer to stop rather than for communication with the other spouse to be interrupted and the family dissolved. If the family falls apart, the husband will look for another wife and probably the wife for another husband, and then prayer will be lost as well. 
Not only will the family break up, but prayer will also be lost. Spiritual life needs to be discreetly attuned to married life by an experienced spiritual father. If you want to destroy someone, tell him that he has a good voice or praise him for a gift that he has. People do not make a sincere confession immediately. A long time will pass before they put into the words what is troubling them, and often they will say it as though they had forgotten it. Much care is needed. We should show love and wait for their frank confession. Also, there are many who say, I will not tell everything in case the spiritual father deprives me of Holy Communion. We should encourage them to make a sincere confession, and when they confess sincerely, we should handle things with discernment. 1978 continued. There's a general phenomenon that we often observe. As soon as people know Christ, they sense the sweetness of the spiritual life, and immediately they want to abandon their work and devote themselves to Christ. Since, however, they have families, and this desire of theirs is fleeting, we must hold them back so they become stable in this spiritual activity. And as time passes, they will find ways of harmonizing God's will with their work. Then they will do what they want, or they will change their way of life without causing problems. The Apostle Paul faced the same problem with the Thess- Thessalonian Christians who did not want to work once they came to know Christ. There are some spiritual fathers who impose a rule on women that they should have children, even when the doctor forbids it, regardless of whether they die. And they justify this by saying that the women will become martyrs. We should not violate people's freedom. We should find ways to cure them so that they freely obey God's will. Also, one can urge oneself on to martyrdom, but not others. There are spiritual fathers who, in order to be certain, keep the letter of the law. This gives them security. However, those spiritual fathers are more secure who put themselves at risk for the sake of brotherly love and who apply economy living the spirit of the law. By using economy through prayer, they feel that that for love of their brethren they have transgressed the letter of the law. This reproach keeps them humble. By contrast, it is difficult for those who justify themselves as keepers of the law to be saved. Those spiritual fathers who are excessively strict cannot keep people with them or help them. Usually, I do not impose a rule with regard to prostrations. I do not lay down how many prostrations someone should do. Rather, I advise him to make prostrations until he is tired and until his body becomes accustomed to participating in prayer with his noose. In this way, everything is done with love and freedom without coercion. When the confessor regards the penitent with love and compassion without criticizing him, when he is confessing his falls, then he, the confessor, will benefit and receive grace, and will be enlightened to handle the problems correctly and to cure the wound. If, however, he criticizes him, even in thought, he will not be illuminated by God, and the penitent, too, will understand the spiritual father's attitude and will go away without being comforted. When people who had another spiritual father previously come to make their confession, 
We ought not to undermine the standing of their former spiritual father. We should recommend that they ask their previous spiritual father's blessing to come to us. Then the penitent will be blessed, but our own work will also go well. Otherwise, we will not succeed in this work, and they will leave us too. Bringing up children is difficult nowadays. Perhaps parents ought to look at themselves and develop themselves spiritually, so as not to forfeit their salvation. This comes first, and this will be transmitted to the children. The following happens with Orthodox books. Someone can write 500 pages, which are all in accordance with ecclesiastical teaching, and one mistake may be included as well. Everyone will dwell on the mistake and characterize the writer as a heretic. Great care is needed. When someone who is young makes a mistake, the others justify it as foolishness. When, however, he is of mature years and has some experience, they make no excuses for him at all. Concluding the discussion, I said many times, your blessing, and he replied emphatically, you have it, I have your name written in the proscomidi. With the blessing of the elder and the assurance of his prayer, I left for Greece. As is evident, the elder was a great theologian and spiritual father, and moved at high altitudes of the spiritual life. He did not bring his words down to a low level. When I was listening to him, I would often remember the beginning of the book of the prophet Isaiah, the vision of Isaiah which he saw, Isaiah 1.1, the beginning of the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of God came to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.1, and the book of the prophet Malachi, the burden prophetic oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by the hand of his messenger, Malachi 1.1. The elder's word was the vision of God, the word of God, and the burden of the word of the Lord. For that reason, some people did not understand him. A certain bishop had spoken against him. He told me that all the monks of this monastery were holy young men, but the problem with the monastery was the elder. When I told him one of the monks this, he answered, He says this because Father Sofroni is the monk's is not an ordinary man, excuse me, and he does not understand him, whereas we are human beings and he judges us by the human standards that he understands. He added, I am intoxicated with the writings of the elder. When I left, I took with me the prayer at daybreak, which the elder wrote and prayed in the desert of the holy mountain in Kurulia. It used to take him about an hour to say it. I left the monastery with real inspiration. This inspiration, which was not due to me, is clear from three letters that I wrote to Father Sofroni, Father Kirill, and Father Zosimas, now Zacharias. I wrote them here to show the spiritual climate of that time. Odessa, July 18th, 1978. Venerable Father Sofroni, your blessing. By your prayers, I returned to Edessa a few days ago. Thank you for your hospitality and the spontaneous love which I experienced both from yourself and from the brethren of your monastery. I believe that the foundation and existence of the monastery of St. John the Baptist accords with God's good pleasure. 
It presents orthodoxy and proclaims the ascetic spirit of our church. It is a manifestation of the truth that exists in the church. I believe that every monastery that is inspired and guided by the spirit of the tradition and every monk who has become dead to the world and has accepted the life of the past, the life of the undefiled tradition, is a huge protest against the spirit of secularization in the church, particularly institutionalized secularization. I make bold to say that such a monastery is living hope that the church exists and that orthodoxy exists. This may be slightly daring, but so true. It presents the authenticity of the gospel truth. I also think that the world today does not need people who know the fathers, but people who have a patristic way of thinking. In your monastery, I noticed, as I did the last time, apostolic simplicity, evangelical humility, and patristic experience. The brethren receive everyone who comes with unfeigned love and sincere concern. This bears witness to many things, that love has become incarnate. I remember your counsels and I am trying to put them into practice. I desire my salvation. I want to enjoy eternal life, the blessedness to come. I beseech you, Father, pray for me that I may find mercy with the Lord. May his mercy that cannot be measured enlighten my soul and draw me towards divine love. Pray that the old man may be put to death and that Christ may live in me. You have blessings and respects from his eminence. With deepest respect, signed Archimandrite Herothius Vlacos. And again, Edessa, July 18, 1978. Dear Brother in Christ, Father Kirill, your blessing. It is only a few days since I returned to Edessa, and I feel the need by means of this letter to express my warm thanks for the love that you showed me in all sorts of ways and for the unfeigned and sincere interest which I believe expresses the experience of communion in the same hidden body of Christ. Only someone who lives in the body of Christ perceives in the Holy Spirit other people as members of the same body and sacrifices himself every day in order to love and to do good. As I did last time, so this time too, I felt the change for the better, which cannot be described within the narrow confines of a letter. I just pray that it may remain in my soul, and that this change may lead to improvement, so that one day I may be found worthy of Christ being formed in me in the Holy Spirit. The presence of the elder, a bearer of the tradition, the ceaseless cry of the life-giving Jesus' prayer, the love of the brethren of your monastery, all these contribute to the experience of orthodoxy. I shall not write more because I would probably seem to be exaggerating and because it is possible that my sincerity may be mistaken for flattery. I ask forgiveness for the, for the bother that I caused. I thank you profoundly for the hospitality, full of genuine love, and I ask you to pray to God for me. I have written to the elder, but convey my respects to him as well as my love to all the brethren, with the fervent request that they pray for me, with much love in Christ, our commandrite Herothius Vlacos. And July 18th, 1978, from Edessa, Dear Brother in Christ, Father Zosimus, your blessing. I address you as a brother, and I feel you are very close to me. 
Without really understanding it, I feel that you and I are brothers of the same monastery. I felt the need to write a letter to you too, even though I have already written letters to the elder and to Father Kirill, because I bothered and disturbed you more than anyone else. Thank you for the interest that you showed in me. I recognized on many occasions that you did it out of great love, and the more perfect the love, the more closely it is linked with sacrifice. I therefore realized that you often sacrificed for me sweet hours that you could have spent in your cell, engaged in calling upon the name of Jesus, and this for the sake of a brother. I ask your forgiveness, and I am grateful for your love. Brother, my heart is too cold and barren to find appropriate words of thanks. I believe, however, that you will have discerned at least my good intention to thank you. My latest stay at your monastery brought me immense benefit. You said to me that this time I did not benefit as much as last time, because there was a lot of over-familiarity and so on. However, the opposite happened. I benefited more, even though I did not want to show it. I am not writing this out of politeness and good manners, because fortunately in this respect, I am a Roman. Pray for me. Please ask the other brethren as well to pray for my progress according to God. I do not want to become a good human being, free from peculiarities and so on, but a man of God. To stop living as an individual and to live as a person. To get rid of my own will for the sake of the will of the God-man, Jesus. I now see clearly that Hezekiah, in its full dynamic sense, is more beneficial for me. Different activities, even ecclesiastical ones, are a hindrance to me. To be sure, they are not to blame in any way, but rather I am. I consider you blessed because you have found a wise elder and chosen the good part. I do not complain because to me, too, God has revealed an elder with evident discernment. However, the atmosphere of the monastery and the desert moves me and does me good. The world and ministry in the church do not help me to weep, whereas the Hezekiah of the desert and the atmosphere of the monastery is, I believe, the right place for me to see my desolation and to weep over it. I seem to need a river of Babylon. By the river of Babylon, there he sat and wept when he remembered Zion. In fact, the heavenly Zion is remembered in the river. I realized this at your monastery, especially when I found myself in the river of divine grace during the divine liturgy. Pray for me, Father Zosimus, with much brotherly love, signed Archimandrite Hirothis Flacos. That year, at the monastery, I met a philologist who had just finished her postgraduate project and was going to leave for Greece. She described to me how she had met the elder, how she had benefited from his teaching, his personality, and his advice, and how she began to see the church in another perspective. I record some of the things that she told me to show how the elder exercised a pastoral ministry toward pilgrims to the monastery. He regarded each one differently and personally. To those who were well disposed, benefited greatly. In each case, he would act in a self-emptying and sacrificial way as a great elder with godly wisdom. Many people from all over the world can tell of such occurrences, members of the clergy and monks, academics and simple people, students and pupils, people with families 
and children, Orthodox and non-Orthodox, those experienced in spiritual things who have lived the spiritual life, and beginners or even atheists, monks of the holy mountain and those living in the world, all benefited from seeing the elder. They received his word in order to put it into practice and to be saved, either in their family or in monasticism. Many were born again spiritually, and many non-Orthodox converted to Orthodoxy and gained genuine knowledge of God because the elder was a theologian as well as a spiritual father. The excerpts quoted are indicative, representative, and expressive. Hundreds and thousands of people could relate similar experiences from their meeting with the ever-memorable elder. Quote, We arrived at All Saints Church on, Mon on Monday, Thursday, while Father Sofroni was reading the first gospel of the Passion. As we entered, I beheld a biblical figure, venerable priest, all white, who pinned me to the spot. I was unable to move, to take a step. He was reading the gospel slowly, clearly, and meaningfully. Nobody stirred. This image is deeply engraved in my memory. At breakfast in the refectory, the elder sent a sister to call me over and to place me next to him. Have we such Greek people here, he said, and looked at me, while his face was shining like the sun and he was laughing. I could not utter a word and just gazed at him, and he looked at me intensely. The elder took me with him to the office where he first prayed with raised hands, and then sat down, looked at me, and laughed. I hardly needed to explain anything. He knew everything. He began to teach me. My visits to Essex became frequent. On one visit I mentioned to the elder that sometimes I felt a terrible pressure, that the whole earth was pressing down on me. The elder explained that this happened because England was not an orthodox country and no one around me in the town where I was living prayed, rather the opposite happened. On the contrary, in Greece the bells ring, liturgies are celebrated, people pray, and this environment helps a lot in prayer. Prayer rises up warfare and temptations from the devil. The elder used to tell me, you belong to the family, and since there was no room, I usually stayed in the sister's attic. When he met me outside the sister's house on the path of his own house, he would often say, where are you staying, in Ornupoli? You know that the holy mountain is next door, and he pointed with his walking stick to his bungalow. One day he met me outside the father's house and we walked along together. Lightheartedly, he responded to what I was thinking, namely, that I would be very foolish to live a worldly life when these people live like angels. And he said to me, all these people, and he pointed to the fathers who were ahead of us, are foolish, but you love them all. Do you want to be foolish too? And he began to laugh loudly. On another occasion, when I was rather dejected, he took a spiritual x-ray. He looked up at the overhead electricity cables and said, Do you see that bird? It is sitting on the cable. Do you know what voltage it carries? But the bird suffers no harm. The monk is like that. He has a great struggle within him, and on the outside he appears very calm. There was never any need for me to tell him anything. He knew everything and answered me looking at me with those sparkling, 
penetrating eyes of his. Once on the feast of the nativity of the Theotokos, I was very joyful. At breakfast in the refectory, the elder turned to me and, stressing the word joy, saying, Your nativity, O mother of God, brought joy to the whole world. He smiled and sat down to breakfast. Every time the day drew near when I would leave the monastery, I would weep a lot. Seeing me in this state, the elder said, Weep, regardless of the cause. Turn it into prayer. Turn it into repentance and prayer. Once when I told him that I could not retain many of the things that I read, the latter sayings of the fathers, start Silwan, he replied, You do not need to retain it. The heart understands it and it becomes spiritual nourishment without you realizing it. In March, I began writing my postgraduate project, and I finished it in August. My confidence in the elder's statement, write it and we shall bl blind them, you will get through, gave me strength to continue. Thus, when I handle, handed it in without reading it even once, even though I had written it directly in English, which I did not know particularly well, I left for the monastery hoping that I would stay for as long as I wanted, but unfortunately I was appointed to a post and I had to return. On the 16th of September, after the midday meal, I was to leave. The elder called me over to him, and as I was crying continuously, he said, You will make us all cry. He stopped the meal early. He took me by the hand and we went to his office, where one of the fathers arrived with a bunch of roses. The elder took the flowers and began to cut off the thorns. He gave them to me and said, I have removed all the obstacles for you. The elder's word was the word of God. You thought God was speaking to you. I never had any doubt about that. End of quote. As I mentioned above, the impressions of this pilgrim show how the elder approached people. Thousands of people were regenerated spiritually by this transfigured man who always spoke theologically wherever he met people. End of 1978. 1979. As is evident from the above, I had many discussions with Father Sofroni in the summer of 1978, and I gained a great deal from what he said to me. At the same time, I entered more deeply into the spirit of the monastery. I relished the contrite and hesychistic services with the prayer rope and the recitation of the Jesus prayer. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, as well as the Divine Liturgy, which was celebrated in a hesychistic atmosphere. This inspiration followed me to Edessa. I attempted to continue the program of the monastery with regard to the daily services within the circumstances of my pastoral ministry while living in the official residence of the metropolis with my blessed elder, Metropolitan Kalinikos of Edessa, Pella, and Almopia. The ever-memorable Kalinikos rejoiced at all the contact that I had had with Father Sofroni. Every time I returned, he would ask me to tell him exactly what the elder had said, so that he too could benefit. Thus, we were both, in some way, disciples of Father Sofroni. Of course, Father Sofroni also respected the monastic consciousness of Metropolitan Kalinikos, as well as his noble love linked with freedom. 
At a certain point, however, while I was praying the Jesus prayer, I felt something specific. I was afraid that it, it might be some sort of delusion. I wrote immediately to the elder telling him precisely what I was experiencing, and I asked for personal guidance. A few days later, completely unexpectedly, I received a letter from the elder, the only one that I have in my archive. Later on, I found out that Father Sofroni had been positively concerned and had put my letter in the place where he prayed so he would remember me when praying and pray for me. I shall quote this letter of his with two explanatory comments. The first is that in this letter, the elder expresses his own experience in Paris and how he was led to the holy mountain. Noetic prayer caught fire within him and made his presence in the world impossible, so he left for the holy mountain, where St. Silouan gave him confirmation. This letter should be read in this spirit, in other words, as an autobiography of the elder. The second comment is that Father Sofroni writes and gives guidance through his own personal experience, as did all the Holy Fathers, but he respects the freedom of his correspondent absolutely. He opens up new opportunities in the spiritual life without imposing obligations. This is noble love, as possessed by those who have knowledge and experience of the life of the Spirit, sacred knowledge of God. These two reasons have led me to publish this letter from Father Sofroni and, of course, to seek his prayer and intercessions. The letter reads as follows. Monastery of St. John the Baptist, Tolshan Knights, by Malden, Essex. 30th September 1978. My dear brother and concelebrant in Christ, Father Herothius. Today I received your letter on 24th of September. I am replying to you at once, praying that the Lord may have mercy on us both. I do not reply as an elder, but as a brother and concelebrant at the throne of our Most High God and Savior. My profound respect for Father Paisios prompts me to suggest that you comply with his word. But when I confront your problem, which is analogous to that which confronted me more than half a century ago, I allow myself to set out my thoughts. I am speaking to you on the basis of my experience. I make no claim that my word is directly from God, so it is not obligatory for you. Accept with fear, as God's blessing, what happens to you during and after prayer. All those to whom such prayer is granted experience something similar to you. Prayer itself teaches you what you ought to do. I am only taking the place of a brother witness. As you see, there is no eagerness to prepare sermons. You have no inclination to communicate with the world. You have conceived the desire to go into a monastery, and so on. All these things work naturally within the soul through prayer itself, and the soul knows this in a natural way without guidance from outsiders. But you are right to ask someone else so as to gain evidence that the present case is a matter of God's mercy and not stimulation of the imagination. Thus it was from the beginning. The Virgin Mother God went to Elizabeth. The Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem. And our fathers advise us to ask those who inspire confidence. I must tell you 
to combine this sort of prayer with activity in the world is not possible. Perhaps you have heard about Bishop Theophan the Recluse, the author of many ascetic works, who in the last century left his episcopal throne with the blessing of the Holy Synod of the Russian Church and went into a monastery. As I write in the book about the Starets and in my article, Principles of Orthodox Monasticism, the noose that prays in the heart cannot and should not allow its attention to turn to anything else. Nothing is more important and necessary than prayer. Academic work, which does not give genuine knowledge of God, but only acquaintance with words about God, is abandoned. Inner prayer is not compatible with activity in the world, however beneficial this may be. This is why inspiration for sermons does not come. The heart and the noose avoid even this kind of pastoral ministry. What else can I say to you? Withdrawal from the world becomes the one thing needful. Thus what is happening within you is not a fantasy of an arrogantly deluded noose. No, it is the call of God. A call to a more difficult and painful life on account of profound repentance which is necessary for our salvation. May my word not trouble your heart. Perhaps this is sinful, spiritual selfishness. No, it is not. Rather, one should reflect. If I myself am in the darkness of ignorance of the ways of salvation, how will I be able to assist in the salvation of my neighbor? The Lord said, Physician, heal yourself first. If I myself am a slave of the passions, how will I purify others from passions? And so on. If God so wishes, then later on, after many years, when you learn how merciful the Lord is, you may possibly seem useful to your brothers. But we ought not to think about that at the start of the journey. Now there is nothing before you except repentance. Repentance, which has no end upon earth, because this end would mean complete likeness to Christ. So, if my word is acceptable, the practical issue arises of putting this aim into practice. I hope that you are able to entreat your bishop and benefactor to give you his episcopal blessing for the proposed work of repentance in poverty and humility. Do not build cells now and do not take on the worry of founding a group of monks, lest you lose precious time for God's visitation. Ask of the bishop and it will be given you. As far as possible, do not delay. This is what St. John Climacus advises. Know for certain that in the world you will not be able to keep the inner prayer that has now been given to you. Forgive me. Pray for me. I beseech God to have abundant mercy upon you with brotherly love. Signed, A. Sophroni. P.S. Would the holy mountain not be the best place for you, as it was for me in those days? May the Lord and the Most Holy Virgin Lady assist you. And once again, my word is theoretical, from my personal experience, so it is not binding. Peace be with you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Signed, A. Sophroni. I did as the elder advised me, but Metropolitan Kalinikos of blessed memory was not willing to let me leave him. He told me, Please, I beg you not to do it. I leave you free to do whatever you like while living here with me. So I did not have his blessing in accordance with the elder's advice. 
I told the elder this, and he had no objection. In any case, his word was not binding. I built a small cottage outside Edessa, near the chapel dedicated to the prophet Elijah, and I divided my daily life between this hermitage and the metropolis, living as hesychistically as possible. The elder's prayers, however, set me on fire as regards inner prayer. I wrote to him about these matters. For me, the winter of 1978 to 1979 was really a gift from God by the intercessions of Father Sofroni and the prayers of my elder, Metropolitan Kalinikos. So, when I went to the monastery in Essex in the summer of 1979, my communication with the elder was becoming even deeper. The reader will realize the elder's words were mostly concerned with prayer and the inner life of the soul. The elder received me with very great joy. That summer he was writing the book that was later published under the title, We Shall See Him As He Is. Someone told me, before starting to write on the, on the typewriter, the elder closes his eyes, lifts up his hands to God, prays, and then writes. The first time I met him, I asked him to give me the chance to ask him a few things about prayer and the spiritual life. He told me, stay here at the monastery, and at the first opportunity I shall call you. That year I happened to be there for the Sunday of Pentecost. We celebrated Vespers magnificently on Saturday afternoon. In fact, the ever-memorable Abbot Ephrem of the monastery of Zirputamu sang the Choparia for the right-hand choir with his gentle and contrite voice, and I sang those for the left-hand choir. The elder was also present, and he conveyed a special atmosphere to us. It was significant to know that the next next to you was a father who had reached the heights of Pentecost and Theoria of the Uncreated Light. The next day, at the Divine Liturgy of Pentecost, Father Sofroni showed me the church where they had opened, on his orders, windows in the roof. And he told me, this shows illumination from on high. He wanted there to be light from above in the church to avoid shadows. The saints organized their everyday life and the architecture of the church building in accordance with their experience. At the service of kneeling vespers, he read the first prayer in a slow, contrite, and supplicatory manner, different from the usual. The rest of us priests read the remaining prayers. While I was staying at the monastery, I celebrated the liturgy every Sunday in the All Saints Church with the elder the abbot, and the hero monks of the monastery. I often preached at the Divine Liturgy, and occasionally I would address the pilgrims after paraclesis in the afternoon. One Sunday, the elder asked me to speak at the Divine Liturgy. The Gospel reading referred to the miracle of the healing of the centurion's servant, fourth Sunday of Matthew. Prompted by the centurion's words to Christ, Speak a word, and my servant will be healed. Matthew 8.8, 8. Christ's reply, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the result, his servant was healed that same hour. Matthew 8.13, I spoke about the divine word being the energy of God and not a casual human word. In any case, according to St. Gregory of Nyssa, everything created is created by a word. 
I developed this subject on the basis of the teaching of Holy Scripture, the fathers of the Holy Fathers, and particularly of St. Maximus the Confessor, who says, quote, He who receives a commandment and carries it out receives mystically the Holy Trinity, end of quote. The elder was very enthusiastic about this theological reference to the energy of the divine word because he had experienced for himself that the word of God is his energy. So when I finished and I went into the sanctuary, he said, quote, you spoke as a theologian. It is a fact that the word of God has energy and regenerates man, end of quote. This acceptance by the elder, a great father, with theological criteria and ecclesiastical experience was a confirmation for me of my preaching ministry. One day I happened to be nearby when the elder was coming out of his bungalow. He showed his pleasure, stretching out his arms to their full extent and telling me, quote, I have just finished a chapter of my book, and now I am yours. Do what you like with me. End of quote. Ah, wonderful statement but also a moving and splendid image of the cross. I am yours. Do what you like with me. That was the elder. We had a significant meeting. Some of the things he told me were as follows. Nineteen seventy-nine continued. Some of the things he told me were as follows. Many fathers say that the Christian ought to study himself, to examine himself every day, to see the good things and the bad. This did not help me, however, whereas something else did. I used to say to myself, What does God want me to do today? I would set Christ's commandments before me and proceed to put them into practice, as the Apostle Paul says, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.13-14 Thus, apart from serious transgressions, which require complete, all-embracing repentance and confession, one should not analyze oneself, nor examine one's thoughts to see where they come from, or whether one has grace and how much. One ought not to spy on oneself, but to have profound repentance. To be sure, for the priest who works in the world, profound repentance is not possible and may not even be beneficial because then he cannot pay attention to others, so he is of little benefit to people. Profound repentance comes through humility and the action of divine grace. When humility is lost, everything is lost. The entire spiritual life is clear from Christ's Beatitudes, which begin with humility. Even theological knowledge can create self-centered satisfaction, in which case everything falls apart. How do we attain to humility and repentance? We have Christ's commandments before us, and we try to put them into practice. We realize, however, that we cannot reach the height of his commandments. Then we realize that we are sinners, and we have passions. We begin to repent, to weep. Grieving, we seek God's mercy. The Christian's life is very simple. When God bestows certain states of grace, one ought not to reflect on them, much less describe them, just as the awareness of one's sinfulness ought not to be shared with other people. Many years after the visitation of divine grace, 
particularly when one does not scrutinize it or spy on oneself, a personal knowledge remains, which is a taste of theology. The one who believes that he is deluded does not fall into delusion. In other words, every sin is delusion, as the state of temptation deludes the noose and it departs from God. So when we sin, we feel that we are deluded. Then we seek God's mercy without ceasing, and this sets us free from delusion. One ought to be moderate in all things. One must always act according to one's physical capabilities and the spiritual state one is in. One ought not to pay attention to oneself while prayer is active. Sometimes the energy of prayer ceases for various reasons, mostly due to inappropriate actions. Then contrite and penitential prayers required. In general, we ought to live with a sense of sinfulness. This develops profound repentance and so prayer is activated. One should not spy on oneself and observe the states of prayer inside oneself. When we pray intensely, our body is transformed as well. Although a monk is a natural human being, when he prays with penitence and mourning, he experiences the transformation of his body. Then many benefits come, such as discernment, peace, and so on. This is how we interpret the transformation of the body through, through theoria, vision of God. The words, keep your mind in hell and despair not, were given by God to start Silouan in the era when Einstein was giving the world the atomic bomb, the theory that led to the atomic bomb. Thus, the consoling words, despair not, make an impression in our time because everyone is in despair. There is no better occasion for humility than when other people despise us. In this case, we should not even ask why they hold us in contempt. Other people's contempt helps us to be humble. When a thought produces pride, we should say, Death has fallen upon me. My murderers have come. This gives rise to repentance. When someone prays, he should pay no attention to anything, even the warmth produced in his heart. He should simply be in a state of profound penitence and feel that he is far from God. He should be like a train that keeps speeding towards its destination. He must find the right measure in asceticism. Tears are essential for prayer and the spiritual life in general. Not many tears are needed, but even a single teardrop with inner mourning of the heart. This mourning is very significant. Contrition is impossible without tears. Tears are a sign that the noose has been united with the heart in the Holy Spirit, and for that reason the fathers ascribe great importance to tears during prayer. When someone feels that his heart is saying the prayer and his noose, his attention, is elsewhere, this means that his noose is not yet united with his heart. The union of noose and heart comes about in the Holy Spirit in the first stage of theoria. From there, at moments when the one praying least expects it, and when the, his noose is pure, the theoria of the uncreated light will come just as sleep comes gently. When someone prays and tries to concentrate his attention, sometimes his head hurts and sometimes his neck. 
This pain in his neck ought to be avoided because it causes disturbed sleep, various dreams, and so on. When someone has nightmares or feels disturbed, he should get out of bed and pray. And weeping, the soul is cleansed of these images. A powerful prayer is, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. Someone who has noetic prayer should avoid preaching, lest he divulge the prayer that acts within him, because he will want to speak about what he is experiencing. I speak in general, and those who understand, understand. Prayer depends on the environment. The environment helps or hinders prayer, but it is also a matter of blood, of family tradition. It is significant if someone has the blood of praying parents, if his mother prayed when she was carrying him in her womb. Due to circumstances, nowadays few people are able to practice noetic prayer while they are working in the way that people used to pray in the past, even in the palace. The fathers tell us not to praise someone who prays even in the street. This is the grace of God, a gift from on high, and we should attribute it to God. The warmth and joy that we feel during prayer are respite on the difficult journey of prayer. They will be a consolation in the difficult days to come. Some theologians regard historical knowledge as important. However, because they are interested in this sort of knowledge, they do not find time for prayer. Knowledge of God comes through prayer. Through rational knowledge, we learn what the Father said about God. But through prayer, we learn what God himself says. We hear God's own voice. One should adjust prayer to suit the work that one does. It is possible to lose prayer in the desert and to find it in the city. Going to live on the holy mountain is no easy matter. It may even lead to self-esteem if someone held an important position in society and the other monks respect him. Repentance is a personal matter and a moment of grace. One must repent alone, by grace, living in blessed humility. When others humble us, we should say, They are doing me good. Glory to you, O God. When others praise us, we should say, Glory to you, O God, that people are gaining benefit. So in both cases he gains. When the heart does not respond to prayer by its movement and warmth, particular care is needed. One ought not to force one's heart in this state. One should say the prayer orally, because otherwise the heart may grow weak through pressure and bodily disorders may occur. The fact that the heart does not respond to prayer is due to various sins, which are committed even through thoughts. In this case, if one does not remember anything, one ought not to search out the cause, but to humble oneself, saying, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. Although it seems then as if the heart is not responding to prayer, later on it will respond. We must preserve a contrite spirit, which comes from humility. Once I knew the truth, Christ, as the true God, I greatly regretted the time when I had been involved in Buddhism. I went far astray. Now I realize more than ever that everything outside Christ is a delusion, an absurdity. There's a great difference between East and West. 
A Westerner who is baptized Orthodox will spend many years in the Orthodox Church under the guidance of an experienced spiritual director in order to acquire a holy, entirely Orthodox mentality and ethos. Until then, he cannot and should not act as a teacher to people who are of Orthodox stock, who are born and brought up as Orthodox. This is why the union of the churches cannot come about. Discussions may lead to an acquaintance, which may help politically, but without harming orthodoxy. But the union of the churches is difficult or impossible. Those who talk about union of the churches are ignorant of the way non-orthodox think and of the exalted nature of orthodoxy. Some non-orthodox hate the orthodox. The proof of this is that if a Westerner becomes a Buddhist or a Marxist, his relatives do not reject him from the family, but if he becomes Orthodox, they reject him. If this attitude did not exist, many Westerners would become Orthodox. When someone preaches, he should say that what his heart gives him to say and not what his mind tells him. The simple word that issues from the heart has energy and saves others. The sermons that are delivered ought to be convictions from the heart. Only then does even a simple word act in the heart of the hearers. When he feels emptiness in our heart and our heart does not give a word, this means that we have lost grace. Philosophers examine everything with their brain, their mind, which is why each of them has a different opinion from the others. Theologians who work cerebrally are the same. Monks, however, live in repentance, so there is communion between them on the basic issues. Thus they understand many of the spiritual states that people are in. Both experience and intellectual knowledge are required in order to put the spiritual life into words. The fathers of the church had both experience and knowledge. From the beginning, the church lived the grace that Christ brought into the world. Three centuries were required for it to acquire the terminology. Slowly, the church developed the terminology according to the problems that arose. But the church lived the life of eternity from the first day, from Pentecost. Starat Siloan was a great saint. His speech was calm. He spoke quietly, without gestures, peacefully. When I spoke to Starat Siloan, I would let him talk. I would only ask him something if I did not understand, but that happened only occasionally. Afterwards, I understood, understood him fully, particularly after his death, when I went into the desert. This is what usually happens with all those who have contact with saints. When I was in the monastery of St. Pantaleman on the holy mountain and Star Silouan was still alive, mentally I would kiss even the ground that he trod. I had such profound respect for him. When we want to help someone, God will give us a word to offer him. In general, we should pray to God to tell us what to say on each occasion. St. Siloan helped a young monk in this way. His father had brought him to the monastery as an adolescent. When this monk was 19 or 20 years old, he had doubts about whether God existed, so he wanted to stop being a monk and return to the world. His natural father begged St. Siloan to talk to him. Siloan went to his cell first to pray that God would enlighten him as to what to say. After praying, he received a word from God, and he went to the monk and said, 
Doubting thoughts occasionally come to me too. The monk who thought highly of St. Silouan took courage and asked, And what do you do then, Starets? St. Silouan replied, I chase them away. So the monk, who respected the starts, listened to what he said, dismissed the thoughts, became a good monk, and died as a monk. For someone else, a different word would be required, because if someone were to say this to him, he might say, As such thoughts occur even to start, Silouan, that holy man, it follows that God does not exist. This is why spiritual fathers must pray to God and receive the word that God gives, which is specific to each one. This means that we help other people personally. Starat Siloan's words are for all categories of people, even for those of other faiths. We have a word from Starat Siloan to say to everyone. When a member of the clergy has profound repentance, he cannot do much pastoral work in the world. Because the pastoral ministry requires constant activity, which is impossible for someone marked by profound repentance. Serve your bishop. In order for you to receive grace and for the service to be in God, he should say, Lord Jesus Christ, through my bishop, have mercy upon me, a sinner. If a young man is flippant and does stupid things, we should pray that God may bring him to his senses. But we should avoid, we should not avoid him. This simplicity helps a lot. The loss of divine grace causes great pain, comparable to the body's mortal agony, but also to the fear of death. Great patience is needed then. One day I met him on the path. He was coming out of the main building of the monastery after hearing confessions and was on his way to his bungalow. I approached him, asked for his blessing, and told him that when I read his writings, I felt that he spoke about the light as though he had seen it. He stooped down to touch a flower in the garden, and as he did this without looking at me, he answered me in a natural and humble way. I have not seen the form of Christ with his body as Start Siloan did, now and again in a state of intense prayer without thoughts. One senses the nearness of God, that one is touching eternity. This is Theoria. You too have felt something similar. This shows the way in which he spoke and the fact that he concealed himself, praising others to excess. He went on to talk about St. Siloan, saying, Start Siloan is a great saint. In Russia they present the book about Start Siloan to the best student, a Catholic seminary, bought 200 copies of His Life is Mine. I found the opportunity to ask him about a debate being carried on publicly in Greece about the nature of the uncreated light. He was following this public discussion himself, and he told me, I observe that they speak about the divine light without having seen it. When I asked him to explain further, he said, if they had seen it, they would not talk in this way. Anyone who sees the divine light is transformed and behaves differently. I had a camera with me, and I asked if we could have our photograph taken together. He accepted readily. He called a monk, and as a souvenir of this meeting, I still have the photograph, in which we are standing in front of the green background of the trees at the monastery. It is the first photograph of the two of us.
that summer, I remember that just seeing the elder made me feel very deep mourning. On one occasion, this happened more intensely during the midday meal in the refectory. One day, he put me next to him at table as the abbot of the monastery was absent and we ate fish. He turned to me and said, I am amazed. I am a dog and I eat fish. Do dogs eat fish? He was profoundly humble, and mourning never left him throughout his life in spite of his great experiences of the vision of God. It seems that he also transmitted this mourning to those who were close to him. On another occasion in the refectory, David Balfour, about whom I have written elsewhere in the book, was with us at the table. I was talking to him. At one point I glanced at the elder and I saw the following. He had a focused his gentle gaze on Balfour's face and tears were streaming from his eyes without convulsive movements of his face. Another time I saw during the meal in the refectory that he was inwardly tense and wept. Afterwards he was unable to speak. However, I do not know the reason. It should be mentioned here that when I spoke to Balfour at the monastery, he told me at the monastery of St. Pentelemon, Father Sophroni would weep and sigh. He was attacked by demons. He saw the uncreated light. I could not look at Start Siloam because his face shone. The only reason Father Sophroni wanted to go into the desert was that he could not stay at the monastery on account of his weeping and mourning. After meals, Father Sophroni used to expound to pilgrims the icons on the refectory walls. I remember that while explaining the wall painting of the Last Supper and interpreting the scriptural passage, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him, he said, Christ said these words after Judas had left. Thus we too feel that our words stop when someone is present who does not understand them. I have written elsewhere that the characteristic of the faces and icons painted by the elder is that their noose is in their heart and they, they are praying noetic prayer. Through iconography, the elder expresses the hesychistic tradition of the church that he lived in himself. Leaving the refectory one day, I was next to the elder and a lady asked him to pray for her. Out of humility, he pointed to me and said, Ask him to pray because his prayer is heard. He said this, of course, on account of the profound humility that was typical of him. I heard many monks and others talking about the beneficial presence of Father Sophroni. One monk told me, The elder does not have the peculiarities either of Russians or of the Greeks. He speaks to you and his noose is anchored in heaven. In fact, I discerned this on many occasions, as does anyone who reads his words. Another monk told me, Father Sophroni lets the spiritual life develop in a natural way. There have been circumstances in which he could have set fire to me with a match, but he let things happen naturally. Another monk told me in confidence, Even now the elder sees the uncreated light, but he does not want to say anything about it in case he loses God's gift. This was perceptible from the inspiration that he passed on to those near him, from the atmosphere in which he celebrated, and from his living theological word. Despite of everything that has been written, no one should feel that the elder was awe-inspiring. 
On the contrary, although he inspired respect, he was at the same time very agreeable. Sometimes when the atmosphere was oppressive, he would tell a joke in order to lighten it and ease the tension. He never wanted to feel that someone he was talking to regarded him as a saint. In that case, as he told me, he felt horror. To make the visitor feel more at ease, he would praise him in various ways. For instance, one day he saw me and said to Father Zacharias, very important person. Once, when I met him and I told him about a problem that I had with a metropolitan, not Kalinikos, and he immediately showed concern. As he told me, he feared how I might react to the metropolitan's attitude, lest perhaps I would answer him back and lose grace, because it is dangerous for someone to react against a bishop who has the grace of the episcopate. Before I left the monastery, he said the following to me in another personal discussion. 1979 continued. Experience of dogma is apparent in the ascetic and theological concept of the person. The light of God is homogeneous, whereas the devil's light is uneven. All those who have been involved in Buddhism must repent completely, because otherwise this Eastern experience will leave something in their soul. Many spe people speak about love, eros, intense longing. Sermons about intense longing for God are dangerous, because people without personal experience of divine eros talk about intense longing for God in terms of human eros. The fathers spoke in a different way. They had personal experience of divine eros and simply took images from natural eros in order to express it, as they did not have any other images to use in this case. They spoke from a different perspective and, and in, a, in a different atmosphere. The Russian church is living Christ's agony in Gethsemane and Christ's cross in Golgotha. During this time of trial and persecution, the official church attempts to preserve whatever it can, and those who criticize its stance do not have an orthodox ethos. The orthodox ethos does not try to impose itself by violent means. The church does not deny the cross. At the time of the ancient persecutions, a group of Christians were being led to martyrdom. On the way, one of them tore up the emperor's decree for their arrest. The church did not canonize him as a saint, although he was martyred because his action was political. So our actions must not serve any political purpose. There's no room for politics in the gospel, as politics seeks authority, whereas the gospel preaches love, sacrifice, self-emptying, and the cross. I do not want the union of the churches to come about, at least at the present time, because the Roman Catholics will not change, but the Orthodox will be corrupted. As you have your bishop's understanding as regards prayer, there is no reason for you to leave for the holy mountain. You should listen to him and do whatever he tells you, so that you will have the right conditions for prayer and you will feel the grace of prayer. If the bishop is grieved by something, you will forfeit the preconditions for prayer. The two apostles, St. John the Evangelist and St. Paul, speak in different ways, but both are great. It is the same with St. Silwan and 
Elder Joseph the Cave Dweller. They were both great monks, but they lived in different ways, one in a Cenobitic monastery and the other in the desert. Elder Yosef was an extraordinary man. When God in the Holy Spirit inspires a spiritual idea in someone, it belongs to the Church and all its members. For example, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is not just his, but belongs to the Church. It is ours as well. Western religious culture ascribes great importance to outward bodily asceticism. Because of that, Westerners tire themselves out, particularly their brains and nerves, so even their foreheads are wrinkled. A good Orthodox monk lives with his heart, though without being released from asceticism, so his brow is smooth and he does not frown. The bitterness that one feels for someone else, even though it is justified, makes the heart sick and contributes to the loss of God's grace. Faith gives birth to fear, not fear to faith, as the fear of God is born of faith in God. The Orthodox experience faith in God, whereas the fear of God is the characteristic feature of Westerners. The Apostle Paul writes, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, 1 Corinthians 14.32. This means that God's grace in the prophets does not do away with their freedom. The opposite happens with the evil spirit, which abolishes the freedom of those in which it acts. The prophet is not grieved when prayer is interrupted in order to show love, because then he does not forfeit God's grace. The epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews expresses his personal life, particularly his prayer of repentance in the Arabian desert. It is an autobiography of the Apostle Paul. Prayer for others must be done correctly, not with the imagination. We should not attempt with our mind to imagine other people and to pray for them. But when our heart is gripped by pain for someone, then he is susceptible to prayer, and we should pray for him. If we have a list of names, we can read it once and, and then pray, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon thy servants. This does not stimulate the imagination. Anything done by force without love and freedom does not enter the eternity of God. It is not true that St. Seraphim of Serov said to everyone he met, Christ is risen, my joy. He said this sometimes to someone who was in need. St. Seraphim felt such repentance within himself that no one could sit next to him. He was on fire. At the moment, I do not want anyone to see the texts that I am writing. This is because on the one hand, I write openly, when I write about the spiritual life, I do not want to write abstractly and philosophically. On the other hand, when I write openly and freely on these subjects and other people read what I write, I do not want to lose God's grace, nor do I want them to come to meet a saint. Because of the way Westerners pray, they cannot understand the long prayers of Orthodox monks. They are tired after praying for half an hour because they pray in their heads intellectually. The Orthodox pray with their noose. Sometimes, someone who prays becomes clear-sighted and can foresee things. 
Often he does not realize it himself, as it is a natural state. Sometimes he also hears the voice of God in his heart. This should happen to him continuously. So, when on one occasion we hear God's voice within us, or something is revealed to us, we ought to humble ourselves and reflect that we should be continuously in this state, as was Adam before the fall. Sometimes I see that I am self-moving, or rather moved by something else. He was activated by the grace of God. Sometimes when someone who prays becomes angry, he feels as though his heart moves and changes position and place. When you say the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, dwell on the words, my Jesus, when grace is active in you. It is natural for someone to feel love for Christ. It shows the action of a moderate degree of grace. We should say this a few times. Most of the time, however, we should insist on the phrase, have mercy upon me, a sinner. This sense of repentance is essential. Two things are important during prayer. One is reaching up towards Christ. We should not examine anything else, visions, voices, or light, but have all our attention on the person of Christ. The other thing is uninterrupted mourning and profound repentance. We must not pay attention to anything that happens during prayer, not even voices. If a voice is heard within us during prayer and it does not produce compunction, we should pay no attention to it. The news should be fixed on Christ. When we pray a lot, we understand the distinction between acquiring knowledge from books and acquiring knowledge from personal experience. If in an action we are 5% wrong and the others are 95% wrong and we put right our 5% share of the wrong, then we do not notice the others' wrongdoing and nothing is left for them. We should love the contempt that other people show us, but we should not boast about how patient we are. We should regard our slanderers as our benefactors. We are released from the captivity of thoughts through repentance, which is the action of God's grace and does not impose itself. Another way is not to accept bad thoughts. The purpose of Christian marriage is for people to reach unselfish love and to cut off their own will, and thence to reach God. Those who begin their spiritual life with contempt for the law of God will eventually be shipwrecked concerning the faith. In the beginning, noetic prayer cannot be combined with missionary activity. Later on, after 20 or 30 years, one can pray noetic prayer without being distracted by missionary activity. In paradise, Adam forfeited dialogue with God on account of sin. Christ, through his incarnation, attempted to conceive him to continue through repentance the conversation that he had had with him in paradise he shouts repent god however has changed the terms of communication in paradise he told him subdue the earth now he tells him the rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them yet it shall not be so among you Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Matthew twenty twenty-five to 27 In the beginning, man should have become lord of the earth. Now the rulers dominate the world. So anyone who wishes to be saved must become the servant and slave of all. After the pattern of Christ, 
the terms have been reversed, and this is how repentance is expressed. When someone's soul is sick, this is clear from the fact that he is continuously searching for something. He thinks that he has forgotten to do something, and so on. Or he cannot sleep because of overtiredness, and his whole organism is disturbed. Then he should pray with the words, Lord Jesus Christ, heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. This is a very powerful prayer. Then great peace comes. One is unable to sleep either due to the visitation of grace or due to exhaustion. This is both a psychological phenomenon and a spiritual state. When there is no time for Jesus' prayer with the prayer rope, it is replaced by mourning and weeping. When someone prays and feels spiritually paralyzed, this reveals the action of grace. When our head hurts during prayer, we should carry on praying. It is better to pray painfully than with ease. When someone weeps while praying, the name of Christ sinks into his heart like an anchor. Then he moves and the anchor stays fixed. In other words, he moves with stability. Sometimes this grace wounds and crushes our one's very bones, the grace of God enters the soul and the body. When the Jesus prayer is said inwardly and noise is heard from outside, it is natural for the prayer to weaken. Sometimes, however, the Jesus prayer is more powerful than external noises. When grace abandons us, we should do what we used to previously, before it came, when we did not feel its energy. In other words, we should live in repentance and the fear of God and keep his commandments. When we feel physical pain, all our attention is concentrated on the part of the body that hurts, and in, in a way our noose is beside itself. The same happens with repentance. When we repent, our noose departs to God. When someone tries to pray and concentrate his noose, at first... His eyes may become inflamed. When, however, the noose in the Holy Spirit finds the heart, calm prevails throughout the body. When we suffer from captivity of the thoughts, when we are held captive by thoughts, the Jesus prayer is not enthroned in our heart, even if we pray for a long time. Not to hear and not to see what is happening around one while praying the Jesus prayer without losing awareness of reality is natural because it is a sort of ecstasy. The monastic life is not only a sense of grace. Someone who lives in the world, an old lady, may have this as well. The monastic life is also the transmission of the tradition from the elder, whom one will obey in order to receive the tradition, the spiritual life which he preserves. Monasticism is to be found in the knowledge of Christ, there is salvation in the God-man, Christ. Monasticism is not only withdrawal from people, but abstentation from all thoughts. Bishops do not usually understand monasticism because they have not been through it. Theology is to be found in the essence of asceticism. A monk must have self-discipline. Obedience to one's elder produces contrite thoughts and even tears, even if one has only prayed for a few minutes. Discipline imposed by others does not help in repentance and does not help the soul to develop and become a person. Discipline is not the same as 
self-discipline and obedience is different again. Those monasteries in the West that began with discipline have collapsed. Everyone hates us. However, it is necessary to, to disregard those who despise us. We must not turn against them. I place my hope for the existence of this monastery not only in our prayers but in the blessing of Star Siloan. Monastic life is the spiritual communion of elder and disciple, however difficult a state the monk is in. We must not lose the elder's blessing as long as he lives, and afterwards there will be no problem. If people see us in a state of despondency, they want to leave. If we are well, they want to stay. I said to a certain monk who was worried about his future, God who worked the great miracle of bringing you this far will take care of the rest of your life. When someone is preparing to go into a monastery to become a monk, he usually goes through fire. Everyone who has been through this fire. For that reason, we must understand and love those who want to become monks and are getting ready. When someone enters a monastery to become a monk, he should not reveal all his capabilities because he will be continually under strain. If the elder gives him work, he should do it eagerly with obedience. One cannot find, cannot found a monastery for women if one is hard and impatient. Such an undertaking requires patience so that the women's psychology may be changed into a spiritual gift. Many women want to have the spiritual father exclusively for themselves, and they do everything to attract his attention. Great wisdom and discernment are necessary on the part of the spiritual father. Women want a certain protection. We should give it to them, but at the same time help them to ascend spiritually. Women often want psychological consolations. Discernment is required. The difference between spiritual and psychological love is as follows. Someone who is in genuine communication with his spiritual father has need of him, but he is not upset if he is absent. Prayer makes up for his absence. When the spiritual child is upset, this shows that there is a problem. In, the circum in these circumstances, we spiritual fathers ought not to despise that particular individual, but we should delay seeing him not spend much time on him, and only deal with spiritual matters. Some spiritual fathers make extensive use of psychology. This seems to depend on the state of the people, because if someone were to speak as St. Simeon the New Theologian spoke, he would distress everyone and they would not tolerate him. The word of St. Simeon the New Theologian is fire. The spiritual guidance that we give Christians in accordance with our personal experiences must not be made into a system. The spiritual father ought, by the grace of God, to set his spiritual children free from their captivity to the passions and help them to lift up their faces to God. Often, in order to reply to someone, instead of praying to God, I tell him something from my mind, because if I pray and receive inner conviction from God and he does not obey, he will be disobeying God. That is to say, he will come into conflict with him. So I speak from my mind, so that at least people will be disobedient to me and not oppose God. The martyrdom of the spiritual father is that he will either be destroyed himself by taking risks, or his work will be destroyed if he goes no further than external laws and rules. We should talk to small children as though they were grown up, but adapting 
what we say to their level of understanding, and we should make sure that they develop as adults. In other words, we should not deal with them as small children. We shall not take either children or houses with us into the kingdom of heaven. We should therefore attend to our salvation and leave the children to the providence of God once we have done whatever we can for them and they do not listen to us. Man has physical, psychological, and spiritual elements. He is made up of two parts, and he has a soul and a body. When we refer to the spiritual element, we mean the grace of God that is an essential feature of the regenerated human being. In women, the psychological element is close to the spiritual, which is why they confuse what is psychological with what is spiritual, mistaking psychological things for spiritual states. In addition, carnal desire is channeled into bearing children and bringing them up. In men, the psychological element is close to the physical element, which is why they are usually aggressive. When we hear women's confessions, we see their hypostases to such a degree that we do not know what clothes they were wearing and have no sense of the anatomy of their bodies. We should do the same with men too. We must be free and treat them as people in God's image, as sons and daughters of God. When someone speaks from his heart, his heart usually becomes weary because it shares in bearing witness to the words. Unless we exhaust ourselves and feel pain, we do not cure others. We must take the other person's death upon ourselves in order to give him life. Then our heart is emptied out. The spiritual father's work is difficult because he should not say pleasant things, but point out mistakes and passions and cure people. This is the orthodox method. Usually this makes people aggrieved and angry. I am pleased that many people do not obey me, so I do not have responsibility. In order for someone to act as a fool for Christ's sake, it also has to suit his natural state to some extent, to be likened with his character. I do not bother with those who despise me, nor do I bother about what they say. Psychological illnesses originate from two causes, either from pride or from unfulfilled carnal desires that re some, someone retains in his soul. While staying at the monastery, I came into contact with many visitors and pilgrims. Some of them used to visit the monastery frequently, almost on a daily basis. Others would come on weekends. Many of them told me their various personal memories of the elder and his miraculous interventions. I was present at an episode. At one point during the day, the elder came anxiously out of his bungalow and made his way towards a caravan at the monastery where a visitor was staying. He went in and saw him in despair, ready to do himself bodily harm, and he prevented him. According to what I had heard, he had perceived that individual's state in the course of prayer. I left the monastery with impressions such as these, but my heart remained there, or rather I carried in my heart the personality and figure of the elder, and above all, his liberating and regenerating theology. End of 1979. 1980. 
1980, I visited the monastery in September. I had conceived the desire to be present at the Feast of the Holy Cross, the mystery of which the elder and every Orthodox monk experienced, as did every true Christian. I also wanted to be there for three important days, between the 22nd and the 24th of September. On the 22nd of September, the monks and pilgrims celebrated the elder's birthday ecclesiastically. On the 23rd, they celebrated the conception of the Honorable Forerunner, the patron saint of the monastery. And on the 24th of September, they commemorated Starts Silouan. It should be noted that Starts Silouan had not yet been numbered among the saints, but at the monastery they honored the day of his decease with the Divine Liturgy without troparia or a special service. As soon as I had arrived at the monastery, a day or two before the Feast of the Holy Cross, they told me that the elder, together with Father Kirill, had been invited to spend a week visiting a parish in Belgium, so I would stay at the monastery and celebrate the Divine Liturgy and the ceremony of the exaltation of the Holy Cross, 14th of September, and I also would celebrate the Sunday of All Saints Church, where many people came to worship. That year I felt particularly blessed on the 22nd of September when the elder celebrated the Divine Liturgy on his birthday. The elder was of the opinion that wherever we are, we ought to respect the traditions of that place and make them ecclesiastical. So at the festive meal in the refectory of the monastery, he spoke about the great value of our birth, as we are born to inherit paradise as persons and to be united with God. At the same time, he spoke about the great gift of our rebirth, which comes about through the mystery of holy baptism and the mystery of holy chrismation. All these things, of course, should lead man to deification through God's energy and man's collaboration. He also found the opportunity to stress that after his decease, they should keep the spirit that he had inspired at the monastery. That is to say, apart from the general typicon, there should not be a detailed timetable at the monastery, because a strict timetable, although it is helpful, at the same time creates a certain spiritual self-sufficiency and infringes upon freedom. And without freedom, profound repentance cannot develop. As far as I could grasp, the elder wanted to combine the life of the Cenobitic monk with the hermit's spiritual freedom and hesychistic life. He emphasized that profound mourning is the genuine spirit of orthodox monasticism, as he knew it in the desert of the holy mountain. In the afternoon of the 23rd of September at Vespers, and on the 24th of September at the Divine Liturgy, we had an intense experience of the presence and blessing of star at Siloan the Athenite. Many pilgrims came from all over Europe on that day, particularly those who had benefited from St. Siloan's teachings. The fact is that many Westerners who become Orthodox have been inspired by the words of St. Siloan, which means that it was not official dialogues, conferences, or theological speculations that drew them to Orthodoxy, but the words spoken from experience by eyewitnesses of the living God. These three days were a unique opportunity to delight in two great spiritual figures who had experienced glorification. We rejoiced in the presence of Father Sophroni, St. Siloan's disciple, and Father Sophroni rejoiced like a small child in St. Siloan's blessing. 
In fact, he considered that the monastery of St. John the Baptist was founded on St. Suluan's words, prayers, and protection. On the 23rd of September, the eve of the decease of St. Siloan, a nun from Greece was professed. The elder took the view that monastic professions are not festive services, so they ought to take place in a contrite atmosphere of repentance and prayer. The monastic life is a cross and spiritual burial. A bright and festive atmosphere removes the monk from the essence of the monastic life. So the service of profession as a great schema nun was held in the evening with only the monks present, after all the pilgrims had retired to their rooms, completely unaware. The elders' attitude and the way in which the prayers were read gave the impression that it was not merely a service taking place, but he was passing on a life that was his own. At the end of the service, he did not give a sermon or an explanation, but simply defined the essence of the monastic life and gave a blessing. He said, quote, Behold, Sister T, you have become a nun. From the beginning of the church's formation until today, just as the priesthood is passed on, so the monastic life is transmitted as apostolic life. This grace has come down to me, unworthy as I am. The monastic life is sacrifice and self-emptying, but for that reason, it is also glory. Whenever we feel deprivation for Christ's sake, we enjoy participation in the uncreated light of the triune God. Live in this way, and you will delight in what is eternal, starting from this life, before death. Amen. End of quote. At that time, the elder gave his blessing for me to read the texts that he had written, which were included in the book We Shall See Him As He Is, and referred to mourning, repentance, the spiritual gift of the remembrance of death, and so on. Father Zacharias had translated them from Russian into Greek. I was struck with amazement as I read these texts. I felt I was reading writings by St. Simeon the New Theologian. I was truly intoxicated by the elder's words. Another incident, linked with the above, that I remember from that visit is that once I had read the elder's texts about the uncreated light, I went on to read the general epistles of St. John the Evangelist, and I perceived the depth of each word, as though the light of knowledge were shining out from it. The same also happened with the epistle to the Hebrews. The elder had said that the epistle to the Hebrews is actually an autobiography of the Apostle Paul and presents Christ as the great high priest whom he recognized on the road to Damascus. It also refers to the Apostle's repentance and weeping in the desert of Arabia, which was an experience of Christ's prayer in Gethsemane, God's chastening, and faith at its most profound. Following this analysis, I read the epistle to the Hebrews at the monastery as if for the first time, and as though I had acquired new eyes and a new perspective. The way the elder behaved with people delighted me. As soon as they saw him, they would surround him, and he would speak to them very pleasantly. Often he would express his joy by means of humor, laughing wholeheartedly. From this visit, I still have the photograph with the elder that is printed on the cover of this book. We were sitting in front of a small shed, which no longer exists, because later on St. Siloan's church was built on this site. It was one of 
those wonderful autumn afternoons just before sunset, when the atmosphere at the monastery was peaceful and contrite. I asked him for a personal meeting, and, and he, as usual, willingly agreed. This meeting took place as we walked along, and the discussion concerned our favorite topic, prayer. During prayer, the heart should open. This opening of the heart is expressed through tears and mourning. Then man is aware of the profound depth in his heart, and his noose enters this inner depth, and he finds the deep heart. The energy of noetic prayer may begin in someone when he is lying in bed. Then he ought to stay there and pray. It is not essential that one should begin praying after weeping beforehand. Prayer acts at any time and anywhere. The wind blows where it wishes, John 3.8. Sometimes, when tears and the Jesus prayer have become intense, a severe pain is produced in the heart and the head with the thought, now you will die. Discretion is required. One should not stop the Jesus prayer completely, but reduce it a little, because if one stops it completely, it will probably be lost. Sometimes we do not pay attention while praying our daily prayer rule, whereas when we work and pray at the same time, we are very attentive. This happens because the spiritual life is often connected with the psychological state of the one who prays. If someone feels well psychologically and works, he prays as well. Or when he has mourning in his heart, he prays. Someone may have mindfulness of God without saying the words of the prayer. If we want to do something, we should wait until we receive strength from God to accomplish it. For instance, we want to go to the holy mountain. If we do not have strength to go, even if we go, it will be of no benefit to us. Often, for various reasons, the heart closes and does not open for prayer. This happens for different reasons in each case. In one, it is due to impertinence. In someone else, to idle chatter. In another, to self-esteem, and so on. Self-accusation and weeping are required. When someone lives in a state of inner tension, that is to say, when he prays inwardly, he sometimes becomes sensitive and irritable. There is a great risk that he may lose his temper over something trivial and even become very angry. Great care is needed. The monk lives with weeping. This is his natural state. There is nothing peculiar about this, as there is an abundance of divine longing in Eros. In someone who is visited by the grace of Christ, prayer becomes self-acting. The heart speaks. He will perceive it day and night. This is a special blessing. Then he ought to leave the world and enter a monastery. If he does not leave, he will quickly lose this grace. It is usual for someone to postpone going to a monastery because he thinks that he can retain self-acting prayer in the world, but it will quickly abandon him. Many sins can easily be committed in the world because many things happen that give someone energy and motivation. Praise from other people inflames pride, but it is also a consolation. In the monastery, however, praise and other consolations do not exist. So it is only obedience that gives the monk energy to pray. Anyone who is disobedient is lost. He fades away. He cannot pray, and he has no life. When the time comes for someone to leave the monastery for the desert, he receives abundant grace of God 
and energy, and nothing can hold him back. Then he will even climb out of the window of the monastery. The holy mountain can be a problem for those who have made some progress in the spiritual life. Two things can happen. They may be reduced to an ordinary state of conventional behavior and carelessness, or else, if they want to continue the program of their inner life, they will attract the envy of the other monks and temptations will arise. If someone has spiritual experiences, he does not need to consult many people because confusion will arise. He should obey his elder. As has been mentioned before, the elder was a man of prayer. His whole being was fiery prayer. He was possessed by thirst for God, which is why he spoke continually about this thirst. When one saw him, one realized that his whole being, his movements, his relations with others, his conversations, and his words were the consequence of prayer. Thus he was a theologian in the highest sense, because according to St. Nilos the ascetic, if you are a theologian, you will pray truly, and if you pray truly, you are a theologian. This was also evident from the way in which he celebrated the Divine Liturgy. He regarded the Divine Liturgy as comparable with Christ's prayer in Gethsemane. Just as Christ prayed there for the whole world, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine. And his sweat fell like great drops of blood to the ground. Luke twenty-two forty-four. So the celebrant prays for the whole world. For the elder, the divine liturgy was neither a conventional procedure nor a simple prayer, particularly not an individual one, but a ministry to the people. The celebrating priest makes supplication to God for the whole world and live, lives Christ's agony in Gethsemane. In this perspective, he composed a prayer, which he gave to the priests to read before the beginning of the divine liturgy. Quote, Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God, behold, I, unworthy priest as I am, dare to approach thy dread altar to perform my service. I beseech thee, everlasting King, who art from all eternity, turn not thy face from me, nor close thine ears to my lowly supplications. Do not disregard my intercession for those redeemed by thy blood. No, nor reckon my boldness as sin. O oh my God, make haste for my help. Lord, make speed to help me. End of quote. When one reads carefully the liturgical prayers composed by the elder, which have been published, footnote C. Archimandrite Sophroni Sakharov's book on prayer, translated by Rosemary Edmonds, published by the Monastery of St. John the Baptist. One can perceive how he regarded the Divine Liturgy. The Elder had a very profound sense of the magnificence of the mystery, and he prayed to the Triune God for purification and illumination of the noose, for worthy participation in the body and blood of Christ, for the healing of our nature which was crushed by Adam's fall, for participation in the uncreated light, and for entry into the everlasting kingdom of God. These liturgical prayers reveal the elder's theology as regards the divine liturgy and also the way in which he celebrated. The spirit of the divine liturgy pervaded the atmosphere of the monastery all through the week and was its deepest foundation. This is, this is what I felt when I visited the monastery and approached the elder, particularly when he was celebrating. 
I saw him as another Moses, who was ascending Mount Sinai to meet God and talk to him face to face. Before leaving the monastery, I found the opportunity in conversation to ask him about the Divine Liturgy, and he presented his basic teaching on it. The priesthood is not given to someone as a reward for his virtues, but as a gift for building up the church. One becomes a priest so as to be able to celebrate the Divine Liturgy and to sanctify people. Also, the priesthood has a social significance, as the priest will also be concerned with construction work on the church building and with Christians who suffer. So he also needs to have qualities of this sort as well as spiritual ones. The Divine Liturgy took place once and for all. It is eternal. Every time the Divine Liturgy is celebrated, we ascend to its heights. If we live some aspects of the Divine Liturgy, we grasp its magnificence, as was the case with St. Seraphim of Serov, who saw angels coming into the church during the little entrance. We merely attend the Divine Liturgy because we do not experience it, or until we experience it. The Divine Liturgy teaches us to live with the heart. By celebrating the Divine Liturgy, we, cre we keep Christ's commandment, Do this in remembrance of me. Luke 22.19 and 1 Corinthians 11.24 That is why we say, Remembering, therefore, this saving commandment, this is not a psychological event, but a spiritual one. Every time we celebrate the Divine Liturgy, we obey Christ's word and penetrate into the mystery the mystagogy, the liturgy of Christ. What God did once remains forever. This is what happens with the divine liturgy. Christ celebrated it once in the upper room at the Last Supper, and it remains forever. The Christian, depending on the sacrifice that he makes and how far he penetrates by grace into this spirit of the divine liturgy, receives grace from God and is purified of passions. In its perfection, the Divine Liturgy is supplication and prayer for the whole world. This is what is called the royal ritual or priesthood. In this way, man reaches the end of the ages. He does not wait for the day of the Lord, but this day of the Lord comes towards him. Thus he becomes without beginning by grace. The Divine Liturgy really was at the center of the monastery and of each monk's heart. Ascetic life and prayer led to the Divine Liturgy and the Divine Liturgy provided strength and inspiration for asceticism, prayer, and repentance to continue. This was the profound truth of the monastery. 1981 In July 1981, I visited the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex again. It had become spiritually necessary for me to go there and benefit from the elders' theology and spirituality, but also from the hesychistic spirit of the monastery, as manifested in the church services and the whole of everyday life there. As soon as I arrived at the monastery, Father Zacharias immediately approached me and passed on to me the elder's love and his joy that I had come to the monastery again that year. He was very pleased that I loved the monastery. At the same time, he told me that the elder had ordered him to show me round that part of Essex. I saw the elder every day in the refectory, one day, on account of the strong sunlight and the fact that the elder's eyes could not tolerate brightness, I met him coming to the refectory wearing a broad-brimmed hat with obvious enjoyment. When I asked him simply, What sort of hat is that, Father? He replied, 
I found out on the holy mountain that monks are not lacking in originality. And he laughed wholeheartedly. I have written in introductory notes elsewhere that the elder was very fond of greenery. He wanted there to be many trees at the monastery. He asked us to plant various saplings on both sides of the narrow paths in the monastery garden. He wanted to walk under trees. While we were planting them, the elder came and expressed his pleasure at the work we were doing. He was so delighted that when we finished, he invited us into his bungalow to give us various soft drinks as refreshment. He was a great empirical theologian who behaved in a very simple manner. When we read the writings of the fathers, we see that God is described as simple. St. Gregory Palamas says that God's simplicity is connected with the non-existence of passion and not with the indivisible distinction between essence and energy. In the same way, someone who sees the uncreated light and participates in it is distinguished by his simplicity. I saw this very clearly in Father Sofroni. There was no split between the energies of his soul nor between his body and soul. One day I happened to meet the elder with some female students who had come to see him. They were asking him about various subjects and he was answering simply but with a theological word. He began by saying to them, the Greeks were always spiritual aristocrats. He said to a doctoral candidate, get a degree as a doctor so that you can go to Greece and say as many stupid things as you like. And he laughed. Referring to modern music, he said this, in the desert of the holy mountain, I used to hear strange music above a tree. And when I came to the West and rock music had been introduced, I said, I came across it 30 years ago. It was the same music. He also pointed out to them, in the Western world, people become Freemasons in order to become powerful. Someone said that she wanted to be more serious but could not. And the elder replied, psychiatric hospitals are full of serious people. He also said, converts are usually inclined to preach to us. And so they add salt and mustard to what they say. I also remember that he spoke to them about the cultural differences between the East and the West and stressed to them that the difference in culture had consequences within marriage. In other words, he spoke to them about relationships between young men and women and the problems of mixed marriages in a very apt theological and adroit way. I admired both his wisdom and his discretion. I talked to various monks and pilgrims. Someone told me, the elder sees other people clearly and is aware of them. Another said, The elder used to pray, Save, have mercy upon, succour and preserve thy servant, Hieromonk Porphyrios, and by his holy prayers have mercy upon me. And he would say, He is a great friend of ours. This shows that when people scale the heights of Pentecost and see the light, they are united with Christ and with one another. Saints recognize saints. One could benefit from every aspect of the monastery, from the monks, the pilgrims, and the atmosphere there. For example, one monk told me, there is a paternity crisis nowadays. Many people realized this in May of 1968 in Paris. There's a kind of individualism and a change in mentality that influences the whole of life. When a young man obeys his parents, he has fewer passions. It is difficult for orthodoxy to penetrate into the Western way of life and to be understood because Westerners 
have a different ethos. One day I met el the elder on the stairs of the main building when I was coming down and he was going up. And he said to me lightheartedly, I am in a state of ascension at the moment. He meant he was going upstairs. I am pleased that you are with us. I always remember you. He was very courteous and spoke respectfully to everyone using the polite plural form in Greek. He took the opportunity then to tell me certain things. It must be stressed yet again that the elder was always ready to offer theological and spiritual words. His theological words reflected the radiance of his heart and were always ready to be spoken. The passage from the epistle was amazingly appropriate. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. Every conversation with him opened the noose, and every word he spoke had energy. This is what he said to me there on the stairs. Repentance is linked with theology. There is always repentance in man, but it changes form. In the beginning, it is repentance on account of estrangement from God and the loss of divine grace, and afterwards repentance to find more grace. When someone repents, he receives grace from God. When he receives grace, the light, he sees his sins more until he reaches the light and himself becomes light. In the vision of the light, he sees his createdness, corruptibility, and mortality, and repentance grows. So repentance leads to theology and is inspired by it. Repentance never ceases. There was a monk who had prayer when he was working with his hands, but when he stopped working in order to pray, he lost it. This happened because he had a proud thought. We must pray with great humility and repentance. When prayer gives rise to, to a proud thought, usually one's nerves and noose are shaken. When someone is accused by other people, he ought to face it in silence. Because as St. John Climacus says, Christ's silence put Pilate to shame. When someone begins to pray, prayer itself will answer his questions. Otherwise, however much he hears about prayer, he will understand nothing. When someone has the energy of grace and loses his temper, he feels his heart changing place. Monasticism is a traditional institution. It is a tradition. When the Holy Spirit departs, monasticism will disappear. In our days, monasticism has become less of a tradition and is maintained as a human effort. A great temptation will befall the monasteries. There will be a greater shortage of people than ever before. We should not accept people with psychological problems into the monastery because the one with problems will be tormented and he will torment the other monks. When someone with psychological problems is obedient, the problems are curable. Incurable psychological disorders are marked by lack of obedience. People who are simple cannot understand others and are easily misunderstood. At the end of the conversation, before asking for his blessing, I asked him to pray for someone. He replied, I find it difficult to pray because I do not sympathize with him. We should pray for those for whom we feel sympathy. Then prayer is beneficial. One day he invited me to join him on his customary afternoon walk. This time he put me in the middle between Father Kirill and himself. 
and he held my arm. I was very surprised at this action of his. He said to me at once, I am pleased that you are with us. I regard you as some of our dearest brothers. In the course of the conversation, he said repeatedly, You're right. That is so. Something like that. Among other things, he said, Nowadays, many theologians, and he mentioned some of them, write about prayer and say stupid things. On the 23rd of August of the same year, as I recorded in my notebook, I met the elder to discuss specific issues. I kept the following notes from this discussion as follows. The Apostle Paul received the revelation from God through repentance and not from books. He received corroboration and confirmation of this revelation from the apostles when he visited them. Through repentance, man enters the divine being. Then theology is a narrative. In other words, he simply narrates what he has seen, heard, and received. Those who philosophize talk about God as though he did not exist. However, God is being. He said, I am that I am. Philosophers and philosophizing theologians say that God is non-existent because they have not received a revelation from God and do not know God personally. The saints used to say that they had not begun to repent because as soon as they saw God who is without beginning, they realized that in God there is no beginning or end, and they perceived their createdness and corruptibility. The Jews used to pray with their rational faculty. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles as fiery tongues, and they perceived another form of prayer, the prayer of the heart. For the first time they prayed with their heart. God's revelations to man are momentary and inhypostatic. We see this in Paul, Moses, and Philip. God does not utter many words but one life-giving word. This one word is conveyed by the prophet to the people using many words. Even the saints cannot argue with God when they wrestle with him. Never mind us. People wrestle with God because they do not know his will and they attribute their own thoughts, desires, and speculations to God. There is divine light and devilish light. Sometimes one also sees the natural light of one's mind. The philosophers, Platonists and other Westerners and Buddhists in the East behold the natural light of their mind, and sometimes they are even influenced by the devil. There's a great difference between them. The devil's light has a different energy. When the devil showed his light to star at Siloan, Siloan even saw his intestines. The natural light of the mind is an illumination from philosophical teachings. Then man feels that these illuminations come and go. The divine light, however, gives another kind of knowledge. It is the light of love, the light of Christ, a revelation of the triune God. It is a mistake to identify the natural light of the mind with the divine light, just as it is a mistake to identify the natural light of the mind with satanic light. Thus, the natural light of the mind may be regarded as satanic in accordance with the saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Matthew 16, 23. At other times, the natural light of the mind is different from devilish light. The light of the angels is participation in the uncreated light. The light of Plotinus does not embrace the world with love. 
in the West, the culture is different from that of the Orthodox East. It is a culture of reason. They pray with their rational faculty and know nothing about the prayer of the heart. For that reason, when Westerners enter the Orthodox Church, many years must pass in order for prayer to descend to their heart and for them to assimilate divine grace. Patience is needed with any aberrations they may have. If someone wants to become Orthodox and after his baptism, he returns to his home country where there is no Orthodox liturgical environment or appropriate spiritual conditions for his development, he experiences confusion. Because people in the West live with their rational faculty, the so-called charismatic movement, Pentecostals, has appeared to enable them to understand the heart. We should not characterize this charismatic state that can be observed in the West as delusion because when we tell them that they are deluded, it is of no benefit to them. We should turn this current in the right direction and speak to them about orthodox hesychism. Those who become orthodox add vinegar even when they should not. The bad thing about those who belong to the charismatic movement is that they think that they are experiencing Pentecost and are therefore in a very exalted spiritual state. This is nonsense. The Apostle Paul spoke in tongues, but he placed greater emphasis on the charisma of love. People ask me why there is no charismatic movement in the Orthodox, and I reply, because the Orthodox Church has never lacked the prayer of the heart. In a female monastic community in Belgium, there are nuns who have charismatic gifts. They try to live by the gift of the Holy Spirit. In principle, regard this as good, but it should be cultivated correctly through noetic prayer. Start Silouan had a very strong and sturdy body, and he could break a plank of wood that the others could not break. But he had no carnal thoughts. His noose and his body were changed by the advent of God's grace. Communism is put into practice in the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, it is an impossible ideal. This is clear in the case of Anais and Sapphira. They wanted to keep some of their wealth for themselves, and the Apostle Peter told them, You have not lied to men, but to God. Acts 5.4 Nowadays, a saint cannot be a bishop because people cannot endure what he says. For that reason, bishops are needed who have more mediocre experience and administrative abilities because politicians today try to approach the church through the hierarchy. Therefore, they need to have administrative abilities and experience in order to keep the church out of politics. The best thing nowadays is to be a priest. A bishop told me, I am concerned about your salvation. And I replied, I am pleased that you are more concerned about my salvation than I am. There is a concelebrant at every divine liturgy. Each one participates according to his receptivity and receives divine grace. When someone argues with rationalists or others who only observe the outward forms, he suffers harm because he will either start teaching them, in which case he will lose humility, or else he will meet with resistance and his heart will be wounded. Starat Siloan felt the words, keep your mind in hell and despair not, like needles in his body. I would rather be murdered by worldly people than go along with them and acquire a worldly mentality. Sometimes a lot of work crushes the heart more than the scientific labor of prayer. 
There is a difference between ascetic humility and the humility of Christ. When the monk experiences Christ's humility, may God enlighten us to say it briefly, he senses an outpouring of love, but he also, as far as it is possible, has a sense of seeing the beauty of Christ's face, who is the beauty of the world. When other people distress us, we should often let it pass unremarked, without explanation, because the others may not have realized that they hurt us. And it is possible that if we ask for their forgiveness, they will think about it and it will cause a problem. Sometimes when grace withdraws, despair comes. Then support is needed, because in this state many monks even abandon monasticism. Very few people have been through profound repentance with great mourning. When someone lives the spiritual life, his, na his nature is united with divine grace. When someone rests and falls asleep saying the Jesus prayer, the energy of the prayer remains within him all night. What is said of St. Anna applies in this case, that she glorified God night and day. When someone is not at peace, it means that something is wrong. If someone prepares spiritually and marries, he will be at peace. When someone is at peace, then even if he has temptations, everything will be all right. When we observe ourselves and spy on ourselves, our noose departs from repentance. I teach the monks not to speak about the wrongs they suffer, but to keep silent. We ought to live as those who are crucified. This is orthodox spirituality. Our policy is that people should approach us without being afraid. Those who want to become monks and are dependent on their families ought to tell them. Otherwise, they should enter the monastery and inform them afterwards. In the second case, it will cause a shock, but they will soon calm down. I set up this monastery in this way. Circumstances imposed it on us. Couples come to stay from all over the world, as well as young men and women, who would not be able to stay here if they were only for men. This could not happen in Greece. In the monastery of Simonopetra, when I was confessor for a while in the 1940s, the old monks spoke to me against the young ones and the young monks against the old ones. I used to say to the old monks, don't expect to find perfect monasticism among the young ones as they come from this world. To the young monks I would say, you are unable to understand them because monasticism is another way of life. I told both young and old to be patient, and this way I tried to keep a balance. It is clear from church history that those monasteries survived which were founded by the labor and effort of the brethren. After that, those survived which were founded by emperors, and lastly, those founded by bishops. Faces change every day in our monastery. It is like what happens with the liturgical books. There is the prayer book that contains the services, and then there are the menea that change every month. Parents are to blame for 70 to 80 percent of their children's problems. It is easier to raise someone from the dead than to reconcile two women who envy one another. I want to behave with freedom and simplicity. This helps people to open their hearts. This presupposes that one is free from passions. It is impossible to argue with some pe simple people because they do not understand and we will suffer harm. 
Parents should bring up their children with discretion. They should not force them and should leave them free. They should buy them new clothes and they should mix socially. They should take them to a restaurant, to a good theater, because otherwise they will react. Those who are suffering, wounded or poor, cannot endure much, so they are offended by the slightest thing. When you love someone sincerely, he will trust you because he realizes it. Then you protect him from temptations. From the day of the wedding, about ten years will pass before the couple achieves equilibrium. We should follow them discreetly. We should offer a spiritual perspective and not get involved in details. Only in difficult cases should we intervene. When the fear of God comes to someone, he sees the slightest impulses of sin within himself and he begins to repent and to mourn. Then a director, a yeronda, an elder is needed, as well as love and patience, for otherwise he will be crushed. One word from the elder ignites the fear of God. For that reason, one needs first to become proficient in practical things, to be firmly grounded in practice, so that one can endure states of fear. The English language does not have an orthodox atmosphere. For example, the word person means something neutral in the meaning of the Greek word for contrition and meekness is impossible to convey. The English language is not suited to orthodoxy. The battle against us is fierce. Everyone is against us, as are science and politics. I am not a pessimist, but I think we are living in the last times. Our own attitude should be that of the martyrs. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before his shearers, so he opens not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. When we respond to force with force, we achieve nothing. The silent attitude of the martyrs will ensure a longer-lasting victory. If we too exercise force on other people, we shall oblige them to prepare for a second, greater attack. And to conclude from 1981, at the end of the discussion, he said, until we meet again, before I die. When we came out of the office after quite a long time, the abbot was waiting for him outside the, with the monks of the monastery. They obviously had work to do. Then the elder said, I was talking to Father Herothius and we forgot the world. Before I left the monastery, I asked the elder to hear my confession. He called me to the office, which was also used for confessions, and I told him what was on my mind. His attitude was most venerable. After the customary prayer, he sat down on the chair and remained motionless, somehow settling his gaze and his noose on an icon without looking me in the face. I told him my thoughts in a few words, and he confined himself to giving some brief advice. Then he read the prayer for me in a most contrite manner. The confession was an initiation into mysteries. And while he was reading the prayer very slowly, the energy of his prayer was palpable. His basic view was that the mystery of confession is different from a discussion. The penitent states the core of the thought, sin or passion that bothers him, particularly during prayer, without going into details and the spiritual father is left free to express the inner conviction or the first thought that comes to him after prayer. 
He also used to say that when someone asks his spiritual father and receives advice, he ought to adopt and accept this counsel as his own and try to put it into practice without telling other people what the spiritual father said to him. He often told me that this is one of the basic rules of the mystery of confession. When this rule is broken, all sorts of confusion arise, and it also causes various people to react against the spiritual father. He also said that another rule relating to the mystery of confession is that the penitent must not reach the point of doing battle with his spiritual father. It was then that I discerned one of his great charismas. He told me, if you happen to have a certain temptation, and he told me exactly which one, do not waver or be discouraged. It is an attack by the devil on account of the successes that you have in your work. A few days after returning to Greece, that temptation did, in fact, befall me. If the elder had not foreseen it and told me about it in advance, I would have been very distressed. Father Sophroni was a great hesychist and theologian, but also a wise, discerning, and prophetic spiritual father. He had rare gifts of grace. 1982. In 1982, my usual visit to the monastery took place in August. By then, these visits had become the oxygen that I needed to take into my lungs in order to breathe. At one of our first meetings in the monastery refectory, the elder turned to one of the monks and said, Our relationship with Father Herotheus grows deeper all the time. Then he said to me, Now we have close communion with one another. I cannot leave you, nor you me. One day we met on the site where the construction of the new church had begun, and the elder said, It is a difficult thing today to build a church. All the demons will rise up. And he told me an antidote that he had heard in Russia. Quote, Someone went to hell, but he wanted there to be a church there, too, so he could pray. Despite his sinfulness, he loved God and wanted to pray. He began to measure the site in order to lay foundations. A devil asked him what he was doing. He replied, I want to build a church so that I can pray. The devil was uneasy because it was impossible for a church to be built in hell, and he tried to stop him. He did not manage. He summoned other demons. They could not do anything either. They reported it to their leader. Then many demons gathered, and they threw him out of hell to prevent a church from being built. End quote. And he continued, so we build churches to change hell into paradise, and if we do not manage to do that, we will succeed in not being accepted by the devil in hell. And he laughed wholeheartedly. When we met to talk, the elder said, among other things, and what follows the sayings of the elder, the movement among some people, young people, in favor of anarchy is grand, but they stole it from Holy Scripture and distorted it. According to Holy Scripture, every power and authority will be abolished in the, in the future. After the second coming, no one will need other people, but the just will have communion with God and with each other. Every authority will be abolished. There will be no need for them to have knowledge about God, but they will have knowledge of God. Burdiev says that the different interpretations that people give is the privilege of freedom. This is not correct. There's one truth, or there's no truth at all. Those who share a common life also share a common teaching. We should not write in a scholastic way, quoting the words of the fathers to lend authority to what we say. 
we should write with reference to Holy Scripture using a few patristic passages. This is what the fathers did, and this is what those who have knowledge of God do. When we have spiritual experience, we read Holy Scripture and the patristic writings, and we understand them. Those in the East who practice meditation also see some sort of light, but this vision, Theoria, separates them from all the rest of creation with a certain pride. This light is not divine but devilish and created. By contrast, in Orthodoxy, the Theoria of the Divine Light transmits life to man and the love for whole of creation. Those who hate themselves, their passions, are the true theologians in the Church. Unless someone hates himself unto death, he cannot be a disciple of Christ and a teacher of the people. Let us keep the Orthodox faith, and since we live in difficult times, we shall receive a greater reward than others who lived in earlier ages and kept the faith. In Christianity, we have a revelation of God and we struggle to confirm the revelation. The saints do this down through the ages, otherwise Christianity becomes an idea or a value. We rely on the life and teaching of the saints. When God gives someone the gift of speaking, he, he does not give the gift of curing physical ailments. This is because the gift of theolo theological words heals man spiritually, and someone who is spiritually cured does not also need to be cured of physical illnesses. When we talk about God, we should be gripped by fear and a sense of his presence. A young woman who practiced Buddhism came into contact with Protestants and began to read Holy Scripture and to pray. At once the guru was unable to communicate with her and could not read her thoughts. This is even more the case when someone becomes Orthodox, then he will have greater power. I besought God and he gave me the spiritual gift of understanding the Divine Liturgy spiritually in all languages. It's a strange thing. You celebrate the Divine Liturgy and at the end you do not know in which language you celebrated it. You experience all the spirit and atmosphere of the Divine Liturgy. In the Old Testament, they usually prayed with their rational faculty. On the day of Pentecost, the experience of the heart was granted to the apostles. Then they burst out into hymns and prayer. This is the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. The Apostle Paul also had this charisma. However, he considered that the greatest gift of grace is the charisma of love. In the life of the Church, which experienced this new life and became accustomed to it, the gift of speaking in tongues was transformed into noetic prayer of the heart. When some Westerners become Orthodox, they are radiant. After five or six years, however, they become as hard as stone. They wrestle with their nature and with their heritage. As man receives divine grace from his mother's womb, as happened with St. John the Baptist, why should he not receive divine grace when he is reborn in baptism? It is mainly the heart that perceives the sense of divine grace. The affliction, suffering, and contempt to which man is subject in his life are natural states. They are evidence of authenticity. We have to suffer in our life. It is here that Buddhism differs. Buddhists avoid suffering, whereas we pursue it, because it cleanses the heart from passions. Self-esteem brings carnal temptations. Strange things happen by the providence of God. 
He brings us to repentance through everything that happens, even through falls, as long as we have the humility to perceive these things. The ladder of perfection is outlined in the Beatitudes. Man begins from a sense of sinfulness and mourning and reaches the point of conflict with the world. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Matthew 5.10 This is natural. Then one theologizes. Self-sufficiency stops all spiritual progress. Man's noose and heart ought to not be fixed anywhere, either on people or things. Then everything is pure. If they become fixed, things begin to go awry. Sometimes pain during prayer and even the cessation of prayer are caused by a proud thought. God diminishes the grace of prayer. Then one ought to stop praying vaingloriously. This happened to me once with the gospel. While I was reading the gospel, I fell down as though dead. After that, I could not read the gospel for many months, although there was no problem with other books. In such cases, the way one prays has to change to prevent self-esteem. There has to be more liturgical prayer and less Jesus prayer so that we can fool ourselves and not be proud. When a proud thought approached from a distance and I recognized it because it caused disturbance in my heart, I would stop praying and say, My murderers are coming. I shall go to hell. Even if someone works miracles, he should say, God performed the miracle, but I shall go to hell. The lover of sensual pleasure who dwells upon sensual pleasure and indulges in it, even though he has not committed any carnal act, acquires a culture of self-indulgence and is worse than someone who has gone as far as the action. Because there is a chance that someone who has committed the sin may perceive his sin and repent, whereas the one who indulges psychologically in sensual pleasure but does not repent because he does not realize that it is a sin. Also, those who have a culture of self-indulgence are unable to make a sincere confession because they find it difficult to tell the spiritual father and they suffer torments. In this way, however, the spiritual life does not develop. It is difficult to live in this world and not sin. It is necessary to live in the spirit of repentance and prayer. Someone should not think about anything that happens to him during prayer because Satan, too, can cause these things. The noose ought to be completely free. People who have been crushed by various illnesses usually do not have carnal energy. This shows the spiritual value of infirmities. The devil often appears to ascetics and accuses God. That is to say, he appears as a handsome youth and tells the ascetic, See how beautiful I am, and yet God condemned me. When someone receives God's grace and loses it, he goes through a particular type of despair. This is natural, it's normal. He must be very patient and pray a lot to God. When our noose becomes the noose of Christ, it changes direction. It sees things differently. When Christians and monks proceed with penitence, all psychological problems are cured. Once there was an earthquake at the monastery of St. Pantalaemon. Then I stood in the doorway of my cell. Neither my soul nor body was frightened by the earthquake. Immediately afterwards, I ran to the church to die with the fathers if the earthquake continued. Nothing happened. I was fearless. When, however, I came back to open the door of my cell, my body was afraid, but not my soul. From this we realize that the soul differs from the body.
When we read a patristic text, we ought to pray to that Holy Father that we may conceive the word in the same way as he conceived it. When someone lives in the spirit of repentance and mourning, he cannot do translations, preach, or read. When someone does not weep with his eyes, when he does not shed tears, it is good for him to have repentance in his heart. When we receive the first advent of grace, this experience needs to be verified by experienced spiritual fathers. Otherwise, something will go wrong. One feels a certain insecurity then. When someone prays and his neck hurts, this is usually due to stress. He should pray humbly and it will pass. Praying scientifically with tension and psychotechnical methods causes a headache. When, however, the heart is found, rivers of theology flow within. When I used to pray with repentance and much weeping, and a proud thought came from afar that the light would come, I would stop praying and say, my murderers are coming. And that thought did not approach me. At other times in that state, although I was experiencing profound mourning, I would suddenly begin to laugh and immediately the proud thought would go away. I preferred to stop praying rather than accept a proud thought. When we put Christ's commandments into practice, we acquire grace to penetrate into the noose of Christ as far as eternity. When we lose the first grace, our unsatisfied passions, which remained inactive during the first period of grace, urgently demand satisfaction. Thus one is tormented, and many psychological and bodily illnesses are caused. Often these illnesses are not organic in nature. Patience is needed. They will pass. Many people, when they experience the first advent of grace, become monks out of the love that they have for God. Later on, however, when they lose grace, they become discouraged. For that reason, they ought not to become monks the first time contrition comes because later they will be shaken and will not know how to cope. Weeping and godly mourning crush man, then he has no leeway for anything else. This weeping, however, brings peace, not despair. When a monk lives in a monastery in an idiorhythmic way, on the one hand it creates problems for him because he does not make progress, and on the other hand it wounds the whole brotherhood. Cassian, the Roman, said that there are two things that monks should fear bishops, and women. Sin may be committed with women, but there is repentance, which is not the case with bishops. In other words, when you fight with bishops, you cannot repent. A monk in a monastery should not deliberately seek the priesthood, because then the priesthood will cause him many problems. He should wait for God to show him through the spiritual father whether he should become a priest. In the past, the fathers on the holy mountain did not send away visitors that came to them. If they could not offer them hospitality, they themselves would go far away to prevent people from finding them. At the monastery, we should receive everyone because then God's providence will never abandon us. When someone begins to judge his spiritual father or when a monk begins to judge his monastery, he suffers spiritual harm. Because I had begun to set up a monastic community for women, Metropolitan Herotheus continues, the elder gave me some general advice. We should proceed very gradually. We should not begin with many nuns. The first nuns ought to gain personal experience so that they can help and teach the others who will come. 
the nuns should receive people simply and humbly. In some monasteries they ask, Why have you come? How did you come? Why did you not write to us? And many other questions. Then people stay in the monastery like corpses. The following ought to happen. They should receive people joyfully, then leave them to live as though they were at home, without asking them various questions about their life and their problems. This is what people today want. They see something genuine in this. And when they say, why don't you ask us about our life? We should reply lightheartedly, we do it out of laziness. We are lazy. When we behave like this, the pilgrims are set at ease. And then they begin of their own accord to seek advice. If I had have had success with the monastery, may God forgive me. It is because I do not make comments. When they break plates, I do not comment at all. Thus they gradually correct their faults. No one goes to the monastery to live, but to repent. Otherwise one stays in the world. The same happens as with universities. People do not go to the university to live, but to learn. When monks live in repentance without talking a lot, then even if they make mistakes, the pilgrims will sense the spirit of repentance and will benefit. When a nun's relatives cause problems for the monastery and the thought occurs to the nun to leave the monastery that it should not have difficulties on her account, this is a proud thought. In this case, the thought should be exchanged for another. I have caused difficulties for the monastery and this thought will bring repentance. As a spiritual father, when I used to confess monks under the age of 40, I was extremely patient because there was hope of amendment after the age of 40, I read the prayer of forgiveness and I intervene if there is a particular reason. He also spoke to me about young people and psychological problems. Someone who is psychologically ill should learn to weep. In this way, he will be cured of his infirmity. It is natural for spiritual fathers to be interested in creating new Christian families and to help in this respect. Often, however, they do not do so because people are incapable of accepting the providence of God, and so they ascribe all their failures to their spiritual fathers. Spiritual anxiety ought not to be caused during the mystery of confession. A breeze of freedom ought to circulate between the spiritual father and the penitent. Many young people nowadays are unable to decide whether to break with the world or live with the world. This ambivalence is a very bad thing. Today, many people lose their reason and are full of psychological problems due to drugs and love of sensual pleasure. Young people today are very confused. They talk a lot, but their noose wanders about on the periphery and the central core. The meaning is lost. Psychologists study the human being through the human being that is to say, using human capabilities. In this way, however, people despair when they see their inner impurity. By contrast, when we see our inner impurity, the filth, in a spirit of compunction, it is different because it gives rise to prayer and hope in Christ. Father Sofroni had great spiritual experience, but also extraordinary social experience. He could guide monks on their journey to deification, but also people with families, young people and anarchists enabling them to live better lives in society. His noose was pure and anchored in his heart, and his words were theological and pastoral. He was, in fact, the longest living elder 
in the Orthodox Church who had such experience, practical knowledge, wisdom, and discretion. This is how many people saw him. 1983. I visited the Holy Monastery again in June of 1983. It was impossible not to do so because my contact with the elder had become very close, as had my contact with the monks, particularly Father Zacharias, who was a precious spiritual brother. At that time, I made the acquaintance of a visitor who had practiced meditation in the past, and she told me how the elder set her free from this delusion. He did not advise her from the beginning to stop meditating because he realized that she would not have obeyed and would have left him. However, he told her not to use the words of the mantras for meditation, but to use Christian phrases, particularly the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me. After a short time, she herself requested of the elder that she should stop meditating because she realized that she could not practice meditation and pray with the name of Christ. For two or three years, the elder expended much effort on her, but in the end, everything turned out well. He gave her this advice because he saw that if he told her that she was deluded, she would react. This case also shows how the elder exercised his pastoral ministry. At the first meeting that I had with him, he expressed his joy and said, according to the records, I am 87 years old, whereas actually, spiritually, I am younger. Because I had tried to put into practice various scientific methods for praying the Jesus prayer, which I had read about and heard from the fathers on the holy mountain, the elder told me, the noetic work that you did was superhuman. That is why you have tired yourself out. You need a rest. You should change the way you work. The body is slow to conform to the noose. It adapts to prayer to the extent that one keeps Christ's commandments, fasts, and so on. When the noose is in God, all the passions cease, whereas when God's grace departs, the passions are active. Celebrate the liturgy, hear confessions, and read the Fathers without tension. The soul takes in the meaning of what it reads. Although psychotechnical methods using the prayer rope, exercising force on oneself, staying awake, help in the beginning, afterwards they have risks, such as vainglory, banality, and so on. My principle is that one should have repentance and profound mourning. And he added, although you have worn yourself out physically with the way you pray, you have not suffered spiritual harm. Your soul has known the love of God, the living God, whom the knowledge gained at the theological college cannot offer. At the Divine Liturgy on the Sunday of All Saints, after Holy Communion, he told me, go out and speak. I replied, Father, I have not prepared. He said, but aren't you a Diocesan preacher? I replied, I am a preacher, but not a prophet, so I need to prepare. He repeated, go out and speak, and I obeyed. I will if you give me your blessing. He blessed me, and I went out of the royal doors. He sat in a chair in front of me, a little to the right, first among the congregation. I began with the first sentence that came into my mind prompted by the Feast of All Saints that we were celebrating, by the prophets, apostles, and martyrs. I explained that Christ was at the center of them all. They experienced Christ in various ways, and there was unity between them. The prophets were apostles and martyrs. The apostles were prophets and martyrs. The martyrs were prophets and apostles.
and I analyzed why this was so. At the end, I explained that the monastic saints are successors to the prophets, apostles, and martyrs, and I expounded on this subject. When I finished, he came up to me, and in front of the whole congregation, he embraced me and greeted me enthusiastically. This shows how noble he was. One day, we walked together from the refectory to his bungalow. Someone approached us and asked him to sign the Greek translation of his book, His Life is Mine, with a dedication. He said, I don't want to because that book is not mine. There are many explanations for this. One is that these are revelations from God. Another is that it did not express him absolutely because it was written for the people in the West. He had been unable to include chapters on mourning, repentance, and so on, which he regarded as essential for an Orthodox book because Westerners are unable to understand such matters. When we arrived outside his bungalow, he told me, I commemorate you in prayer, both you and the work you do. Not a lot, but I remember you. And as he went up the steps to his bungalow, he said, When you become a bishop, you should love monks. When the elder said monks, he meant genuine monks who are distinguished by the orthodox hesychistic spirit and respect the spiritual gifts that God gives the church and the charisma of the episcopate, which he too held in honor. He never allowed his monks to speak against bishops. On the contrary, he trained them to respect the spiritual life of the gift of the episcopate, regardless of any possible mistakes. In 1983, we had two discussions. The first was in the office at the monastery, and the second while walking along as peripatetic philosophers. At the first discussion in the office, he said the following, among other things. The hypostasis of God defies all definition. Even though it is intellectually unknown, it is known existentially, and man shares in it in proportion to God's self-revelation to him. The hypostasis personhood is the inner principle of being, its original and final dimension. Some theologians write about the ontology of the person. A philosophical formulation is required because the essence is not an objective principle, independent of the hypostasis. However, I write about the asceticism of the person, about the hypo hypostatic principle. The hypostasis personhood is a matter of God's revelation to man, not an object of speculation. The essence is not the primary or even the preferential movement that defines the person hypostasis in their mutual relations. The beginning of the persons of the Holy Trinity is the Father, who begets the Word and causes the Holy Spirit to proceed. The iconographer portrays the person, not the nature, which is why he writes the saint's name. An icon without a name says nothing. It is not an icon. Just as an icon of the crucified Christ without Christ's name or the Greek words, he who is in the halo, is not an icon of the crucified Christ. We are called through Christ's commandments to become like God so that the person hypostasis may come to light. When one person, when one becomes a person, one is never alone. The person does not know what loneliness is. He lives with God and other people. A hypostasis seeks another hypostasis. When we come near to the prayer in Gethsemane and we pray for the whole world, the person comes to light. Love 
is an existential content of the life of the person. In the desert, one acquires love for the whole world, precisely because there one experiences God's love. Thus one becomes a person, hypostasis, and loves all Adam. The created person, man, is not determined by anything. No one can know him unless the person wants to reveal himself to the other. We ought to live in an orthodox way, that is to say, to be aware of our sinful state. That is where prayer begins, since we are far away from God. Then prayer is not prayed with words, but as the reaching up of the hypostases towards God. God is humility. Humility is God's self-emptying, kenosis, his love. Ascetic humility is not the same thing as Christ's humility. Ascetic humility requires a struggle and contains an element of comparison. Christ's humility is a natural condition. It does not entail comparison, and it is linked with self-emptying. God's revelation to us opens our horizons to Christ's commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. God's revelation to a human being results in him changing his life, and this whole theoria imbues the world, as human nature is one and common to all. Sometimes even the historical circumstances of life change through a regenerated human being, as happened in the case of Moses. An imaginative noose is incapable of theology. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, because theology is an empirical science and not the product of reason and imagination, as imagination is a post-fall phenomenon. Secondly, because God is beyond reason, incomprehensible, uncreated, and without beginning, and we cannot understand him with our rational faculty. God is revealed to us. For this, a pure heart is necessary. Thus, someone with an imaginative noose cannot theologize. The All-Holy Virgin, our Panagia, said to the Archangel Gabriel, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Luke one thirty-eight. These words, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, are an acceptance of the cross. The All-Holy Virgin participated all through her life in the, the cross of her son. Staret Silouan is, is in the company of the great saints, like St. Anthony the Great, Abba Piman, and the rest, because he experienced hell, but he also saw Christ. The monks at the monastery of St. Pantaleman on the holy mountain attached no importance to St. Starat Siloan. They used to say that they had many others like Starat Siloan. Also, after his decease, they gave various people any of his personal effects that they requested. So, today at the monastery, they have none of Starat Siloan's personal things. Four nuns in a Catholic monastery asked to take the name Sulawani. Afterwards, others wanted to as well, but as this was impossible, they took the name Sophronia. This shows the influence of St. Siluan's words, even on non-Orthodox. The heresy of the Philoquy has an effect on the nature of Westerners, and that is why it is difficult for them to become Orthodox. The Apostle Peter shuts the gates of paradise from the West, meaning the heresy of the Western world. We now enter paradise from the East. In the Catholic Church, although outwardly they appear to accept the Fourth Ecumenical Council, in reality they have a different perception. Perhaps they did not understand the First Ecumenical Council either, 
and for that reason they fell into the heresy of the Philoque. A Catholic priest told me, For you Orthodox, the dogmas are a path to God, whereas for us, the new dogmas are obstacles, so we should discard them. We should not think, What do the Roman Catholics do, so I can avoid doing it? That is wrong. Our criterion should not be the Roman Catholics, but what God wills. Generally speaking, the Protestants are naive. Among the Protestants, the Evangelicals are the best. They are naive because they say that they believe in Christ as God because Holy Scripture says so, but they do not have the depth that the Orthodox have, the profound personal knowledge of Christ, and they do not know how to do battle with their thoughts. It is possible in the Orthodox Church for there to be translations of the New Testament with mistakes, but they do not cause problems because there is life, the divine Eucharist. Among the Protestants, on the contrary, who regard Holy Scripture as the source of faith, one translation error alters their whole mentality. For a Muslim to become a Christian, he must wait until he receives great grace, so that he is prepared to be martyred for Christ. If he has not received this grace, he should wait. Someone passed successfully through Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and black magic. In all the religions, he practiced magic at the same time. As soon as he became orthodox, he wanted to practice magic in parallel, but he was unable to do so. He realized from this that magic is the foundation of all the religions, and that the religions are dead, their leaders are dead, whereas Christ is the living God. Exorcisms need to be read for many years for those who have been involved in magic. This is what the early church used to do. Buddhism possesses some truths, but it possesses a human truth that goes as far as nothing. Through self-concentration or meditation, it leads man towards the non-existence from which we were created. This is a sort of existential suicide. Christ leads us to deification, to communion with the triune God. Some say that Buddhism has nothing to do with demonic possession. Those who talk like that, however, know Buddhism from books and speak theoretically. In practice, it is different. Some say that they reach a state of calm through meditation. Outwardly, this seems like a good thing, but these people are in the grip of arrogance and end up struggling with carnal desire. Even if they break with Buddhism, they will still struggle with carnal desire. This shows the devilishness of this method. Anyone who reads various books on psychological or Buddhist topics will never be able to acquire a clear sense of orthodoxy. When people who were atheists say that they came to orthodoxy from atheism or existentialism, without an intervening period of repentance, something is wrong in their lives and they will not turn out well. People want members of the clergy to be near to them, but this is not beneficial. The glory of members of the clergy does not lie in acquiring a good name in the world, but in experiencing kenosis and self-emptying. Persecution is the rule in the spiritual life. There are usually two great passions for members of the clergy, love of pleasure and remembrance of wrongs. Salvation is difficult for members of the clergy, much more difficult for bishops. 
Great spiritual fathers who have the Holy Spirit transcend the outward forms without violating them. Lesser spiritual fathers, however, ought to observe the forms. The same happens when a text is translated from one language into another. Someone who knows the language very well grasps the meaning of the words, whereas someone else who does not know the language well translates word for word. It is the same with spiritual fathers. The prayer of monks supports the whole world. This happens because man is made in God's image. The fact that he is in God's image is revealed, above all, in pure prayer. The manifestation of God's image shows the success of the purpose for which the world was created. If someone does not pray, he lives the failure of his creation and his existence. The monastic life means pain. The things that I have been through in my life are dangerous because when someone believes that he has received God's grace, he can be deluded. Many have fallen into delusion. When someone lives the monastic life with pain, he will one day reach the point of saying, it would have been better had I not been born. So great is the pain. But the pain is a great gift. It is a privilege. Someone asked me if I advised him to become a monk. I replied that I could not advise him. He asked, why could you not advise me? Perhaps you regret becoming a monk. I replied, I do not regret becoming a monk, but when the grace to be a monk comes to someone, he immediately leaves for the monastery and does not need advice. Physical illnesses in monks are different from those of worldly people. Usually they are not apparent to doctors. Sometimes it is good that there are illnesses because they help spiritually. Some people asked Father Porfirios about the way our monastery functions. He replied, It is more difficult, therefore also more perfect. And it really is so. We do not want to transgress the canons of the Holy Fathers, but here in England it cannot be otherwise. Circumstances and God's will imposed it on us. In the other autocephalous churches, the same thing could not happen, but here we cannot live in any other way. On the worldly level, it is considered clever for the pupil to correct the teacher and contradict him. On the spiritual level, however, for the disciple to contradict the elder is stupidity and spiritual death. Monasteries today will cease to be theological. Pious people will live in them, but not theologians. Piety is not the same thing as theology. When people enter the monastery to become monks, they usually have a lot of passions, and a long period of struggle has to pass in order for them to be cured. The Jesus prayer is not enough to cure them. The monk's obedience and the spiritual father's patience are also required. Some monks have powerful bodies, and often their bodies and their passions express themselves through disobedience. Usually abbots who acquire worldly renown and are honored by the world are very hard and unfeeling toward their monks. They pay no attention to them at all. When someone is despised, he is free. This happens in monasteries as well. When they despise someone, he can live hesychistically. When someone is regarded as important, he is judged strictly by the other monks, and he too is careful not to lose the good opinion that others have of him. So he's not free. When I was on the holy mountain and the young monks misbehaved, the older monks used to say, 
Whatever next, now we say, it could be worse. Psychological love is different from platonic love, eros, and divine love, eros, is different again. Some people interpret St. Ignatius' phrase, my love and eros is crucified, wrongly because they mix it up with human eros. However, those who criticize them also make mistakes. Nothing good comes of criticism. If we want to say something, we ought to look closely at what exactly the other person meant, what he wanted to say. It is better to write positively. We should correct the other person's mistake in a positive way. In general, we, sh we should say that eros, intense longing, is the fruit of knowing Christ through theoria of the divine light. In other words, man knows Christ through theoria and loves him. It follows that eros for Christ is of a different kind. I have been through a lot in my life. The things that I write in the book were first written by God in my heart. The Holy Spirit acts secretly in man's heart. He does not want any kind of compulsion or obligation. He does not want to burden us with our gratitude. Often he does not show himself clearly because in the natural state in which we live, after having been deluded, even the light fragrance of gratitude compels and obliges the other person. We should read patristic books in a simple way so that the prayer develops, without attempting to understand them or remember them. Then our heart will grasp the meaning of what the fathers say, and it will become life. I have not read many contemporary theological books. I did read a little in Paris. I suffered much pain. Only much later did I realize that everything that had happened to me, the remembrance of death, fear, repentance, and mourning, was a preparation so that I would grasp Starat Silouan's word. Christ said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15:24, because at that time they were ignorant of Christ's universality and were unable to understand him. Divine grace brings man to new birth. It even changes his voice and makes it better for communicating the truth. Regenerated human beings pass on the empirical truth in the appropriate voice. In someone who has been born again, anger becomes strength and impetus. Repentance is expressed in the initial stage by abstaining from passions and not satisfying them, later on as unrestrained reaching up to God. The noose is pure when it cleaves to God. Then we pay no attention to temptations. It is like what happens with, cat, with cars and dogs. When we pass a dog, it keeps barking, grows tired, and stops. Thus, in temptations, our noose ought to be fixed on God and not think of anything else. This is how temptations are dealt with. The proud man is turned in on himself. When he comes out of himself, he is distorted and is capable of going as far as committing a crime. The spiritual birth of a human being resonates loudly throughout the world, like an aeroplane when it breaks the sound barrier. Love for God creates holy audacity. Fear of God is a charisma. It is not the work of man. For decades I prayed like Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is terribly painful to pray with tears for the whole world and to be aware that other people are not interested in their own salvation. At one time my chest hurt from the heartbeats. My heart was melting like wax. 
However, when the doctor did an electrocardiogram, he told me, you have the heart of a small child. Sometimes my heart beats very strongly as though it were going to break without suffering any harm. Psychological fear is different from spiritual fear. Psychological fear leads to despair and paralyzes man. Spiritual fear inspires man unto death. The fear of God is not like the animal instinct. For quarter of a century I wept on the holy mountain for my sins and for the whole world. Someone dreadful, something dreadful happens in the Christian life. Sometimes God seems not to be satisfied by man's struggle, as though he did not hear his cry. This is how self-emptying is experienced. There were times when I lost prayer and was unable to even pray with my lips. If they despise us and persecute us, we ought not to speak at all, but to be silent. We should not even make excuses, because an excuse prompts a new accusation. Silence heals. Those who have the grace of God within them usually weep and repel people. This state, however, is natural for the saints. The history of the church, which is written by the saints, sets out the course of the spiritual life. In broad outline, it develops in the following way. We attempt to keep God's commandments, and we see the passions killing us and preventing us from keeping them. This causes unbearable pain. This pain increases when it is linked with abandonment by God. We suffer in both soul and body. Then we experience Adam's fall, and repentance begins, which opens up our depths more clearly. Purification of the heart begins with profound mourning. Then we receive new energy and reach theoria of the light. Thus, when we become nothing, dust, we become the material for our new creation. When they praise other people, we ought to rejoice. Zosimas, Father Zacharias, has taken my own words, my own teaching. It does not matter who is glorified here on earth, but who will be glorified in heaven. When there is a lot of love, a little hatred destroys it completely. When, however, there is a lot of hatred, and subsequently there is a little love, the hatred is not reduced. A monk wanted to work under obedience outside the monastery and thought that perhaps his absence would cause a problem in the monastery. I told him, we are not saying that we don't want you, but we can also do without you. In the beginning, karate can appear to be good as a form of gymnastics, but ultimately it takes man's noose outside orthodox asceticism and theology. It depends on the ideology with which it is linked. If people tell you that they cannot sleep, then tell them to pray and they will sleep. Many people, when they are in the first period of grace, the first love, want to sell their property and their homes, leave their work, and live in poverty. But we must be careful and lead them with discretion. We should leave people free and not restrict them. In particular, we should not exploit their emotions, especially their sense of gratitude. Many passages in Holy Scripture speak about man's right and left hand. The right hand is the heart. The left is the reason. The proud thought, the left hand, drives grace away from the heart, the right hand. That is to say, the left hand reason attempts to analyze the knowledge of God that the heart experiences. 
in particular tries to articulate it in order to help those making their confession. But then the light is lost for a long time. This is why Christ said, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Matthew 6.3 Childbearing is a serious issue. It is the bishop's task to guide people. Or, as Patriarch Athenagoras used to say, we should leave it to priests who exercise the pastoral ministry because people nowadays cannot practice complete abstinence. But neither can they cope with a lot of children. The concern of the pastoral ministry is to cure people. This ministry involves the cross. Bulgakov used to say that in some way unknown to us, God asks the human being before he is born whether he wants to be born. There are some elements of truth in this theory because many children today, for various reasons, do not want to be born, and there are miscarriages. It is difficult to live in the human race today. For many years I have prayed for the whole world and its peace, but there is no peace. And when someone speaks about peace, he is regarded as a communist. I do not read newspapers to see what is happening because nothing right happens. Everything outside Christ is absurdity. There is a difference between psychological psychology and life in Christ. Psychology attempts to deliver man from guilt complexes, whereas in life in Christ we experience grief, pain, on account of being far from God, and we do not stop repenting until this grief is transformed. The second discussion that year took place while we were walking along. I met the elder and Father Kiro. The elder was holding two walking sticks, and as he was in the middle and had us on his right and his left, he gave us each a stick so that the three of us would present a balanced appearance. He was a painter and observed everything. He also loved aesthetics. As I have referred to his artistic ability, I ought to mention that he himself supervised icon painting at the monastery in detail, even the shade of the colors. Also, he designed the carpet that was to go into the church and arranged for nuns and various ladies to make it. He was very attentive to priestly vestments. He wanted them to be clean, bright, and without glittering scenes. He himself took care of the purchase of the material and the sewing of the vestments. He did not like anything shoddy or garish. As we were walking along the road, we saw some children playing with a ball. The elder recalled with much laughter, Because I loved football when I was little, my father used to say, I have two boys and a footballer. In the discussion, he said, among other things, the following. The view that man was created for the God-man, Theanthropos, can lead to some negative conclusions, namely to the idea of man's great worth and making a god of him, since man was the reason for the God-man to be. The cross is the self-sacrificing love of God, who was crucified of his own volition. For that reason, self-sacrificing love is called a sign like the sign of Jonah. We live Christ's cross by practicing his commandments. When we are spiritually stretched, we are crucified. This happens through repentance. After theoria of God, someone is is different from what he was before. The same happens to someone who meets a saint. His entire life changes. 
The whole of the West was influenced by St. Augustine. Augustinian theory is rather psychological. It deals with God psychologically. In Greece, today, there is a noticeable trend towards psychology, which is why St. Augustine is studied so much. St. Augustine may be a saint, but his work was subject to exploitation. People in the West lost their inspiration for God. Thus, science developed. When someone returns to God after an intensely pleasure-loving life of fleshly indulgence, and he wants to take Holy Communion frequently, before his body has been transformed, his body reacts as though it did not accept the energies of Holy Communion. Thus, physical illnesses are caused. Discerning guidance is necessary. Unceasing prayer is activated at the beginning of the spiritual life. Although someone prays, there may not yet be dispassion. It is only in theoria of God that everything changes and the whole man is born again. Worldly sorrow is a substitute for repentance. We must take up Christ's cross voluntarily, of our own free will. Otherwise, we will carry other crosses against our will involuntarily. Erotic love captivates man very powerfully. In the beginning, the solution is to escape, then to turn to God. Bodily purity is preserved when the noose is kept clean and when the relationship with the spiritual father is as it should be. We wage the spiritual struggle, not because the kingdom of God can be bought for a price, but in order to keep Christ's commandments so that our will may be tested and the virtues may become our inalienable possession, so that we may remain forever. Someone may reach the first stage of dispassion, but be subject to fluctuations and sudden changes. Stability will come later. At the beginning, God gives us a perception of the spiritual life and many years must pass for us to assimilate it. Apart from other reasons, we fast with the idea that we are created in God's image, but have been distorted by sin. And now we want to become images of God. Animals do not fast because they do not have a rational hypostasis and freedom, but only nature. Thus, fasting is a privilege. Someone who is accustomed to telling lies does not trust anyone. Later, he reaches the point of not even trusting God, and then he loses his faith. One must free oneself from inner psychological sorrows in order to work spiritually. It is preferable for us to free ourselves of those who regard us as a source of temptation. Today, many people pray with their imagination. We ought to pray when we eat. All foods have God's creative energy in them. With prayer, we multiply the material nourishment so that it will help us. Food gives the body energy. We need it in order to work and also to have strength to pray. In those who pray, the energy from food is converted into spiritual energy. In people who do not pray much, the excess energy from food is converted into passion and greed. In that case, fasting is necessary. Usually, when priests hear other priests' confessions, they do not give them advice. They simply read the prayer and nothing more. Those who present the work of Dostoevsky as the highest criterion of orthodoxy do great harm. Dostoevsky had a great mind. He reached the point of mourning, and so he grasped certain profound concepts. But he was unable to free himself from certain passions 
drinking, and so on. He is a great writer who comes near to the truths of the church, but he is not its spokesman. In conclusion from 1983, in all his discussions, Father Sofroni usually took as his starting point his, theo- his theory about the person hypostases. He would move on to noetic prayer and other issues connected with the spiritual struggle, and he would deal with many contemporary issues. His words were revelatory and theological and issued like rivers of living water from his heart. They flowed without ceasing. I followed the stream of words with close attention in silence. And when the spiritual torrent came to an end, I would go to the cell and write down the revelational words of eternal life. 1984. In January 1984, my ever-memorable elder, Metropolitan Kalinikos of Edessa, Pella, and Amphalopi, was taken ill and I had to accompany him to London for an operation on his brain. The operation was not successful and it left him semi-paralyzed. It was the first time I had visited London in winter. It was very cold and there was freezing fog. It made a particular impression on me that the fog froze on the trees and looked like fine snow or frost. I stayed in London with Metropolitan Kalinikos, who was in St. Bartholomew's Hospital for almost a month. At weekends, I went to the monastery to church to renew my strength. The elder and the fathers of the monastery supported me with great love. The elder himself actually came to the hospital to see my Metropolitan and told him, We love you because you love monks. The ever-memorable Kalinikos replied, I don't do anything special. I love myself as I too am a monk. Metropolitan Kalinikos of blessed memory passed away on the 7th of August of that year, and I did not, of course, visit the monastery that summer. In October, there were elections for the post of Metropolitan in the metropolis of Edessa, and with the arrival of a new Metropolitan, many things changed in my ecclesiastical life. Thus, my customary visit took place in 1985. 1985. Every year was important as far as my visit to the monastery was concerned. It was impossible for anyone to visit even for a few hours, and especially to meet the elder, without benefiting spiritually. Someone told me that he had heard Elder Porfirio saying, It is a blessing for someone to see Father Sofroni even for a few minutes because he has great power. Elder Porfirios understood how powerful Father Sofroni's prayer was because this prayer issued from a heart set on fire by the experience of profoundest repentance, impetus toward God, and the illumination of divine light. Father Sofroni himself taught that one must first live the fire of hell, which is God's uncreated purifying energy, and then At a certain moment of deep repentance, this fire of hell changes into the uncreated light of the kingdom of God, which is God's uncreated, deifying energy. This vision activates the hypostatic principle and contributes to man's regeneration. Particularly that year, I gained great benefit, on the one hand because I was in need of following the death of my elder, and on the other hand because I had been deprived of the monastery the previous year on account of that event. The father showed me particular love, 
but I also found the opportunity for more discussion. As the reader will see, that summer I had four conversations with Father Sofroni. As soon as he saw me, he said, I am pleased that you did not become Bishop of Edessa because you would have been tied down. Elections had been held in the metropolis of Edessa, and I had come second out of the three candidates in the second round. The elder had a very great respect for the grace of the episcopate, but he was also aware of the difficulties and temptations. To be sure, at another meeting he told me, the new metropolitan took your place. That place was yours. He also repeated this to other people who passed it on to me. I did not ask for explanations, however, nor did I ever take any interest in that subject. At our first meeting, he said, among other things, in our time, the teaching of three fathers, St. Gregory Palamas, St. Maximus the Confessor, and St. Simeon the New Theologian is needed more than ever before. Reading Holy Scripture purifies the noose. The Apostle Paul, who experienced profound repentance, writes of Christ. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lowest parts of the earth? Ephesians 4.9 For us the words, he descended into the lowest parts of the earth, is profound mourning, the descent into the hell of repentance. Although all the apostles and fathers have the same revelation and experience, they do not express themselves in the same way. For example, the Apostle Peter was not so rich in conceptual images as St. John the Evangelist or the Apostle Paul. Divine grace does not abolish people's particular gifts. When a priest commits a carnal sin, his priesthood is deafened. That is to say, his priesthood is not active. He celebrates the mysteries, but he himself does not benefit. One must keep hold of the priesthood because it would be awful if something happened and one lost it. If someone does something bad, the priesthood has no power. We realize this from the fact that he is unable then to help people. Then in some way, the priesthood is deafened. In other words, he cannot hear people and help them. Pride and vainglory produce a rebellion of the flesh. In the addresses that we give at monastic professions, we should not refer to the subjects of brides, bridegrooms, and divine eros because these spiritual concepts become distorted in some way, especially in women. Some spiritual fathers retain their spiritual children through their psychological power, their reason, and their spiritual gifts, but they leave their spiritual problems unsolved and do not help them. Spiritual fathers who have inner spiritual priesthood, that is to say the grace of God, give their spiritual children effective help so they can deal with their spiritual problems. From the social point of view, we ought to feel that we are spiritual orphans because we do not belong in this society and our homeland is elsewhere. And here we are orphans. At our second meeting, he began in a friendly way to create a pleasant atmosphere. He told me, there is only one Herotheus. Your pen is strong and swift. My first books had been published then. Also, sermons had been published in the periodical Voice of the Lord, as well as some articles in ecclesiastical journals. The elder perceived that we had the same spirit as regard theology and asceticism, so he said with very great humility, The two of us have closely related ideas, but you write more richly and more vividly. He was courteous and noble, and he always found a way to lavish excessive praise on the one to whom he was speaking. I have recorded his words for that reason. 
In discussion, some of the things he said were as follows. I once wrote about the unity of the church according to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. When Evdokimov read it, he said, what does he know about the Holy Trinity as he's not married? It is absurd for people to think or to link knowledge of the persons of the Holy Trinity with knowledge of human relations within marriage. Theoria means having the flame of God. Westerners agree with the Muslims on the subject of God's essence. They regard it as impersonal. Many people are mistaken about the so-called darkness of God. They think that the darkness is ignorance of God, whereas it is knowledge that transcends human knowledge. It is light that transcends the light of the mind and the light of human knowledge. We Orthodox live Christ in the Divine Liturgy, or rather Christ lives within us during the Divine Liturgy. The Divine Liturgy is God's work. We say, it is time for the Lord to act. Apart from anything else, this means that it is the moment for God to take action. Christ celebrates the Liturgy. We live together with Christ. The Divine Liturgy is the way in which we know God and the way in which God is made known to us. Christ celebrated the Divine Liturgy once, and it passed into eternity. His deified human nature passed into the Divine Liturgy. In the Divine Liturgy, we know Christ specifically. The Divine Liturgy that we celebrate is the same Divine Liturgy that Christ performed on Monday, Thursday at the Last Supper. Chapters 14 to 17 of St. John's Gospel are a Divine Liturgy. Thus, we understand Holy Scripture in the Divine Liturgy. The first church lived without the New Testament, but not without the Divine Liturgy. The first forms of words, the hymns and scriptures, are in the Divine Liturgy. In the Divine Liturgy, we live Christ and understand his word. Just as Christ purified his disciples through his word and said to them, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. John 15.3 And he washed the disciples' feet with water at the sacred washing of feet, so too the first part of the Divine Liturgy purifies us, so that we can then sit at the table of love. The aim of the Divine Liturgy is to impart Christ to us. The Divine Liturgy teaches us an ethos, the ethos of humility. Just as Christ sacrificed himself, so we ought to sacrifice ourselves. The Divine Liturgy typifies the one who became poor for our sake. In the Divine Liturgy, we try to humble ourselves because we sense that God who is humble, is there. Every divine liturgy is theophany. The body of Christ is revealed. Every member of the church is an image of the kingdom of God. After the divine liturgy, we must continue to portray the kingdom of God by keeping his commandments. The glory of Christ is for every member to bear his fruit. This isn't the explanation for his words, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. John 15.8. God gives many charismas. Even simple ascetics can cure people in many ways, such as through prayer. But when God gives a special gift, he also gives discernment at the same time so that we will not under undervalue the spiritual gifts of others, particularly the charisma of priesthood. Many people want to take Holy Communion but they do not know how they can also benefit from the spirit of the divine liturgy because this too has much to offer. Many are displeased because their spiritual father has deprived them for a time of Holy Communion, whereas in this case they ought to benefit spiritually from the spirit 
of the Divine Liturgy. In order for someone to partake of the most pure mysteries, his noose must be at peace and free. He must be completely at liberty. Someone can face illness when his soul is at peace. For someone to find out what noetic prayer is, he must become acquainted with it before the age of 30 or 35, because after that, other problems begin, and it is not easy for him to engage in noetic prayer. I saw Birdiev on Easter day, Pascha, singing with the choir like a little child. Later I saw him on the train, concentrating deeply on his thoughts, shaking his head to grasp ideas. I realized that those whose work, who work with their brain have inconsistency in their life. What they think is different from how they live. There is a split between their mind and their heart. First one receives God's grace, then grace withdraws, and one passes through God's chastening. However, everyone has to go through this training, because even if one were to receive grace without the appropriate training, it could go wrong and contribute to his condemnation. One must pass through humility. Without freedom, it is impossible for someone to keep a spiritual gift or for his spiritual life to develop. A monk ought not to give many explanations. He should say little and not start up long conversations for no reason. The whole of contemporary life seems to go with the tide. Everyone is carried along in the same direction by force of circumstances. The monk is called to go against the tide. Monks sense that they are weak, and they are also looking for many things. For that reason, they want constant supervision. In the world, we are always finding out new things. In the monastery, repetition is the mother of learning. We pray with all our heart for your monastery. Spiritual guidance demands great patience. We ought not usually to talk to married people about the value of monasticism because then they will become confused and do not esteem marriage. We should teach them that marriage is a way to salvation when one lives in accordance with the gospel. We should not have high expectations of those who make their confession. At first they tell us a few things about themselves. We should confine ourselves to what they say. Later on, they will open up and say more. It takes a long time for people to open up. Someone who has a clear vision of everything is clear-sighted. As a consequence, if a spiritual father does not have clear vision, how can he help those who make their confession? Someone should not stop the prayer of absolution. He should open his heart and understand inwardly that God has forgiven him. Women are very demanding. Their spiritual father must have great discernment and patience in order to direct them. Married women ought to be very attentive to their husbands. They should be at home and take an interest in them and in their children. We live in an age when no one can speak against wars because he is regarded as a communist. At our third meeting, he referred to his favorite topics connected with the empirical knowledge of God. Among other things, he said, knowledge of God is empirical. It is similar to what happens in the theoretical sciences. First, there is the theory, and then there is confirmation. The opposite also happens. In the church, we have the theory that God revealed to the prophets, apostles, fathers, and saints. Subsequently, we say, let me see whether it is true, and we begin to follow the same path. We pray, and thus we sense the grace of God and confirm what the fathers say. In the West, people read a lot, 
and also turned to Eastern religions. And now some practice the Jesus prayer because they want to inquire empirical theology. God does not promise joy, but a cup. He calls us to suffer for his name, because thus we shall also experience his glory. God is hypostasis, one essence, three hypostases. It is the same with man. He is potentially a hypostasis, indestructible, but he also needs life. This comes about in Christ. When man is united with Christ, the hypostatic principle is activated, and he becomes an actual person, actual hypostasis. The hypostasis is unique and not transferable. God predestined those whom he knew beforehand would accept his call and his gifts of grace with gratitude and thanksgiving. Christ's self-emptying is presented most eloquently in the 12th chapter of the Apostle Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews. The expression uncreated light that the fathers and St. Gregory Palamas used provokes some people nowadays. We can use the expression divine light, which means the same. There is a pre-eternal self-emptying of God the Father as he begets the Word, and a self-emptying in time through the incarnation of the Word. Christ's kenosis, his self-emptying, and his total abandonment to his Father freed man from death. Something comparable happens to us too. Our total abandonment to God and our total self-emptying, which is linked with the formation of Christ, leads us to deification. Christ underwent sufferings because he kept his Father's commandments and so came into conflict with the world. The same must happen to the one who is called by Christ to live his life. The theory that some theologians expound is disproportionate to their spiritual experience. They develop high-flown theories without possessing corresponding experience. This creates a psychological problem for them. Deification means that in every situation in our life, we react as Christ reacted. If we want to begin a conversation with God, as soon as our noose turns to God, he will immediately give us a spiritual concept. There's a difference between Buddhism and Orthodox asceticism. In Buddhism, they try through divestment to reach nirvana. They convert contemplation into mystic theoria. They see the created light of their mind. This happened even more in Plotinus and Neoplatonism. The fathers knew about this, and we can call it the darkness of divesture. But they go beyond this and reach theoria of the uncreated light. Then they experience that the light comes from a person and not from an idea. They are aware of a personal relationship with God, and at the same time, a great love for God and the whole world develops to the point of martyrdom and self-hatred. People who become orthodox through philosophical reflection or aesthetics in moments of intense concentration elevate this reflection into mystical theory. They see the light of their mind and fall in love with it and themselves. This light is neither devilish nor divine, when they take it for divine, it becomes demonic. As St. James, the Lord's brother, says, quote, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. James 3.15 When one makes a god of earthly, non-spiritual wisdom, it becomes demonic. It is only when someone sees the divine light that he sees the difference between the natural light of the mind, devilish light, 
and the uncreated light. In the desert, my noose was caught up in rapture on many occasions. On account of repentance, however, I did not want to recall these times to mind. In the desert, I did not think of anything. I simply repented of my fall, of having sought perfection in Eastern mysticism, outside Christ. When, however, I became a spiritual father, I wanted to help people who had experienced something similar and were asking for confirmation of their spiritual state. Then I tried to see what was happening in me without saying anything to others. This often had consequences for me. On the holy mountain, I lived repentance to the point of madness. I knew eternity negatively at first, from the experience of eternal damnation. God's revelation to St. Siloan, keep your mind in hell and despair not, means condemning oneself to hell, hating oneself completely. Then one feels the flames of hell piercing one's body like needles. Later, when one sees the uncreated light, one changes completely. No one can see the divine light and stay the same as he was before. In any any event, anyone who sees the divine light understands what eternal damnation is. Dogmas are essential for the spiritual life. Without them, the spiritual life is distorted. So we are not fanatical when we stay with the dogmas, the dogmatic statements of the fathers of the ecumenical councils. When we meet someone against whom we are prejudiced, we change direction. And when we meet someone whom we like, we run up to him. It is the same with dogmas. We have an aim and we run to achieve it. If we lose the aim, we have no strength to run. When someone keeps Christ's commandments, he is not only obedient, but he is united with Christ and acquires the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit is called the Comforter because he consoles those who suffer pain on account of sin and who repent. The Christian life is a magnificent path. For that reason, no one sets out on the path on his own. He needs helpers. Thus, the All-Holy Virgin was sent to Elizabeth, and the Apostle Paul went to the other apostles in Jerusalem so as to receive confirmation. The fourth meeting took place as we walked along the lane outside the monastery. The subject of the discussion revolved around psychology in relation to the spiritual life. The elder had profound knowledge of the spiritual life because he had attained to theoria of the uncreated light, and he could distinguish between psychological and spiritual things. He often used to say that real repentance is of a spiritual, not psychological nature. It is an energy of God. Throughout the years he had lived in the Western world, he had confessed and direct many people who had psychological problems or were being treated for such problems. He was therefore extremely familiar with the subject. The points recorded below are indicative of his views. The study of psychology in Greece started with the Christian brotherhoods. In the past, psychological views were a major force and used to influence people. Now, as far as I can see, their influence on people has been reduced to some extent. The dissemination of the tradition of the Holy Mountain helped to bring this about, together with the niptic teaching of the Church, which changed people's noose. The observations of psychology with regard to human beings are significant because they explain that beyond the rational faculty, there is something more profound. Psychological analyses, however, are infantile compared with the teachings of the fathers of the Church. Although the observations of psychology are significant, 
The therapeutic method that it offers is awful. Psychoanalysis does not cure man, rather it confuses him even more. We ought to make a distinction between neurology and psychology. Neurologists contribute greatly to physical health because they administer certain drugs that restore man's social balance. But even they do not cure. They simply sedate man's energy. Curing man begins with curing thoughts. Physical change comes about through curing thoughts. Although it is true that neurologists restore man's equilibrium through drugs, they do not cure him. There's a great difference between the Orthodox and Western traditions. Psychology is adjusted to the Western tradition, so it differs enormously from the Orthodox tradition. The view that everything psychologically is also spiritual, and everything spiritual is also psychological, is deadly danger. It is very dangerous for us to regard people's psychological problems as spiritual states. Such a view is blasphemy against God. The exact opposite ought to happen. That is to say, we ought to make a distinction between spiritual life and psychological life. In all our years at the monastery here in England, I have never met anyone who was cured through psychoanalysis, although it is highly developed in Western societies. However, to be fair, neurologists and doctors who give drugs to patients are more humble than psychoanalysts, and they help people to become socially balanced. They also help those within the church when they have problems of a neurological nature for various reasons. The spiritual problem, namely, that man is far away from God, also has consequences for the body. Man's soul easily orientates itself to a new direction through repentance, but his body, if it has suffered harm, is slow to adjust to the new state. Christ's words apply here. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In this section, in this situation, the body, which has been tormented by sins, may be helped by drugs, but the final cure will come from the soul's good health by the grace of God. St. Gregory Palamas lived in a crucial period when the seeds of psychology and psychoanalysis were already in existence, and it is important for us to study his theology. Orthodox Hezekiah is the unerring method for curing man. Unfortunately, those who confuse the spiritual life with psychoanalysis hold important positions within society, and their opinion is heeded more. In someone who is psychologically ill, it is not simply his so-called subconscious that is sick, but his noose, which is the eye of the soul. When we pursue the spiritual life, we do not need psychoanalysis. Neurology helps with hereditary problems. The psychology of psychiatrists has another perception, clearly different from orthodox teaching. Their anthropology is different. In any case, discussion about the relationship between psychology and orthodox theology will be beneficial. In conclusion, for 1985, that year I gained particular benefit from the elder with regard to three issues. The value and depth of the divine liturgy, his teaching concerning Buddhism and the Eastern traditions, and the relationship between psychology and the spiritual life. These three subjects were, of course, interspersed with the elder's theory about the person hypostasis and exposition of his personal concerns. All these issues helped me in my pastoral ministry. On one occasion, 
I left the monastery loaded with gifts, spiritual concepts, which came from someone who had struggled hard in his life to acquire experience of them. The elder was accounted worthy of unusual gifts from God, such as the revelation of I am that I am, mindfulness of death, walking the tightrope over the abyss, swinging above the fire of hell, the sense of the createdness as a fall, and so on. Not only did he live through ex exceptional experiences, he also expressed them in unique and simple speech. I left the monastery intoxicated spiritually. As time passed, I entered more deeply into the elder's teaching, and he revealed to me more secret paths in the spiritual struggle, sacred Hezekiah and Orthodox theology. However, as the Holy Fathers teach, after a great gift, temptations follow. This happened with the disciples. After Mount Tabor came the trial of Christ's passion and cross, and after Pentecost they suffered persecutions and temptations. When the sun appears, the shadow follows. More or less the same happened in my case too. No sooner had I returned to Edessa than the new metropolitan forbade me, on a trivial pretext, to celebrate the divine liturgy at the monastery of the Holy Cross in Edessa, where I served as spiritual father. Father Sofroni heard what had happened and telephoned me. At first he gave me strength to bear this temptation, and subsequently he tried to urge me to satisfy my earlier longing to go into the desert of the Holy Mountain and engage in sacred Hezekiah. His basic reason was, of course, to prevent me coming into conflict with the Metropolitan, because that would have caused me great spiritual harm and to enable me to keep my spiritual freedom. The elder had a profoundly ecclesiastical mentality and patristic consciousness. I asked the Metropolitan for leave, and I went to the Holy Mountain in order to make the relevant decision. I stayed there for more than a month, from the end of July until the beginning of September 1985, at the monastery of Stavronakita, in prayer in Hezekiah, enjoying the kindness of the fathers of the monastery. I committed the matter to God and the Lady Theotokos, and I repeatedly discussed the issue with Father Paisios. Father Paisios agreed with Father Sofroni, but since he saw that the nuns at the monastery would find themselves in a difficult situation, he urged me to make one last effort to stay in Edessa and to do what the Metropolitan wanted, and in the end God would reveal his will. The time I spent then on the Holy Mountain as a brother of the monastery of Stavronokita was very significant. I prayed and I calmed down. The idea of writing the book Orthodox Psychotherapy was born there, and I began to write it after my return to Edessa in the spirit of the teaching of Father Sofroni in the atmosphere of the Holy Mountain. After a year, however, I ascertained that it was impossible for me to remain in Edessa, and I left, as did the sisters of the monastery later on. Apart from Father Sofroni's advice, I also had the commandment given to me by my ever-memorable elder, Metropolitan Kalinikos of Edessa, Pella, and Amphilopia, before he died, quote, if the new Metropolitan does not want you, Ask his blessing and leave. Never quarrel with a metropolitan, as you will not have God's blessing. I've written all this to show that Father Sofroni oversaw the course of my life with a noble love. This book is not the place for further details on this subject. 
All this trouble that I was going through did not allow me to visit the monastery in 1986 and 1987. I went through the trial and testing in the light of what I had been taught over so many years. In this situation, to a greater or lesser extent, I lived through a period of withdrawal of grace after having received so many blessings. Such a time is without doubt more fruitful if one faces it with fortitude, patience, and faith in God. 1988. The beginning of 1987, I left the metropolis of Edessa, Pella, and Almopia. I served at first as diocesan preacher in the metropolis of Thiva and Lavadia, and from August of the same year, I was diocesan preacher in the Archdiocese of Athens. In January 1988, at the decision of the ever-memorable Archbishop Seraphim of Athens, I went to the Balaman Theological College, St. John of Damascus in Tripoli, Lebanon, to teach Greek language initially, and later the course on Orthodox ethics. From Lebanon, I sent a letter to the elder to tell him about my life there. In July 1988, I had the opportunity to visit the monastery of St. John the Baptist, Essex, again, after three years. As soon as the elder saw me, he said, we are grateful that you went to the trouble and expense of coming. I replied, I do it for a return. He answered, you are a good merchant. I said, would that I were a merchant of good things. He said, the fathers tell us to be merchants. Also, as he had recently read an article of mine on Star at Siloan in the Journal of the Holy Synod, the Ecclesiastical Truth, he told me, I liked your article in Ecclesiastical Truth very much. It is very good. And he added, you should write theologically about Star at Siloan. Because my departure from Edessa was connected with the new metropolitan and the elder had advised me to go to the Holy Mountain, he found the opportunity to tell me, I have no objection. I thought that you could go into the desert of the Holy Mountain and, and write theologically. But you have chosen another path. I have no objection. I pray that you may become great and preach. He was noble in all his actions. I asked that we should meet, and he arranged for the meeting to take place at five o'clock in the afternoon, as I wrote in my notebook. It is significant that he did not come to the refectory that day, lest he tire himself and not have strength to talk to me. In the afternoon, we talked for about an hour and a half. At the end, he said, glory be to God that we had time and strength to talk. Among other things, he told me, Christ's humility is different from ascetic humility. No saint has spoken about Christ's humility as a characteristic of Christ in the way that St. Siloan did. St. Siloan saw the divine energy of humility at the moment when Christ appeared to him, and then his body was filled with grace. Afterwards, however, he lived God's abandonment for the whole of his life. The greater the theoria of God, the greater the pain and grief. There is a difference as regards the meaning of the person not only between Christians and Muslims, but between Christians, that is to say, between the Orthodox and Protestants. As God is person, the human being is also a person. We can speak of the human person since he is in God's image. The Holy Spirit gives revelation to man when there is pain in his heart. Then one distinguishes the divine from the diabolical. St. Siloan is a universal saint. All regarded him as their own. 
Patriarch Demetrios, who included Star at Siloan in the Church's calendar of saints, is our dearest patriarch. Many people have written letters to congratulate me that Star at Siloan has been numbered in the company of the saints. Everyone who reads his writings is pleased, but if one looks more carefully at Star at Siloan, one is filled with fear. Some people say that Star at Siloan was like all monks. Saint Siloan had a great experience that few understand. How do the saints speak is a fundamental question. This is clear from the discussion that Star at Siloan had with Straconicos. The saints do not speak psychologically and philosophically, but say what the Holy Spirit gives them to say. Then there are no mistakes. When we speak of ourselves, we make mistakes. St. Siloan used to say that even if God were, were to take someone to paradise every day, he should say, God does this on account of his love and not on account of my virtues. When the heart has tears, it can distinguish whether something is from God or from the devil. Otherwise, we ought to keep God's commandments. God's commandments are an expression of God's life. The words, keep your mind in hell and despair not, are very significant. I have written this exhaustively, but few have understood. It is an experience of the church that many fathers live, but to a different degree. St. Siloan lived it to the highest degree. Having one's noose in hell is the only way to make the passions stop. When one's noose leaves hell, the passions act. This is where the essence of asceticism lies. Few people nowadays are real ascetics. Human psychology uses a different anthropology. It is more or less heretical. It is dangerous. It is bad that it is used by spiritual fathers. To a certain extent, it helps those who have no experience to understand other people, but it does harm. Spiritual things also have psychological repercussions, as can be seen when one looks at the Orthodox and the Latins. But psychological things are not spiritual as well. And in conclusion, from 1988, after the discussion... We went from the old building as far as his bungalow, arm in arm. He told me that in September he would be 92 years old. On the way, he told me something very humorous, and he laughed heartily. However, because he was a great hesychist and a monk who strove hard, he immediately said, we laugh, but we ought to weep. What a monk told me once is typical. On one occasion in the refectory, the elder wanted to laugh at something and he stopped himself. But even when he laughs, his laughter is constructive. Sometimes he laughs because he sees that we are joyful or to lift our spirits when we are downcast. When I left the monastery, he gave me some boxes of chocolates to give to people he knew. And he asked me to pass on his blessings to everyone he knew, saying, give my best wishes to everyone, particularly to the nuns. I am interested in Siloani, Makrina, Fotini, and Afi. Of Sister Siloani, he said, May Siloani resemble Saint Siloan. In any case, she now has the protection of the saint himself. Finally, I asked his blessing, saying, Remember us, Father. He replied, We remember you whether we want to or not. 1991 in 1991, I met the elder for the last time alive at the monastery. He was 95 years old. 
When I had met him, he was 80 years old, but he was in good physical condition. Now he had aged. He walked with difficulty and used two walking sticks. He fell asleep in the Lord two years later. I asked if we could have our photograph taken. It is a photograph that shows us in front of the entrance of the new father's house at the monastery. Then I photographed him on his own, holding two walking sticks. It is a very fine photograph and one of his last. After a meal in the monastery refectory, I found the opportunity to approach him because he always gave us gifts and spiritual desserts, living his life in continuous self-emptying and dividing himself up to satisfy others. He said a few important words to me. Among other things, he said, we live quietly here. There's a lot of hum humidity here. A tree in front of the refectory needs many tons of water on a hot day. That means that there is humidity in the ground. In the same way, through mourning, we ought to put down deep roots in order to reach eternity. This is the essence of the monastic life. As usual, I asked to see him privately. He accepted, and our meeting took place, as I recorded in my personal notebooks on the 16th of July, 1991. First of all, he expressed his joy that I had come to visit him again, and he began the discussion from my book, Person and Freedom, which had already been published. The elder was particularly interested in the person hypostases, because by the revelation of God, he had himself ascertained that God is not an idea, but person hypostases. So he would always read what was written on the subject of the person. He told me, quote, I read your book, Person and Freedom, using three lenses, because I do not read now, but I wanted to read it. You express things well. You and I agree but the reality of the person transcends philosophical or any other analysis. You are astute. You put the part about philosophy first, that the fathers are not philosophers, and afterwards you went on to the ascetical analysis of the person. He added, you are half my age, and you have written so much. And immediately afterwards, he said for my instruction, there is an antidote that says that a thief and a writer found themselves in hell. There was fire under both of them. At some point, the burning fire under the thief went on, whereas that under the writer increased. The writer asked, Why is this? It's unfair. And they told him, It is because the evil that you did with the books you wrote continues in the world, whereas the evil done by the thief does not. Then I asked him, Will the same befall me? He answered, No, this does not apply to you. People benefit from what you write and are saved but you are harmed by the devil's aggression and people's hatred and envy. And he went on, I admire you. You write so many books, one book a year. Where do you find the time? You have a monastery as well. He meant the birth of the Theotokos Monastery in Renfrio near Thiva. I told him, I go to the monastery every Saturday. He asked, do the nuns live on their own? I replied, yes, there is Abbas Fotini to take care of them. He said, it's a good monastery. Subsequently, I told him, I am invited to various conferences to give talks, and then I publish them. That's how the books are written. He answered, but even that needs ability. You have a charisma. We should write in a positive way as you do. Feeling uncomfortable, I said, I write a lot of books, but they are all probably nonsense. He replied, no, you do not write nonsense, but you write intermediate theology. 
He considered exalted theology to be the personal revelation of theoria of God, as we see in his writings. I then asked him about a personal matter. At that time, there was a suggestion that I might be elected Metropolitan of Larissa, although some Christians in Larissa wanted Metropolitan Theologos to come back. He told me the following, I cannot judge. I do not know the situation, nor do I want to get involved. It would be difficult for you as far as prayer is concerned. How would you function in such circumstances? Bishops seldom write theologically. It is preferable for you to write theologically in a cave, like St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, and to benefit the church in that way. If you write two or three good books, it is of great benefit to you and to the church. I rejoice that God gave me the priesthood and defended my monasticism. I am not indifferent to you. After that, he began to expound various subjects to me. Before he began, he said to me in a self-emptying and self-accusatory way, Don't pass on whatever absurdities I tell you. I am an old man and I talk nonsense. To conclude 1991, St. Gregory Palamas taught us that we partake of the divine energy. Negativism, as taught by some people, does not help us to understand God. When writing the book, I could not say we shall see him as he is, is not, but as he is. It would have been senseless for me to say we shall see him as he is not. Prayer ought to be prayed hypostatically. We do not say personal prayer, but hypostatic prayer. The Holy Fathers discovered the word hypostasis. Westerners are unable to interpret it, and they confuse it with the essence. We should use the term hypostasis more than person, because person can also be understood psychologically. You have found the asceticism of the person. Stay there. Speak about ascetic and niptic theology. Leave the others to write philosophically and psychologically. Polemical theology does not help because we do not know the concepts that other people use. Concepts can be understood according to each one's experience. The name-worshipping monks of the Caucasus knew that divine grace acts in the heart through prayer. However, because they did not know the theology of St. Gregory Palamas, they could not express the fact that this experience is the divine energy. The Hezekiah of the Holy Mountain does not really help someone to write. That is why I left the Holy Mountain, because I had to write about Star at Silouan. You write because there is a pastoral need for you to write. When I was living in a cave on the Holy Mountain and I had a disciple, Father Paul, a partisan came and asked me for money, food and clothes, and that my disciple should carry them. I gave him what I had, but I did not give him my disciple. The disciple is an elder's greatest asset. The greatest asset for the monastery is the person, not money or things. I am sorry about those spiritual fathers who assert that the spiritual life is not enough and that psychology is also necessary. Contemporary monks ought to learn not to speak from their mind, their reason, but to say whatever the Holy Spirit gives to their hearts. Praying is the easiest thing. The most difficult thing is to give advice on practical matters. The theological school in Athens is changing its perspective. The theological school in Thessaloniki is better. I see a change of direction now in Athens as well. The Apostle Peter's statement that the earth will be burnt up 
can be accomplished more easily today with nuclear weapons. We live in apocalyptic times. Today, peace is very difficult. The end will come suddenly, but then redemption will also come. We live in the last times. The judgment may happen even now. Remembrance of death immediately brings contrition and dispassion. However, this dispassion fluctuates. It is not perfect dispassion, but even this is something. It is the beginning of spiritual life. When someone is making his way toward God, after his death, after his departure, from the natural state of the body, he will hurtle like a rocket with great impetus toward God. When man reaches up continuously toward God, at his death he will rush with dizzying speed toward God, like a rocket. This was our last discussion. As soon as he had finished what he had said to me, he said, I'm very pleased that you came. And we left arm in arm in the direction of his bungalow. I asked his blessing and he blessed me, praying inwardly. Two years later, on the 11th of July, 1993, the day I was baptized and became a Christian, he ended his life in peace. I went to the monastery the next day. I reverently and prayerfully kissed his hollowed hand in the coffin, and I took part in the funeral service with intense joy and sorrow. God counted me worthy to know a saint and a great father of the church with extraordinary experiences and amazing gifts of grace. It was a particular blessing to me that such a saint loved me and conversed with me, revealing many mysteries of the kingdom of God. On the day of his funeral service, a monk told me, I rejoice greatly because there is a saint in paradise who knew me and loved me, so he will pray for me. I have a saint whom I know in the company of the saints. That is what I feel too. During the funeral service, I thought about the last words that the elder had said to me the last time I met him before he died, that when man's soul reaches up toward God after it leaves the body, he will hurtle like a rocket with great impetus toward God. He will rush with dizzying speed toward God like a rocket. Elder Sophroni was as distinguished throughout his life by this impetus. He lived, as St. Maximus the Confessor says, ever-moving stability and stationary motion. Surely his soul would have moved and will move with dizzying speed toward God. Christ said, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Matthew eleven twelve. Elder Sophroni strove with great force to take the kingdom of God. Chapter 3 Various Words of the Elder In the file that I had made up from my visits to the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, my meetings with Elder Sophroni, and the various words of his that I have set out above, I also found a separate collection of the Elder's sayings, which did not form part of the discussions that I had had with him on particular dates. These are words that the Elder addressed to me from time to time, or that I had heard him saying to others, or that some of the monks and nuns, that being Father Kirill, Father Raphael, Father Zacharias, Sister Magdalene, mentioned to me as the Elder's words. They really did express the spirit of the Elder. Most of these sayings were passed on to me by Father Zacharias, with whom I had a strong fraternal friendship, which I still maintain. Sometimes we had long discussions. 
It was he who passed on to me various orders, requests, and wishes from the elder as he was continuously with him. At various times, Father Zacharias would say during our conversations, The elder says on that subject. I recorded these words in a special notebook. In any case, the elder once told me, Zacharias has taken all my teaching. And I was convinced that he was reporting the elder's words accurately. I set out these words to round off this second part of the book, and also so that we can look at Father Sophroni's oral teachings. As follows. The aim of marriage is for the couple to collaborate with God so that they will give birth to sons and daughters of God. Prayer is needed when choosing. In order for them to make a good choice, much prayer is needed that the suitable person may be given for this purpose. When someone marries, he does so in order that his wife may be his helper for salvation. He must show love, and they must struggle for their salvation. Today it is a privilege not to have children. Parents suffer martyrdom. When the children grow up, society takes them. Parents idolize their children. They live their whole lives in them and identify with them. This is a mistake. Through marriage, the husband takes the wife as a helper, so that they may achieve perfection. Children are gifts from God. Often the children bring anxiety and the noose is distracted from God. Nature itself, that is God's creative, life-giving, and providential energy, will bring it about that there are not many children. It will grow weak and it will not be possible for many children to be born. When people marry and God gives children, they should glorify God. If God does not give children, they should be calm and not worry. It is not a matter of giving birth to beings for historical reality, but of giving birth to persons for the reality that transcends history, that they may enter paradise. Many give birth to children who become fodder for hell. Married couples must learn self-emptying, kenosis. They must give away to one another. Then they learn to accept another's existence in their own existence. The upbringing of children begins from the day of the wedding. The couple ought to live with prayer and the fear of God. When a mother prays when she is pregnant, the embryo feels the energy of the prayer. When a child is conceived, the parents ought not to be angry. When it is born, they ought to pray. They should also pray when they have the child in their arms. Whatever the mother does, she should do it with prayer. She should make the sign of the cross over the child when it is asleep and pray for when she breastfeeds it or gives it food. The fact that many children nowadays have unkind instincts is because they were not breastfed by their mothers. When a woman asked whether she should feed her baby with her own milk or with cow's milk, I replied, who gave birth to it, you or the cow? The aim is not simply that the infant should partake of the most pure mysteries, but that it should live in an atmosphere of prayer at home. The atmosphere of the home should be one of prayer. The parents ought to inspire the children with their love for Christ and the All-Holy Virgin. When the children are small, they ought to be rules at home, which should gradually give way as the children grow up. Then they are given freedom. We should also give them presents. The children may feel that they live in a rather old-fashioned way when they live life in the church. The important thing, however, is for the children not to become atheists. Atheism is worse even than carnal sin. 
The aim in bringing up children is that they may acquire personal love for Christ and the All-Holy Virgin. We ought not to advise them simply to become good people. Also, we have to help them in, to stay in the Orthodox Church, not merely to avoid sin. The fact that they stay within Orthodoxy is a great thing and may be the cause of salvation, even if they've made some mistakes in their lives. Children ought to be inspired by love for Christ and for the All-Holy Virgin, our Panagia. Constructive leisure activities are essential for those who live in the world. It is preferable for children to get out of the house rather than to stay at home and watch television. If we want our children to live in modern cities in the same way as we lived in the past, we will drive them mad. These are children who seem all right when they're small, but when they grow up, they lose their reason. It is preferable for children not to partake of the body and blood of Christ rather than to partake under compulsion from their parents without wanting to themselves. If the mother prays during the child's conception, pregnancy, and birth, she gives it spiritual birth as well as physical birth. She gives birth to a spiritual being. There were many atheists in Russia, but the worst atheists were the children of priests. We must make sure that we bring up children in such a way that they do not regard orthodoxy as difficult and burdensome. Parents ought not to neglect their children much on account of services and sermons. Also, many Greek parents in England do not allow their children to go around with English children. This is a bad thing. The child has to learn how to live in a community with different people. The general view on bringing up children is as follows. Care is needed prior to marriage. The choice of a suitable spouse must be made with prayer. The couple ought to begin their life with zeal and with prayer that God may enlighten the children that they be, will be born so that they will become his own children. As they bring up their children, they ought with discretion to give them freedom and allow them to go on their way. We should not use the word forbid, even as regards leisure activities. How they behave in secondary matters is less important than whether they love Christ. So that they may love Christ, we ought not to talk to them psychologically and theologically in stilted language, but to pray inwardly in our heart. When the parents have God's grace within them, the child senses it. There should be open discussions within the home. Also, the atmosphere of prayer ought to prevail, not just an atmosphere of words. We should form our children. And formation, according to the church, means giving form, the form of Christ. It is good for children to have contact and meetings with lots of young people because in this way they will realize that relationships within, with the opposite sex are not confined to the carnal level, as happens in marriage. In the past, matchmaking was prevalent. Now personal acquaintance predominates. It is not so important what happens, but whatever happens must be done with prayer. Freedom does not mean do what you like, but do what you like within limits. In other words, we discuss with the children. We do not express surprise and amazement at every bad thing they do. And in some secondary matters, we leave them to do as they like. If a child wants to go to a party, we should tell him or her, pray and do whatever God enlightens you to do. And we should add, I shall not hold it against you if you go to the party after praying. In this way, we develop their sense of responsibility and their relationship with Christ. We teach them to pray to God about everything they do. 
Freedom plays a major role in bringing up children. We should pray God to give inspiration. God enlightens everyone, especially mothers, and gives them inspiration. This is the only way we can bring up children. Some people speak about marital priesthood and assert that in the married life one lives the threefold dignity of the Lord. This is speculative theology. The threefold dignity of the Lord, prophet, king, and high priest, is lived through repentance. Otherwise, all those things that are said are a theology of the passions. In the Old Testament, God made known his will negatively through the law, the Torah, through not and no, thou shalt not kill, and so on. The people were tormented, lost hope because they could not put it into practice, and they cried out, Come, thou Messiah, save us. In this way, the law became a tutor to bring us to Christ. In the Old Testament, childlessness was considered a curse because all women wanted to become mothers and grandmothers of Christ, the Messiah. In the New Testament, things have changed because now we live the Messiah, Christ. God did not create masters and slaves, but sons in relation to a father. All those who become sons of God by grace afterwards also become spiritual fathers of Christians. God glorified the All-Holy Virgin and kept her in silence. The mystery of the Theotokos is a mystery of silence. For that reason, God did not enlighten people to talk about her natural life. However, the church glorified her. A saint's word opens the hearer's noose, and with this word he can preach a whole sermon. God's revelation is not visions, but the advent of divine grace, which comes in stages. Christ said something once, and this word remains forever. We realize this from the saints as well. They heard a word once, and they kept it for the whole of their lives. In this way, we also comprehend the energy of God's word. For someone to do missionary work in an orthodox way, he has to have the Holy Spirit within him. But he must also assimilate the culture of the place where he is. Then he can make a contribution. No one can bear to live with a saint because the saint's word is fiery. The saint ascends the cross with his whole life. He is crucified. And the one who lives with him cannot bear this life of the cross. There are no writings by female saints. This is not because there are fewer holy women than men. There are more holy women, but female saints lead a hidden life. They are able to keep their life secret. The All-Holy Virgin received great grace from God. We do not have revelations that come from the All-Holy Virgin, but we know that she had great grace. The church and all who pray to her are aware of it. Also, women did not need to reveal their experiences in order to guide their flock. All those who have left us, a few of their words were abbesses, eurondisses. But male saints, too, would have kept silent, and we would not have their writings, had it not been for them as people with responsibility and shepherds of the church to guide their flocks. God's covenant with human beings is his call to each one. Accepting the call is keeping the covenant. Priests share in Christ's martyritic priesthood. The Pope exercises his authority from a high position. Orthodox priests share in Christ's self-emptying in the martyritic priesthood of Christ who was crucified and went down to Hades. The trials that the saints underwent are greater than our own trials 
because their hearts were sensitive and everything in their lives took on larger proportions. Christ's cross transcends any human martyrdom because Christ was sinless. We inherit death and we strengthen the power of death throughout our lives with our sins. Christians will always be misunderstood by those around them. We should also respect the freedom of non-believers and atheists and not judge them. Then they too will leave us free to do our work. In Greece, they are prone to gossip and easily take offense. But at the same time, they have intuition and they understand that the other people have good intentions and mean well. This is because Greece is an orthodox country. When someone has a rule from his spiritual father not to take Holy Communion, but he takes Holy Communion because he thirsts for it, then, apart from being disobedient, he does harm to his soul, because afterwards he stops thirsting for Holy Communion. If, however, he obeys his spiritual father, he will continue to thirst for Holy Communion. This thirst is beneficial. Just by keeping the word of one's spiritual father, one receives grace from God. When someone has passed through Buddhism, he needs to repent and weep a lot. Otherwise, a certain pride will remain in him as a residue from his previous life. Carnal sins, fornication, are forgotten through repentance and are easily cured. Psychological and spiritual sins, pride, heresies, experimenting with Buddhism, are not easily cured. It is the same with culture. A monk who spends his time on cultural pursuits shows that he has no experience of repentance. If he had repentance, all his past interests, including culture, would be left behind since the grace of God would be before him. What do the words keep your mind in hell and despair not mean? They mean nothing to us, but Starat Silwan understood them as a great consolation because he was going through the period of God-forsakenness. That is why he said, I received the weapon of my salvation. It was like a triumph. Hell means the withdrawal of God's grace. This is God's chastening. For Starat Silwan, the way out was, do not despair. God abandoned the apostle Peter during the time of trial in order to prepare him for greater grace. He received so much grace from God that even his shadow cured people. The grace of God that comes to the saints is so great that the soul is unable to keep it. For that reason, they should leave the world and the monastery. This happened to Saint Seraphim of Serov. When someone who is married does not honor spiritual virginity, purity of heart, and does not exercise it, he does not live well even as a married man because married life is nourished by this purity of heart. Godly despair is different from worldly despair. Godly despair is linked with profound repentance, abandonment by God. The difference between something psychological and something spiritual is the difference between what is human and what is divine. Everything in the spiritual life is the fruit of human collaboration and divine grace. God arranges sufferings and trials for the proud man so that he might be saved. To someone who is physically strong, he gives an illness to stop him indulging himself. Afflictions crush the heart, and this crushing produces prayer. Man is a microcosm. He repents. He becomes holy. He receives the whole world, and thus a small creation takes place. 
we are all murderers to varying degrees. When we are emotionally in favor of a state that fights against another state, we too participate spiritually in the killings that take place. Practicing virginity requires obedience. A monk is not protected from various temptations when he lives with his mother and sister, but when he has the blessing of his elder and is obedient to him. The essence of obedience is that someone opens his heart, his hypostases, his personhood, and accepts the will of another hypostases. This enables him to acquire knowledge of all created being. When someone is completely obedient to his elder, his heart opens up and he inherits the elder's riches in a very short time. This is not something psychological, but something that comes about in the spirit. This means that if the disciple receives a grace from God during prayer, his mind immediately turns to his elder and he says that this happened by the prayers of the elder. This is spiritual obedience and love for the elder. Through this process, obedience to the elder deadens the passions. This is the only way to deaden and transform the passions. Often impertinence becomes a burning fire. Simplicity, not impertinence, is needed. The Apostle Paul expounds the charisma of love in his epistle to the Romans better than in the epistle to the Corinthians. The prayer, against thee only do we sin, and thee only do we worship, has great theological significance. We worship God, but we are also unable to live with him. He is a mirror that reveals our ugliness. Thus man grows spiritually both downwards and upwards. Prayer ought to take place in the dogmatic framework of ecclesiology and the gospel. Otherwise, prayer cannot act. And even if it acts, at the time of temptation, it, it departs and is lost. We must be familiar with the whole of God's training. There are many degrees of humility. The first is the recognition of sinfulness. Secondly, man compares himself with the perfect law and sees that he is worse than everyone else. Thirdly, he accepts charismas as gifts from God. Fourthly, he sees the humility of Christ. Keeping Christ's commandments is for all Christians. The monastic life is a technical method to help us keep Christ's commandments better. So we do not preach monasticism, but Christianity. I do not like talking about intuition, but about the heart's awareness and inner conviction, which is the working of divine grace. We should not oppose the evil one with words, because opposition increases evil. As Abba Dorotheus says, the good swimmer passes under the wave. Someone ought not to humble himself before those who do not humble themselves, because they will perceive it as a weakness and will go on to strangle him. When those who are born again in the Spirit meet someone humble, they humble themselves even more, whereas those who are not born again, when they meet someone humble, take the opportunity to impose themselves on him. Five minutes of prayer when the whole body is in pain are more precious than a whole night of praying with bodily ease. It is preferable to do only a little spiritual work, but with peace in our heart, rather than to attempt a lot and lose our peace of heart. We should prefer to have a little of all the virtues rather than one virtue to perfection, because in this way, one's noose, will, and desire are purified. The soul acts in the whole body, so man needs to be 
wholly cleansed. We should not only talk about prayer, we should also know how to keep ourselves from hopelessness. Usually people fall as a result of pride or despair. These two are man's greatest enemies. Each one has a particular way of life that is unlike any other. All, however, lead to God and end with him, just as the spokes of a wheel are connected with the hub. Even in spiritual drought, God sends us consolation, as he knows our weaknesses. It would be to our advantage to live our whole life in spiritual dryness, but to struggle. In other words, if we could reach Christ through being utterly abandoned by God, through emptying ourselves completely, as happened with Christ on the cross, then man would also have great glory. We shall have glory depending on how much we empty ourselves and how much pain we endure. Nothing, either spiritual or material, belongs to us but to God. It becomes ours when we offer to God. Through the prayer that we say before the meal, we offer up the material th good things to God, and then they become ours because God gives them back to us so that we can live. Freedom is not political independence, but that the evil one has no authority over us. Not all the saints received the same grace from God, but all filled the vessel that they offered to God. Sometimes reading patristic writings makes the spiritual life difficult. For instance, a certain Christian has a spiritual experience. If he reads a patristic book, he begins spying on himself trying to fit himself into the corresponding categories of the spiritual life, according to what he's read. Thus the left hand consumes and destroys whatever the right hand does. Great simplicity is required in the spiritual life. Illiterate old ladies whisper prayers to God and have faces like children, whereas educated people speculate and their faces are troubled and aggressive. Sometimes it is good that agitation arises between the brethren because on the one hand they escape from despondency, and on the other they become humble. Once someone receives God's grace, the war, the battle begins. He receives great grace and his body must also be transformed. The carnal mentality draws the soul downwards, but at the same time God's grace draws it upwards. This is a difficult moment. Someone can be led astray from the right or from the left. The psychological pain is great and it can strike him at the weakest point of his body, his heart, or his brain. Then obedience to a discerning yet unto is necessary. Our own will must disappear from within us. One interpretation of the Apostle Paul's words, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians 3.16, is as follows. When we hear or read a word of God, we feel it by grace to be food for our heart, this is spiritual, not intellectual, remembrance of God. Man's formation and transformation means that he takes the form of Christ's servant. The passions of worldly sorrow is a great passion that preoccupies people today. Unfortunately, we retain sorrow within us and we caress it until it kills us. One must fight against the passion of sorrow and cure it. One should not listen to one's own thoughts, because the devil and the satanic spirit work through thoughts. If someone heeds his own thoughts in trivial matters, the devil will gradually gain power, strength, and domination over him. Then he will cast him into major delusions. If the devil tells him to do something and he obeys later on, he will even tell the man to commit suicide. 
and he will obey him. A Roman Catholic asked me why, why we Orthodox repeat the Jesus prayer so often. I told him, we repeat it because we are slow on the uptake and do not understand. When, however, we understand something, we never leave it. The angels sinned in eternity, whereas human beings sin in time. Western Christians force themselves to pray, and this creates pressure in the brain. The Orthodox pray with ease, because this prayer takes place with the grace that exists abundantly in the Orthodox Church. Long services usually make inner prayer difficult. After a long vigil star service, Start Silouan said, We killed the donkey, that is the body, but we didn't do anything. Fasting helps spiritual progress less than prayer, particularly inner prayer accompanied by mourning. Fasting a lot without discretion sometimes creates problems in prayer. It is easier for people to keep burning charcoal in their hands than grace in their hearts. They perceive divine grace as a consuming fire. What is needed is humility and self-accusation, and for them not to receive divine grace in a festive manner. People in the West are unaware of the mystery of the divine abandonment of God's chastening, which is why they fall into despondency. This mystery of divine abandonment and self-emptying is repeated again and again in the life of Orthodox monks, but they know what this mystery is and how to deal with it. Self-emptying leads to glory if one is able to endure. God's commandments are the manner of divine life. Man cannot keep the commandments of God to the full, so he needs grace. Prayer accomplishes this. Sometimes when someone keeps God's commandments and lives the ethos of the crucified Christ, he senses God's grace without praying, or he prays out of love. The aim is not to pray without ceasing when it is done mechanically and formally, the aim is our communion with God, which is also achieved through prayer. The fathers did not ask for many words. They received one spiritual word, left for the desert, and lived for many years with that word. They attempted to put it into practice, and they were nourished by it. We say, and we want to hear, lots of words, but we do nothing to put them into practice. When someone talks a lot, he becomes spiritually weak. Simple people are moved by the slightest thing, and this gives them energy. However, they may also complain and grumble about the slightest thing, and this exhausts them. Someone who has obedience and love can adapt himself to any situation. Many people have unassailable ignorance. As a layman, I was very sensitive. Someone was contemptuous of Holy Scripture and thumped his hand on the table. I was in pain for two weeks. Afterwards, however, I stopped being sensitive because this energy, too, was transformed. People in the West live with their brain. Their lives are centered on reason. So, if scientists were to invent a machine, they would be able to read people's thoughts and direct them. All those, however, who live with their heart, within which God's grace acts, and who pray in their heart, have the sign of the cross in their heart, and no one is able to control them spiritually. They have freedom of spirit. In the cave of the Holy Trinity near the monastery of St. Paul, I prayed ardently and wept aloud because no one could hear me, and I had freedom. 
whereas in Karulia it was difficult for me because I had neighbors. The twelfth chapter of the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Hebrews describes the spiritual fact of God's chastening. Sometimes this chastening from God comes about through the Jesus prayer, sometimes through weeping, and at other times through God forsakenness. God trains man in many ways and offers him more perfect knowledge to prevent him experiencing a fall, as did Adam when he was first created. In this way, his progress toward God will be steadier. The following state occurs in those at the start of their spiritual life. Something they say or a sin they commit causes them great agitation. We ought to be slightly contemptuous of these forgivable little everyday falls in order to make some other gains. It is better to be at a low level and peaceful rather than high up and anxious. When the heart is on fire for the Jesus prayer and for various reasons it cannot pray, it is like a dormant volcano. When someone cannot rebut his thoughts, he should at least tell them to his elder. Even then he will benefit. When someone reaches a certain spiritual state and has grace from God, he begins to be taught by God. Then everything instructs him. God sent St. Anthony the Great to the shoemaker to learn self-accusation. Even though St. Anthony had grace and was superior to the shoemaker, which is why we commemorate St. Anthony and not the shoemaker, also, someone who is spiritual is taught by the whole of nature. When someone who has hidden, unconfessed sins hears a spiritual word, he feels pain somewhere in his body. Divine grace also reveals his state to him in this way, and if he wishes, he can escape from this spiritual misfortune. When someone prays in a particular way and encounters various obstacles, and at some point he is unable to pray in that way, if he has inspiration, another path will open up, another way will be found, and he will acquire greater knowledge of God. When we speak about asceticism in the Orthodox Church, we do not simply mean bodily ascetical practices, although these two are essential, but the soul's resurrection from the passions, love toward God, and the quickening of the soul by the Holy Spirit. When Starz Siloan died, I felt like an orphan for one week, Afterwards, I felt differently. When someone prays in his heart, he is given sometimes a word. This word begets other words. Thus, his noose is opened and he grasps the meaning of the whole of Holy Scripture. Every word of revelation encompasses the entire meaning of Holy Scripture. When someone begins to live according to Christ, the community rejects him. Then he acquires another community because we Christians also have our own community. We lose nothing even in this world. My greatest trial when I became a monk was that I had to abandon art because I thought that through art I would draw near to the eternal. The eternal, however, is approached through prayer, the renunciation of the wealth of the mind, and above all through theoria of God. The experience gained by living and practicing asceticism in a monastery enables a monk to live in the desert as well. Otherwise, he cannot put the desert to good use. When someone departs for the desert and a thought about something, hurting a brother torments him, this thought will give him no peace. Spiritual virginity even cures lost bodily virginity. Abba Zosimus, who had both bodily and spiritual virginity, bowed down before St. Mary of Egypt. 
who was a prostitute from an early age. The spiritual virginity that St. Mary of Egypt acquired cured her completely. Spiritual virginity is of great worth, greater worth. Spiritual virginity means keeping Christ's commandments. When one's noose cleaves to God through prayer, everyone, whether married or unmarried, can acquire this spiritual virginity. Monks who do not have spiritual virginity are wretched because they neither have children on the natural level nor do they transfer existence to paradise. If people have the idea of being saved and they manage it, how will we monks whose aim is to be saved not manage it? For a monastery to make progress, it must have either an elder or pilgrims. Pilgrims help monks to reduce their passions because the monks have to offer them something, to show love and to sacrifice themselves. It is very beneficial when every week one pilgrim is regenerated at the monastery. The Holy Fathers make a distinction between mourning and weeping aloud. Mourning means compunction. Sometimes the one who mourns breaks into loud sobs, which are of a spiritual and charismatic, not psychological nature. This is weeping aloud. In this case, the desert is necessary so that no one will hear him weeping. Then the monk is unable to stay in the monastery. Weeping aloud increases tears. The parents of monks realize the benefit of their child's dedication to God at the hour of their death. No one ought to ask for this priesthood, whereas one ought to ask for the monastic schema because monasticism is the search for repentance. When I was a monk at the monastery of St. Pantolemon, I did not want any thought of ordination to the priesthood or diaconate to enter my mind, nor did I want to suggest that I be ordained. When the abbot suggested ordination to me during the services, they could not put the deacon's stole on me. I moved my arm to help them. Afterwards, this troubled me a lot, in case a desire for ordination had perhaps existed within me and I had expressed itself in this way. Priesthood brings many temptations. When someone goes forward or begins on his own, he cannot overcome them. Martyrdom in the monastic life and in the Christian life in general consists in how one will live through the successive stages of Christ's life. In order for the monastery to function well, it must have a discerning spiritual father or a good tipikon and good organization. Otherwise, it will turn into a gypsy camp. Brian Chananov complains in his autobiography about the severity with which his first elder treated him. In this way, he sapped his strength for prayer. For that reason, the elder ought to take care of his spiritual children in every respect. A monk said, I am very sure about the things I say from the elder's words. We live as though we had nothing in our minds, and when they ask us, we have something to say. Sometimes one becomes spiritually weaker after a talk. This happens when one speaks many times a day with energy and intensity. The Holy Fathers do not usually speak in detail about matters to do with marriage and married couples. When someone lives in repentance, he finds the solution to many problems. When someone has the fear of God, he is enlightened to deal with more specific problems. People will have to answer to God for the word they say to people which is beyond them. We ought to speak when forced to do so. Then we too force God, 
who cannot be forced, and he gives us a word of freedom. We must respect other people's freedom. Nothing done by force endures in time and eternity. When a spiritual father encounters a response from someone, he loves him because both of them benefit. Therefore, it is not wrong for there to be a special love in the spirit and gratitude between spiritual father and disciple. When we accept the spiritual father as a gift from God, or when, when gratitude and thanks, thankfulness to God for the spiritual father arise in prayer, then we love him in the spirit. When someone wants to change his spiritual father, he must first seek his blessing and so leave in peace. He should never refer anywhere to complaints or things that happened in the past. If he complains and mentions various events, the devil acquires power over him, whereas otherwise the devil's fire goes into the air. In the French Revolution, someone said, give me a letter from someone and I will cut off his head. In other words, he would find a pretext to put him to death. For that reason, the best we can do in such cases is keep silent. Spiritual fathers have a difficult task because they must continually point out their spiritual child's mistakes. This stirs up a reaction and causes hatred. When we speak about things that we do not know personally and that are beyond us, we place a barrier, a wall in front of us that prevents us from experiencing them. The death of an innocent man imperceptibly changes the whole world for the better because the energy of the innocent man benefits the whole world and cures injustice. We ought not to make vows to God. However, if we make them, we must fulfill them. St. John of Kronstadt was once invited to cure someone who was allegedly paralyzed. It was a trap because they wanted to murder him. When St. John realized the deception, he said, Let it be, Lord, according to thy word. And the allegedly paralyzed man became actually paralyzed. Subsequently, St. John prayed and he became well. When someone pretends to be ill, God allows him to become ill. There is only a slight difference between geniuses and madmen. By praying for two weeks and studying patristic texts, intelligent people can write a whole book about prayer and think that they can pray. When someone knows earthly pleasures through art, he feels disappointment and bitterness. This is because one pursues art in order to grasp the eternal, but this cannot be achieved through any human work. The soul knows that eternity is not to be found there, so it feels pain. When someone receives a spiritual gift, he usually attracts other people's envy. Then he feels the need to hide it. So without realizing it, he becomes a fool for Christ's sake. The subject of foolishness for Christ's sake is a very subtle one. Some have understood this task to conceal the riches of their spiritual gifts and so as not to provoke people's envy. We must turn psychological states into spiritual phenomena, into weeping. There's a method which Christians ought to know. We, we are aware of a trial, of contempt on the part of others, or an unjust attack. Then our heart is embittered by this injustice and produces various thoughts that affect our whole life. Prayer stops at once. The therapeutic method is to leave aside the brother who has wronged us and to begin a conversation with God. We say, my God, it's my fault. I am unworthy to be loved by people. 
Then repentance and weeping begin. And this cures the negative psychological phenomenon and makes it spiritual. We see this in the life of Christ. The Apostle Peter was preventing Christ from going to the cross, but Christ had steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, to Golgotha. His crucifiers were howling, but he had his noose turned toward God's will and praying to his Father. He did not engage in a dialogue with people, but with God. In this way, he became healthy. We become healthy and are cured. This is a kind of struggle with God. The Philokalia does not write much about the scientific method of prayer, but it writes a lot about the atmosphere of prayer and about keeping Christ's commandments. Some Westerners only translate those parts of the Philokalia that write about the technical method of prayer, and so they present it as a sort of Christian yoga. This is a mistake. Mindfulness of death, as lived and described by the fathers, is not an external awareness that one day we shall die. Elderly people have this as well, and they mention it often. Rather, it is a charismatic state. It is the consciousness of inner deadness. Man sees that he is inwardly destitute of God's grace and that he has passions. He knows that God is the God of the living, but he is spiritually dead and has lost God. This is what people experience in the West, which is why they say that God is dead. God has not died, but man has died to God. When by grace man sees this inner deadness, he also sees deadness in the whole of creation. He feels that everything is lifeless, dead. He sees death everywhere. This causes profound suffering. He gives himself over to weeping and seeks life, the living God, his resurrection. This is a charisma, a spiritual event that gives birth to prayer. When this gift is absent, we use external things to give us a sense of death such as pictures of graves and bones and so on. Christianity is so great that one refuses to believe it, as happened after Christ's resurrection. They worshipped him, but some doubted. They did not doubt out of lack of love nor out of disbelief, but out of a sense of greatness. At the second coming of Christ, the just will be amazed, but the sinners will also be amazed, the former because they did not ex expect to be saved, the latter because they did not expect to be condemned. If mindfulness of death purifies man, how much more does death itself, that is to say the coming of death, when it is accompanied by repentance? All our life long we go through the tribunal, the judgment. The customs houses about which the fathers write are symbols of reality. The fathers understood them as follows. After the fall of man, the soul is nourished by the body. In other words, it finds refreshment and material pleasures. After death, however, these bodily passions that used to divert the soul no longer exist because the soul has left the body and they choke and stifle the soul. These are the customs, houses, and hell. Abba Dorotheus says that hell is for someone to be shut up for three days in a room without food, sleep, or prayer then he can understand what hell is. When someone acquires mindfulness of death, he understands how senseless it is to acquire and accumulate material possessions. At the second coming, the just will say, when, Lord, did we do this? When did we do that? They will not know what good they have done because they passed through 
all the dryness of this present life with patience and faith. They put their trust in the words of Holy Scripture. Paradise is the grace of God and His kingdom. God continuously sends His grace and calls us in this life. Those who despise God and drive Him away will see at His second coming what sort of God they drove away, and they will be burned up. Those who live in God now will be in raptures then. We have such a rich God who has such great grace, but all the same we live in such poverty. We are upset by the slightest thing. This is a wretched state. We ought to be joyful all the time. Our life should always be a daily surprise. Not a day passes without God giving us a new sense of eternal life. In conclusion, at the beginning of this part of the book, I mentioned the various concerns that I had in the late 60s and early 70s about how theology could be combined with the ascetic life and with ecclesiastical administration and pastoral work as a whole. As I have already noted, in Elder Sophroni, I actually encountered all these three forms of ecclesiastical life in harmony. He was a divinely inspired theologian, a genuine hesychist, and a true father and shepherd. I think that everything recorded above has made this extremely clear. God gave me the great gift of knowing Father Sophroni, but the elder also emptied himself to disclose the wealth of his heart and his entire theology to me. In the simple remembrance of my heart, I retain his whole blessed personality, and I always pray to him and ask for his supplications. I also keep three dedica dedicated inscriptions that he wrote for me in copies of his books that he gave me. These inscriptions reveal his heart's riches and his theological noose. They also show his artistic gift, which did not abandon him to the end of his life, as well as the steadfastness of his hand. The first dedicatory inscription was written in his book, His Life is Mine, which he gave me at Pascha in 1977. To the very Reverend Archimandrite Herotheus, in testimony to the fraternal bond of love in Christ, Archimandrite Sophroni, Holy Pascha, 1977. And the second dedication was written in his book, We Shall See Him As He Is, which he gave me in June, 1989. To the very Reverend Archimandrite Herotheus, with great respect and most ardent blessings, signed Archimandrite Sophroni, 1989. The third dedicatory inscription was written in the Greek edition of We Shall See Him As He Is, which he gave me in September of 1992, a few months before his death. It should be noted that he was then 96 years old, and the steadiness of his hand is obvious. To our dear brother and co-celebrant, the very Reverend Archimandra Herotheus, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Romans 1.12 Signed Archimandrite Sophroni, 26 September 1992 Elder Sophroni passed away on the 11th of July, 1993, and I was accounted worthy by God to be present at his funeral service. Afterwards, I wrote about the funeral, but also about some elements of his personality in an article. A few extracts will be cited here. Quote, this new patriarch of divine grace to the new people of God finished speaking, closed his sweetest mouth, 
which refreshed generations of tormented and distressed human beings, and drawing his feet up into the bed was added to his people. Lying on his simple, austere bed in his very lowly room, he stretched out his feet and was added to his fathers, to his elder, St. Siloan the Athenite, whom he loved so much and glorified throughout his life, and to all his fellow ascetics in general, whose confessions he heard and whom he directed spiritually. Elder Sophroni fell asleep in the Lord on the 11th of July of this year, amidst his spiritual children, following a painful illness, and of course, after overcoming death within the limits of his personal life. His funeral service took place on the 14th of July in an atmosphere of joyful sorrow, where tears and rejoicing, pain and consolation were closely linked. I am not like Joseph, but I too fell on my father's face and wept over him and kissed him, while at the same time singing, Christ is risen, the acclamation and hymn of triumph. The funeral service of the ever-memorable elder was truly an initiation into mysteries. One saw a great patriarch in the midst of the spiritual children whom he had brought to new birth. One saw his sacred remains in his simple coffin. The general impression was that his hand, which we venerated, was like amber, his fingers like bright sparkling beads, for it literally shone as through the illumination were coming as though the illumination were coming from within. His fingers were the color of ripe quince, glistening like gold. I can confess that never until now have I seen such sacred remains. I also sensed those near me praying ardently, more in entreaty and supplication than for the repose of his soul. Someone told me that the prayer to the elder ascends to God with great intensity. I am certain that she who said this to me had had many experiences of prayer. The people of God who had been regenerated by his theological word kept vigil beside him for three whole nights. The elder of blessed memory was, moreover, the consolation of all our brethren who are tormented and suffer in a foreign land. His funeral service was contrite and festive. The interment was, interment was carried out on the basis of instructions that he had left, which revealed the ethos of, his holy, of this holy man. He spoke of his wretched soul, and in his profound humility, he advised them to follow the teaching and words of St. Siloan. There was no reference to his own words, nor did he give any counsel of his own. Representatives of all classes and categories of people were gathered together to receive his blessing and his grace, because we believe that he was among the greatest elders of our time. Father Sophroni's death reminded me of the words of the prophet Isaiah, Blessed is he who has seed in Zion and kindred in Jerusalem, Isaiah 31.9. We rejoice exceedingly because we belong to the Orthodox Church, that prolific mother of fair offspring, who bears such children who are a blessing for the whole world. We rejoice because we have kindred in the Jerusalem on high and seed in Zion. The ever-memorable Father Sophroni has been united with his fathers in heaven, with the Church triumphant, but he has also left on earth for us his teaching, his writings, his life, and the children to whom he gave new birth. In this case, too, the words of the king and prophet David apply. His seed shall be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Psalms 112-2, verse 2. The power of his theological word, which was printed in books but also on hearts of flesh, 
is most mighty and effective as long as a generation of the upright can be found, people willing to put it into practice. Then it will rebound to spiritual blessing. Father Sofroni says somewhere in his book that charismatic prayer for the whole world is like a flash of lightning that shines everywhere on earth. We could say the same of the elder's own existence. He was a bright presence on the planet earth, shining and radiant with the grace of God that he had within him. Because throughout his life he offered up prayer and profound repentance and theoria, we believe that he does the same now, much more so now, as the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I humbly seek his favor and blessing. During his funeral, I vividly recalled the image of the ascent of the prophet Elijah and Elisha's cry, Father, O Father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. 4th Kings 2.7 Elder Sophroni of blessed memory, through his being and his word, truly was and is the chariot and horsemen of the Israel of grace. For that reason, I bring my simple and humble reflections to a close with the heartfelt cry, Father, O Father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen, bless us and the word, the world. I mean. Encomium by Metropolitan Herotheus of Nafaktos and St. Vlasios for Elder Sophroni the Hesychist and Theologian. Father, give the blessing. Divine wisdom has great power to attract. Thus Solomon the wise says, I loved her and sought her from my youth and desired to take her as a bride for myself, and I became a lover of her beauty. She glorifies her noble birth by living with God, and the master of all loves her, for she is the initiate of the knowledge of God and one who chooses his works. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 2 to 4. This inhypostatic wisdom of God is the Son and Word of God, who was revealed without flesh to the prophets and is revealed in the flesh to the apostles and saints in the last days. The friends of God, down through the ages, became lovers of this wisdom and cherished her, and sought with heart and soul the wisdom that sits by your throne. And although they were weak, short-lived men with little understanding of judgment and laws, Having been filled with the Holy Spirit, they longed for the only beloved and sought the ultimately desirable. The theology of the Orthodox Church, which is identified with theoria of the uncreated light and knowledge of the wisdom that proceeds from this, is true wisdom. Theology as empirical knowledge, as the unknowing that is above knowledge, as knowledge that is the type of the age to come, for it takes delight solely in the mind's meditation upon the mystery of, of things to come, to use St. Isaac the Syrian's words, is the fruit of Hezekiah according to God. Thus Hezekiah is the precondition for what is called orthodox empirical theology. According to the great luminary of Caesarea, Hezekiah is the beginning of the soul's purification, whereas according to the saint of the latter, it is the science of thoughts, and an unassailable mind. According to St. Gregory of Sinai, the beginning of Hezekiah is attentive waiting upon God, which, from which come illuminative power and vision, theoria, and its final goal is ecstasy and the enraptured flight of the noose to God. According to St. Gregory Palamas, the shepherd of Thessaloniki, Hezekiah is forgetfulness of things below 
initiation into things above, the laying aside of conceptual images for what is better. This godly Hezekiah was greatly loved by those who longed for divine things, who hungered and thirsted for the things of heaven. The lovers of this wisdom thirsted for it like deer running to springs of water, according to the king and prophet David, as the deer longs for the springs of waters, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the strong and living God. When shall I come and appear before the face of God? Psalm 42, verse 2 to 3. This state of extreme hunger and thirst brings unbearable longing, that is to say, divine eros. This divine love is the spark of divine yearning hidden within us, which is in us by nature. And when it is lacking this, is the most unbearable of all evils, according to St. Basil, the teacher of sacred mysteries. According to the third saint named after theology, Simeon the New Theologian, Hezekiah is an undisturbed state of the noose, the calm of the free and rejoicing soul, the untroubled and unwavering stability of the heart, theoria of light, rapture of the noose, pure converse with God, a vigilant eye, noetic prayer, union and oneness with God, and finally deification and painless repose in great ascetic labors. The luminary of Caesarea, the great and truly royal Basil, felt such unendurable yearning in his life and beheld such wondrous beauty that he asks, What is more marvelous than divine beauty? What longing of the soul is as intense and unbearable as the longing given by God to the soul that has been purified of all evil? which says with true sincerity, I am wounded by love. The fruit of this Hezekiah, which by God's grace kindles the longing of divine eros, leads the deified, not to bring about deification, which is inappropriate for human beings as it belongs to God, but to undergo deification, to behold the uncreated light of God, which is invisible to those whose noose and heart are blind, but visible to the deified as far as this is possible for them. Therefore, the great luminary of Caesarea proclaims again, the lightning flashes of the divine beauty are completely unutterable and indescribable. Speech cannot express them, nor hearing receive them. This beauty is invisible to bodily eyes and perceptible only to the soul and mind. If ever it shone around the saints, it left in them the sting of unbearable longing. Simeon, the new theologian, having fallen in love with this wisdom, said, quote, Seeing you, I am wounded deeply within my heart. I am unable to look at you, but I cannot bear not to look at you. Your beauty is inaccessible, your form inimitable, your glory incomparable, and who ever beheld you, or who could ever see you completely, you, my God, but I behold you as a sun, and I see you as a star, and I bear you within my breast like a pearl, and I see you also as a burning light within a vessel. End quote. Hence, Orthodox theology is based on experience and is not speculative analogy, which only exists in the rational faculty, and is wisdom that does not ascend, descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic, James 3.15. Hence, the rivers of the spirit that flow from the changed hearts of the deified, Hence the unadulterated interpretation of Holy Scripture. Hence the unerring guidance of the faithful. Hence the spiritual gifts of healing. 
hence the saints who undergo divine things without thought. As St. Gregory Palamas says, hence the ultimate object of desire is the grace of theology, as St. Diodocus of Photiki says. Truly, total purity is the foundation of theology, according to the saint of the latter, and according to Gregory, the shepherd and theologian of Thessaloniki, there is knowledge about God and his doctrines, a theoria which we call theology. Briefly stated, the lovers of God's wisdom loved and love the wisdom according to God that rises them through divine eros to the height of theoria, from which the grace and energy of theology also comes to the worthy. And the oversight of human souls is accomplished by the power of the Spirit through the mysteries in the church. Many spiritual lovers and exact theologians have been revealed within the church, who became imitators and friends of God and made many people his friends. Among them is the blessed hero monk, our father Sophroni, the hesychist and theologian. He lived chastely on the holy mountain, although his family came from Tsarist Russia, and he proved to be in Christ a spiritual giant in our days in asceticism and Hezekiah, in profoundest repentance and insatiable prayer, and at the height of orthodox theology, truly experiencing in the spirit the way of the Lord, which is the mystery of his inexhaustible self-emptying to the point of descending into Hades, then living the resurrection and his holy ascension in his mortal flesh. Having first sought God in the impersonal contemplation of Eastern religions, he devoted himself to unrestrainable repentance on account of this lapse. Thus he was accounted worthy of a rare divine revelation of the true God in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness perceptible to the noose, who revealed himself in his infinite love. And in return for what he had suffered, he came to know his love and his hypostatic existence. Subsequently, he gave himself over to unrestrainable repentance, which crushed everything, even his bones, as well as to unending and insatiable reaching up to Christ, who can save man from death. This repentance was not of human origin, but came from the All-Holy Spirit and from personal vision and knowledge of the triune God in the person of Jesus Christ. St. Gregory, Bishop of Nyssa, says, The enjoyment of the soul that is united to God is insatiable. The more plentiful it takes its fill of beauty, the more intensely does it abound in longings. Hence the unrestrainable impetus of repentance, which is the continuous regeneration of fallen man. This blessed man experienced with conscious perception and assurance the charismatic state of mindfulness of death. In his search for the insatiable satiety of divine mercy, he left for the holy mountain, abandoning his activities in Paris, his art, and his theological studies, in order to study the mysteries of the spirit in the schools of Athos. At first he lived as a monk in the monastery of St. Pantaleon and learned the godly wisdom of the Holy Father Siloan the Athenite, which was akin to his own experience. Later he was led out into the desert, not to be tempted by the devil, but in order to live the mysteries of the Spirit, which had been bestowed upon him in his mortal flesh by God, according to his supreme love for humankind, in uninterrupted repentance, insatiable longing, and absolute Hezekiah. The region of the holy mountain, called Dread Kurulia, received the athlete of Christ, who knew the Lord of glory, 
who could distinguish the difference between uncreated and created, and who was seeking unceasing perfection without end. Although the place was dread, it dreaded the labor and toil of this holy man, his diligent unceasing prayer by day and by night, the weeping and lamentation that issued from his entire being, his spiritual repentance to the point of self-hatred, as he prayed with the psalmist, my tears were my bread day and night, when they said to me each day, where is your God? Psalm 42, 4. Because streams of tears are more eloquent than any orator, according to the ascetic saying written on the tomb-like monastic schema. What is said of the Hezekiah St. John the Sabaite could be said of him too. He lived there as a Hezekiah in a cave for six years, the blessed elder Sophroni for longer than this, removing himself from all human contact, desiring to converse with God in Hezekiah and to purify his mind's sight by protracted philosophy, so as to reflect with unveiled face the glory of the Lord, and making every effort to advance from glory to glory by the longing for higher things. On the holy mountain and in the desert, there he experienced the unrestrainable energy of repentance according to God and for God, which had been kindled by the vision of the living God, knowing his inexpressible love for humankind and his infinite mercy. This blessed elder's repentance was divine, not human in nature and form, and recalls the words spoken by St. John of Sinai, a penitent is the maker of his own punishments. Thus the God-loving elder experienced by grace the flames of hell, being the creator by grace of his own punishments. He was unsurpassed in the path of profoundest repentance and could repeat with the psalmist, the pains of death have surrounded me, the pains of Hades encircled me, and my soul draws near to Hades. I am counted among those who go down into the pit. I am like a helpless man free among the dead. The soul that is crushed and refined by true repentance like dough or flour is in some way united and, so to speak, mixed with God through the water of unfeigning mourning from which, lighting the Lord's fire, blessed, unleavened, and lowly humility is baked into bread and becomes firm. Hence the elders' words coming from true praxis and exact repentance are substantial bread for the nourishment of those who wish to enjoy the bread that came down from heaven, which is Christ. From the published writings of this ever-memorable great elder, we can discern in a mirror dimly the God-pleasing struggle of this hesychist monk with a keen sense of humor who surpassed the human measure, not only of the mortal body, but even of this finite human himself, this finite human existence, who not only desired to separate himself from all evil, but to be courageously unyielding, as the divine Dionysius the Areopagite says. Thus he acquired no little experience. In him was repeated to the extent that this is possible what the Apostle Paul says of Christ. For both the Apostle and the Elder had the same experience, the former in the desert of Arabia and the latter in that of Kerulia. Who, Christ, in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Hebrews 5.7 The blessed elder, too, offered up prayer and intense supplication in the desert of dread Kerulia with many tears and boundless mourning, and therefore he was heard by God 
and granted abundant spiritual gifts, particularly the charisma of theology, which is the greatest gift of all. Truly, life in Christ is not moral and religious life, but communion and union with Christ, and through him with the triune God. What happened in Christ comes about to some degree in Christ's friends, as well, who are united with him. Paul, the great apostle of the Gentiles, says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20 The friends of Christ lived this life, as St. Gregory the Theologian says. As we died in Adam, so we shall live in Christ, being born with Christ and crucified with him and buried with him and rising with him. For I must undergo the good reversal, and as painful things came from the more pleasant, so must more pleasant things return from the painful. Those who are united with Christ are born with him, crucified with him, descend to Hades with him, and rise again with him, becoming in Christ agents of salvation for the people and figures of indestructible life. When someone lives in Christ, no human or material passion lives in him, not pleasure, grief, anger, fear, cowardice, excitement, arrogance, insolence, resentment, envy, vindictiveness, avarice, nor anything else that defiles the soul by its contact with it, according to St. Gregory of Nyssa. Since God is love and beloved, who moves and thereby moves toward himself everything receptive of love, according to St. Dionysius the Areopagite and St. Maximus the Confessor, the one who loves God and is beloved of him longs incessantly for the ultimate object of desire, because God moves and is moved as thirsting to be thirsted for, and long to be longed for, and loving to be loved. For God is the ultimate desirable. Such a one is changed for the better, as his noose is caught up into the kingdom of heaven. As St. Maximus the Confessor says, his noose is caught up by the divine and infinite light, and he is not aware of himself, nor of anything else at all, but only of him who through love has brought about such radiance within him. This was the path, unerring and sure, but very difficult for the uninitiated and the weak, that blessed Sophroni followed by his prayers of his spiritual father, St. Silouan, with whom he shared the same spiritual experience and revelation. He was united with Christ. He lived his prayer in Gethsemane for the entire world. He was crucified with him, and he followed him to Hades, undergoing blessed and hallowed, self-emptying and tasting the flames of hell in his mortal flesh, not as a created event, but as a theological and a spiritual one. He saw the light of Christ's transfiguration and resurrection, and he knew Christ's divine ascension. The saint with the noose of an angel, Dionysius the Areopagite, says, We are persuaded that the divine Jesus is of transcendent fragrance, and fills up our noetic faculty by distributions of divine delight that are perceptible to the noose. Therefore, too, he who is drunk with the love of God in this world, which is a house of lamentation, forgets all his sorrows and afflictions, and becomes insensible to all sinful passions by reason of his inebriation, according to St. Isaac the Syrian. Blessed Elder Sophroni, was also inebriated with this spiritual and sober inebriation on the holy mountain, and he became a spy of the uncreated commonwealth of the revelation. 
not of any abiding city, but of the city to come, the kingdom and reign of God. Being in a state of spiritual and vigilant intoxication, he moved to Europe, to Paris, and then to the United Kingdom, living the kingdom of heaven without ceasing in spiritual inebriation. Having beheld God in his uncreated light, the words of St. Simon, the new theologian, the elucidator of divine and heavenly things, were repeated in him as well. Quote, he who has the light of the all-holy spirit within him cannot bear the sight and falls prostrate to the ground. He cries out and shouts with amazement and great fear at seeing and experiencing something beyond nature, reason, and thought. He becomes like a man whose entrails have somehow been set on fire. Consumed by the flames and unable to bear the burning, he is, as it were, outside himself and cannot control himself, but pours out an ever-flowing flood of tears, which refreshes him and kindles yet more the fire of his longing. Thus his tears become more abundant, and cleansed by their flood, he shines with a greater brilliance. Then entirely on fire he becomes like light, and the saying is fulfilled, God is united with gods and is known by them, of them, per because perhaps he is already united to those who are attached to him and revealed to those who have known him. End of quote. This hallowed man was very greatly blessed by holy God and was counted worthy not only to pass through Christian asceticism and reach its ultimate height in profoundest repentance and contrition, but to climb the holy mount itself, the mount of divine vision, and to see the glory of the uncreated light in the deified flesh of the word. Thus he became a pure empirical theologian, according to the words of St. Gregory the theologian, who said, to philosophize about God is not for everyone, but for those who have been tested and are past masters in theoria, and more importantly have undergone, or at least the very least are undergoing, purification of soul and body. As befitted the name Sophroni, which means chaste in Greek, he lived chastely, justly, and piously, experiencing and awaiting the kingdom of God, but he also made many others chaste, who came from every race, tongue, and nation, thus becoming a universal teacher and escorting many to the bridal chamber adorned for the marriage of the Lamb of the Revelation. This Holy Father, greatly revered by holy men pleasing to God, such as the ever-memorable Elder Porphyrios and many others, has left us with the memory of a saintly ascetic and the gentlest of fathers, a discerning elder and a great theologian, who lived the church's sacred tradition concerning the orthodox way of speaking about God, but who was also remarkable for the virtue of discretion, which according to the saint of the latter is the knowledge which is within by divine illumination, and which can enlighten with its lamp what, it dark, what is dark in others. Through his God-pleasing way of life and his exalted theology, he also became a spiritual magnet, drawing a host of people, both from academia and secular learning, and from among members of the church of every age and condition. He became a teacher of all in word and deed, in conduct and love, in a variety of teachings and unceasing prayer. The writings of this blessed father, particularly the book, We Shall See Him As He Is, which has been translated into very many languages and brings about spiritual changes and conversions to the Orthodox Church, demonstrate the truth of the statement that he possessed 
supreme knowledge of the spiritual mysteries of life in Christ in his own extraordinary way. Because this ever-memorable man had a capacious noose and reason, as well as many different intellectual gifts, he became in our time an exact teacher of this noetic, hesychistic, and deifying work in life by reason of the experience he had gained from the coming and concealments of God's grace. For he proved to be a true teacher and theologian of the self-emptying life of Christ, the path of keeping his commandments, the mystery of the ways of salvation, spiritual mourning, the light of God and its discernment from every other light that comes from the devil, the hypostasis of God, and many other great teachings of the true empirical theology of the Orthodox Church. I knew this apostolic father in person for 17 years, and I delighted and still delight in the streams of his theological teaching. From him I heard apostolic words, I saw proof of the evangelical life, I sensed his God-pleasing way of life as far as I was able to bear it, and thus I glorify God for this great gift which was kept in store for me, unworthy as I am. In truth, we saw his fatherly and pure love for us, which was kept safe in the hidden treasure house of his heart. I loved him greatly, and I was more greatly loved by him. Rather, he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. Hence, I repeat the words of the bishop whose name I share, Bishop Herothius of Europos, writing to Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, for I am tormented by my longings and affections and loves for you, clinging to your love as the fond ivy clings inseparably to the trees, winding itself around them. The decease of this Holy Father was truly a saintly consummation in the Lord in extreme old age. By his intercessions, may God have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Appendix, Timeless Revelance. Timeless Revelance. From 1976, when I visited the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex for the first time, the personality of Archimandrite Sophroni Sakharov, the former abbot of the monastery and spiritual father of the monks, made a great impression on me. I found in him the elements of a great father of the church who was living in our time. As was to be expected, from then on I continually referred to him in my talks and in written texts. I used him as an example of a human being who, after having had various adventures, and particularly after having been involved in Eastern mysticism, came to know God personally. By way of an appendix, I shall refer to texts that I have written from time to time and which have been included in my books published to date, so that the reader can look them up and complete the picture given by the present book. 1. The Elder of the Monastery in 1976, when I returned from England, I wrote an article entitled An Orthodox Presence, which was published in the periodical Parish Priest and later in the book Time to Act. This piece presents the whole atmosphere of the monastery, set out in five chapters. One, Orthodox Monasticism. Two, the Elder of the Monastery. Three, the Brethren of the Monastery. Four, Everyday Life at the Monastery and five, Life at the Monastery on Sundays. The second of these chapters refers to Father Sophronian will be summarized here. First of all, it explains that in Orthodox teaching, an elder is someone who has suffered divine things and learned divine things 
And because he has extensive experience of the spiritual life, he's able to cure monks and different people who turn to him. Next, a few biographical details of Father Sophronia are recorded from his birth, his move to Paris, and his ascetical life on the Holy Mountain. The article quotes the introduction written by Rosemary Edmonds for his book, His Life is Mine, which she translated from Russian into English. Rosemary Edmonds, an English woman who knew French and Russian, was an official translator for the president of France, Charles de Gaulle, during the Second World War. She had also translated books by Dostoevsky into English. Impressed by the personality of Father Sophroni, she was baptized Orthodox and translated many of his writings into English. In her introduction, she sets out Father Sophroni's quest and his personality. What she writes at the end of her text is significant. Quote from Introduction to His Life is Mine. The hours celebrating the liturgy give the day its sense and heart. He lives the liturgy, not in abstract fashion, but by commitment and loving in the very thick of human suffering. He is full to the brim with awareness of God. Often he gives the impression of a man in touch with unknown modes of being, who sees light deep in the silence. He is clear, merciful and severe in his judgments, which stimulate one to new insights. He has the hard and gentle eyes of an ascetic. For him, creation is another word for hope. If a man possesses only what he gives away, the author of this book is blessed indeed." End of quote. In my short presentation, I also recorded two characteristic features as I saw them of Father Sophroni. The first is that Father Sophroni is a bearer of the Orthodox tradition because after great asceticism and experience, he acquired a patristic way of thinking, dogmatic consciousness, and he brings the spirit of the fathers into our era. The other is that he has great love, which is essential for handing on that tradition. It is well known that in order for someone to receive the tradition, he must search out a bearer of the tradition and submit himself to him. And for someone to pass on the tradition, he must be familiar with it, and there must be people who wish to receive it. In this article, I also describe my first impressions of the discussions that I had had with Father Sophroni and of the way in which he celebrated the liturgy. 2. Living Theology In July of 1992, I wrote an analysis entitled Living Theology of Father Sophroni's book, We Shall See Him As He Is when this was published in Greek. I had the particular blessing of reading it at Father Sophroni's suggestion in manuscript when it was being translated from Russian into Greek by Father Zacharias. I remember that during the summer when I was reading the text, I felt I was reading writings by St. Simeon the New Theologian. Having become familiar with the spirit of the book, not only from having read it previously, but also from discussions I had had with Father Sophroni, I wanted to tell Greek Christians about the precious treasure contained in it. In this article, written while the elder was still alive, I gave particular emphasis to five points. The first point referred to the fact that we shall see him as he is, is the elder's spiritual autobiography in which he confides to members of the church the gifts bestowed on him by God. This spiritual autobiography describes the illuminations of the Holy Spirit in the Father Sophroni's heart, 
which are recorded with extreme humility and self-accusation. The Holy Fathers were often compelled during their lifetime to use their spiritual experience to bear witness to the Church's teaching for the benefit of Christians. The second point is that the book describes the extraordinary experience that the Elder acquired, beginning with the charisma of mindfulness of death and going as far as theoria of the uncreated light. It describes remembrance of death, holy mourning, and how it is distinguished from psychological mourning, the divine light and how it differs from demonic light, and the Church's teachings on the advent and concealment of divine grace. The third point is that it presents in a unique way the teaching about the hypostases of the triune God through the experience of the uncreated light. The fourth point that is underlined is that the book analyzes many different subjects, such as the grace of mindfulness of death, the fear of God, spiritual mourning, the quest for the unwavering, the privilege of knowing the way, the summation of our spiritual life, spiritual liberty, divine inspiration, self-emptying and God-forsakenness, love to the point of self-hatred, the uncreated light, the hypostatic principle in the Godhead and in the human being, liturgical prayer, liturgical language, the prayer of Gethsemane, and the prayer in which God is revealed as truth. What is significant is that these issues are analyzed through the mature and living theological and ascetic word of Father Sophroni. The fifth point underlies the value of the language used by Father Sophroni, which does not allow the reader to read hurriedly, but helps him to pray. Finally, I glorified God for this new gift and expressed my gratitude to Father Sophroni for the help he gives our nation by offering us this living testimony. I wrote, reading this book, I easily reached the conclusion that Pentecost is the highest degree of the revelation, and also that in every age there are those who participate in Pentecost. There are always witnesses to the revelation. I believe that this book, which is the fruit of ecclesiastical experience, will be adopted by the Church as its own, as it is an expression of its life, and that it will use it to nourish those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. 3. Elder Sophroni's Personal Participation in the Mystery of the Cross This was one chapter of a long title, a longer text entitled The Mystery of the Cross and the Teaching of the Apostle Paul in Relation to the Experience of Elder Sophroni which was originally published in 2001 in the volume Paul, First After the One, by the Publications Department of the Communication and Educational Service of the Church of Greece, and later in my book, Orthodox Monasticism as the Way of Life of Prophets, Apostles, and Martyrs. This text sets out the meaning of the mystery of the cross according to St. Isaac the Syrian and St. Gregory Palamas. As is well known, the mystery of the cross is the uncreated grace and energy of God that created and directs the world, but also saves human beings by reconciling them with God through the power of Christ's cross and resurrection. It then explains how the mystery of the cross is understood in the teaching of the Apostle Paul, namely that the mystery of the cross is participation in God's energy that purifies, illumines, and deifies man. After that, it sets out Elder Sophroni's personal participation in the mystery of the cross. In other words, the personal experience of the cross and resurrection as Father Sophroni lived it. It refers in particular to repentance, 
this is the path by which the kingdom of God comes and the way leading to the revelation of God, which brings awareness of eternal life. A few extracts from Father Sophroni's book, We Shall See Him As He Is, are cited, which show that the elder lived within the limits of his personal life the repentance and vision of the kingdom of God that the Apostle Paul experienced. For this reason, Father Sophroni in his writings interpreted passages from the Apostle Paul in an amazing and original way. This was because he had the same experience as the Apostle Paul, as he too had sought God outside Christ, had shown great repentance in the desert, and had lived the kingdom of God. 4. On Prayer, the new book by Archimandre Sophroni. In January 1994, I commented on the elder's book on prayer, which had been published then in Greek. Prayer is the principal distinguishing feature of Christians, as it is connected with man's spiritual rebirth and his union with God. It is linked with many spiritual states, such as repentance, weeping, self-accusation, grace-filled despair, and the knowledge of God. Commenting on Father Sophroni's book on prayer, I wrote that this book is a special blessing from God because it is the author's spiritual experience and not a collection of patristic extracts. I emphasize that in an age when many people do not pray and others want to pray but do not know what true prayer is, this book by Father Sophroni is a real bombshell that explodes all the poor imitations of the Christian life that we have created and all the corrupt interpretations of Christianity. At the same time, however, it is a very blessed bombshell that opens up the horizons of our spirit. It shows us what Christianity is. Thus, this book creates a new world. Father Sophroni is a real teacher of prayer because he experienced prayer in its truest form. His book is divided into three parts. The first part refers to prayer and is divided into specific chapters, such as prayer and ever new creation, prayer the way to knowledge, prayer overcomes the dead end of tragedy, and on the painful prayer by which man is reborn into eternity. Prayer leads to the knowledge of God and makes man thirst for eternal life. Father Sophroni stresses in particular that prayer is painful because on the one hand man is reborn slowly, and on the other hand his life on earth is extremely short. Second part of the book discusses the Jesus prayer, the dogmatic value of the name of Jesus, as the elder experienced it within the limits of his personal life and the asceticism of prayer. In the third and final part, Father Sophroni describes the spiritual life and the work of the spiritual father. In analyzing this book based on experience, I underlined the value of prayer for the departed and the sick, according to Father Sophroni. In conclusion, I wrote, when someone reads this book, it gives him inspiration especially if he knew the elder in person. His noose clings for days and hours to the atmosphere of the analysis of these experiences. His noose is captivated by obedience to Christ. He feels great love for Christ, who became man and sacrificed himself for us to make it possible for us to live this life, but also love and admiration for Father Sophroni, who did not hesitate to step into the abyss of darkness and of Hades, who burned for years on end in the fire of hell, and thereafter enjoyed the theory of paradise. He prayed powerfully and wondrously while living on earth. In fact, he was a fiery prayer for the whole world. 
I believe that now he prays much more. We too set our hope on these supplications of the saints. These supplications are our hope and our consolation. 5. From the morning watch until night. In February 2003, I spoke in the Cathedral of the Holy Protection Vale in Edessa at the invitation of His Eminence, Metropolitan Joel of Edessa, on the subject, From the Morning Watch Until the Night. The talk was published in the book, Hezekiah in Theology. This talk was divided into three parts. The meaning of the verse from the Psalms, Elder Sophroni and Elder Sophroni's prayer at daybreak. Following an analysis of the verse of the, from the Psalms, from the morning watch until the night, according to the teaching of the fathers, the talk goes on to present the figure of Father Sophroni, who was remarkable for his great impetus toward God and his continuous inspiration. According to the analysis of his disciple, Archimandrite Zacharias Zacharu, Father Sophroni's fundamental teaching was that man ought to ascend from the psychological level to the ontological or spiritual level. There are two ways in which this ascent comes about, the ascetic path and the charismatic. The elder also used to speak continuously about inspiration and actually said, quote, one cannot live as a Christian without inspiration. If an artist, a true one, lives night and day with the images of his art, then we Christians should be still more attentive. We must go further than artists in our efforts to live according to the spirit of the gospel. This presentation is followed by an analysis of Father Sophroni's prayer at daybreak. This is an important text written by the elder while he was living in the desert of the Holy Mountain in dread Kurulia, and is about hallowing the day. It is a prayer that has within it longing for rebirth and yearning to encounter Christ. In this prayer, we see the personal relationship between the one praying and God, as well as profound self-accusation, a plea for God's blessing on the whole day, the healing of the will, and eschatological prayer. It is clear from the text of this prayer that the way in which a Christian prays reveals the degree of his spiritual life, but also the transformation of his whole being. 6. The Theology of Elder Sophroni In September 2000, I commented on the book by Archimandrite Zacharias Zacharu, Christ, Our Way in Our Life, a presentation of the theology of Archimandrite Sophroni, which is based on his doctoral thesis submitted to the Faculty of Theology at the University of Thessaloniki. This is a very significant book because it is an authoritative presentation of Father Sophroni's theology. I emphasized three points in particular. Firstly, Father Zacharias knew Father Sophroni personally and was with him every day, so he is an authoritative commentator. At the same time, he himself has inspiration, and he has studied Father Sophroni's theology from that perspective. The second point is that the, this book, Analyzing Father Sophroni's Theology, is a gospel for every Orthodox Christian, particularly for every monk, as it reveals what the spiritual life is and what it means to be a true monk. This is essential because in our time there is a confusion on many issues. The theology of Father Sophronis expounded faithfully. The third point is that this book is a hymn to the lively theological message of Father Sophroni, but also a summary and distillation of his great theology. Father Sophroni lived the experience 
of the prophets, apostles, and fathers to the most intense degree. It should be added that this presentation of Father Sophroni's theology is divided into the following subjects. The hypostatic principle and its realization, the kenosis of the Lord in the salvation of man, separation and restoration, the mystery of the ways of salvation, monasticism, the path of hesychism, From the th psychological to the ontological level, prayer is the fulfillment of creation and keep thy mind in hell and despair not. This book by Father Zacharias serves as a good introduction to the study of all Father Sophroni's writings. 7. The Chariot and Horsemen of the Israel of Grace The elder fell asleep in the Lord on the 11th of July, 1993. When they informed me of his death, I felt the urgent need to be present at the funeral service. Immediately afterwards, I wrote an article entitled The Chariot and Horsemen of the Israel of Grace, which was published in the journal Ecclesiastical Truth and was later included as a chapter in the book Interventions in Contemporary Society. The title of the, the piece is taken from Holy Scripture and refers to Elisha's exclamation when he saw the prophet Elijah going up to heaven. Father, O oh Father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen, four kings, or two kings, two seven. This quotation was used because Father Sophroni really was the chariot and horsemen of the new Israel of grace in our age. I wrote in this text about the death of Father Sophroni, which was comparable with the death of the patriarchs and fathers. For that reason, I also called him the new patriarch of divine grace, to the new people of God. I then referred to the funeral service and its contrite and festive atmosphere. I wrote, one saw his sacred remains in his simple coffin. The general impression was that his hand, which we venerated, was like amber, his fingers like bright sparkling beads, for it literally shone, as through the illumination were coming from within. His fingers were the color of ripe kints glistening like gold. I went on to refer to Father Sophroni's spiritual biography, his experience of hell and paradise, and I urged readers to study his writings, which are full of spiritual wisdom. Among other things I wrote, I retain many memories. I heard patristic words from his mouth. I tasted eternal life. He initiated me into the depths of orthodox theology. I felt profoundly moved by his love, which often burnt me, but also introduced me to the inner mysteries of the spiritual life. How could anyone forget the lively theological discussions as we walked along? How could anyone forget the sweet theological words in his office, which you felt pouring over you like honey? How could anyone forget his divine liturgies full of contrition, especially when one concelebrated with him? How could anyone forget his humility, which made one speak in front of him and then embrace him? Father Sophroni had deep humility, limitless love, great nobility, and exalted theology. I have never heard such a profound analysis of the value and importance of the Word of God. To acquaint readers with Father Sophroni's personality, I recorded some of the things I discovered during my long contact with him. Firstly, I ascertained that Father Sophroni combined theology and spiritual fatherhood very harmoniously. He was a great theologian 
whose theology flowed from divine vision, but at the same time, he was a spiritual father who regenerated people in the light of what he knew. Since he was a God-seeing theologian, he also had the gift of bringing spiritual birth to his spiritual children. The next thing I realized was that Father Sofroni took an interest in things that were of concern to people, such as bringing up children and so on. But his noose was on another level, attached to God and free from all imagination. He directed people from another perspective. He came down to the human level and in some way experienced self-emptying and incarnation, but subsequently he raised people up to exalted levels. In this way, we understand the purpose of the incarnation of the word, which was God's self-emptying and man's deification. A third discovery was that Father Sophroni was a Catholic, a universal theologian. His theology was not fragmented. He did not have a theology of his own, but he was inspired by the theology of the Holy Spirit, which has fullness and is the theology of the church. He would speak about noetic prayer, but at the same time about liturgical life. Thus, noetic prayer did not detract from the divine liturgy, nor did the divine liturgy replace noetic prayer. These two liturgies reinforced each other. That Father Sophroni was deified is clear from his written word, which is preeminently paternal and regenerates people from the fact that he is not enclosed within national or any other divisions, and from the fact that his prayers were very powerful and even accomplished miracles. At the end of this piece, I quoted the prophet Isaiah's words, Blessed is he who has seed in Zion and kindred in Jerusalem, Isaiah 31.9. And I expressed my joy that we belong to the Orthodox Church, that we have kindred, in the Jerusalem on high, and seed in Zion. I also stressed that the strength of Father Sophroni's theological message is truly a mighty seed on earth. According to the words of the king, prophet David, his seed shall be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Psalm 112.2. Eight, Elder Sophroni. On the 10th of March, 1994, a few months after Father Sophroni's glorious decease, the theologian and journalist Manolios Melinos invited me to the Church of Greece radio station to speak about this great figure. During the discussion, I was asked various questions about how I met Elder Sophroni, about his wanderings in Buddhism before God revealed himself to him, his move to the Holy Mountain from Russia, his life in Paris, the asceticism that he practiced on the holy mountain, the uncreated light, his relationship with St. Silouan, what exactly is meant by the experience of hell and paradise and how the elder lived it in his personal life, and about my own experience of acquaintance with him. In answer to these questions, I also set out his biographical details, but mostly I described the spiritual experience that he had acquired and which he taught. At the end of the discussion, I was asked to say a few of the things that I had heard from him. Among other things, I mentioned the hypostases, his teaching that the one who beholds God can pass on the experience, so that theology becomes narrative, and that we ought not to spy on ourselves. The value of the divine liturgy, love for monasticism, and keeping the commandments of Christ. Because the day when the discussion took place was Clean Monday, the first day of Great Lent, I was asked what Father Sophroni would have said if he 
had asked him to say something on that day. Naturally, I answered that he would have spoken to us about repentance, which is a basic element of the Orthodox ethos. 9. The person as truth in the teaching of Elder Sophroni. The teaching about the person is an important element in Father Sophroni's theological and ascetical life. God person is truth, as opposed to the transcendental concept of God, and man is a person as regards his salvation and his deification. Father Sophroni spoke a lot about the person. This was the outcome of his personal searching and experience because in his early youth, he had sought the supra-personal absolute in Eastern mysticism. The moment came, however, when God revealed himself to him as person with the words, I am that I am. Thus he arrived at the theology of the person as the unique truth through the experience of revelation. It should be also noted, although he used the term person, he always linked it with the hypostases and referred to God more often as hypostases. When Father Sophroni referred to the person hypostasis, he would emphasize three points. The first is that God person, Theanthropos, reveals himself to man. The second is that God's revelation is connected with man's rebirth. And the third, that the person is expressed as love. In the teaching of Father Sophroni about the person hypostasis, we also discover some interesting personal points contained in various expressions that, that the elder uses frequently such as the hypostatic principle, the suprapersonal absolute, the darkness of divestiture, the darkness of ignorance, suicide in the metaphysical sense, with strong crying, and the dawn of the resurrection. Father Sophroni spoke and wrote about the person hypostasis in God and in man as truth, because for him the truth is not what a thing, an idea or something impersonal, but who the person hypostases. This knowledge is the fruit of revelatory experience. Thus, the person as truth is not interpreted in a philosophical or psychological way, but on the basis of divine vision and revelation. This teaching about the person as truth is significant because it is expounded by Sophroni, a God-seeing ascetic, who beheld God through hesychistic and niptic experience. With the exception of the last, all the above are summaries of texts that I have published in various books currently in circulation. These summaries cannot, of course, cover all the content, and the reader can refer to the books that have been mentioned above and study the texts in full. The aim of this synopsis was simply to mention and put on record what I have written about him. These pieces show that I have had Elder Sophroni continuously in my mind from 1976 until today. I had gained great benefit from his words, and this was a way of encouraging my readers to acquaint themselves with the elder and his theological message. Although I constantly spoke and wrote about him, at the same time I used to stress that I had not repaid my debt. I therefore promised that I would make a more thorough study of him and his teachings. In one of my articles I wrote, Of course, what is set out below does not exhaust the subject, and for that reason later on, I may perhaps publish a more detailed analysis of everything that I learned from his prophetic and theological mouth. The publication of the present book fulfills this promise.